This is Heisenberg. This book contains up to four sides per cassette. Side one, RC four nine six zero eight, The Legend of Luke, by Brian Jakes, illustrated by Fangorn. Text copyright nineteen ninety nine by the Redwall Abbey Company Limited. Read by Brian Kahn. David Palmer was unavailable to continue reading of this series. This book contains three hundred seventy-four pages on nine sides. If you would like to skip over any remaining announcements or introductory material, place your cassette player in fast forward until a beep is heard. Stop at that point to hear the table of contents, or at the second beep to locate the beginning of the book. Library of Congress annotation. Martin the warrior sets out from Redwall Abbey to journey to the Northland Shore, his birthplace. There he learns about the brave and noble deeds of his father, Luke, a warrior chieftain, and he uncovers mysteries about the Abbey's early years. For grades five through eight, bestseller, nineteen ninety nine. From the book jacket, a tale from Redwall. In this twelfth book of the masterful Redwall epic, storyteller Brian Jakes goes back in time to the days before Redwall, revealing with dramatic poignancy the legend of the first of the magnificent Redwall warriors, Luke, father of Martin. Joined by Trimp the Hedgehog, Dinny Formol, and Gaunt, the ever mischievous Prince of Mousethieves, it is that legend Martin hopes to discover when he embarks on a perilous journey to the Northland Shore. Where his father abandoned him as a child, there, within the carcass of a great red ship, broken in half and wedged high up between pillars of stone, he finally uncovers what he has been searching for—the true story of the evil pirate Stoat Vilu Daskar and the valiant warrior who pursued him relentlessly over the high seas, seeking to destroy Vilu at all costs, even if it meant deserting his only son. Brian Jakes reaches a new pinnacle in storytelling, imparting the story behind the story of the greatest Redwall warrior of them all. About the author, Brian Jakes, a legend in his own right, began writing his beloved Redwall tales to entertain the children at Liverpool's School for the Blind. Unbeknownst to him, a former teacher showed one of his manuscripts to a publisher who saw the genius in it. Thus began the Redwall series, of which the Legend of Luke is the twelfth volume. A consummate storyteller, Mr. Jakes lives in Liverpool, where he hosts his own radio show and continues to spin his magnificent tales, creating new chapters in the Redwall saga. In addition to this series, he has written Seven Strange and Ghostly Tales, a collection of ghost stories, and The Great Redwall Feast, an illustrated storybook with pictures by Christopher Denise. Other books by Brian Jakes: Redwall, Mossflower, Matameo, Mariel of Redwall, Salamandistron, Martin the Warrior, The Bellmaker, Outcast of Redwall, The Pearls of Lutra, The Long Patrol, Marofox, The Redwall Map and Riddler. Build your own Redwall Abbey. 
to the memory of Tony Jakes. Book One Martin, Side One Book Two Luke, Side Four Book Three A Warrior's Legacy, Side Eight Reader's Note the maps found in the print edition are not included in this recording. End of note. The young must grow old, whilst old ones grow older, and cowards will shrink as the bold grow bolder. Courage may blossom in quiet hearts, for who can tell where bravery starts? Truth is a song, off-lying, unsung, some mother bird protecting her young, those who lay down their lives for friends, the echo rolls onward, it seldom ends. Who never turned and ran, but stayed? This is a warrior born, not made. Living in peace, I many a season, calm in life and sound in reason, till evil arrives, a wicked horde, driving a warrior to pick up his sword. The challenger rings then straight and fair. Justice is with us. Beware, beware. Book One Martin One Summer's first morn was like no other. Trimp, the roving hedgehog, wandered through the woodlands like one in a dream, drinking in the beauty of moss-flower country so different from the cold Northland coast whence she had traveled. Dew was still upon each leaf, delicate mist tendrils wreathed into green-gold sun shafts twixt mighty oak, slender rowan, and stately elm. Birds trilled sweetly, butterflies fluttered silently, bees hummed busily over flowers, ferns, and lichen-clad rocks. Trimp's heart felt as light as the haversack on her back, she ignored hunger, feasting her senses on the glory of her surroundings and the delight of the new season. Swinging her ash-stave jauntily, she skipped a little jig and broke out into song. You, lark on high, O minstrel of the sky, sing out, sing out. Now sing you joyously to Mother Nature and her earth. This is the golden summer's birth, a wondrous sight to see. Hail, fine, tall trees, your leaves dance on the breeze. Rejoice, rejoice, and sway so gracefully, you'll feel your blossoms soon give way to ripened fruit some sunny day. Oh, please save some for me. Sing out, rejoice, let all who have a voice call out so sweet and happily o'er woodland vale and grassy lea. Good day, my friend, to thee. As Trimp ended her song, a voice hailed her. And good day to thee too, pretty one. She halted at the edge of a ditch. Two sturdy old hedgehogs stood on a path at the other edge, grinning cheerfully. They were alike as peas in a pod. One of them called to her. We'll help you cross yon ditch, missy. Stay there. Taking a few paces back, Trimp winked cheekily at the pair. Nay, you stay there. I'll help myself. With a short run and a hop, 
she dug the long ash stave in the bank and pole vaulted neatly across. Both hedgehogs wriggled furiously until their back spikes rattled, an ancient hog form of applause. Trimp immediately took a liking to the jolly pair. She stood directly in front of them and lowered her head formally, and they did likewise until all three creatures' head spikes touched in the traditional greeting of their species. Introductions were made. Good sirs, I'm called Trimp the Rover. Marm, I'm called Ferdy, and that fattens my brother Cogs, both of Redwall Abbey. Cogs snorted, pointing to Ferdy's ample stomach. I ain't as fat as old Ferdy, am I, Miss Trimp? She giggled. You're as tubby as one another. Ferdy and Cogs exchanged wry glances. She's pretty, all right. Pretty impudent. Aye, truthful and pitiless, just like all the pretty uns. She's thin, though. Do you think she could out pull a log? Miss Trimp ain't thin. She's slender, but strong, I'll wager, the way she leaped yon ditch. She can pull logs. Trimp pursed her lips shrewdly. Of course I can pull logs. I could tow a log with both of you sitting atop of it, if I'd a mind to. But I'm feeling very slender today, owing to the fact that I've an empty haversack on my back. So towing logs means payment in food. Ferdy and Cogs exchanged more wry glances. Miss Trent knows what she wants, don't she? Oh, she certainly does, mate. That og ain't soft as moss nor green as the grass. We'll have to feed her. Only when we gets back to Redwall, though. Then she can tuck into vittles till she's like two of us and's put together. So is it a bargain, marm? Trent banged her stave butt down on the path decisively. Done. Lead me to your log, friends. It was not a very big log, more like a heavy sycamore limb. They attached ropes and pulled, and the wood slid easily along the dewy grass of the pathside. Trimp was full of questions for Ferdy and Cogs. What is this Redwall place, and how far off is it? Ah, Missy, you won't say that some day. Any beast'll be able to see it from a good league off. Right, Cogs? Right, Ferdy. When we gets round this bend in the path, beyond that big grove of oaks, then you'll see it, Trimp. Tis going to be a great abbey, but it ain't properly built yet. Martin reckons three more seasons should see the main abbey building showing its spire top. Trimp suddenly stopped pulling and smote her forehead with an open paw, as if she had just remembered something. Of course, I've heard other travelers mention the great redstone building in Mossflower. You say there's a Martin there. Is he a mouse, son of Luke the warrior? Ferdy shrugged and beckoned her to keep pulling. Oh, he's a warrior, sure enough, Missy. As to his father, I think some beast mentioned his name was Luke. Eh, Cogs? Cogs switched the rope to his other shoulder. Could be, mate. No beast knows much about our Martin. He keeps his past fairly quiet. Mark my words, though, Trimp. The noblest fighter that ever wielded a sword is Martin the warrior. He fears nothing, and battles like ten beasts. Ho, ho! Looky there, Marm. That's Redwall Abbey, see? Trimp's eyes grew wide with wonder. 
Never had she seen anything built on such a grand scale, even though it was still incomplete. The abbey reared out of the forest on the path's east side, fashioned from mighty blocks of red sandstone. There was a high perimeter wall with battlements and a broad walkway behind them. And, visible above this outer wall, the main building stood two-thirds finished. Buttresses, arches, and columns could be seen between the wooden scaffolding. Mice, moles, squirrels, otters, hedgehogs, and voles labored busily, hauling, laying, chipping, carving, and carrying all over the structure. Ferdy and Coggs chuckled at Trimp's astonishment. Oh, ho, ho! Shows what honest, hard-working woodlanders can do when they puts their paws to work, eh, miss? Aye, building Redwall Abbey, a place of safety and cheer for good beasts to live in, with walls that'd stand the worst any vermin foes could think of. Trimp enjoyed the pride in her friends' faces as they spoke of their home. She cocked her head as a hollow booming sound echoed out. What's that noise? Are they doing something special? Coggs winked at her and patted his stomach. That's the call for lunch. We're just in time. The three hedgehogs pulled their log through the impressively solid wall gates, which were opened for them by a mole. He tugged his snout, saying in quaint mole speech, Er, good day to ye. Boy o' key, Bates. Ye little og mate be prettier than both o' you uns. How be you called, miss? Trimp shook the formidable digging claw of the twinkle-eyed mole heartily. I'm Trimp, sir, ten times hungrier than I'm pretty. A deep smile crinkled the mole's velvety face. Girdly pleasure to meet ye, Miss Trimp. I'm a four mole you're about. If any be younger, then fear not. Usins can biddle up to your spoiky tips. <laughs> Leaving the log by the gatehouse wall, the three hedgehogs followed the four mole across broad lawns to the pond, where scores of red wallers were washing their paws before lunch. Trimp joined them while Ferdy pointed out various individuals. That and swimming about is Skipper of Otters, a chieftain. Pretty mouse wife by the reeds is Columbine. Jolly looking beast with her is Gaunt, Prince of Mouse Thieves. And the little one is their son, Baby Gauntlet. Dinny Formole, you already know. The hollow booming sounded out again, and this time Trimp saw that it was made by a squirrel beating on a hollowed section of tree trunk with two wooden batons. Ferdy nudged her. That's Lady Amber, our squirrel queen. Come on, young'un, off to the council afore you sit down to eat. Trimp followed Ferdy and Coggs to the orchard, where tables and benches were laid in an open square. Ferdy bade her stand back until all were seated. The traveling hog-maid could not wrench her eyes from the food. It was like being at the center of a delicious dream. Cauldrons of fresh vegetable soup steamed savory aromas around new oven-baked bread shaped into biscuits, batches, and loaves. Cheeses ranging from deep yellow to pale cream and studded with nuts, celery, and herbs were placed between heaped trays of woodland salads. Small tarts showed the rich hues of damson, apple, blackberry, and greengage through their pastry lattice tops. Jugs and pitchers of ale, fruit cordial, and cold mint tea were being brought to the tables by servers. Trimp held her kerchief politely to her mouth 
lest any beast see it watering. Ferdie tugged her tunic hem and whispered, Come on, missy, don't be afeard. Nobody will eat ye. He led her round to the table nearest to the abbey. A huge ancient badger, bent with the weight of many seasons, gazed at her with kind brown eyes and nodded. Welcome to Redwall Abbey, little one. I am Bella of Brockhall. You look as if you have traveled far. Trim curtsied deeply. She liked Bella on first sight. Marm, I am Trimp the Rover, so traveling is my business. Since late winter, I have been walking from the Northlands. Fourth clans? Did she say fourth clans? Next to Bella, the tiniest, oldest, frailest mouse Trimp had ever seen was sitting in a small cushioned chair, wrapped in a thick warm shawl. The mouse sitting on the old one's other side leaned close to her and spoke loudly. Northlands, Abbess Germain. Our guest has walked all the way here from the Northlands. He turned smiling to Trimp. The hogmaid warmed immediately to the sturdy beast, his strong features and friendly tone. Tis fitting to have one so pretty to grace our table as guest on summer's first day. I'm called Martin. The mouse named Gonf, seated close by with his wife and babe, winked at Trimp and called out, I matey and he's never called late to table. Martin smiled at his friend and closest ally. Ha! Look who's talking! The greatest grub-snatcher ever to lift a ladle! Gaunt pointed at himself innocently. Who, me? I hardly ever touch food, matey. A crust in a beaker of water's good enough for me. His wife, Columbine, adopted an expression of mock surprise. Lack a day. It must be the birds eating all those pies and pasties I'm forever baking. What do you think, Gonflet? Baby Gonflet chuckled uproariously. It's me and Daddy. We pinch a pies and patties off her windowsill when they be's good not. Us eat them all up. Yum, yum. Gonf covered his baby son's mouth amid general laughter. It was his idea, Columbine. He's been leading me astray. Trimp took her seat amid the happy Redwallers. Old Abbess Germain waited until Bella brought order to the assembly by tapping a spoon on the tabletop. Heads bowed while the ancient mouse recited grace in a quavery voice. May good fortune never cease, where we build and till the soil. Mother Nature grant us peace and reward us for our toil. Summer's come, now life is sweet. Food is here for one and all. In good friendship let us eat, as one family at Redwall. Bella served Trimp with soup. Martin passed the bread and cheese. Columbine piled a platter with salad for her, and a charming squirrel called Lady Amber topped up her beaker with fruit cordial. Trimp went at it with the best. Denny the foremole shielded his mouth with a paw, whispering to the skipper of otters, Er, dearie me, I never afore seed no beast tuck into e vittles like Miss Trimp. Zer gaunt be eatin' like e butterfly alongside o' that young'un. Gaunt the mouse-thief wrinkled his nose at the mole. I heard that, matey. Shove that cheese this way and I'll show you what a dainty eater I am. Hoy, Gonflet, get your spoon out of my soup, you little bandit. Columbine smiled sweetly at Trimp. 
Like father, like son, I always say. After lunch, Trent volunteered to help Martin and his friends hoist a roof beam. Skipper and his crew were atop the half-timbered dormitory with mallets and pegs awaiting the heavy oaken beam. The jovial otter jiggled the rope in its pulley block and called down, Ahoy, mates! If and we wait round much longer up here, we'll sprout wings and feathers and fly off. Gov secured the rope to the beam and spat on his paws. Right, mateys, let's send her up with a will. Any beast got a good haulin' river song to help out? Bella held up a paw in response. I'll do grumbledum tug, if you like. A groan arose from the hauling party. Baby Gonflet clapped both paws over his tiny ears. Not that one again, Miss Bell. You always singin' grungledum tugs. Bertie say Miss Trimpy be a good singer. Bella sighed, bowing slightly to the hedgehog maid. Trimp, no beast is forcing you to sing, but it'd be nice if you'd oblige. Do you know any good hauling shanty songs? Trent did, and she immediately sang out in a fine, clear voice. Away-o, away-o, all hard and take her out. I'll tell you of the green hawk and her captain, old Chopsnout. Away-o, away-o, now bend your backs and heave-ho. Old Raynard Chopsnout was a fox, a bad corsair to boot who ran his vessel on some rocks while searching round for loot. Away-o, away-o, now bend your backs and heave-ho. So to the Northlands he did steer, the green hawk to repair. A warrior who knew no fear named Luke was living there. Away-o, away-o, now bend your backs and heave-ho. That corsair came with all his hoard, I'll tell you, mates, tis true. Brave Luke took up his battle sword, and that bad fox he slew. Away, oh, away, oh, now bend your backs and heave ho. Then Luke called up his gallant crew, and Greenhawk did repair. He changed her name to Sena, too, which sounded good and fair. Away, oh, away, oh, now bend your backs and heave ho. So Luke the warrior sailed away, he left the Northland shore, he swore an oath that one fine day, he'd come back home once more. Away, oh, away, oh, now bend your backs and heave ho. The beam was halfway up when Trent stopped singing. Martin had his footpaws dug in firmly, holding the swaying oaken balk steady with the rest of his friends. He stared at the roving hedgehog, gritting from between his clenched jaws. What have you stopped singing for, Missy? Keep on! Tramp returned his stare, shaking her head. But that's all I know. I never learned the rest. Gomp slid forward a fraction as the beam began losing height. Urgently he muttered, Then start from the beginning and sing it again, matey, afore we're all wearing an oak beam for a hat. Trimp sang the hauling shanty, as far as she knew the verses, twice before the beam was safe in the otter's strong paws on the dormitory top. When the others went off to new chores, Martin called Trimp to him. Walking on either side of her, he and Gaunt escorted her across to the gatehouse and showed her in. The mouse thief took flagon and beakers from a cupboard where he had hidden them and poured drinks for all three. 
Many insider, I calls this. Comes from the old place down south on the path, where I live from time to time. They sipped the cold, sweet cider appreciatively in silence. It was cool and shady in the gatehouse after the bright noon sun outside. Martin leaned forward. Tramp, where did you hear that song? My grandmom, Wealth Tip-Tip, used to sing it. She told me that she once knew a little mouse named Martin, too. Was that you? Gazing into his beaker, he slowly swirled the cider. That was me. I am Martin of Redball, son of Luke the warrior. My mother's name was Sena. Strange, I had almost forgotten it until you sang your shanty. Sena was the name my father gave to his ship as well. Being little more than a babe at the time, I don't remember much. But it comes back to me a little now. Tell me, miss, what else did your grandmom say? Anything at all? Holding her beaker with both paws, Trimp sipped and pondered. There were names. Call, Denno, Cordell, and others I can't recall. Is that any help to you, Martin? I'm afraid not. But carry on, please. Hmm, now let me see. She used to talk of old Twula, her drun tunneler, and Windred. Windred! She was my grandmother! Martin grabbed the hedgehog maid's paws. Think, did I have brothers or sisters? A grandsire? What was my father really like? Tell me about Sena, my mother. Even though her paws were hurting in the vice-like grip, Trim's heart went out to the warrior. I can only tell you what I know, sir. Grandmom died when I was very young. She told me that I was born on the Northland coast, but we fled when the slavers attacked your tribe's settlement. Our family moved to the Mid-North Hills. When I became old enough, I left to go roving, and the first place I set out to see was my birthplace on Northland shore. Alas, there was nothing left there of our old home. So I carried on roving until I met Ferdy and Coggs, and they brought me to Redwall. Gonf placed a paw on his friend's shoulder. Steady on there, mate. You'll crush Miss Trent's paw. Martin released her and went to stand in the doorway, blinking to hold back welling tears. I used to know things. I'm sure of it. But after the injuries I suffered battling the wildcat Sarmina, I've hardly been able to recall a single thing. Do you remember Timbalisto? Gonf nodded. He was your friend from the Northlands, who was released from slavery and came here. A good mouse. Martin struck his paw hard against the doorpost. We must have been crazy, both of us. He lived here, yet for some unknown reason we never discussed our past. Poor Timbal. He died the winter following the Great Mossflower War. Donf poured more cider for his friend. Mayhap t'was too painful for either of you to mention what you went through when you were young'uns. Martin stood staring out across the sunlit lawns. You're probably right, Gonf. Perhaps it was. Shrimp, can't you remember any more names at all? The hedgehog maid smiled pensively. Only the grandmum used to say, if we didn't stop our noise and go to sleep, Vilu Daskar would get us. Aye, Vilu Daskar. Does that name ring a bell, Martin? 
No, not a thing. Tis all too hazy, too long ago now. The warrior walked off toward the abbey. Gonth watched him, sad for his friend and the forgotten past. I ain't seen Martin like that afore, miss. Trimp put aside her drink and stood up. Only since I came to Redwall and sang that song. This abbey's a beautiful place, Gonth, but I wish I'd never come here and caused Martin such unhappiness. I'd best leave. Gonth barred her path to the door, chuckling. Sorry, me young beauty, but I can't allow it, and neither would Martin, or any beast calls themselves a Redwaller. Come on now, cheer up, earn your afternoon tea. I'll show you how I collect honey from our bees. You can lend a paw. They strolled from the gatehouse toward the northeast wall corner, where the hives were situated. But I've never tried taking honey from bees, Gaunt. Don't they have a nasty habit of stinging you? What? Sting me, the prince of mouse thieves? Never. Not as long as I can pretend I'm a bumblebee and sing while I steal the honey from under their noses, Missy. Trent giggled. Oh, really, Gaunt? What do you sing to a bee? Oh, this and that, you know. I usually start like this. Ho, oh, fuzz, buzz, buzz, look who's a-buzzin'. Good day, sir bee. I'm Gaunt, your cousin. Trim's laughter mingled with the mouse thief's song on the sun-kissed noon air as they skipped paw in paw across the lawns of Redwall Abbey. Two. In the days following Trimp's arrival at Redwall Abbey, it became obvious to every beast that something was wrong with their warrior. Martin was no longer his customary jovial and helpful self. Often he was missing at mealtimes, and he spent more and more time outside the Abbey. It was a worrisome situation. Martin, the very backbone of Redwall, silent and pensive, with a faraway look clouding his eyes. Skipper and Denny Formal wandered up onto the east wall top, which was an ideal place to view the beauty of mossflower wood in summer. Lady Amber and Coggs were also up on the ramparts. Formal greeted them with a wave. Good day to ye. You ain't seen Martha, have ye? Lady Amber placed a paw to her lips, cautioning silence. Pointing downward over a battlement, she said in a low voice, Martin's sitting down there alone. Skipper crouched below the wall top, shaking his head. So that's where our warrior goes when he leaves the abbey. Still, you can't blame him. Tis a good place for any beast seeking solitude from others. Coggs peeped over at the lonely figure sitting below. I tell ye, friends, tain't like Martin to act this way. He's just sitting there with his back agin the wall, staring out at the trees. What'll we do? Ever the sensible otter, Skipper began descending the wall steps down to the lawn behind the orchard. Come away, mates. I'd hate to think Martin would know we're up here a-spying on him. While he's outside, we could hold a quick meeting with the abbess to sort the problem out. All concerned gathered in the gatehouse. Ferdy and Cog served them elderflower cordial and slices of plum cake. Old Abbess Germain held a trumpet made from a spiral seashell with its end cut off to her ear. Though her body was frail and her hearing none too good, 
the ancient mouse's other senses were still sharp, and her eyes twinkled and shone keenly. She let them rove over the assembly. Bella, Columbine, Skipper, Dinny Formole, and Lady Amber finally coming to rest on Trimp and Gonf. Hmm, my intuition tells me that our guests Trimp and the Mouse Thief know more of this affair than we do, friends. So I want you to speak up clearly, one at a time, please. Start at the beginning. Always the best place to begin. Pray keep silent, the rest of you. I'll hear from every beast in due course. When the story is complete, I'll give you my decision as Mother Abbess, based, of course, on your facts. There were smiles and nods of agreement all around. Even as a young mouse, Abbess Germain had possessed great sense and wisdom. Now, with the experience of countless seasons upon her old head, every Redwaller trusted her judgment without question. They were certain that their beloved abbess could solve any problem. It was late afternoon when Martin entered the abbey by the main gate. He was immediately set on by a group of Dibbons, the infant creatures of Redball. Baby Gonflet was clearly the ringleader, wrestling fiercely with Martin's footpaw until the warrior allowed himself to be laid flat on his back. Martin was immensely fond of the abbey babes, always managing to make time for them and their odd little games. He gasped as they sat on his paws and held his ears. Baby Gonflet knelt on Martin's chest, shaking a paw under the warrior's nose. You be still, naughty mouse, or we chopper you whiskers off. Two baby moles hanging on to Martin's belt giggled uproariously at the idea, adding their own threats. Hee-hee-hee, <laughs> and usin's bitey paws often. Yer, and chucky in a pond, er her her Martin looked with mock pleading at his captors. Oh, lack-a-day, will no kind creature help me? I'm captured by wild ruffians. Have mercy on me, you savage beasts. Baby Gonflet grinned triumphantly at his prisoner. Only if and you comes with us. Keeping up a pretense of fear, Martin was led protesting to the abbey by a veritable swarm of mouse, squirrel, mole, and hog babes. Cavern Hole was a comfortable room inside the abbey, slightly below ground level. Abbess Germain sat propped by cushions in her enormous ceremonial chair surrounded by her redwallers. Ferdy ran up the stairs and back down again, his spikes quivering excitedly. He's coming. The Dibbons are bringing Martin. Agile squirrels scampered about with tapers, lighting the colored lanterns which supplemented the customary tallow candles, lending the chamber a festive atmosphere. In front of the abbess's chair stood a long, solid elmwood table, unadorned and bare. Martin was marched up to it by the Dibbons, and Gonflet raised a chubby paw in salute to Bella. "'Us captured him and brought him here, Miss Bell.' The big badger nodded solemnly. "'Thank you, my friends. Good work. Sit down now, and we'll deal with him right away.' Martin held silent only moving one eyelid to return a wink from his friend Gaunt. He was, however, mystified. Abbess Germain opened the proceedings by pointing an accusing paw at the warrior. What does this creature stand charged with? 
Answers came rattling back like hailstones. Always helping others, defending our creatures with his life, never considering himself, being good and kind to all about him, assisting Abbess Germain to design the abbey, being the best friend a mouse thief ever had, matey, er, and keeping girt troubles to himself. Bella restored order by banging once on the table. She appealed to the abbess. This could go on all season. Pass sentence on him. Germaine's eyes twinkled as she tapped her cane on the chair. Bring in the instruments of punishment. Two trolleys were borne downstairs from the kitchens. One had a big barrel of strawberry fizz and beakers on it. The other, a magnificent three-tiered cake, surmounted by a marchpane figure of the warrior himself. The abbess looked sternly from the trolleys to Martin and announced in a no-nonsense voice, I order that you either eat all of this cake and drink the contents of that barrel, or share it with us before you embark upon your journey. Martin was plainly bewildered. Er, I'll share it with you all, of course. But, er, what journey is this I'm supposed to be embarking upon? Gonf stepped forward, carrying Martin's great sword. It was a plain warrior's weapon, nothing fancy. The hilt was the one that had belonged to his father's old sword, black-bound with a red pommel stone at its top. But its blade was like no other fashioned by a badger lord from a chunk of metal fallen from the stars. Martin took it from Gaunt, his face reflecting in the burnished steel as he said, This has been used for a lot of things, but never for anything as delicate as a cake. Gaunt indicated a spot on the butter-colored meadow cream between a candied chestnut and a honey-preserved rose petal. Cut the cackle and slice the cake, matey. A loud cheer went up as the keen blade slid into the massive confection. Martin the Warrior! Red Wall! Columbine took over the slicing, and Cog served drinks, while Martin sat in a corner with some of his friends, eating and sipping happily. He nudged the mouse thief. Gonf, you tubby rascal! I've a feeling you're at the back of all this. Come on, tell me, where's this journey going to take me? The Prince of Mouse Thieves blew out his cheeks airily. Ha! Huh. You, matey? What makes you think you're going any place without me? I'll be with you every step of the way. Er, sir, and oi, too. You bain't a-going and leaving Denny Formal behind to be. Martin wrinkled his brow in frustration and put aside his slice of cake, which baby Gonflet promptly stole. Look, will you all stop talking in circles and tell me where I'm supposed to be going? Trimp could hold the secret no longer. She blurted out, To the place you've been dreaming of, where your father, Luke the Warrior, swore to return someday. The Northland Shore, where you were born. Martin looked this way and that, blinking. His paws took on a life of their own, fidgeting distractedly. But... But what about the Abbey? I haven't made any arrangements. Then there's provisions, directions, a thousand things that would have to be done. Columbine came over. Wiping cream and cake from the great battle blade with her apron corner, 
She gave the sword to Martin and sat down beside him. No excuses, Sir Warrior. Tis all arranged and taken care of since this afternoon. Provisions are packed for you all, and you've got the entire summer ahead of you. Skipper and Bella will take charge of the building work. I'll look after the abbess. There's absolutely nothing for you to do or worry about. After all you've done for Redwall and its creatures, the least we can do in return is to allow you a trip to the place of your birth, which it is clear you long to see. Martin squeezed Columbine's paw gratefully. Thank you. Thank you all. What can I say? The irrepressible gaunt pounded him on the back. That's easy, matey. You can either say no and sit around with a face like thunder until the flippin' abbey falls down on us, or you can say yes. When do we leave? For the first time in days, Martin the warrior laughed. He backpawed Gonth in the stomach, knocking the wind from him. Yes, when do we leave? Denny did not notice baby Gonflet purloining his slice of cake as he shook Martin's paw with a hefty digging claw. Boy dawn on morrow at first light, Zermatey. Three. Stars paled into the receding night as the cloudless sky turned from aquamarine to soft pastel bands of a new day. Out in the vast leagues of moss flower, birds began singing among still foliage of trees which stood like ancient giants. The sun rose in the east, an immense golden ball ready to preside over the morning and noon. Skipper and Bella opened the main gate wide, and all the inhabitants of Redwall crowded out onto the path surrounding the four travelers. Tramp was sorry to be leaving the beautiful abbey and its friendly creatures. Words of advice and farewells fell thick as leaves in autumn. Fates and fortunes be with ye. Bring me back lots of seashells, Daddy Gonf. Go careful now. Watch your step, Trimp. Aye, and don't let that Gonf scoff all the supplies. Stay away from deep water, Denny. And don't climb any tall trees, mate. Keep that sword close to paw, Martin. You never know. Have you got a clean kerchief, Gonf? I've packed some extra for you. Oh, don't forget your flute. Martin kissed Abbas Germain's wrinkled brow. Goodbye, Mother Abbas. Watch out for us, near autumn. The ancient mouse sniffed as she straightened his sword belt over one shoulder. Come back safe to Redwall Abbey, Martin the Warrior. Redwallers stopped out on the path, cheering and waving, until the four figures traveling north were lost in the shimmering dust. Gaunt strode out cheerfully, calling back to Denny, who was lagging behind at a slower gait. Come on, Din! Keep up, you old wobble-chops! Shambling along at his own pace, the good mole was not about to be rushed. More east, less speed, sir. We'm gotten all e summer aforisons. You only get all hot and wearied, boy, rushing along like ye fussy rabbit. Martin slowed the pace slightly, allowing Denny to catch up. Always take a mole's advice, Gonf. Remember, Denny didn't get to be formal by being hasty and foolish. Their friend's homely face crinkled into a deep smile. 
I thank ye for ye coined words, Marthin. My old grandfer used to say I was wise, even when I was but a infant. Gaunt could not suppress a giggle. Ha! Your old grandfer'd say anything for two pieces of pie, as I remember. Denny nodded sagely at his remark. Aye, and like as not he'd say more for three pieces of pie, if a new madden stolen em first, sir mousy thief. Gaunt pulled a sad face at Martin. Our Denny can be very cruel at times. Martin tweaked his friend's ear playfully. Oh, I wouldn't say cruel as much as truthful. By midday the abbey was well lost to sight. The four travelers crossed the ditch, leaving behind the path and entering the cool green woodlands. Trim scouted ahead a bit and found a beautiful site for their early noonday meal. Dabbling their footpaws in a small streamlet, they sat beneath a willow, lunching on apples, cheese, and honey scones, which they washed down with cold, clear water. Trimp watched Martin unbuckle the great sword from his shoulder belt and lay it down within easy paw reach. Admiringly, the hedgehog maid watched reflections of water patterns playing along the blade. What a wondrous thing your sword is, Martin! The warrior picked it up and held it lightly, testing its flawless balance. Wondrous indeed, Trimp, but you must always remember what a sword is really made for. It has only one purpose, to slay. In the paws of the wrong beast it could become an awful thing, if it were used for evil purposes. As the warrior who is privileged to carry the sword, I am honor-bound to uphold two things, the safety of Redwall and the memory of my father. The blade was made for me, but the hilt was always his. Trimp felt slightly sorry for Martin. This is a long trip we're undertaking, and we have only the words of an old ballad to go on. Maybe your father never really said that he would return, or then again, he may have returned long seasons ago and sailed off once more. What I'm trying to say, Martin, is this. Don't be surprised or disappointed if there is no trace of him on the Northland shores when we finally get there. The warrior patted his companion's paw fondly. I've thought of all that, Missy. Don't worry about me. I've decided to treat the whole thing as a summer journey with three good friends along for the walk. Right at this moment, I feel lighter of heart and happier than I've been for quite some time. So hush now, and don't fret over me. Babbling stream water, combined with distant bird song and insects' lazy droning, soon had the four creatures taking a short nap in the shade and serenity offered by surrounding trees. They had not been dozing long when Martin became alert. Sitting bolt upright, he reached for his blade. Trimp opened one eye inquiringly. What is it, Martin? What's the... The warrior touched her lips lightly. Quiet, miss, listen. Gaunt, can you hear? The mouse thief had drawn his dagger and crawled forward. Crouching against the willow trunk, he strained to hear. Gourds knocking together. Sounds like little drums. Chanting, too. Bit far off to make it out proper, mate. He sniffed the air as if hoping for a breeze. No smell, though, matey. 
Mayhap just as well, too. Martin crouched alongside him and said one word. Flitch-eye? Gonf nodded, still keeping his ears alerted for more sounds. That's what I was thinking. But what are Flitch-eye doing this far south? Martin shrugged. Raiding party, maybe? Trimp looked from one to the other anxiously. What's a Flitch-eye? Do we need to fear them? Martin explained. Flitch-eye are a tribe of ruddy weasels. We don't fear them, but they're within a day's journey of Redwall, so we'd best go and see what they're up to. As they tracked their way through silent woodlands toward the distant sound, Gaunt whispered, Flitch-eyes are a bad lot, Missy. They use powerful herb smoke to stun their captives. You wouldn't see a flitch-eye till he's right on top of you, because they disguise themselves with weeds and shrubs and live underground mostly. Though if this lot are flitch-eye raiders, they'll stay above ground, not being on their own territory. Keep your head down and stay back with Denny, behind me and Martin. Trimp's heart beat faster. She was very excited, but not afraid, with Martin and Gaunt leading away. Skirting a fern bed, they crept up behind a fallen sycamore, and as they stooped in its shelter, the sounds grew more distinct. Voices were chanting in unison, with the thocking noise of gourds being struck rhythmically together. We de flitch-eye, 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 we're a, we're a gonna win a Laura, Laura wars. Thock, thock, a thock, 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 a thock, a thock, thock. Bushes rustled and a few twigs snapped. Peeping over the fungus-ridden trunk, Trimp blinked in surprise when she distinguished the shapes moving against the leafy terrain. Close to two score flitch-eye came marching past, brandishing stone-headed axes and carrying bundles of slender throwing spears. Smeared with plant dye and clad in a disguise of trailing weeds, the vermin were almost as one with their surroundings. It was a barbaric scene, heightened by the sight of a very young squirrel, paws bound and hobbled, being dragged along on a rope of vine thongs attached to his neck. Trimp's eyes began watering as four rearguard passed close to the sycamore trunk, for they carried big earthenware pots on hangers between them, averting their heads from the smoke which wreathed from the vessels. The hedgehog maid rubbed at her eyes, swaying as the smoke fogged her senses. Dinny slapped a glob of mud in her paws, murmuring low, "'Your missy, stick this on he nose and breathe through he mouth.' Trimp did as the mole advised and immediately felt better. She noticed that Martin and Gaunt were doing the same thing to counteract the effect of the drugged smoke. When the column of flitch eyes had passed, the four friends sat down in the lee of the fallen trunk, and after a safe wait, Gaunt indicated that they'd clean off their noses. Martin nodded grimly at Trimp. Well, now you know what Flitch Eye are like, the filthy villains. Did you see the little squirrel they'd taken? Trimp shuddered. Poor little fellow. What'll they do to him? Martin clasped his sword hilt resolutely. Nothing if we can help it, miss. Denny, see if you can gather some ramsons. The industrious mole was no sooner gone than he was back, 
carrying two of the broad-leafed plants, still with their tiny star-like flowers in bloom. Trent took a step back from the pungent, garlic-smelling things. Whew! Keep away from me with that lot, Den. I can't abide the smell of ramsons. Denny chuckled as he stripped the leaves and rolled them into small, solid plugs. You ain't going to like this, Marm, but it could save you life. Here, take these. Trimp's face was a mask of disgust as she accepted a pawful of the reeking wild garlic pellets from Denny. Grr! We'll defeat the Flitch-Eye easily by throwing these at them. What a dreadful stink! Denny passed the pellets around. Gonf chuckled gleefully. We don't chuck them at the Phobist, Missy. We stuff two up our noses and chew the rest. The hedgehog maid looked horrified at the idea. Stuff them up our noses and chew them? You're joking. Martin was already plugging his nose with Ramson's. No joke, Tramp. The garlic odor will overpower the smell of any drugged herb that the flitch eye have. Come on, miss, get on with it. We're losing time. With Martin in the lead, they set off trailing the flitch eyes. Both Denny and Gaunt were unaffected by the malodorous aroma of Ramson's. In fact, they seemed to be enjoying it. Martin endured his in stoic silence, but Tramp felt close to vomiting at the overpowering smell. Traveling silent and fast, they soon heard the phobist up ahead. Dropping flat amid some bushes, Martin, Denny, and Trimp waited while Gonf scouted ahead. Trimp sat miserably in the deep loam, her entire being swamped by Ramsons. Gonf rejoined them, quiet as a shadow drifting over grass. The mouse thief made his report swiftly. They're camped in a clearing up ahead. Some must have been already there. I counted fifty-one, all told, all flitch-eyed savages. Saw the little squirrel, too. They got him bound to a post in the middle of their camp. Fifty's too many for us, mateys. Tis going to be hard getting the young'un out of there. Any ideas, pals? Martin looked from one to the other before speaking. Right. Here's the plan. Listen carefully, because it all depends on pure bluff. If it works, then we get out of there fast. Gonf, here's what you'll do, mate. Four. A mess of bird bones and feathers mixed with squashed, half-eaten fruit and vegetables littered the flitch-eye camp. Around the fire, undersized weasels squabbled and fought tooth and claw over any morsel of food roasting in the flames. One, larger than the rest, his face daubed blue beneath a helmet of ivy and bugloss, grabbed a half-burnt wren carcass from a smaller flitch-eye. Snarling, the owner tried to retrieve his food from the big weasel, who booted him backward into the fire contemptuously. It was an act of wanton cruelty that caused great hilarity among the other vermin, who sniggered evilly as their scorched companions scrambled shrieking from the blaze and rolled about, trying to extinguish his smoldering fur. The young squirrel, who was little more than a dibbon, was trying to shake off the effects of the drugged smoke. He shrank back fearfully against the post he was bound to. Flitch eyes with sharp sticks prodded him and licked their lips meaningfully. 
One weasel took out a blade and was about to start cutting the squirrel's bonds when the big flitch eye spotted him and knocked him senseless with a well-aimed rock. He stood over the fallen weasel, baring his stained fangs at the rest and speaking in his high-pitched growl, Nor a yet! Feed this swiggle! Fatty him up a plenty! He thrust the remains of the dead bird at the helpless youngster, snarling into the squirrel's terrified face. You eat! Come on, eat ye all up! Martin strode nonchalantly into the camp, as if he was quite used to this sort of thing. A puzzled silence settled over the flitch-eye at the sight of the bold, unarmed stranger in their midst. Pushing them out of his way, he went across to the two earthenware pots, still wreathing smoke from the drugged herbs which smoldered inside them. Leaning over, Martin appeared to sniff them both and gave a hard, scornful laugh. Ha! Don't think much of your cooking, ragbags! A gasp of surprise rose from the vermin. The stranger had suffered no ill effects from the fearful fumes. Still shouldering weasels aside, Martin pushed his way forcefully over to the little prisoner. Picking up the knife from the fallen weasel, he made as if to cut the squirrel free. Stop him, a mouse beast! At the shout from their leader, the flitch-eye surrounded Martin, hemming in on all sides. Swaggering forward, the big weasel thrust his ugly face close to that of Martin and sneered, We de flitch-eye, flitch-eye, flitch-eye. The crowd took up the chant, moving around the warrior in a shuffling, stamping dance. Martin waited patiently a while, an expression of bored indifference on his face. Then he pointed a paw at his own chest and shouted, I, Martin the warrior! Quiet fell over the vermin, and they stood still. The leader pointed a stone-headed axe at the lone mouse, repeating Martin's words as best he could. Martin de Hoya! He spat challengingly at the floor in front of the warrior. Martin coolly returned the gesture, looking the weasel up and down insultingly as he spoke. Fish-eye! You de fish-eye! The warrior had anticipated the flitch-eye leader's next move, and he took a pace smartly backward as the weasel swung his axe. The blow was delivered with such force that the flitch-eye could not stop it. He struck himself hard on the shin, cracking his bone audibly. Martin stretched both paws wide. Keeping his eyes on a double-topped oak at the camp's edge, he roared, Red Wall! Hidden by the foliage, Gonf held the sword like a spear and cast it accurately. To the flitch-eye, it was magic. Seemingly zipping down out of the sky, the great blade thudded point-first into the ground at Martin's side. Wrenching it from the earth, the warrior swung it skillfully, chopping a nearby vermin's bunch of throwing spears in half with a single swipe. It had the desired effect. Flitch-Eye scattered to get out of Martin's sword range, leaving him alone by the prisoner. Turning his back on the enemy, Martin gave the little squirrel a quick, reassuring smile and whispered, Don't move till I say, matey. Soon have you out of here. The captive blinked with fright as Martin's sword hissed within a whisker of him, severing the ropes. Whirring bright in the late afternoon sunlight, 
the sword weaved a deadly pattern as its owner wielded it. Martin narrowed his eyes to a fierce intensity, glaring slowly this way and that at the vermin. I, Martin the warrior, we go now. Gently lifting the dazed little squirrel on his shoulders, he turned and began walking from the camp. The leader, his face a mask of agony, limped forward, shouting, Stop a mouse beast! Stop! His cry was cut short when a slingstone smashed his jaw and laid him flat. A female, obviously the leader's mate, dashed forward, but she too was felled by a slingstone which whacked her between the eyes. She fell like a log. Martin muttered out the side of his mouth to the little one, Good old Denny, never known him to miss yet. Then he turned sternly to the cowering Flitch Eye. I go, you stay, Fish Eye, ha! At a nod from him, slingstones poured in from Gonf, Denny, and Shrimp, causing confusion among the stunned Flitch Eye. Back among the shelter of some big trees, Martin passed his sword to Gonf. Good work, mates. But if I know Flitch-Eye, they won't stay still for long. We've got to get out of here fast. Trimp just had time to spit and blow, ridding herself of the hated Ramsons. Then she was running, paw in paw with Denny, Martin leading and Gaunt behind her, guarding the rear. Trees and bushes sped by in a green blur as the rescuers hurtled through the woodlands, with the first streaks of evening marking the sky. Breathless and quivering, they paused at a wide, shallow stream. Trimp stooped and sucked up mouthfuls gratefully. Gonf struck her on the back, causing her to cough out the water. Don't drink now, matey. Twill slow you up. Martin, listen. Flitch-eye! Flitch-eye! The blood-curdling shouts of vermin crying for revenge rang out through the trees. Tapping the back of Martin's head, the little squirrel, who now seemed completely recovered from the evil smoke, spoke for the first time. Chugger not want to get eaten. Quick, run! And run they did. Martin chose the stream bed to make tracking difficult, though it slowed their pace slightly. Pebbles clacked under paw, water splashed noisily around the runners, and sometimes trailing crowfoot weeds tried to tangle them up. Gonf turned at the sound of rapidly advancing vermin as the flitch-eye dashed screaming into the waters upstream. Flitch-eye! Flitch-eye! The mouse-thief held a stone ready in his sling. They've seen us, mates. I'll say this for the rascals. They're good, fast runners. Should we make for the bank and head into the woods, Martin? Martin pressed on doggedly with Chugger clinging to his back. No good, mate. They'd track wet paw prints easily. This water's getting deeper, and they can only travel the same speed as us in a stream. Keep going. Farther downstream, the watercourse took a bend, getting deeper. It was now well above waist height and flowing fast. Dinny grunted to Trimp. I don't like water. I'm girdly afeard to be wet. The Flitch-Eye, who were still in the shallower water, seemed to be gaining a pace on their quarry. Gaunt turned and brought one of the front runners down with a well-placed slingstone and reloaded his sling immediately. They're too close for comfort now, mates. I reckon we'll have to stand and fight it out. Grr, no us won't. 
Look it, we'll be saved. In the curve of the stream bend, a big old crack willow, which had collapsed into the water from the crumbling bank, lay half in, half out of the flow, swaying gently. Tripping and stumbling wildly, Denny and Trimp waded through the eddying swirls, coughing and gasping. The food packs they were carrying hampering them greatly. However, they made it over to the tree and hauled themselves onto its bushy top. Their added weight did the trick. There was a tearing of the last few roots as the willow upended and slid off into the stream. Martin and Gonf were both slinging stones now, dodging the long, thin throwing spears which the flitch eye flung at them. The little squirrel, Chugger, clung to Martin's back, yelling hoarsely, "Throw lots of stones! Don't let a fish eyes eat Chugger!" The warrior looked to Gonf for his sword. It was evident that before long they would be battling paw to paw with the vermin in a life or death struggle. Hurry and jump on a boat now, mates! Denny and Trimp had paddled the tree close up behind them, using long, leafy branches they had broken from the willow. Martin pushed Gonf onto the makeshift vessel and was about to pull himself aboard when a snarling flitch-eye grabbed his paw. For a moment, the warrior was helpless. Clinging with one paw to the tree while being held by the vermin, Chugger scrambled up onto Martin's shoulder. Leaning over, he bit deep into the vermin's paw. An agonized scream ripped from the weasel's mouth as he let go of Martin's paw. Without a backward glance, Martin heaved both himself and Chugger onto the willow trunk. Trimp, look after the little one. Gaunt, you and I'll paddle. Denny, get your sling and give those scum what for. Trimp felt the current pull strongly at the tree. Then they were whipped away downstream, with Martin and Gaunt paddling nonstop. Wedging little Chugger in the sprouting branches up front, she went to assist Denny. The mole was roaring gruffly as he whirled his sling and flung rocks with deadly accuracy. Goober, I'll give ye a billow, you child-eating villains. You'll be a girt supper of stones for ye. So fierce were the volleys of rock and round pebble with which Denny and Trimp peppered the flitch-eye that the vermin waded for the banks, unable to keep balance and throw their spears in the deepening water. Martin chanced a backward glance at their mole friend and winked at Gonf. Look at old Den there, slinging away like a goodin. Watching admiringly, the mouse thief saw one of Denny's rocks take a flitch-eye squarely between both ears. Toppling him from the bank into the water. Aye, matey, that mole's enjoying himself all right. Dusk fell while the travelers made their way downstream, still harassed by flitch-eye foes running along both sides of the bank. Martin peered ahead into the darkness and bit his lip grimly at what he saw. Bad luck for us ahead. The stream is dammed right across. Trimp gave a cry of dismay. Look. Some flitch-eye must have run ahead. I can see the shapes of 'em waiting on the dam top for us. Sure enough, there were several creatures moving about on the dam, shrouded by the enclosing gloom. Denny groaned, "Er, usins be in real trouble now." A hearty voice, quite unlike the flitch-eye, rang out from the dam as shadowy shapes dashed back and forth. 
Whoopery hoo, Cullies! I see flitch eyes. Whoopery hoo! Gaunt began jumping up and down with joy. Cupping both paws around his mouth, he yelled to the creatures on the dam, "Garraway Bellow, you old dog swamper! Tis me, the mouse thief!" A figure hurled itself from the dam top, cut the water neatly, and came swimming at them with the speed of an attacking pike. Chugger nearly fell from his perch with surprise as a large, powerful otter bounded onto the willow as if she had been propelled from the water on a giant spring. Gonf threw himself upon the otter and wrestled her the length of the trunk, both of them laughing and shouting, "Well, frazzle a frog, you old majesty! Good to see yer!" Ha ha! Gunfo me old tater cake! You got a belly on ye like a poison plant louse. What brings you to my neck of the country, Cully? Yeah, we didn't want to come, except that there's more than two score flitchi trying to slay and eat us, mate. Garraway Bullo tossed Gonf aside like a leaf and stood up. She looked Martin up and down, shaking his paw firmly. Struth, I wager you'd account for a few vermin before they brought you down with a sword like that. No matter, Cully, you leave the filthy flitchi to my fighters. Placing a paw to her mouth, she gave a loud, ear-piercing whistle, then called to the otters on the dam, "Whoopery hoo! Tis Flitch Eyes, all right. Go and get 'em afore they run off. Not like a Flitch Eye hide to make cloaks for little uns, and winter's only two seasons off." Otters materialized from everywhere, big warlike beasts, tattooed from ear to tail, and armed with double-tipped javelins. Whooping and bellowing, they took off after the weasels, who turned and fled in terror. The tree nosed gently into the dam as Gonf was making introductions. That there's Denny Formole, the pretty hogmaids called Trimp, and the serious-looking sword carrier, who ain't nearly so pretty as me, is Martin the Warrior, my matey. Friends, I want you to meet Garraway Bullo, queen of all the Nort, the Northern Otter River tribes. Garraway helped them onto the dam. Then she hauled the willow in sideways and lashed it to the timber and mud structure, remarking, "No sense in wasting good wood. It will strengthen our dam. Come on, Gonfo, and bring your mateys too. Seeing as you ain't been ate by flitchies, you must be hungry, right?" Gonf laughed impudently at the otter queen. "You ever recall a day when I wasn't hungry? I could eat a boiled otter right now." But I ain't got the time to cook ye, burly bullo. So lead us to the vittles, boy. Where you think I'm a little flower growing on this tree? Where about Chugger? Trimp rescued the tiny squirrel from the branches, where he had been taking a short nap. He waved at Garraway Bullo. Lo, my name be Chugger. I hungry too. The otter queen swung him up onto her brawny shoulder. Ha ha ha. You ain't backward in coming forward, are ye, Master Chug? Well, I reckon you don't eat much, so we'll find a smidgen of vittles for ye. Though I don't know rightly where you're from, or if in our vittles it'd suit ye, matey. How'd you get caught by the flitch-eye? The little fellow shrugged. I live in a woods with Granny. One day she go sleep. Chugger shake and shake Granny, but she not wake up. So I on me own till fish eyes catch me. But Martin, Trimp, and Gonfo be Chugger's friends now.
You be my friend, too? Garraway Bullo wiped something from her eye with the back of a paw. I'd like to meet the beast who says I ain't your friend, chuggermate. Five. The otter den, or holt, consisted of a spacious cavern dug into the bank, directly under where a massive ancient beech tree grew. Thick, gnarled beech roots, crisscrossing in all directions, formed a ceiling, wall beams, and in places long, stout seats. It was lit by a great fire in a stone-built hearth and mantle, with ovens on both sides and cauldrons suspended over the flames by iron trivets. Otters were everywhere, though mainly babes and old beasts, since the mature males and females were out chasing flitch-eyes. One wrinkled old male twitched his nose at Garraway, putting aside a wooden spoon he was carving. Why didn't you tell me there was flitch-eyes abroad? I'd have gotten me javelins and gone out with the crew. Young snipfer you are. Never tell me nothing. The otter queen inspected his work approvingly. That's a fine spoon, Daddo. You put paid to more vermin than any beast in your young seasons. Better for you to take things easy and whittle nice spoons. We need more spoons. The oldster sighed and resumed his carving. You're telling me, daughter. Tis those kits. They think spoons is boats. Go out a-sailing them and lose them, they do. The little otters, known as kits, were anxiously watching an old otter-wife putting out spoons on the table for supper. She waggled a paw at them. I'll be counting these spoons after, and woe betide you kits if and there's a single one gone astray. Gaunt sniffed at one of the cauldrons a breather face. Smells marvelous, Gaunt. What are bubbling bobs? The mouse thief managed to hook a sip on his knife edge before dodging a swipe from the big fat cook. Well, first you put on a soup of chopped leeks, parsley, and shredded white turnips with loads of secret otter herbs. Then you get a paste made from corn flour, rolled oats, and carrot juice. Roll it into dumplings and press a good fat water shrimp into the middle of each one. Fry them crispy in corn oil then chuck them in the soup. At first they sink, but when the soup starts a-bubbling, the dumplings bob to the top. That's why otters call it bubbling bobs. Come on, let's find a seat, Trimp. Supper looks about ready. Before the meal started, Daddo laid aside his carving and plucked a few chords with his tail on a flat, round instrument, which made a banjo-like sound. He called a garraway. Come on, daughter! Give us your song before the rest gets back. Queen Garraway fluttered her eyelashes demurely and launched into a ballad with a voice that shook the very rafters. I'm bound to sing this song, though I shouldn't really ought. I'm queen of all these otters yet. They call me Queen of Nort? Yes, Queen of Nort. My goodness, who'd have thought one day I'd be a majesty? or something of that sort. But all the otters that I see must bow and wave their tails to me, whilst I just nod back graciously. I'm Queen of Nort, good Queen of Nort. My northern otter tribe live all along the river banks and beat their foes with tails like planks. I rule them wisely and give thanks. I'm Queen of Nort. There's naught I'd rather be, I say to myself constantly. Your Majesty is really me. 
and don't I look like royalty? I'm Queen of Nort. N-O-R-T. May I rule long and graciously. Queen Garraway below bowed modestly as the listeners applauded, clipping the ear of a kit who was stuffing a spoon in his apron pocket and wrapping the paw of another who was making rude gestures at her elders. Suddenly, the pre-supper calm was disrupted. As bounding and hooting, the fighting otters returned, hungry as hunters and flushed with victory. Trimp found herself sandwiched between two husky females who jostled and joked. Ahoy there, mate! Budge over a bit, will you? Yah, go and budge yourself, barrel beam. Eventually, after much shoving and hustling, every beast was seated, and a big, rough-looking, one-eared male bellowed, Whoopery hoo Wheel in the vittles, hard and fast there. Queen Garraway threw him a frosty glance. Not afore you've made your report, Captain Barule. Barule flicked his powerful tail and winked at her. Oh, that. Well, there ain't no more babe-eating, wicked flitch-eyes plundering the land no more. We slew them all. Datto eyed him doubtfully. How'd you know they're all slain? One of the big females called out. Cause we asked them real nice, and any who said they wasn't got fixed up good and quick. This brought roars of laughter from the fighters. Trent shook her head sadly, remarking to the female next to her, How can you joke about killing other creatures? The otter's face became severe as she replied, if you'd seen what flitch-eyes have done to old ones and kits when they raided here in bygone seasons, you'd understand, Missy. Besides, the crew's only jestin' cause they all came back alive and unhurt. This time we were lucky. Those scum didn't have time to sneak up on us with their smoldering herbs and knock us out. So they had to fight paw to paw, see? The bubbling bob soup was delicious as was the riverbank salad, arrowroot scones with honey, hot root celery cream dip, and dandelion cordial. Martin sat next to the queen, explaining where the four were traveling to. Garraway was very helpful. Northern shores, eh? You'd be best to go by water, Martin. Hmm, maybe so. But you've dammed the stream, and we've lost our willow. It's reinforcing your dam, remember? Garraway brushed aside his objections cheerfully. We only dammed the stream to make a little waterfall and a good slide for the kits. Another stream cuts in below the falls. We'll lend you a raft. It'll be easy, matey. The river runs straight west of the seashores, and from there you only have to head north along the coastline. Right, Gaunt? The mouse thief slurped the soup from his bowl. Right, marm. And thank you kindly for your help and hospitality. Garraway whacked him playfully with her tail. Listen, Gonf, you don't get off with it that easy. Come on out with that flute of yours and give us a jig. Er, tails in the stream. Aye, that's what it was called. Gonf pulled out his flute and returned the whack, grinning. You're a wicked old queen, forcing poor travelers to sing for their supper. Right, here goes. Tails in the stream. At the first merry trills of the flute, every otter in the holt was up and jigging wildly. 
Barton, Trimp, and Denny had to climb to a high root perch to avoid the flailing tails and whirling limbs. They sat clapping their paws in time to the furious pace. Chugger was down on the floor with a gang of kits, linking tails as they whooped and kicked up foot paws, speeding around in a milling circle. Even the oldsters danced vigorously. Every now and then the floor would reverberate as otters thumped their tails on it in unison as they sang, Tails in the stream, mates, tails in the stream. No time to sit around the bank and dream. Is it a pike, perch, roach, or a bream? No, tis an otter with his tail in the stream. Whoopery hoo, mates, whoopery hoo. Clouds are white and the sky is blue. Wrap with your tail and stamp that paw. Bow to your partner and around once more. Bread and honey and cakes and cream. Supper's in the oven and tails in the stream. Gonf tootled faster and faster, and the dance speeded up until the entire place was a blur of whirling fur and thumping tails, finishing finally in a glorious collapse of giggling, bellowing otters. Gonf danced nimbly around them, waving his flute and chuckling. Ha, ha, ha! Come on now, you idle lot! Up on your paws! I'm going to play River Dogs Ramble Round! Panting and blowing, Queen Garraway extricated herself from the jumble, waving her paws. Mercy, Gonfo, you pickle-nosed rogue! You'll have us danced out of our skins! Gonf helped her to a seat. Right then, old majesty, sit and rest those ancient paws. Every beast sit now, but leave a space in the center. Hi there, Martin. Get down here and show them the battle-blade dance. Come on, matey, don't be shy. Reluctantly, Martin clambered down and unsheathed his sword. Gonf, I'm sure no beast wants to see that old thing. The mouse thief appealed to the otters. Course you do, mates, don't you? Martin sighed. By the furious applause that followed his friend's remark, it was obvious they wanted to see him perform. Trimp sat chugger on her lap settling down to watch Redwall's champion while Gonf and Denny set the stage. A big red apple was placed on an oaken stump stool, and Denny sat on the floor, an upturned cooking pot in front of him. When he began tapping it with his digging claws, it gave out a sound like raindrops hitting a thin slate roof. Tock, taka, taka, tock, taka, taka. The mouse thief sat beside his mole friend. Taking two mushrooms, he stood one on Denny's head and the other on his own. Then he held his paws straight in front of him, a dandelion held firmly in either one. Gonf signaled Martin with a wink. What Trimp witnessed then she could scarce believe, but it convinced the hogmaid that no beast living could wield a sword like Martin the warrior. Martin began moving slowly at first to Denny's beat, whirling his blade in all directions underpaw and overpaw, around both shoulders and overhead, the sword moved in a slow flashing pattern, humming and whirring, with fire glow playing along its blade. Every beast stared in silent fascination at the wonderful display. Martin skip-hopped, his keen blade tip missing both footpaws by a fraction. Then he gave a piercing yell. Red wall! 
Denny speeded up his rhythm, with Martin keeping perfect time, eyes half-closed in concentration. Redwall's great sword became a blur of liquid light, traveling so fast that it left patterns upon the air, figures of eight, circles, crescents, even shapes like flowers. Tock-tock-a-tock-a, tock-tock-a-tock-a, tock-tock-a-tock-a. Faster and faster the mole's digging claws wrapped on the upturned copper pot. Otters held their breath as the perilous blade sang within a whisker of their faces. Trent nearly bit through her lip at what happened next. Martin gave a wild animal roar and whirled upon his two friends, the blade striking down on their heads, once, twice. Both mushrooms fell apart, sliced from cap to base. Like a living thing, the sword hummed and flicked round Gaunt's paws, lopping off the dandelion heads so that they curled lazily up in twin arcs, landing neatly twixt the cut mushrooms on Gaunt and Denny's heads. With a leap and a bound, Martin was at the big red apple, his lethal blade appearing to be six swords at once, chopping like lightning at the apple. Never once was the blade edge heard to strike the oaken stump on which twelve perfect apple slices lay. Sweeping the flat blade to and fro, the warrior sent the slices spinning into the watcher's laps. Tossing the sword in the air so that it turned on its own length, Martin took a half-pace backward. With an audible thud, the sword came down point-first to stand quivering in the floor. Martin clasped both paws on the pommel-stoned hilt and bowed. The Nort otters went wild. They cheered and danced around Martin and his two friends, lifting them shoulder-high and carrying them round the cave. Chugger was already up with his pals, the kits, stuffing apple slices in their mouths as they cast about for dandelions, mushrooms, and sword-like sticks to repeat the warrior's feet. Queen Garraway Bullo gripped Martin's paw tight, pumping it up and down fiercely. Never seen aught like that on land or water, matey. Ho, ho! Thought you was going to make two moles out of Denny and leave old Gonfo Paulus for a moment back there. You'll have to show me how to do it, Martin. Great thunder, matey, what I wouldn't give for a sword like that and of yours. When the warrior could get a word in edgewise, he shook his head ruefully at the crowd of admiring otters. Please, "'Twas only a fancy exercise in sword control I thought up to relieve the boredom of training. Normally I wouldn't let any beast see me do it, but I made the mistake of performing it once at a red wall feast, and Gaunt's been trying to talk me into doing it again ever since. Gaunt patted his friend's back, obviously proud of his skill. "'Fiddly D, mate, shows you're a real warrior. Huh!' If and I could do that, I'd be at it ten times a day for sure. Late that night, Martin sat alone on the dam. Inside, the holt of Queen Garraway was snug and warm, and he could hear the snores and murmurs of sleep-talkers drifting forth into the soft summer darkness. Martin smiled, recalling how Gaunt had grabbed the sword and told a disobedient gang of kits about a tail-chopping trick he knew for naughty little otters who would not go to sleep. It worked like a treat. They fled to their beds instantly. The warrior stared into the night, wondering what sort of a father Luke had been. He wrestled with fogged memories, confusing the images of his mother, Sena, and his grandmother, Windred, as they merged together in his mind's eye. He tossed a stone into the water, watching the moon-rimmed ripples. 
What sort of place had the far north shores been? Had Luke, his father, ever kept his word and returned there? It was all too puzzling, so he turned his mind to thoughts of the abbey. What would Redwall look like one day when it was finally completed? And that turned out to be a puzzle, too. End of side one. To continue, turn the cassette over. Side two, The Legend of Luke by Brian Jakes. Continuing on page 46. Next morning, Queen Garraway took the travelers beyond her dam. There had once been a broad waterfall farther down the stream, but the damming had cut it down to half its original size, allowing the otters to build a steep mudslide. Squeaking kits, covered from ears to tails in wet brown clay, shot down it like stones from a sling, splashing into the pool below and emerging clean of mud. The friends laughed uproariously at their antics. Trim pointed out one, zooming down backward. <laughs> Look at that little scamp. Bet he'd catch it off his mother if she saw him doing that. With a resounding splash, the little one hit the water, vanished and came up again, washed recognizable. Trimp hid a smile as Denny roared gruffly at the culprit. You're get out in there, Maester Chug. You ain't no hotter. You ma boast to be a squiggle, ye little rip. Chugger wrinkled his nose at the mole. I nor a swiggle no more. Chugga a nodder now. Crafty Gaunt waved to the squirrel babe. Right-o then, otter matey. You stay there. We're going now. Chugger scrambled up the bank and clung to Trimp. Nor a nodder no more. Chugger go with you to the northern seashores. Hurry up, Martin. We go now. Below the falls, the pool narrowed again into the stream. Queen Garraway lifted the fringe of bushes growing on its bank, showing them their transport. Here tis, mates. A stout little raft. Come on, Gonfo. Lend a paw to pull it out here. It had a collapsible mast and a sail, which would double as a tent, plus four long ash poles, paddle-shaped at one end. They heaved it into the water and leaped aboard. Martin shook the Otter Queen's paw heartily. Thank you for everything, Majesty. May your tribe live in peace and plenty here always. The brawny otter grinned cheerfully at them. Thank ye, and may your journey be a safe'n. Go now, find what ye seek, and don't let old Gonfo get his nose into the grub supplies too often. 6. By mid-morning the stream had widened out considerably, Small white clouds decorated the sunny skies, and a gentle breeze convinced the friends they should erect the mast pole and spread sail. Denny was never fond of water, and had to be dug out of the jumble of sail canvas where he had hidden himself. Gaunt, however, took on a decidedly nautical mood, calling out orders. Ahoy, mateys! Rig up that mast pole amidships, will ye? Set yon sail and unfurl her smart-like to catch the breeze. Martin and Trimp chuckled as Denny threw a derisory salute. Aye, aye, Cap'n Gaunt, sir. Do we got any more hoarders for us common water beasties? Hiding a grin, Gaunt called back haughtily. I say, Martin, tie a rock to that fat old mole's tail and chuck him in the river, will you? He's slowing us up. 
bushy-edged banks slipped by, casting lacy patterns of sunshadow on the translucent waters. Trimp munched on a damson scone and sipped raspberry cordial. Ah, this is the life, pals. Ouch! A muddy stick came spinning out of the North Bank bushes, striking her on the cheek, followed by a mocking imitation of the hogmaid's voice. This is the life, pals. <laughs> Martin grabbed a pole and punted the raft toward the South Bank. Gaunt's sharp eyes picked out the culprit. There he is, see, running along behind the bushes. They followed the direction of Gaunt's outstretched paw. A young, gray-brown rat was barely visible amid the foliage. Then it emerged onto the bank, pointing back at the mouse thief and mimicking his voice in a nasty manner. Running along behind the bushes, behind the bushes, hee <laughs> hee. Martin's grip relaxed on his sword hilt. Ignore the little villain. He's only trying to annoy us. The rat flung another stick, but the raft was now too far away from the north bank to be hit. He stuck out his tongue at Martin. Ignore the little villain, little villain, hee hee hee. Chugger looked stern and shook a tiny paw at the rat. Go away, naughty mouse, or I'd biff ya. Martin took hold of the little squirrel, who was about to jump from the raft, and held him wriggling in the air. Now, now, I told you, ignore the naughty mouse. But something unlikable in the creature's swaggering attitude caught Gomp's attention. He stood up. I thought that was a mouse at first, but he's a sneaky young water rat. Look at that thick tail, mates. The rat stuck his claws in both ears and waggled them impudently at the mouse thief, dancing up and down provokingly. Oh, look at his tail, mates! Look at his tail! <laughs> Gaunt whipped out his sling, fitted a small pebble to it, and lobbed it expertly off. The stone, which Gaunt had not cast with any great force, caught the rat a stinging blow on the tail. It leaped up and down, clinging to its tail and howling tearfully. Ow, 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 ow! The mouse nearly slayed me! Ow, 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 ow! Gaunt returned his impression of the whining vermin. Ow, ow, ow! Naughty mouse nearly slayed me! Ow, ow! The rat stopped wailing, his face a picture of fury. You shut your face! Think you're funny, don't you? Trent came to stand beside Gaunt. What's the matter, rat? Don't you like a taste of your own medicine? Be off with you. Go and boil your ugly head. The rat kept running along the bank to keep up with the raft, throwing twigs, mud, and anything he could lay paws upon. But they fell far short of the travelers. He was livid with rage, shrieking out at them. Oh, you done it now. Wait and see. Nearly slayed Riddig, son of mighty Gurfang, boss of all the stream rats. Gaunt fitted another stone to his sling, a proper-sized rock this time. Ah, stop whining and run off home to your daddy. Quick now, or I'll show you what a real sling stone can do. I'll give you to the count of three, rat. One, two. Riddig stopped running and ducked off hastily into the bushes, still calling out threats to his enemies. Don't go to sleep tonight. Better not turn your back. You slaughter all dead beasts. Wait and see. Martin sighed, shaking his head at Gaunt. 
That's all we need. More trouble. First the flitch eye, now stream rats. Didn't I tell you to ignore him? Gonk shrugged apologetically. Nasty little vermin. Couldn't help myself, mate. Trimp was about to agree when Denny interrupted. Burr, nor could I, Marthen, though I'd a gotten the vermin a good crack first time with my slinger. Chugger thrust out his little jaw truculently. And I would have swimmed over and bited his tail off, too. Martin tickled Chugger behind the ear fondly. I wager that would have made him jump, eh, Chug? Personally, I felt a desire to kick that young horror's tail up and down the bank a bit just to teach him a lesson in manners. But keep your eyes peeled, mates. I have a feeling we haven't heard the last of this little incident. The remainder of a pleasant day was spoiled for Tramp. She watched every rustle of bush or reed along the banks, expecting at any moment to see a mob of rats come springing out at them. However, the situation did not seem to bother her companions a bit. Chugger curled up amid the food packs and snored like a holdful of otters, while Martin, Denny, and Gonf chatted amiably, lying back and trailing their paws in the water. Had Trimp observed them more closely, she would have noticed that the three Redwallers were alert as hunting hawks, keeping their weapons close by at all times. Evening fell, and still there was no sign of rats. Martin took precautions by nosing the raft onto a rock, which jutted up in center stream, and making a rope fast to it. Denny fished about until he located a broad, flat stone close to the rock. Hauling it aboard, the clever mole built a small fire on it. Martin chopped vegetables with his sword, while Trent dug out dried water shrimp and herbs from a haversack. Gaunt filled their small cauldron with fresh stream water, and Chugger sat warming his paws by the fire. Martin tossed the vegetables into the pot and wiped his sword clean. A fire at night isn't the best idea in these parts, Den. The mole watched his soup carefully as he stirred it. Mayap taint, sir, but if an any beast be a-goin' to attack usins, they'd do it, foyer or not. Breezes on e water be a bit chill. Not loike a good drop of soup, nice and hot, to keep e warm and appy. Gonf cut a loaf of rye bread into chunks. Can't argue with mole logic, mate. Old Den's right. Denny's soup was good, and they sat around the cauldron, each with a wooden spoon and a chunk of bread, sharing the meal in true traveler fashion. Martin set up two oar poles and brought the sail forward, draping it over them as a precaution against rain during the night. Tramp found a narrow flagon of elderberry wine, and they passed it round, each taking a few sips. The hog made smile. There, that should keep the chills away. What now, mates? Gaunt smiled back at her. Now you give us a song, missy. No, no, my voice would carry over water. Let Denny sing. A look passed between Martin and Gonf, and they both sighed. Never heard a mole sing before, have you, Trimp? No, I can't say I have. Why? Oh, nothing, mate. You sure you want to hear mole song? Of course I do. That's if Denny would be kind enough to oblige us with one of his songs. The mole's homely face creased deeply with pleasure. Her, 
How could I refuse a pretty maid like ye, miss? Then he placed a paw over one ear in traditional mole singer's manner and launched into a mole ballad. Oh, doodlum, roodlum, wordlum day, all on a bright summer morning. Bold Dougal Mole were girtly brave, as I were told by my mother. For maidens boy the score he'd save, like chestnuts, one after another. Each morn he rode out from his abode, a-mounted on a milky-white toad, searching a dangerous forest road, a-looking furry maidens. Oh, doodlum, roodlum, wordlum day, all on a bright summer morning. He spied a girt fat mole wife there, and doffed his hat to her proudly, which frightened the mole wife out in her wits. She started to wail right loudly. He shoved her up on the back of his toad and tried to ride off down the road, but two fat moles was an heavy load, and he toad were crushed like a beetle. Oh, doodlum, roodlum, wordlum day, all on a bright summer morning. Then oop come a good and stoutly mole, he cried. Whoa there, bless my life. There be two villains trying to steal my dear old fatty girt wife. So pulling out a naughty ash club, both toad and doogle he did drub. He gave em black and blue lumps to rub, and his wife gave him cabbage for supper. Tramp and little Chugger were laughing so hard that they had trouble trying to join in on the chorus. Gaunt shook his head at them sadly. Don't encourage him, mates. I've heard that song. There's still another forty-seven verses to go yet. Martin leaped on Denny suddenly, stifling the mole's mouth with both paws. Trimp sniffed at the warrior severely. Don't be so bad-mannered, sir. Let poor Denny finish his song. Chugger and I were enjoying it. Martin shot her a warning glance, his voice an urgent whisper. Don't make another sound, Trimp. Goff, throw some water on that fire, and let's get in the stream, quick. They obeyed Martin without question. Gaunt flung water on the flames, which sizzled and hissed in clouds of white steam. Trent found herself breathless in the cold stream, pulled there by Denny. Keeping their heads low, the travelers clung to the raft. A hail of arrows hit the sailcloth shelter, some zipping through, others bouncing off to stick in the deck timbers. These were followed by a volley of sling stones and a couple of throwing spears, both of which buried their points in the food haversacks. Then there was silence. Chugger clung to Martin's neck, shivering. I cold and wet, not nice in a water. Another lot of arrows hit the raft. Martin stroked the little squirrel's head, whispering softly, Shh, now, Chug. Right, let's swim over to the far bank. Try not to make any splashes. Go easy. As they swam off, a harsh voice called from the opposite bank, Give him some more, just to make sure. Then we'll board the raft and have fun with any still breathing. The travelers made it safely to the far bank. Trent found some dry grass and rolled Chugger in it. Then she joined her friends, watching in the thick bushes by the stream's edge. Swaying under the impact, the raft took several more salvos of missiles. 
Gonf nudged Denny. Do you reckon we're slain by now, Den? Er, them ratters give any raft enough to finish off e Troy but badger folk, I be thinking. Martin began gathering pawfuls of pebbles from the shallows. Let's see how they like a spot of sniping. Wait for my word. Launching crude log boats, the rats made it clumsily across to the raft. There were so many of them that the raft began to tilt crazily. Boss Gerfang, their leader, caught hold of his son Riddig, who was trying to undo one of the haversacks, and snarled at the young rat. Well, where are they, these creatures that tried to slay her? I don't see them anywheres. Riddig cowered under his father's angry glare. I don't know where they went, but there was five of them. Two old mice, a fat mole, a young og, and a little squirrel. They all battered me with sling stones for no reason at all. I was just lying on the bank taking a nap. Gerfang tweaked his son's ear sharply. And you just lay there and let him do it, you, boss's son? Stinking little coward, you make me sick. Riddig squealed as Gerfang stamped on his tail, protesting, I never just lay there. I got the og with a stick and the two mice with big round stones. They can't have got far. A dull thud sounded in the night, and one of the rats toppled into the water. Gerfang turned on the rest. Be still and leave them abersacks alone, or you'll have us all in the stream. Stop rocking the raft, will yer? Thong. Flat. Thwack. Crack. Thunk. Berman let out agonized yells. Two fell on the stream, and the raft rocked wildly as big round river pebbles whizzed out of the darkness, causing injury and chaos. Gerfang leaped with the others into the water. Seizing their log boat sides, they swam madly back to their own bank, peppered relentlessly with stones. No sooner was Gerfang on dry land than the slinging ceased. He grabbed Riddig roughly by the scruff and hauled him ashore, then snapped a willow switch from a young sapling. Two old mice, a fat mole, a young og, and a little squirrel, eh? You rotten, barefaced liar! Riddig danced in an agonized circle, his father holding him tight by the neck scruff and wailing away mercilessly with the willow switch. Yee! Ooh, ooh! I was telling the truth, sir! Honest I was! Ah! Yeek! Yeek! Ow! 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 Truth! You wouldn't know truth if it fell on your head out of a tree, you mealy-mouthed, fork-tongued worm! Gerfang laid on heavily with a switch, punctuating each word to drive home his message. There was more'n five beasts stoning us there, you forty-faced toad! Must have been at least a dozen. All trained warriors, by the way, they could aim and hit so good. Own up now. There was twelve of them. Mostly otters from upstream, wasn't there, you wretch? Tell the truth or I'll flay you. Gaunt twirled his sling idly, winking at Trimp as they crouched in the bushes on the far bank. Does your heart good listening to justice being done, missy? The hedgehog maid listened with satisfaction as she heard Riddick's wails echoing into the night. Wah-har! There was twelve otters beside the others. Don't hit me no more, boss, please. Twelve otters, you was right. Wah-ha-ha! Following this revelation, Gerfang could be heard calling to the rest of his tribe as they deserted him. Where are you lot off to? Get back here! 
Derisive shouts followed his command. Yeah, we ain't scrapping with no twelve otters. Go and fight your brat's battles yourself. Your riddig started it. Donf grinned, stowing his sling about his waist. You know what they say: truth never hurt any beast. Martin unbuckled his sword and borrowed Gaunt's dagger. So they say, mate. But you try telling that to Riddick. I wager he's sorry he ever threw that stick at Trimp. Wait here. I'll swim out to our raft and cut it loose. Next morning, dry and well breakfasted, the friends sailed onward, staying close to the far bank. Summer warmth raised their spirits, with Gaunt confiding aloud to Martin and Trimp. I reckon it wasn't Riddig caused all that fuss, you know. Trimp looked up from the dough she was kneading for lunch. Was it not? Who do you think was responsible then? Denny's singing, of course. It drove the rats wild, and they attacked us just to stop the horrible noise, Missy. Er, mm, terrible cruels are gonfin. My old grandmum always said I had a voice like a lark at first light. Ha ha! That's cause your old grandmum was deaf as a post, Din. Then he continued chopping candied fruit, not raising his eyes. Aye, and thy old granddad allus said you were a most girtly handsome creature. Nice old beast he were. I used to take him for walks lest he bump into trees. Blind he were, poor creature. High noon found them pulled into a shady inlet out of the hot midday sun. Trimp wanted to bake a candied fruit turnover, but she had no oven. With mole ingenuity, Denny solved the problem. He cemented flat pieces of shale together with stiff brown clay and water, making a neat little box, which, with the turnover inside, was placed on the fire. Martin and Gaunt repaired the torn sail, rent by rat weapons. No beast paid much attention to little Chugger. Trimp warned him to stay close to camp, and he did for a while. But while Trimp was busy with her cooking and Denny was digging for fresh roots and vegetables, Chugger wandered off. Trimp called to her friends, "Come on, lunch is ready. Bring your appetite with you." Hastily washing their paws in the stream, they strolled into camp. Sniffing the air appreciatively, boy, Oki, something smells nice, Marm. Hmm, candied fruit turnover, just the thing. Aye, 'tis ages since I tasted fruit turnover. The hedgehog maid had discovered a big flagon of new cider at the bottom of Martin's pack. She poured out beakers for all and laid out chunks of hot turnover on a piece of birch bark she had found before saying. Where's that rascal Chugger got to? Denny shrugged as he helped himself to lunch. Oh, him about your someplace, I spect. You seed him? Martin took a gulp of the crisp-tasting apple cider. Me? No, I thought he was with you, Den. Me and Gonf were busy fixing up the raft. Did you notice Chug around Gonf? The mouse thief shook his head. No, sorry, I ain't seen him. Seating himself, he began blowing on his turnover to cool it. Ha! Old Chug'll soon come running when he smells your cooking, Miss Trimp. You'll see. But Chugger didn't come. They sat and ate lunch, glancing about and giving an occasional shout at the little squirrel's name. Still nothing. 
Trimp was worried. Martin, will you go and take a good look around? I'm sure Chugger can't have gone far. The warrior put aside his food. Let's all take a look. Spreading out in different directions, they began combing the area. Martin and Gaunt went east and west along the bank, while Denny searched in and around the camp area in case Chugger was having a game with him. Trimp ventured alone into the woodland, knowing that Martin and Gaunt would circle inward and meet up with her when they had searched the bank both ways. Tree shelter became thick and gloomy, blocking out most of the sunlight and leaving the depths cloaked in a murky green twilight. The hedgehog maid went cautiously, calling out in a subdued voice, Chugger, are you there, mate? Come out, my little chug. Her voice fell dead upon her ears, with no echo. She felt very small amid the tall columns of oak, elm, and beech. Then her sharp ears began to pick up the odd noise, and she smiled to herself. That would be Chugger, playing one of his little tricks, stalking her mischievously. She decided to hide and turn the tables on him. Swiftly, Trimp ran behind a broad, bump-gnarled black poplar that was knocked flat by the creature that had been following her. She squeaked in fright at the sight of it. 7. The giant goshawk took a pace backward, allowing Trimp to rise unsteadily. From its black hooked talons and bright yellow legs up the mighty body, feathered in brown-tipped white plumage to the mottled headcap, it was the most impressive bird Trimp had ever seen. Twin gleaming gold eyes with savage black pupils stared down at her over a lethally curved beak. The goshawk's voice was rasping, harsh. What doest thou in my domain, hedge pig? Trimp had never been called a hedge pig. Bravely, she decided to retaliate, and swallowing hard, she adopted a stern tone. Not that it's any of your business, bird, but I'm searching for my friend, a baby squirrel named Chugger. The goshawk twitched his head to one side. He had never been addressed as bird before. Prithee, have a care, spine dame. I am called Krar, the woodwatcher. None hath called me bird and lived. Trent became bolder. She stared levelly at the goshawk. Hi, and I'm called Trip the Rover by those with any manners. None have called me Hedgepig and lived, or that goes for spine dame also. It was Trimp's turn to take a backward step. She thought Krar was about to eat her, but a moment later she realized that he was actually smiling at her, an unusual occurrence in a hawk. Thou art a bold beast, Trimp Rover. Thine enemies must be few, methinks, or dead. Say again the name of this squirrel might thou seekest. Chugger. But he'll answer to Chug. He's only a babe. The forest green was blotted out as Krar spread his colossal wings. He touched Trimp's head with a wingtip. Do you tarry here, Trimp Rover, while I make inquiries? Trimp was knocked flat by the backrush of air as Krar flapped his wings and rose among the tree trunks. Leaves drifted down through a golden shaft of sunlight as he shot like an arrow through the woodland canopy. Gonf came trotting through the woodland, catching sight of his friend as he hurried in from the opposite direction. Ahoy, Martin! 
No sign of the little feller? None, mate. Have you seen Trimp? Hi, you two. I'm over here. Both ran over to where Trimp was sitting with her back against the poplar, picking leaves from her head spikes. Gomp stood, paws akimbo, shaking his head at her. Well, missy, this is a nice how-do-you-do. Us two running ourselves ragged along the stream banks and through the woods, and you sitting here cooling your paws. Very nice. Trimp stood up, brushing herself off. Actually, I'm waiting for word of Chugger at any moment. Now I don't want either of you to be afraid. Martin looked about and spread his paws wide. Afraid of what, Trimp? She pointed upward. That. Entering the woodland through the hole he had made in the treetops, Krar Woodwatchers zoomed in like a thunderbolt. All three travelers were knocked flat by the wind from his wings as he landed. Trimp patted one of Krar's talons. Now you'll have to stop doing that, Krar. It'll injure some poor beast one day. These are my good friends, Martin the warrior and Gonf, prince of mouse thieves. Meet Krar Woodwatcher, mates. These woodlands belong to him. Martin and Gonf gulped and bowed low at the same time. Krar closed both eyes and clacked his beak politely, as goshawks do when greeting friends. He turned to Trimp. Thy friend the squirrel mite is taken captive in the talons of laggardly carrion. Crows, I fear. Alas, tis sad news. Trimp was about to speak when Gaunt silenced her with a wink. The artful mouse thief addressed himself to the goshawk, cleverly using the bird's own antiquated mode of speech. Lack a day, Sarah! And thou callest thyself ruler of this fiefdom? Were I in thy place, I'd say fie upon myself, methinks, allowing carrion to hold innocent babes' endurance. Tis not the worthy act of a just lord. Much to Martin and Trent's surprise, the huge goshawk shifted from one leg to the other, his head hanging slightly. Thou speakest truly, O mouse thief. Tis my domain, and twas fitting I stand chided for lack of vigilance. Gonk shook his head doubtfully. I fain would give thee a chance to redeem thyself, Lord. Crouching low, the huge bird spread his wings wide upon the ground, his face a picture of abject misery, his very feathers seeming to droop. Then truly woe betide me, though I crave a boon from thee, Prince of Mouse Thieves. Give me leave to effect rescue of thy vassal, I beg ye. Grant me this favor, and I will be in thy debt from this day henceforth. A wave of pity swept over Trimp as she watched Krar, prostrate at Gonf's footpaws. She could not keep from crying out, Oh, say you will, Gonf! Let him do it! The mouse thief folded his paws stubbornly. Turning his back on the goshawk, he winked at Martin and Trimp as he spoke. Silence, maid! Cease thy prattling! For how doth the prince of mouse thieves know this creature will cleave true unto his word? Martin drew his sword. Touching Krar's bowed head with it, he kissed the blade and announced dramatically, I, Martin of Redwall, do give my pledge and bond that Krar Woodwatcher, lord of this place, will honor thy trust, O prince. 
for is he not a warrior born like myself, and bound in word and deed to protect lesser creatures? Gaunt paced up and down, as if digesting this statement. Then he placed his football under Krar's beak. Say, where is this place yon foul crows abide? A note of hope crept into the goshawk's voice. Some pines in a clearing, right close to here, O prince. Thou and thy friends mayest follow me and watch while I free thy servant. But tis better it be done soon, for tarrying is unwise, methinks. He watched avidly as Gonf nodded. Mayhap tis so. Go then, but hearken. Thou hast this warrior to thank for his surety. A transformation came over the goshawk. He dipped his lethal beak and kissed Gaunt's footpaw. My thanks to thee, O prince. Standing tall, Krar spread his immense wings, saluting Martin, who was dwarfed in his shadow. And my thanks to thee, sire. Kara hara Krar! The goshawk's blood-chilling war cry rang out as he whooshed into the air, bowling the three friends over. Trimp sprang up, pulling leaves from her spines. I wish he wouldn't do that. Gaunt, how did you know he'd act like that? The mouse thief flicked a paw at Martin. Oh, it was easy. I know how warriors think. I've lived with one most of my life, haven't I, matey? Martin tweaked his friend's tail. Cut the chatter or we'll lose sight of Krar. Running as fast as they could, the friends kept Krar in sight as he winged slowly along, just beneath the treetops, taking care not to lose them. After a while, they saw a broad green hillock thrusting itself above the woodland. At its top was a pine grove. Krar swooped down, landing alongside Gaunt. Yonder lies the carrion stronghold, O prince. I pray thee, make no move. We have been seen. As he spoke, a crowd of gray-black crows of the hooded variety came fluttering out of the pines like ragged, dark pieces of cloth blown on the wind, coming to rest on the level sward below the hill. Their bold, harsh chatter filled the air as they swaggered forward to meet the interlopers, wings folded, beaks thrust forth aggressively. In a less fraught situation, the sight of their curious rolling gait might have been comical, but these were savage birds who brooked no trespassers on their land. Krar whispered, Bide here, friends. Warrior, keep thy blade ready. Now I will go hence and parley, for I know the carrion tongue. He strode out, erect and disdainful, and a big crow, far heavier than the rest, waddled forward to meet him. At a point between the crows and the travelers, both birds halted. Eye to eye they stood, beaks almost touching. The crow leader hit the soil several times with his beak casually, as if showing his contempt by digging for worms. He made harsh cawing noises. Craw, racker, chacker, crock, crock. The goshawk rapped sharply back at him. Rack, racka. The crow gestured carelessly with one wing. Knack, rack. Evidently, it was not the answer Krar desired. The goshawk made his move without a moment's hesitation. Charging forward, he slammed the crow to the ground with a ferocious headbutt 
and began hammering him ruthlessly with beak and talons. Cawing and hopping about excitedly, the Crow gang called out encouragement to their leader, but he did not possess the warrior's heart or ferocity of the goshawk. It was over in a trice. A few long gray-black feathers flew in the air, and the Crow leader lay defeated. With sharp pecks and talon scratches, Krar forced the Crow to stand. The brave goshawk rapped out a command at his beaten foe. Shabarag! Humiliated, the crow turned to face his gang, spreading his wings limply and dropping them so they trailed upon the grass. Trent nudged Martin. I know Krar has won, but what's he doing? The warrior had understood it all. He knew. Those feathers that you see are the crow's pin feathers. Krar ripped them out. That crow will never be able to fly again. Krar forced him to show his wings to the others as a warning. Hush now, Trip. I want to see what happens next. The goshawk took to the air. Sailing over the heads of the crows, he winged upward, landing in the biggest nest atop the highest tree. A female crow shot out of it with a terrified squawk. Krar dipped his beak into the nest and came up with an egg in it. He put the egg back. Spreading his wings, he flapped them, screeching harshly at the crows. Then, with a powerful thrust, he ripped a chunk from the nest with his talons and cast it down to earth. Pandemonium broke out down below. The crows dashed into the pine grove, cawing and leaping about in distress. Martin spoke as he watched them, having interpreted the goshawk's move. He's threatening to rip all the nests to shreds, starting with the crow leaders, unless they bring out Chugger. Watch. Tramp! Gonf! It's me, Chug! Here I are! Dashing out of the pine grove, with the crows behind shooing him on, Chugger hurtled forward, tripping and rolling down the hill, giggling as he went. Hee hee hee! Yah, yah, old feathery bums! Trimp swept him up into her paws, kissing the little fellow and lecturing him at the same time. Such language, Master Chug. Thank the seasons you're safe. Why did you go wandering off like that, eh? Oh, my little Chug, you had us worried to death. Chugger threw his tiny paws wide, grinning broadly. See? It me, Chug. I nor herded. Big birds frightened of me. I smack-a-smack at them with big sticks. Oh, yes. Gonf hugged Chugger fondly, then turned stern. You little fibber. Smackin' crows with big sticks, indeed. But let me tell you, bucko, remember what Gurfang did to young Riddig, eh? Well, any more fibs and run off when you are told to stay near camp, and you'll get the same off me. Chugger hid his face in Trim's tunic and sulked. Martin threw a paw about Gonf's shoulders. Big old softy, I'll wager you wouldn't have the heart to lay a paw on Chugger, would you, oh prince? The mouse thief struck a regal pose looking down his nose. Oh, I don't know. You'd be surprised what us royal types can do when we're in the mood. I usually have any mouse who leans upon me beheaded, so remove your paw, common fellow, afore you incur me wrath. Martin looked at Trimp in mock horror. Such an air of command these royal ones have about them. The hedgehog kicked Gonf lightly in the tail. Yes, O oh prince, 
It's your turn to cook the supper when we get back to camp. Krar landed in their midst, managing not to knock any beast over with his giant wings. He gestured with his beak. Best we be gone from this place. Methinks there be but one of me and too many of yon carrion. Let us away now. 8. As there was still plenty of daylight left, the travelers opted to sail farther rather than lie about in camp. Krar woodwatchers saw them off on the stream bank. Fare thee well, O prince of mouse thieves, fortune go with thee. Thou wilt not see me, but I will guard the air and watch o'er thee till thou art gone from my domain. Be you subject to thy prince's commands, and behave thyself, squire Chug, or I will give thee back to yon carrion. Fortune attend thee, Dane Trimp, my friend. Thou too, good Dinny, and thee, Sir Martin. I'll not lightly forget that ye forswore thine honor for me. Go now, good beasts. Chugger began weeping as they sailed off downstream. Waha! Chug not want Crar to be gone. Martin let the little fellow work one of the paddles. Crar isn't gone, Chug. He's watching over us, even though we can't see him. Give him a wave. Go on. Chugger waved a chubby paw and felt somewhat better. As the warrior held the paddle with the squirrel babe, he explained as best he could. Sometimes friends do go from us. It will happen more and more as you grow up, Chug. But if you really love your friends, they're never gone. Somewhere they're watching over you, and they're always there inside your heart. Toward evening they saw a fire glow in the distance. With complete silence and great caution, the friends approached it, hoping that if it were any beast hostile, they might slip by unnoticed. But as a voice raised in song echoed on the dusky air, Gaunt relaxed, chuckling. I'd know that barrel-bellied baritone anywhere, mates. Now there's a fine voice for you, but don't tell him I said it. Har! <laughs> Listen to him, will you? It was a fine voice, more bass than baritone. Deep and rich, it thrummed out over the babbling stream noises. Oh, rum-tum-toe, fala-diddle-doe, me boots are full of water, and the bread won't rise, so I'm scoffing apple pies and swiggin' good dark porter. Oh, bless my fur, and you sit over there. There's honey cake and salad, and you got no choice but to listen to me voice as I sing you this ballad. A look of pure mischief spread across Gon's face. Cupping both paws around his mouth, he sang out in a perfect imitation of the singer's deep voice. Oh, you sit there, and I'll sit here, and I won't hear your ballad, but I'll scoff your pie, and I'll look ye in the eye, with my ears stuffed full of salad. From around a bend in the bank, a small, neat log boat came shooting out, propelled by a fat shrew with an ash stave. Trent knew that shrews were usually aggressive and short-tempered, but this one was different. He performed a joyful jig at the prospect of company. It came as no surprise that the shrew and Gonf knew each other. As the former leaped aboard the raft, they pounded backs and shook paws. Log a log, Fermo, you pot-bellied son of a water walloper. As soon as I clapped ears on that warblin', I knew twas the best ballad singer this side of Mossflower.
Pahar, gonf mouse thief, ye light pawed rogue. If I hadn't have knowed that was you singing back at me, I'd have thought twas meself. Pull over to the camp and bring your pals with you. Supper's on the go. Ahoy, Martin, is it really yourself, warrior? Good to see you, matey. Denny tapped the shrew chieftain with a digging claw. Don't he know I, sir? For I'd know he from a buddy fly. Logalog Fermo stood back, rubbing his eyes. Well, sink me a log. Is that the slim young mole I once knew as Denny? What happened, mate? Is there another beast inside that skin with ye? Denny chuckled, patting his ample form. Nay, sir, log. I just growed more bootiful and girtly strong since you ain't been round to rob my vittles. Fermo turned to Trimp. And what is a gentle hog made like you doing with such rogues? Trimp smiled. Keeping them in order. I'd best watch my manners then, I'm thinking, laughed Fermo. The Gorilla Union of Shrews in Mossflower, Guasim for short, had always been headed by one traditionally named Logalog. They ranged all the waterways in their log boats, a great tribe of them. Trimp was almost half a head taller than most of them. Small, spike-furred, long-snouted shrews with brightly colored headbands and rapiers tucked in their belts watched as the newcomers made their way to the fire. Logalog introduced them as friends, reassuring his band. Guasim shrews are excellent cooks, as the hedgehog maid soon discovered. Their apple and blackberry crumble was pure delight to taste. Two Guasim cooks stood over Trimp, watching anxiously as she sampled some, inquiring gruffly, Good crumble, that. Made it ourselves, you know. Aye, to our own recipe. You like it, marm? Trimp's smile would have charmed the birds out of the trees. It's perfect, thank you. I've never tasted a crumble in my life that could compare with it. Beautiful. Unused to such compliments, the shrew cooks kicked their foot paws bashfully and began serving more food, calling to one another in bass growls to hide their embarrassment. Oi, Rugger, pour some pear cordial, will ye? Aye, and give her some shrew cheese and watercress. Look after poor little chugger, will ye, Bindle? Pour some money o'er the babe's hazelnut puddin'. Some stream-side salad and you baked cornbread for you, marm. Logalog Fermo smiled at the attics of his younger shrews, trying to impress the travelers with their hospitality, particularly Trent, for it is a fact that the Guasim had always been partial to a pretty face. Fermo passed Martin and Gaunt a tankard of shrew porter apiece, saying, Ha-ha! Young Trimp's gotten her paws well under the table there. They'll feed her till she bursts. Some of the little shrews had never seen a mole before, and they crowded around Denny, haranguing him as he ate. Does all moles have softy nice fur like you, Mr. Diggy? Oh, yes, my dearies. Usins keeps it soft by eating oop all us vittles like good beasts. You must be the goodest mole of all, Mr. Diggy, cause you be eating a horful big lot of vittles. Er, her, thank ye, youngin. I expect I am. You got very big, big claws, Mr. Diggy. What they for? A kindly shrew mom rounded the little ones up. Don't you be asking Mr. Denny foolish questions now. 
Leave him in peace to eat his supper. Bedboat's for you. Tis late. Martin was relating the object of their journey to Fermo when the shrew mum stole up and whispered in the shrew chieftain's ear. He excused himself, explaining, We'll talk later, friend. I've got to sing the little uns off to sleep. Won't be long. Moored to the bank was a log boat, padded thickly with warm cushions and blankets. The shrew babes lay in it, rocked by the motion of the water, as their log-a-log sang them to sleep in his melodious deep voice. The stream flows by and time rolls by. Now daytime flies, so close those eyes. It's been a long day, little one, little one. Small birds now slumber in the nest and fishes in their stream. No night has come to send us rest and give to all a wondrous dream. All night hours go so soft and low. The lazy stream runs calm and slow. It's been a long day, little one, little one. Our weary world is waiting soon. Bright stars will pierce the sky as silent as the golden moon that sheds her light on you and I, and when the darkness drifts away, some lark up high will sing and say, Oh, welcome to a newborn day, my little one. Gaunt crept up, carrying Chugger. The squirrel babe was fast asleep. Sliding him aboard the log boat with the dozy little shrews, Gaunt patted his friend's shoulder. Wish we could take you all the way with us, Fermo mate. Old Chug went out like some beast had whacked him with a sling stone once you started singing. How'd you do it? Log-a-log Fermo shrugged, gesturing at the log boat. I've had plenty of practice, mate. Eight of them are mine. It was about an hour after dawn when Trimp opened her eyes. The previous night had been a late one, with lots of good shrew food, singing, storytelling, and even a bout of tail-wrestling by the two lithe young goo-awesome shrews to impress her. Some shrew cooks were up and about, rekindling the fire and preparing breakfast. The Guasim were very fond of sizable breakfasts when they were at summer camp. Feigning sleep, the hedgehog maid peeped out from under her blanket, savoring the day. Downstream looked like a long, winding green hall, with alder, bird cherry, and weeping willow trees practically forming an arch over the sun-dappled stream, which was bordered by bright flowering club rush, sedge, and tway-blade. Blue and pearly-gray, the fire-smoke hovered, making gentle swirls between sunshine and shadow in diagonal shafts. Snatches of murmured conversation between early risers were muted in the background, with the sweet odors of smoldering peat and glowing pine bark on the fire. Tramp wished that she could stay like this forever happy amongst true friends in tranquil summer woodlands by a stream. Oatmeal and honey, fresh fruit and hot mint tea, marm. It was the two shrew cooks from the previous evening, tempting her to partake of breakfast. Trimp needed no coaxing. She sat up gratefully, wondering how one night's sleep could leave her with such a fine appetite. Thank you, friends. My word, this looks delicious. Gonf and the log-a-log were in friendly dispute as they broke their fast. Hearken to me, mousy thief. We're sailing with you, at least as far as the seashore, and that's final, mate. No, no, Fermo, we wouldn't think of pulling ye away from your summer camp. 
We'll be all right traveling on alone. Ha! Will you listen to the mouse turning down an offer of safe voyaging in convoy? He's mad, Martin. Tell him. Wiping wild plum juice from his paws, the warrior agreed. Safety in numbers, Gonf. I'm all for it. Where's your manners, mate? Do you want to offend Logalog Fermo by refusing his kind offer? Ignore him, Fermo. I accept. Denny and Chugger seconded the Red Wall champion. And I accept too, as well and all, Mister Shoe. Er, I too, sir. He shrews be good company and good cookers. Er, I. Trimp licked her oatmeal spoon and held it up. That goes for me too. Unless Gonf wants to do all the cooking and paddling aboard that raft, the Prince of Mouse Thieves clapped the Guasim leader's back. Quit your arguing, matey. Tis no good what you say. You're going with us, like it or not. See, you're going. A real shrewish voice rang out. Fermo's wife, Honeysuckle, bustled up, waving a ladle. She was bigger than him and had a temper that none could match on land or water. Going, going where, may I ask? Even though he was a chieftain, Fermo wilted under her fierce eye and sharp tone. Or just down the stream a piece, my fragrant wood rose. Gonf interrupted, standing between both shrews. Ah, honeysuckle, you delightful morsel! We've asked your husband to accompany us with some of his shrews to show us the way and guard us against attack. But of course, he says he can't possibly leave your side on such a foolish errand. Not that I blame Fermo. Any beast leaving a dark-eyed beauty like you to go off sailing, ah, uh, he'd be out of his mind, mad as a frog and daft as a bluebottle. Lips pursed grimly. Honeysuckle waggled the ladle under Fermo's nose and spoke threateningly. And you, you great lazy lump! You said you wouldn't go, eh? But Pedal, how can I leave you and all the little ones? Fermo winced. His wife had hoisted him upright by one ear. In the boat, log a lazy pause this instant. You guasim there, what are you standing grinning about, eh? Now get those log boats ready to sail now, while I'm still in a good mood. Shift your moss-bound behinds. Four log boats were lashed to the raft sides, each with six guasim paddlers. Honeysuckle tossed supplies aboard with furious strength and energy. Gonf murmured under his breath as Dinny dodged a sack of vegetables. Matey, I'd hate to see her in a bad mood if this is one of her good moods. Honeysuckle scowled at him. What was that you said? The clever mouse thief gestured at the provisions. I was just saying, Marm. After so much bad food, tis nice to see some good food. She pointed a warning paw at the pair. Don't let me hear of you two wasting any. Denny tugged his snout respectfully. Er, how could usins be a wasting vittles loaded aboard by such a fur paw as yourn, my good booty? Honeysuckle dipped the mole a deep curtsy, actually smiling. Why, thank ye, Sir Mole. What a gallant thing to say! Halfway downstream, between the camp and the next bend. Log a log sighed with relief and shook Denny warmly by the paw. You clinched it, Din. All that fair paw and great beauty stuff. Where'd you learn it? 
The mole twitched his nose at Tramp. Burr, I didn't learn nothing, sir. I'm just a regular silver-tongued mole rogue. Bain't I, Miss Tramp? The hedgehog maid twitched her nose back at him. Aye, especially when it comes to lapping up oatmeal and honey you are. Great fat fraud. Fermo did a perfect imitation of his wife's voice. One more remark like that, young og, and I'll wrap your ears with my pudding spoon. That mole's a real gentle beast. Meandering happily down the broad waterway through the sun and shade, the travelers and their shrew friends jested and chuckled at each other. A water meadow appeared on their left about midday. The Guwasim had ceased paddling because the current was carrying them along with sufficient speed. All aboard both raft and log boats sat admiring the serene beauty as Logalog pointed out its features. Looks peaceful, don't it? But mark my words, mates, midst all that brookweed, water lilies, crowfoot, and gypsy wart, there's more skeeters than you could shake a stick at. Mayfly, caddisfly, stonefly, alderfly, pond skaters, big lace wings, and, of course, the old emperor dragonflies. Makes it a rare old fishing spot. Fish all come there to hunt the flies. Gaunt winked craftily at the shrew. Aye, and Guasim go there to hunt the fish, I'll wager. A sturdy old shrew elder snorted at the mouse thief's remark. You're joking, of course. There's eels and pike in there longer in a log boat. "'Tis them to be hunting us if in shrews was fool enough to try fish in that water meadow. Logalog pointed downstream. "'Look, there's dragonflies coming up this way. They ain't tarrying either. Wonder what's upset them. A half-dozen of the huge insects came straight at the raft, suddenly veering off into the water meadow, their iridescent wing-backs and black-green banded bodies making a brave sight. Logalog addressed Martin. Something's upset the dragons. We'd best be on our guard, especially when we round that bend ahead. There's a creek to one side of it. Stay on the alert, Guasim. Trent sat in the center of the raft, holding on to Chugger. Half the shrews took to paddling the log boats lashed to the raft sides. The rest joined Martin, Logalog, Denny, and Gaunt, who stood forward on the raft, weapons close to paw. As they rounded the bend, it became only too clear what danger they were in. Like some fantastic snowstorm, a male swan came billowing out of the creek entrance. The sight of it took Trent's breath away. Spreading awesome wings, the colossal bird reared out of the water, its long neck bent, hissing loudly like a serpent. Logalog roared at the paddlers, Backwater! Backwater, Guasim! Furiously, the shrews back-paddled against the current, but the raft's stern hit the bank on the bend's in-curve and lodged there. The elder shrew seized a long paddle and bravely swung it at the swan, sizing up the situation for his companions as he did so. He's a mute swan. Probably the females garden her young up that creek, and this feller thinks we're going to earn him. Looks fairly mad to me. Ain't going to let us pass or retreat. This is his stretch of water and he'll protect his family in this area with his life, mates. Though they were in great danger, Martin could not help admiring the giant bird. 
with its tough orange beak, which had a hard black lump at its base, and its neck thick as a rowan sapling, the mute male swan was a fiercely wondrous sight, snow-white, with wings powerful enough to cripple and kill an adversary. The warrior picked up a paddle to fend it off, knowing that he had not the heart to kill or injure such a magnificent creature with his sword. However, the swan had no such finer feelings, but came at them hissing and making a peculiarly strange squeak, far out of character given his bulk and ferocity. Gomp swung his paddle. A gigantic wing descended on him, snapping the paddle like a twig and buffeting him from the raft into the water. Martin's paddle clacked hard against the bird's beak, sending a jarring pain through his paws, and the swan came at him. Denny caught it a hefty blow in the neck, which merely seemed to bend gracefully under the impact. Two shrews were swept off into the water by another clout from the swan's wing. It reared high and gripped the raft timbers in its wide webbed claws, trying to hoist itself aboard. Trimp and Chugger slid backward, yelling, as the raft began tilting with the swan's weight pressing on its front end. Martin grabbed his sword and held it up quickly, so that the swan's beak hit it with a loud echoing sound. Pang! No beast was expecting what happened next. Something hit the swan's head like a stone, sending a cloud of small white feathers into the air. There was an ear-splitting screech from above. It was Krar, Woodwatcher. The courageous goshawk came in for another dive, even though it must have been dizzy from the first blow. The swan swung its beak and retaliated. There was a thudding noise as both birds struck one another simultaneously. Krar landed in a heap on the raft. Savagely shaking off Denny, who was trying to help it recover, the goshawk struggled upright, panting, Use thy raft poles and get thee off downstream. Hasten now while I hold off yonder battler. Krar launched himself into the attack once more. Feathers flew amid the hissing and screeching. Stream water was thrashed into foam. Leaves and branches showered wide. Punting the raft out from the bank, while shrews either side paddled madly, they skimmed out under the arch formed by the swan's neck and Krar's wings, into the midstream current and off down the waterway. Still paddling and poling with great vigor, they turned their heads to see what the outcome would be. Krar Woodwatcher was as brave and hard a fighter as the swan, but not so foolish. The moment he saw every beast was out of danger, he zoomed off into the woodlands to nurse his bruises, leaving behind a bewildered and still angry mute swan. Trim could not stop herself from trembling as she called out, He's coming after us! The swan's coming after us! Logalog gritted his teeth. Don't look back, mates. It'll slow us down. Keep paddling fast as you can. The swan'll only follow us to the edge of his territory. Then he'll go back to guard his family. The shrew's prediction proved true, though it gave them a hair-raising moment. The swan came after them in no uncertain fashion. It was almost upon the raft, hardly two logboat lengths from it, when suddenly it gave a final hiss and turned about, traversing back upstream lest any other intruder had shown up to menace its brood. With a sigh of relief, the friends collapsed to the deck, shaking all over from exertion and the shock of the swan's attack. 
The irrepressible Gonf grabbed the sailcloth, holding it wide and flapping his outstretched paws at Trent. What's the matter, matey? Never seen a swan before? The hedgehog maid hooked a paw under the teaser and pulled him flat on his tail. Oh, I've seen a swan all right, Gonf, though if I never see another one in my life, it will be too soon, thank you. Through the thinning trees, Denny scanned the sky. Er, where be Auckbird gone? Martin indicated the changing terrain. We're coming out of the woodlands, Den, leaving Krar's territory too, I imagine. I wish I could have thanked him. What a great fight he put up on our behalf. I'll never forget that brave bird. Never. 9. Once they left the trees behind, there was very little shade. The water became deeper, the current more sluggish. Throughout a long, hot day, the travelers did their share, taking turns to relieve the Guasim paddlers. Only little Chugger seemed unaffected by the blistering heat. With a damp, shrew headband bound around his brow and an ash twig in his paw, he cavorted and leaped everywhere, doing battle against a score of imaginary swans. No sooner had shadows begun to lengthen than Logalog shipped his paddle, calling out the order they were all waiting upon. Pull into that curve on your right, mates. We'll rest there and camp until tomorrow. Gratefully, Trimp watched their lumbering craft nose into the shallows of a cove. It had a good flat bank and protruding rock ledges to provide much-needed shade. Guasim cooks immersed canteens of drinks in water which was cool and shaded by the overhang. Some went out scouting for fresh food. Others began preparing a meal from their supplies. Eyeing their leader hopefully, the rest sat on the raft in silence awaiting his command. Logalog Fermo wandered up and down the bank, peering into the crystal-clear water. He scratched his chin, as if undecided, then wagged a cautionary paw at his crew. No further in the end of that raft now. Stay out of the current and deep parts, and keep close to the bank. I don't want to carry back news of any drowned Guasim to your kin. Before he had finished speaking, several of the younger shrews hurled themselves, yelling, into the stream. Yahoo! Jumping ashore to avoid the splashes of the bathing party, Logalog shook his head at Martin. Look at him, like a flippin' shower of dibbins. A secret wink passed between Gonf and Martin as the warrior shrugged free of his sword and belt. Grabbing Logalog between them, they leaped into the water. The shrew chieftain surfaced breathless, blowing spray from both nostrils. Ah, you rotten, horrible creatures! What'd you do that for? Gaunt flung himself on Logalog and ducked him. Get out, you old fogey! You were dying for a play in the water, weren't you? Logalog swam deftly out of the mouse thief's reach. Of course I was, mate. But don't tell my shrews that. I'm supposed to be a serious leader who acts responsibly. He sank beneath the surface again as Chugger landed on him. You nor a leader, you a big fish. Chugger want to ride on you back. Come on, fishy. Hop, hop. Gara, move on. Every beast had tremendous fun in the stream, laughing and splashing, ducking and diving, and behaving exactly as Logalog had said, like a shower of dibbons. However, 
They deserted the water en masse when the foraging party returned, hailing from the bank top. Look at mates, we found strawberries. Two haversacks filled with wild strawberries, small, sweet, and juicy, were carried into camp. Refreshed after her swim, Trimp sat with Chugger and Denny on the sun-warmed rocks, sharing a heap of the delicious fruit. One of their foraging party reported to Logalog. Saw a pile of otter tracks on the heathland back there, maybe fifteen or more, all biggins. The shrew chieftain shrugged, selecting a big strawberry. Otters are good beasts. We've no reason to fear them. They're welcome to a paw full of vittles if and they visit us. As evening shades tinged the skies, the otters came upriver and emerged dripping from the stream. A big wiry fellow, obviously their skipper, held forth his paws in greeting. Peaceful evening to you, friends. Is that a fruit salad with strawberries in it, I see? Looks handsome, don't it? Logalog smiled at the hungry otters, indicating that they were free to help themselves. Sit down and welcome, friend. Haven't I seen you afore? Balancing back on his rudder-like tail, the otter answered, Probably crossed paths once or twice, matey. I'm Tungro. My tribe have a holt on the river north of here. The shrew nodded. Ah, Tungro. Heard your name someplace. What are you and your crew doing hereabouts, mate? Tungro accepted food from Trimp and thanked her. He acted rather nonchalant, but Logalog suspected he was either hiding something or not telling the full story when he replied airily, Oh, not much, you know, just taking a look to see what's on the other side of the hill, so to speak. Ain't you or none of your crew caught sight of an old-looking raggedy otter around here today, have ye? Logalog threw a pebble into the stream, watching it sink. No, mate. Why'd you ask? Tungro did not reply. He nodded to his crew, finished eating, and bobbed his head courteously. Obliged to you for the vittles, friends. Go in peace, and good fortune travel with you. Oh, if and you should bump into the old otter I mentioned, tell him that he can come back to the holt if and he's mended his ways. Tungro handed Fermo an otter tail ring. Give him this, and say that you're all mates of mine. Fare you well now. Without creating a single splash, the otters slipped into the water and were gone. Martin and Gonf came to sit alongside Logalog, and the mouse thief expressed his bewilderment. Phew! That was a speedy visit. What do you suppose was all about, Fermo? The shrew's answer was guarded. You'll forgive me if and I don't tell all the story, because I ain't certain of the full facts myself, but here's as much as I'm willing to say, mates. I've heard of Tungro, I, and his brother Fulgrim. Both great warriors, tis said, but Fulgrim was known to be fiercer, even though he was smaller than Tungro. Well, when their old father died, they was joint skippers of their holt. One winter they were attacked by a mixed band of vermin, but otters ain't beasts to mess with. They gave those vermin scum a real good drubbing and drove them off. Now, Tungro reckoned that was enough, but not Fulgrim. Off he went alone in pursuit of the vermin. It wasn't until two seasons later Fulgrim returned home. 
They say the vermin laid a trap and captured him. Starved, beaten, tortured, something horrible he was. Wounded, crippled, and with only one good eye. Sick in the brain, too, because Fulgrim was never the same after what those vermin did to him. I know from listening to travelers, Fulgrim behaved so bad and strange that Tungros banished him more than once from the Holt. But Fulgrim always returns, and Tungro forgives his ways and takes him back. Well, you couldn't banish your own brother forever, just because he ain't right in the head, now could ye? Martin had to agree with the shrew. No, you're right. Blood's thicker than water. What was that he gave you to give to his brother? Logalog held up the beautiful otter tail ring carved from the backbone of some great fish. Nice, ain't it? Though I hope we don't meet Fulgrim and have to give him it. Gonf took the tail ring and inspected it. Why not, Vermo? He's not as bad as all that, is he? The shrew took the tail ring back and stowed it in his pouch. I can't say, Gonf. I won't tell you all I've heard, because I'm not sure I believe it. And I can't tell you what I haven't seen. I'm for a spot of shut-eye now. You two can sit up and natter all night. Nothing farther was mentioned of Tungro's brother, Fulgrim. The friends lay down to rest that night with their own thoughts about the story they had heard. Purely out of insatiable curiosity, Gonf wished that he could meet the strange otter. Finally, the mouse thief slept, not knowing that he was to get his wish on the following day. Next morning was damp and humid, with a sky clouded over a dirty gray and drizzle falling continuously. Pushing on downstream, the craft sailed slowly along on the rain-flecked waters. Trimp and Chugger sat beneath the awning the shrews had set up from the single sail. The hogmaid watched the others, droplets spilling from their whiskers, soaked through, paws slipping on paddles as they pushed doggedly on. As noon approached, there was no change, and the drizzle persisted. Guasim paddlers looked pleadingly to their leader. Logalog wiped moisture from his eyes, seeking a suitable spot along the same bank they had camped on the previous day. Eventually he called, At her in, mates. Looks like an old cave yonder. A tent was rigged over the cave front, and the provisions were stacked under it to keep them dry. Every beast crowded under the canvas and in the small cave. Chugger was wearing a rough hooded cloak, which Trimp had fashioned from an empty apple sack. Evading the hedgehog maid, who looked after him like a mother duck, the little squirrel toddled off to explore the country. Trimp looked right and left. Where had the little imp gone? Poking her head from under the shelter, she spotted him. Chugger had climbed the rock ledges and was up on top of the bank. He wrinkled his nose and waved at Trimp. No worry about Chug. Just going to fight swans. Waving his ash twig, he vanished from sight. Trimp took off in pursuit, scrambling up the wet stones. Martin had just lit a small fire when he heard Trimp calling urgently from above. Help! Come quick, mates! Grabbing his sword... Martin dashed out ahead of the shrews. Together, he, Gaunt, and Fermo took the ledges in a series of bounds, with Dinny and the Guasim following swiftly behind. Trimp was crouched down, protecting Chugger. She pointed, 
There, Martin. Oh, help him, please. Two water rats were tormenting another creature. Martin peered through the curtain of misty drizzle. It was an otter limping along, clad in a ragged cloak and bent almost double. Kicking him and striking him with whippy willow wives, the vermin spat at him, taunting, Move yourself, you dotterin' old rag bag. We're going to tie rocks to your paws and sink you in the stream, nice and slow. Come on, you howlin' addle-brained idiot. Martin lifted his sword and took a pace forward. Logalog placed a paw on his shoulder. Stop there, warrior. Don't interfere. That's Fulgrim, you see, fighting the enemy. Gaunt nodded toward the two rats, who were still unaware of their presence. He's fighting them, do you say? Huh. It looks the other way round to me, mate. Logalog shook his head grimly, murmuring to his shrews. Get Trimp and the little un back down to the cave. This ain't fit for him to see. Keep silent, Martin. Crouch down by me and watch. You too, Gonf. One rat stuck out his footpaw and tripped the lame otter, who fell heavily. Both rats laid on savagely with their switches as he pleaded, Please, sirs, don't drown me. I'm not but a poor wayfaring beast who's lost his way. Don't beat me. Ow! Ow! This continued for a moment, until one of the rats got too close to the victim. Like a wolf, Fulgrim was upon him with lightning speed. He seized the rat in a death hug, sinking his teeth deep into the vermin's throat. Shocked beyond belief, the other rat stood trembling a moment. Then he dashed off, wailing in terror. Fulgrim lifted a blood-stained mouth from his prey's neck, calling, Run, 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 ratty! I'll track you down. Fulgrim will get you. At a signal from Logalog, the travelers backed off unobserved and clambered down to their camp. Gaunt sat by the fire, sipping a beaker of hot mushroom soup. He stared into the flames and shuddered. Ah! i never seen a creature killed like that afore. Martin passed a beaker of soup to Logalog. So that's Fulgrim, brother of Tungro. Well, Fermo, do you believe what they say now? Logalog nodded. Every word, mate, every awful word. A sound of some beast scrambling down the ledges alerted them. Next moment, Fulgrim limped in still with a blood-smeared mouth. Chugger's eyes grew big and round at the sight of the fearsome beast. The otter winked his single eye at them and sat by the fire. Ah, nice fire. Chills a beast to the bone, Drizzle does. Swiftly, Denny filled a beaker from the soup pot. Zer, zer, otter, drinky some nice hot soup up. Smiling, Fulgrim shook his head. Martin saw that his teeth were filed or broken into jagged points. Not for me, Mole. I got food back up there. Trimp approached, bearing a loaf and a hunk of cheese. Then take these with you for tomorrow, sir. She took a step backward at the sight of the otter's face. It was painted thickly with plant dyes and mud to cover the horrible wounds and scars etched into it. The single red-rimmed eye stared crazily at her.
No, thank ye, missy. I'll have more food by tomorrow when I track that other un down. You, shrew, can you let me have dinner and flint? Beast needs a good cooking fire in this country, and I ain't got the makings. Logalog gave Fulgrim a bag of soft, dried moss and two chunks of flintstone to make fire with. Take em and welcome, friend. Your brother Tungro said that I should give you this tail ring, too. He says you're welcome back at the Holt if and you've mended your ways. We're friends of your brothers. Fulgrim reached out and grabbed Trim's paw, pushed the tail ring over it with a swift movement, and released her. Pretty bracelet for a pretty maid, eh? If and you see my brother, tell him that I said he's a good beast. The Holt's better off without me. It's far too late for me to mend my ways. Got to go now. Light a fire. Do a spot of cooking. Travel on. Catch the other rats. Light another fire. Do more cooking. Baring his pointed teeth at the horrified friends, Fulgrim stood up and stumped out into the rain. Trimp covered her mouth with both paws, her normal good pallor taking on a greenish tinge. Logalog sat her down by the fire, placing a dry sack around her shoulders. Do you feel sick, Missy? You don't look none too chirpy. Trimp took a deep breath before replying. Didn't you hear? That otter is going to cook a rat and eat it. Oh, I can't believe it. Gaunt winked at the others as he patted Trimp's paw. You didn't believe him, did you, Trimp? Ha ha! That's a good un, ain't it, Martin? Ain't it, Fermo? An otter eating a water rat. They both laughed hollowly. Er, ah, shouldn't believe all you hear, Trimp. Aye, he was only joking, miss. Ha ha! Martin's half-hearted laugh trailed off miserably. Further along the bank, in the shelter of another rock ledge, Fulgrim was kindling a fire and holding a one-sided conversation with the slain water rat. Pity I never got your mate. He was fatter than you are. Still, don't fuss. I'll lay him by the paws afore sunset tomorrow night. Fire's nice, ain't it? Chills a beast to the bone, this drizzle does. Nice fire. I likes a good fire. 10. They slept late next morning. The rain had ceased and sunlight was beaming from clear summer skies when Chugger roused himself and trundled out onto the bank. Steamy mist from the rain hung over the whole bank shore in a thick, low layer, waiting for the sun to evaporate it. The tiny squirrel raced through it, giggling as he tried to catch the elusive tendrils in his paws. All bees covered in frog, lots of frogs, hee-hee. <laughs> Gonf and Trimp emerged from the cave yawning. Upon hearing Chugger's cries, Gonf became alert. What frogs? Who's covered in frogs? Trimp shoved the mouse thief playfully. He means fog. Look out! The mist parted, and Chugger bowled head over brush into them. Gonf swept him up tickling the little fellow and swinging him about. I'll give you frogs, you villain. Soon the whole party was up and about. 
Fermo and his shrews lit a fire and began cooking breakfast. Denny appeared out of the mist, toting a pail of water. Rrr, don't be fur from his seashores now. Look at all the frog you're about, Martin. Martin climbed halfway up one of the ledges and peered over the mist curtain. Right, Den. We don't normally get heavy bank mist like this inland. Sea can't be too far off now. Hush. Every beast be still. I can hear someone coming this way. It was the otters, Tungro and his crew. As soon as Martin recognized their voices, he hailed them from the bank. Morning, friends. Breakfast's almost ready. You're welcome to share it with us. Tungro waded ashore, dripping from the stream. Thank ye kindly, good beasts. We wouldn't say no to a bite of breakfast. The crew ain't eaten yet today. Nudging log-a-log Fermo, Gaunt raised his eyebrows. Better get more shrewbread on the hot stones. Here was I, thinking I was going to get a nice, big, peaceful breakfast. Now it'll be a small, noisy one with this lot as guests. The rest of Tungro's crew came ashore in a huddle. They had Fulgrim with them, a rope lead around his middle and both paws bound by a long hobble, which had allowed him to swim. He winked his one good eye at Trimp. Good day to ye, missy. Hope I finds you well. The hedgehog maid shuddered, though she bobbed him a curtsy and managed a quick smile. I'm well, thank you, sir. Tungro drew Martin and Fermo to one side. He seemed slightly embarrassed and hesitant. Er, I hope you'll forgive me or bring in my brother Fulgrim to your camp for a breakfast like this. He ain't a bad beast, really. Tis just that his mind's troubled. Martin nodded understandingly and patted Tungro's shoulder. Don't worry, friend. We know a bit about Fulgrim and the bad times he's had. He dropped by here yesterday afternoon. There was no trouble. He behaved himself quite well. Tungro looked relieved. We caught up with Fulgrim just after he'd tracked and slain a rat. He'd lit a fire. That was how we spotted him. Me and the crew had to jump on poor Fulgrim a bit, but we managed. Tied him up and buried the rat carcass afore he... Well... Fermo poured a beaker of penny-cloud cordial for the otter. "'Tis all right. You don't have to explain. We know from the other rat Fulgrim managed to get his paws on, just over the bank top there. Come on now, get something to eat. Fermo and his shrews had made a delicious breakfast. There was hot shrew bread, strawberries, and a batch of vegetable pasties, with a choice of cordial or hot mint tea to drink. Tungro sat slightly apart with his brother, trying to make him eat a little, but Fulgrim kept his mouth firmly shut, refusing the food in silence. Every beast tried to get on with their meal, but they kept taking secretive glances as Tungro encouraged his brother. Come on now, Fole. These are prime victuals made by the best of Guasum cooks. Try some of this pasty, me old mate. Fulgrim merely shook his head stubbornly. Tungro noticed the watchers and shrugged with embarrassment. Sorry, he won't eat nothing. Though there ain't a thing wrong with your food, friends. Tis the best I ever tasted. Trimp was trying to hold on to Chugger, 
but he wriggled out of her grasp and went swiftly on all fours to Fulgrim. Smiling up into the otter's scarred face, Chugger grabbed a pasty and lectured him like a mother squirrel. Eat ye all up now, or ye don't grow big as strong like me. I eat em up if and you don't, silly old river dog. End of side two. To continue, change side selector switch and turn the cassette over. Side three, The Legend of Luke, by Brian Jakes. Continuing on page eighty-nine. Suddenly, Fulgrim burst out laughing at the little squirrel's antics, and took a big bite out of the proffered pasty. You ain't eaten all my breakfast up, little sir. Oh no! Chugger nodded his head in agreement. Good hotter. Now, Chug, get your shoe bed and mini tea. Fulgrim gobbled another mouthful of pasty. Why, thank ye, mate. Though I likes cordial better than mint tea. Maybe you could fetch me a couple of them strawberries too. They look nice. Tungro shook his head in amazement at the sight of Chugger feeding breakfast to his brother, both of them chatting away amiably as if they were old friends. Well, wallop me, Rudder! Will you look at that? Fulgrim never was the most civil of beasts. Back at the Holt, he spoke to nobody, much less smile and chat like that. I reckon my brothers took a shine to your little squirrel. Tramp was slightly apprehensive. She confided her fears to Dinny in a whisper that only he could hear. I'm not so sure I like Chugger being around Fulgrim. He's an otter who's eaten his enemies and is troubled in his mind. Who can tell what he'd do if the mood took him? The mole put aside his food, watching Fulgrim and Chugger. I don't think he gotten much twerry or missy. Er. Just yum look a yon hotter. Why, eem like an old mole mum where her infant mole babe. Wouldn't arm an air a meister chug's little ed. Er, no. Tramp watched as Chugger fed Fulgrim some shrewbread. The little squirrel was talking to the otter as if he were a naughty dibbin. Now, if and you don't eat all a shoe bed up, I won't not let you have no strawbies. Mr. Fole, the hedgehog maid nodded in agreement with her mole friend. I think you're right, Din. They're firm friends. When the meal was over, Martin and his group struck camp. Warm summer sun had lifted all the mist, and the broad stream glistened invitingly. Tungro hailed them as they were packing supplies aboard. My hearty thanks to ye, friends. We've got to go now. Safe journey to you and your mates, Martin, and fair weather attend ye to the north coast. However, it was not that simple. Fulgrim refused to go with his brother. Digging himself into the bank sand, he resisted all their attempts to move him. Tungro stroked his strange brother's head coaxingly. Come on, Fole, let's go back home together, matey. Your old bed's waiting for you. And every beast's wanting to give you a great welcome. What do you say, eh? Chugger leaped from the raft and threw himself upon Fulgrim, hugging the scarred otter and wailing piteously. Waha! Don't take Mister Fole away! Waha! As if this were not sad enough, Fulgrim joined in, tears streaming from his one eye. 
Don't take me away from me, little pal. I wants to go with him. Tungro was greatly moved. Dashing a paw across his eyes, he appealed to Martin. Tell me, mate, what do I do? The warrior leaped ashore. Two swift slices of his sword set Fulgrim free from the ropes at his waist and paws. There's only one thing to do, friend. Let your brother come with us. We'll deliver him safe to your holt on the return journey, I promise. Fulgrim jumped up. With Chugger perched on his shoulders, he boarded the raft, both of them grinning from ear to ear. Tungro shook Martin's paw fervently. I know my brother'll be safe with good beasts like you and your friends, sir. Mayhap twill be good for him. They sailed off downstream, waving goodbyes to the otters standing on the banks. See you sometime about autumn. Aye, we'll be waiting with a pot full of shrimp and hot root soup to welcome you. Good, we'll be looking forward to it. Watch out for Fulgrim at night. He's a terrible snorer. If and he can outsnore this lot, sir, he must be a good un. You speak for yourself, Denny Mole. I don't snore. Oh, yes, he do, Miss Tramp. Doters are gone. I wouldn't know, Den. When you're snoring, it drowns out everything, even thunderstorms. The curious raft, with log boats tied to both sides, sailed off downstream into the soft summer morning. Tungro and his crew gave a final wave before sliding into the water and gliding sleekly upstream, home to their holt. It was midday when Logalog Fermo steered into a curving recess. Martin looked up at the shrew as he scrambled atop the steep rocky bank. What have we stopped for, Fermo? Surely it's not time to eat already. We've hardly been afloat today. Come up here and look at this, Martin. The warrior joined his friend on the bank top. Far ahead he could see thick, extending pine woods flanking both sides of the stream. Martin peered hard at the dark mass. Trouble, do you think? The Guwasim chieftain voiced his thoughts. I noticed the stream starting to run swifter, so I thought it best to pull in and scout the land. No sense dashing into danger. That's if there's any there. Martin mused for a moment, looking from the raft to the pines and back again, before making up his mind. Right. Here's what I suggest. You take Gaunt, I'll take Fulgrim. I wager he can smell vermin a league off. We split up and go both sides of the bank to scout those pine woods out. Leave the rest with the raft. Throw a kedge anchor over the stern. That'll slow them up so they won't be speeding into the pine wood area. Fermo agreed with Martin's strategy. An old waterlogged willow limb, forked at one end, was weighted by lashing big chunks of rock to it. When it was cast over the raft's stern, it dragged heavily on the stream bed, slowing the vessel's progress considerably. Fermo and Gaunt took the north bank. The raft dropped Martin and Fulgrim off on the south bank. Chugger shook a tiny paw at the warrior. You take good care of Mr. Fole, or I smack a you tail. Martin nodded seriously at the little fellow. Aye, aye, Cap'n Chug. I'll watch out for him. Never fear. 
Logalog Fermo had been right. The broad stream was surely moving faster, running deeper, too, Martin noticed as he trotted along the bank with Fulgrim at his side. Without the kedge anchor on its stern, both raft and log boats would go hurtling downstream. At noon, they reached the fringes of the pine woods. Gonf and Fermo waved across at Martin on the opposite side. He held both paws up, signaling them to wait. After a while, Fulgrim returned from scouting inside the fringe. He was carrying some ashes and a clump of grass stained dark purple along with a dab of ochre still wet from the stream. Urgently he gestured for them to back off, away from the pines. When he judged they were far enough from the conifers, the otters signaled them down to the shallows, where they could converse across the stream. Gonf and Fermo waded in as deep as they dared. Martin and Fulgrim followed suit, the strong current pulling at them. The otter held up the stained grass and spoke. Painted ones in the woods, beware. Gonf and Fermo waded back to dry land. Fulgrim called after them. See you back at the raft. Trimp helped the Guasim shrews haul her friends aboard and looked questioningly at Fermo as he ordered the craft into the south bank behind a curve. What is it? What's happening? The shrew chieftain explained. Painted ones are in those pine woods ahead. Fulgrim found traces of the blackguards. Trimp was plainly puzzled. What do you mean, painted ones? No beast knows for sure, missy but most of us thinks there's some kind of tree rats. My Gawassam ain't been down this far in seasons. Weren't any about then. I reckon they must have been driven out of their own territory and settled in the pines yonder. Painted ones is vicious savages, never just a few. They always come in big gangs. Those woods'd be ideal for them. They paints themselves all over, like sunlight, stripes, and shadows. Painted ones live up in the trees, and woe betide any poor traveler trying to pass through their stamping grounds. Killin's second nature to em. They're very good at disguises. You could be walking in the pines, thinking no beast is there, then bang, the villains have got you, and you're a dead un. Denny shook his head sorrowfully. It'd be a girt pity. "'Cause we'm be awfully near e seashores. "'I could feel it in my digging claws.' "'Trimp sighed sadly. "'But we can't go any farther now.' "'Gaunt chucked her gently under the chin. "'Lack a day! Look at that long face, like a toad with toothache. "'Cheer up, pretty one, or you'll have it raining. "'Leave it to me. I've got a plan.' "'Denny wrinkled his nose. You'm got he plans, er? Gonf adopted his devil-may-care expression. Why do you think they call me Prince of Mouse Thieves? Of course I've got a plan, you old tunnel grubber. Martin prodded his friend's well-fed middle. I hope tis a plan that'll work, matey. Oh, indeed. And did you ever know any of my plans that didn't work, oh swinger of swords? Aye, lots of them, oh pincher of pies. Well, this won't be one of that sort, O oh noble whiskers. It had better not be, O oh pot-bellied soup-swigger. Now tell on. We won't wait till light. We'll set sail and shoot past them in the dark. 
They won't expect that. The raft stayed tied to the bank until midnight. Then they cut loose the kedge anchor and hoisted the sail. Drifting out into a moonless dark midstream, Gonf nodded to Fermo, who was seated in the log boats with his guasim. Digging paddles deep, they shot the craft off downstream, with Martin, Denny, and Fulgram punting long poles at the stern. A light breeze caught the sail, billowing it out beautifully. Gonf and Trimp laid out slings and heaps of well-rounded stream pebbles where they could be easily reached. The Prince of Mouse Thieves chuckled. The speed she's going, we'll be through and past them afore they even guess we've arrived, eh, Missy? Covering Chugger's sleeping form with food sacks and loose canvas, Trent snuggled down by him. I hope you're right, Gonf, for all our sakes, but mainly for this little mites. I don't know what I'd do if any harm befell Chugger. Fulgram turned from his pole, vile-sharpened teeth glinting in the darkness, his one good eye roving wildly. If any wants to see dead beasts, pretty miss, take a look at any vermin putting a paw near my pal Chug. Trimp shivered, certain that the scar-faced otter did not issue idle threats. As the flotilla of raft and log boats neared the pine wood, myriad eyes, aglow with evil intent, watched it from the bankside trees on both sides. Small, harsh, excited whispers sounded through the conifers. Yik, 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 yik! Here they come! Many, many lots of shrooms and micers, too! Yika, yika! Better these vittles, too! Lots of vittles! Faster, faster into the trap! Yika, yika! Fatty mole digger and edge biggie! Have a fun with those. Then the raft was into the wooded area. Martin congratulated Gonf quietly on his daring scheme. Well done, mate. We're shooting through like a shaft from a bow. Not much can stop us now. No sooner had the words left his mouth than the raft hit a thick series of vine ropes stretched at different heights above and below the water. Every beast aboard was thrown flat with the impact, and both leading log boats and the front of the raft were jammed fast in a cunning trap. 11. Martin was first to spring upright. He lashed about with the long putting pole as painted ones dropped from the trees onto the raft. Several were sent screeching into the water. Fermo and his shrews began laying about them with their log boat paddles hollow thonking noises sounding as they struck tree rats in mid-air. Screams and splashes mingled with roars and shouts rent the blackness of the stream between the dark spreading pines. It was a scene of total chaos. Fulgram groped his way to the canvas protecting Chugger and Trimp and stood over them, flailing viciously, the air thrumming as he wielded his long pole. Whack! Thwack! Thunk! Splat! Gonf and Denny were hard at it with their poles. Panting heavily, Martin called to them, There's too many of them. We can't keep this up. Hold the vessel as best you can. I'll be back soon. If not, go without me. That's an order. He broke his pole over the backs of three who were trying to climb aboard then dived into the fast-flowing stream. As soon as he felt himself hurled against the ropes by the current, Martin latched his foot paws onto the heavy vines 
and unsheathed the great sword from his back. It was tremendously hard trying to swing his blade in the rushing water, but swing it the mouse warrior did. He hacked and hewed with might and main until his grip was frozen to the sword by cold water and weariness. By a superb feat of will he forced himself to continue. Heavy wet strands struck his face as the razor-sharp blade whipped through them, and water filled his mouth as he roared like a wild beast, battling the powerful woven ropes of wet vine. Lowering the blade underwater, Martin sawed furiously at the ones that he had twined his footpaws into, ducking his head beneath the surface and hunching both shoulders to put more force into his efforts. Then the raft was running overhead, scraping his back as it was liberated from the trap. Martin went head over tail, automatically shifting the sword to one paw and reaching out frantically with the other as the vessel sped forward. Denny felt some beast grab his footpaw as he stood astern, swinging his pole. He was about to deal whoever it was a resounding blow with the pole, but when Martin's head emerged from the stream water. Den, the pole, quick! The mole shot his pole into the water, and Martin grabbed it. Throwing his sword onto the raft, he struggled aboard with Denny's help. The raft was still swarming with painted ones. Martin seized the fabulous blade, and whirling it aloft, he gave full cry to the battle call of badger lords. Eulalia! Screeching with fright, the tree vermin threw themselves from the raft, splashing frenziedly for shore. Gonf threw back his head and roared with laughter. Ha, 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 ha! Look at them go! The old Eulalia's worth a dozen fighters, and let me say, matey, that un of yours was a right blood freezer. I near jumped out of my fur. Martin was grinning as he slumped wearily down to the deck. Let's just say it was an additional idea to make your plan work. I was far too tired to do anything except shout. Ow! Ow! What are you villains doing to me? Trimp and Chugger scrubbed roughly at the warrior with clean, dry food sacks. The little squirrel growled. Be still and stop a shouting. We drying you off. Don't want to catch a deaf a cold, do you? The hedgehog maid was hard put to keep a straight face. Her squirrel babe was becoming quite a one for being severe with other beasts. She cleaned Martin's ears out roughly. That's the stuff, Chug. You tell him. Warriors have to get dry, too, same as any other creature. Luckily, none of the friends were seriously injured, though there were the usual number of bumps, cuts, scratches, and scrapes sustained, as in any roughhouse encounter with vermin. Trimp and Logalog Fermo set about ministering to the slight casualties, while Gonf and Denny kept a weather eye out for any likely berth, now they had left the pine wood behind. A small midstream island loomed up out of the darkness, perfect as a resting place for the remainder of the night. However, after their hazardous scrape with the painted ones, they were far too keyed up for sleeping. Guasim cooks built a small fire in the shelter of some bushes and cooked up a cauldron of vegetable soup. Gonf took some soft bread and chopped scallions, made bubbling bobs, and tossed them in the cauldron. Tramp sat around the fire with the rest, feeling a strong sense of camaraderie with them, laughing, chatting, and fishing for bubbling bobs with clean, sharp twigs. Fermo regaled them with a comic song called The Festive Fight. One dark and stormy night, as the sun set in the east, to Grandma's house I went, for to partake of a feast. 
with frogs and fat hedgehogs, some otters and a sparrow, and a squirrel who attended too, armed with a bow and arrow. The seed cake had been served when a dormouse in a bonnet took one bite. Oh, what a sight! She broke her teeth upon it. Then backward fell a mole, tail first into the custard. Old Grandpa grabbed his spoon, and looking quite disgusted, he hit the mole a smack. Then, like a flash of lightning, an otter brained him with a flan. That started off the fighting. We fenced with celery sticks, with pies and puddings pelted. The squirrel with the bow by a pot of soup got belted. A sparrow flung a scone. It laid the otter senseless. Then Grandma swung her pan and left us all defenseless. Two frogs sailed out the door, a hedgehog up the chimney, whilst me and old Grandpa to the mantelpiece hung grimly. So hark and hear my tale. Stay safe at home and starve, sir. Steer clear of Grandma's house when there's going to be a feast there. Chugger had fallen asleep leaning against Fulgrim, a soggy, bubbling bob still clutched in his grubby paw. After the fight with the painted ones, Trimp trembled fitfully, thinking what might have happened had they fallen into the claws of the foe. However, the feeling passed as she looked around at the cheery faces of her friends. Ribbing one another good-naturedly and chuckling, they sat around the fire, finishing off the meal with gusto. No beast would guess that but a short while ago they had been battling for their lives, and hers. Allowing her eyes to close slowly, she snuggled down on some dry moss. Who would not feel safe in the company of such brave creatures? Murmuring stream water soon had them all lulled, with the exception of Martin and Fulgrim, who sat outwardly relaxed but inwardly alert. Fading to glowing embers, the fire burnt down. Somewhere a nightjar called, and moon shadows cast soft patterns through lazy, breeze-stirred foliage. Peace lay over the little island in midstream, awaiting the calm hours of dawn. Day broke fine and clear, with a warm summer wind blowing westerly. Log-a-log Fermo hopped aboard the raft, wetting a paw and holding it up. Hoist that sail, mates, and ship the paddles. We're on a good fast run to the big sea. Picking up speed, the raft fairly zinged along the broad water course. With his bushy tail blowing forward over both ears, Chugger perched backward in the bows of the lead log boat, shouting aloud with exhilaration, Woo-wee! Us going to sea! Denny clung nervously to a stay rope, not too sure whether he was fond of the vessel's wild ride downstream. Rrrr, log bain't us uns a-goin' e bit farst yer? Log-a-log laughed and performed a nimble jig round the edges of the log-boats flanking the raft. Fast, me little fat mate, fast! See the way those banks down yonder take a deep dip? When she hits there, you'll know what fast means. The mole shut his eyes tight, grabbing the stay-rope tighter, as Fermo gave it a mischievous twang. Fulgrim and Trimp rescued Chugger from his precarious position and tied a line to his chubby middle, whereupon he promptly hopped back to his former position. Fermo began booming out a song in his wonderful bass voice. You stay aft, mate, I'll stay fore. Mind the rocks and watch the shore. Like good shipmates, you and me, roll down to meet the sea. 
fast, as fast as you can wish, through the waters like a fish. Our old craft do wend its way on this bright summer's day. With spray in your face and a crackin' pace and a runnin' stream afore, if you never lack a wind at your back, then who could ask for more? Oh, rum-a-doodle-i-do, go where I go. Rum-a-doodle-i-do, follow me. The raft bucked sharply, entering a canyon of buff-hued rock. Every beast yelled and held on to something. Chugger was thrown into the water from his perilous perch. Trimp screamed in alarm, but Fulgrim had a good grip on the line, and with a powerful heave he swung the little fellow back on board. Up you come, rascal. There, gonf, look what I caught, a chugfish. Funny little critter. Never seen one with a tail that long. Shaking water from his ruffled fur, the baby squirrel drew himself imperiously to his full height. I nor a chugfish, I a little squiggle. White water boiled about the surface, while high banks narrowed and dipped sharply downward. Fermo gave orders to stow the sail, and his guasim shrews took up their positions at the log boat's oars, keeping the vessel in midstream with strong, skillful strokes. Soon they were all thoroughly drenched by spray and unable to hear each other talk because of the roaring waters. Logalog and Martin, with long poles, sculled at the after end. The warrior mouse noticed that the shrew chieftain was no longer singing and smiling. Grim-faced and silent, he struggled to keep the raft on course. Now the raft really began to buck, side to side and up and down, sometimes rearing high out of the stream and returning to hit the water with a resounding splash. Twice it was whirled completely around on the treacherous current, Martin and Fermo pulling furiously to turn it. Trent knew they were in trouble when Gonf pushed her and Chugger flat, shouting at them to hold tight. Gripping the tough vines that held their craft together, Trimp locked both footpaws around her little friend. Lifting her face, the hedgehog maid took a quick glance ahead. What she saw took her breath away. A rainbow bridged either bank, shining through a misty curtain of cascading water mist. The raft rushed through it. Then there was nothing. Martin heard himself yell with surprise as his pole snapped on a rock at the waterfall's edge. The entire vessel, raft and log boats, sailed out into space. Logalog's voice cut across the sudden silence. Hang on, mates! Then the thunderous roar of falling water took over. They were falling down, down, with a view of beach and sea to the front and an awesome sheet of rushing water at their back. Gripping fiercely to anything within reach, the breath torn from their mouths they plunged downward, tilting as the raft went head first for what seemed like an eternity. Down, 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 whoom! The broad surface of a pool at the bottom exploded with the impact. By its own momentum, the vessel was plunged deep into the pool, breaking into pieces as it went. Water rushed into Trim's mouth. Her eyes opened. Everything was cold, silent, and vague. Half-conscious, she stared about. Somewhere high above, the water was billowing in thick white clouds, and she tried to fight down panic as she felt Chugger pawing feebly at her. They were both trapped under a log from the raft, which had become wedged in the rocks at the pool's bottom. Then the little squirrel's paws went limp. 
Panic surged through Trimp with the sudden realization that both her and Chugger's lives were going to end trapped underwater at alone. Bubbles burst from her mouth as water flooded relentlessly in. Forgetting her plight for a moment, the hedgehog maid felt a tremendous wave of pity tug at her heart for Chugger. The little squirrel was still a baby. What a sad way for him to end a tragically short life. She reached down and held his paw, thinking that at least he would have her with him. Then the arrival of Fulgrim jolted her failing senses. Setting himself between the rocks, he bent his body, levering outward with all four paws, veins standing out on his neck as he added the strength of his rudder-like tail and the back of his broad skull. Fulgrim pushed until the scars on his face stood out like blue ropes. There was a grinding crunch, followed by a muffled clonking noise. The log floated upward, free, the rocks trapping it having been forced apart by the otter's wild strength. Fulgrim seized Chugger by his tail and Trimp by one paw. Setting himself firm in the sand, he thrust mightily upward, tail and footpaws working in unison. In a stream of bubbles, all three shot to the surface. Willing paws pulled them ashore. Martin took a quick check of his crew. Denny! Where's Denny? The words had hardly left his mouth before Fulgrim plunged in again, streaking underwater like an arrow. White sand and shell fragments, together with weeds and grains of rock, clouded the bottom a pearly gray color. Fulgrim swam to an overturned log boat and wormed his way underneath. The otter's head broke water in a small air pocket trapped in the upturned vessel, and Denny's head was facing him. The mole tugged his snout in polite relief. Good day to ye, sir. I hope some beast did come afore ye air runned out in yer. I don't mind tellin' ye, I'm girtly a-frightened o' livin' under water. Us moles be like that, happy underground, but sad under water. Oh, er. The otter showed his filed teeth in a smile. Then shut your eyes, hold your breath, and hang on to my paw, Mr. Din. Soon have you back on land, matey. Tugger shot fountains of water everywhere as he recovered. Trimp, who was no worse for her ordeal, sat watching Fermo anxiously. Oh, say he's going to be all right, sir. Chuckling, the Guasim leader pressed gently on the little squirrel's stomach, and another jet of water arose. This'll be fine, missy, don't get yourself in a fret. I seen shrew babes swallowed twice that amount. It never seemed to arm the little fellers a bit. Chugger opened one eye, his paw rising to point accusingly at Fermo. You keep punching Chugger's tummy and I swirt water in you eye, shoe. Fermo held Chugger upside down and shook him thoroughly, letting the baby squirrel go as he snapped at his footpaws. See, I told you, miss, he's stronger than a growed eel. Then he rolled himself into the warm sand until he looked like a white mole ghost. He went and sat by Martin, who shook his head and burst out laughing. Have a rest. Go to North Shores. Make it a holiday. Take all summer. Some rest, eh, Den? Some holiday. Gaunt dug a big raft splitter from his tail and sighed with relief. Well, look at me, mates. I'm enjoying myself no end. Only one thing missing, though. Martin knew what was coming, so he interrupted Gaunt. Food. That's what it is, isn't it, you felonious famine-faced soup-stealer? 
Gonf picked his teeth nonchalantly with the splitter. How'd you guess, noble britches? Ahoy there, Fermo. What's the position on Biddles, matey? One of the Guasim cooks answered for his leader. Flowers ruined. Fruit's all right, though. Plenty of fresh water in that pool. Biscuits we baked this morning are lost in the stream. I reckon we could stand a few fresh supplies of whatever the land has to offer hereabouts. Martin took charge, issuing orders. Right. Any beast who feels up to it can forage for food. We'll split up around these hills and dunes on the shoreline. Denny, you stay here with Miss Trimp and Chugger and take a rest. See what you can salvage from the wreckage. Twelve. Trimp was still feeling a bit sick and dizzy from her ordeal in the pool, but with Chugger about, it was difficult to rest. Chugger, come away from that water. It's very deep. Oh, Chuck know it deep. I've been a bottom of it. Yes, well, that's where you'll find yourself again if you don't come away. Come on, this instant. Yeah, leave me alone. Me and Mr. Din doing a job, see? The mole picked him up with one huge digging claw. I can do a job on my own, thank ye, meister. Now, you do like Miss Trent Telly and no cheek from me. A fox appeared as if from nowhere. Behind him were four roguish-looking vermin, an assortment of rats and ferrets. The fox looked the wickedest of all five. He was obviously their leader, and wore big hooped brass earrings and tattered silks. Faded tattoos showed on the paw holding a sharp, single-headed axe. He gestured at Chugger. Ha-har, young'un! You listen to your elders and don't be cheekin' em. Avast now, cullies. What have we here? One of the vermin sniggered. Dinner, that's what we got. Shaking his head in censure, the fox growled. Stow that kind of gab, Frib. These here are gentle beasts. A mite grubby, but respectable. Ain't that right, missy? Tramp had decided instantly that she did not like the vermin or their leader, but her voice showed no fear. Who are you, and what do you want? Strutting insolently about, the fox rummaged through the salvaged supplies with his axe blade. He chose an apple, polishing it on his ragged sleeve. I could ask you the same question, me pretty. Trimp picked up a solid spar of raftwood. I'm not your pretty, and is usually considered good manners to ask before helping yourself to the food of others. Scornful sniggers echoed from the four vermin. Pausing with the apple halfway to his mouth, the fox grinned. This one's got me quaking in me boots, mates. Got me. She's a right mouthy little baggage, ain't she? Trimp brandished her wooden spar, trembling slightly, but still game for trouble. Aye, but you'll find I can back up my words when dealing with bullies. Now who are you and what do you want here? Making as if to go, the fox sidled past Trimp. Suddenly he turned, knocking the spar from the hogmaid's paw with a deft flick of his axe blade. Then he went for him with a deep growl, but one of the vermin tripped him with a cutlass blade. He tried to rise, only to find another one menacing his throat with a pike. Biting into the apple, the fox pulled a face and spat the piece out. He held the axe under Trimp's chin, his voice hard and commanding. I'm Sholabar, lord of these coasts. See that boat out there? Well, tis mine. I patrols these waters, and— Trimp interrupted him sharply. 
I don't see any boat out there. Sholabar growled at one of the vermin. Where did you berth the boat, Grimleg? Behind the point, like you told me to, Captain. The fox shrugged. Well, no matter. Point is, Missy, you're on my land. All around ye, far as ye can see, belongs to me. Even this fresh water pool. So you're a trespasser, see? Trimp pushed the axe away from her chin and laughed in the bully's face contemptuously. Ha, ha! Don't talk stupid. No beast owns the shores and sea. Shaking with rage, Sholabar raised his axe at her. Snot-nosed little spike-back, I'll skin you alive. Chugger bounded forward and sank his teeth in the fox's leg. Yahow! Lego! Get him off of me! Yar! The little fellow clung like a limpet, sinking his teeth deeper and growling fiercely. One of the vermin grabbed him by the tail. Trimp seized Sholabar's paw, trying to stop him swinging the axe at Chugger. The fox roared, Arr! Stretch him out, grim leg! Ah! I'll chop the little brat in two! He shook his arm, trying to loosen Trimp's hold, while Chugger's little teeth dug deeper and deeper. Frib! Get this brat off of me! Ayar! He's biting me leg to the bone! Ow, ow, ow! Before the fox could issue another yell, Fulgrim came hurtling out of nowhere and struck him like a thunderbolt. There was an ominous crack. The fox's head went backward at a crazy angle under the force of the otter's blow, and he fell slain upon the sand. Taking one swift look at Fulgrim, the four vermin fled for their lives. Martin and Gaunt were rounding the corner of a nearby dune, carrying wild onions and dandelion shoots, and two of the fleeing vermin ran straight into them. Gonf butted one in the stomach, laying him out, gasping for air. Martin tripped the other one and grabbed him hard by the scruff. The other two vermin ran the opposite way, only to find themselves surrounded by gooseum rapier points. Hauling the four vermin roughly along, the foragers arrived back at the poolside. Martin had to place himself between the captives and the scar-faced otter who was trying to get at them with a dead fox's axe. Martin spoke calmingly to him. No more slaying, friend. They've had enough. You four, sit down there and explain yourselves. What's been going on here? The truth now. Grimleg the ferret managed a good act, whining pitifully. We're not but poor beasts, sir. We roams the sands looking for vittles to keep skin and bones together, sir. Woe is us, sir. We fell foul of this robber band. We begged him for food, but they attacked us. That little un tried to eat our cap'n, or Sholabar, and Jan Ogmade was going to brain us with a club. Sir, tis the truth, I tell you. See that savage river dog? That un slew our mate Sholabar for no reason at all, sir. And that mad mole had a sword he was going to kill me with. Grimleg picked up the cutlass he had dropped when he had fled. Aye, this is the very blade. I swears it on me mother's eyes, sir. They'd have murdered us if you hadn't arrived. Trimp noted Martin's wink before he turned to her stern eyed and demanded, Is this true? Did you attack these poor creatures? Speak. Trimp caught on immediately. Cringing and rubbing her paws nervously, she groveled on the sand, performing a passable imitation of a vermin lying its way out of trouble. Oh, 
tis true, your honor, tis true, we've had a wicked upbringing, you see. But spare our lives, and we'll give up bad living. On me grandma's whiskers, I swear we will. Kind sir, just let us sail off in our boat that's moored behind the south point, and you'll never see hide nor air of us again, on me oath. At the mention of a boat, Fermo exchanged glances with Martin. So they've got a boat. What do you think, matey? Surveying the wreckage of what had once been their vessel, Martin nodded, as if considering the matter. Aye, it'd save us long days of walking, eh, Gonf? Gonf drew his dagger and stood over the four vermin. Fear not, friends, justice has come to your aid. These ruffians, the hog-maid and her crew that attacked you so wickedly, here's how we'll deal with them. My friends and I will confiscate their boat and take them with us as deck slaves for punishment. That way they'll bother honest creatures like yourselves no more. What do you say to that? Grimleg and his vermin companions were nonplussed. In one fell swoop they had been foiled of their prey, lost their boat, and also their captain to boot. The ferret was about to object when Fermo drew his rapier and stood facing him, cold-eyed. His voice, when he spoke, was like ice. I'd say twas a good idea. These honest beasts should make no objection, as long as the tale they told us is true. Cause I can't abide a liar, you see. Liars is worse than thieves or murderers, I always say. Show me a liar and I'll silence his untruthful tongue forever. Grr, I can't stand liars. Gaunt placed his paw on Fermo's rapier hilt. Put up your blade, matey. These are honest creatures. Grimleg and his vermin nodded furiously, trying hard to look poor but honest. Gaunt pointed an accusing paw at Trimp and her friends. Now this lot, they're a different kettle of fish. They've got the look of savage, murdering villains to me. Fulgrim narrowed his one eye and squinted wickedly. Aye. I'm a bad lot, all as I've been. Ain't happy less I'm slaying poor honest beast with me axe. Chugger bared his teeth and emitted a small growl. Oh, we's villains sure enough. Chop a tail off and cut your throats we will. Grrr. Then he squinched up his snout and made evil gestures with his digging claws at all and sundry. Brrr, aye and stuffin' he tails up in he noses. Grrr. Tramp kicked sand at the seated vermin. Ha! Gimme a sharp blade and a cooking pot, and I'll show you what I do to poor honest beasts. Yar! Gonf gave a shudder of mock horror. Enough of that foul talk, you blaggards. Off to the boat with you, and keep a bridle on those wicked tongues. Martin drew his sword and marched the miscreants off. Gaunt and the Guwasim shrews had to bite their lips to keep from bursting out laughing. Logalog Fermo kept his face solemn. He patted the backs of the four miserable vermin heftily, then shook each one by the paw with a grip that caused them to wince. Lucky for you we came along, my friends. Very lucky. One of the Guwasim cooks whispered to Gaunt in a voice that all could hear. I hopes they thanks the chief. He can't stand ungrateful beasts. Why, I've seen Fermo take his blade and... 
Before the sentence was finished, the vermin were gabbling aloud in panic. Aye, lucky indeed for us, sire, thank ye. Don't know what we'd have done without ye, chief. True, true. We'll never forget how you saved us. Thank ye. Thank ye kindly, sir. Gonf gathered up the vermin weapons, tut-tutting like an old mousewife. Nasty, sharp things. Don't fret, friends. We'll take care of these, lest you injure yourselves on them. Fermo presented them with the piece of wood that Trimp had intended using. Sorry about your friend, the fox. You can dig a nice resting place for him with this. Goodbye to ye. As they marched off down the beach, one of the vermin, a big skinny rat, kicked the sand ruefully. Huh! Why did we ever come here in the first place? That's what I'd like to know. Grimleg whacked him over the head with a piece of wood. Ah, oh, shut up, Scrudos! Logalog Fermo was delighted with the new vessel. He splashed about in the shallows, admiring it as the others clambered aboard. It was a long, flat-bottomed skiff with a single square midsail, bluffed at the stern and pointed at the bows, fashioned from seasoned beech, elm, and rowan wood. It had oarlocks and paddles, four to each side, plus a fine carved tiller and rudder. There was a stern shelter of canvas stretched over a frame of willow for cover in rough weather. When Fermo climbed aboard, he went beneath the shelter, then emerged, crowing with joy. Look at go awesome! A little stone hearth and a clay oven, and three good bench seats. I reckon this craft would hold a score and a half of crew. I tell you, mates, whoever built this vessel knew what they were doing. True crafts beasts they must have been. A real beauty, eh, Gonfo? The mouse thief shook his head in amazement. I wager till go like the wind, too. Where'd those old bad beasts ever lay paws on a marvelous craft like this? Chuggers swaggered about, now immersed in his new role as a pirate captain. Us robbed it off our old frog dad and boiled his tail for vickles. <laughs> Trimp reprimanded him sharply. That's quite enough of that kind of talk, thank you, Chugger. The miscreant shot up the mast pole, scowling darkly. I nor a chugger no more. I a villain, a awful bad un. Then he went to sit beneath the stern awning. Well, I bain't a bad un no more, sir. Oh no, it hurts my face a scowling and a snarling all the time. I'm not but a good old mole, I suppose. Tacking close to the shore, they threaded northward. Fermo and his Guasim shrews were in absolute ecstasies about their new craft. Being great boat builders, they could readily appreciate the skill and ingenuity that had gone into its construction. I thought you were only traveling with us as far as the shore, my friend, Martin reminded the shrew gently. Weren't you supposed to return to your camp and tribe once we were safely downstream? Fermo was sniffing the deck, licking the mast, listening to the prow timbers, wrapping his paws experimentally on the carved elm oarlocks. He smiled absently at Martin. Oh, you mean going back upstream to the domestic life? Well, I tell you, matey, I'd get a right old telling off for me wife if and I went back to tell her we lost the log boats and raft together. Huh, I might be a log-a-log, but my Mrs. Honeysuckle, she's the real ruler of our tribe. She'd scalp the ears off me if and I went back boatless. 
Martin nodded his agreement. So what are you going to do? A crafty smile flitted across the shrew's rugged face. I'm going to stay with you till your adventure's done. Then you can sail back home with me and explain to me darling wife how you couldn't have done without me and my guasome crew. In fact, you'll be so pleased with me that you'll present me with this boat to make up for the ones we lost. In return, I'll throw a smashing feast for you and your crew, and we'll top it off by naming the vessel Honeysuckle in me dear wife's honor. Done? Grinning broadly, Martin clasped Fermo's paw. Done, you golden-tongued rascal. Thirteen. The days that followed were sunny and uneventful, and good progress was made by the little ship Honeysuckle. She was ideally built for skimming the coastal waves, responding quickly to any vagrant wind, slip-tide, or rock shoal by just a touch on her tiller. Chugger was a constant source of amusement. The little squirrel had promoted himself to captain, still keeping up his new identity as a villainous sea-rover. Fulgrim and Trimp often had to stifle smiles and chuckles at his antics. Swaggering about the deck, armed with a stick for a sword, he growled out orders to all and sundry. Get a vickles cooked, or I throw you to shuckers. Keep a tiller straight, Mr. Fermo, or Captain Chug make a scrub a deck. I'll sing a funny song, or I chop a tails off. Gaunt saluted him smartly. Captain Chug, sir, I've checked the provisions and we're running low on everything. We need more vittles. Chugger stroked his chin reflectively, as he had seen Martin do. Then he waved his tiny paws irately. Well, sail a ship to the shore and get lots of more vickles. Hmm. Don't annoy me, mouse. I'm busy being cap'n. Gaunt looked to Fermo. Well, we do need more provisions. The shrew chieftain tacked the vessel artfully across two cresting rollers, watching the shoreline intently. We'll sail till evening, then put in to shore. A night on dry land'll do us good. Tomorrow will be time enough to send out a foraging party. Or if and the cap'n approves. Chugger was binding a colored shrew headband around his brow to make himself look more dashing. He nodded. Good, good. That's what we do. All hush now and be quiet. Captain Chug gonna take his nap. By evening the weather had grown noticeably brisker. Fulgrim pointed shoreward to where the beach was sandy and rock-strewn, dotted with dunes and backed by grassland with stunted trees and bushes. Best chance a landfall there, before the light fades. Leaning on the tiller, Fermo sent the honeysuckle skimming toward the beach. There the crew waded ashore and took up the ship's bowline while they waited on Fermo's word. Watching the incoming waves carefully, he yelled as a high one caught the stern, Take her in, me hearties! Heave! Without any difficulty, they ran the vessel up high and dry above the tide line, where it lay safe. Denny immediately trundled up the beach, pleased to be on dry land, calling back to them, There be an old boat up here. I thought it were a rock. Upside down and half buried in the sand, the boat lay, long forgotten on the deserted shore. Fulgrim viewed it wistfully. Wonder who it belonged to. 
Trent ventured closer, peering into the dark cavern formed by the upturned craft. I don't know, but it'd make a snug shelter for the night. We could get a fire going and make a decent meal with the last of our rations. Come on, it'll be fun. Before any beast could stop her, the hedgehog maid stooped and scurried under the wrecked hull. Yeek! She came scampering out hastily, with a huge red-backed crab chasing her, its claws open and extended aggressively. She hopped clear, but the crab stood outside on the sand, menacing the travelers, protecting its shelter. It was joined by another crab of equal size and ferocity. Trimp was shaking like a leaf, and Chugger hid behind her. Yeah, it a big a spider. No, too big a spiders now. Martin stayed Fulgrim's paw as it strayed to the axe he had taken from the vermin. Easy now, killing's not necessary, friend. They're not spiders, Chug. They're crabs, pretty big ones too. But not to worry. Our prince of mouse thieves knows how to deal with crabs, don't you, oh chubby one? Gaunt bowed low, muttering to his friend. Less of the chubby one, matey. He turned to Trimp. Fear not, pretty one. Crabs and I are old chums. Fermo, build a fire over yonder and bring me two long pieces of wood, will you? Stand clear, the rest of you. While Fermo and his guasum shrews built a fire of driftwood, both crabs held their ground, never going forward or back, but scrabbling sideways with their fearsome pincers wide open, giving out danger signals to the intruders. Gonf took the two long wooden spars offered by a shrew and bound them at both ends with rags soaked in lamp oil, keeping one eye on the crabs. These should do fine. Now watch this and remember, mates. A crab's the daftest creature living. Once he latches on to something, he won't let go, unless 'tis food he can push into his silly mouth. And these poles ain't food. He charged the nearest crab. The pole held out horizontally, shouting, "Come on, old shellback, bite on this!" Clack! The creature's powerful claws seized the pole. Now one for your old pal there. Bite on this, stock eyes! Gaunt thrust the second pole at the other crab in like manner. Obediently, the fearsome pincers grabbed it. Boldly, the mouse thief stood a hair's breadth from both crabs and turned his back on them to face the audience. You see, they ain't got enough brains between 'em to let go of those poles, and while they're hanging on to 'em, they can't hurt us with their nippers. Now, they'll stand there like that till the crack of doom if I let 'em. But here's the best way to get rid of crabs. Watch. Taking a blazing piece of wood from the fire, Gonf raced nimbly around both crabs, touching the flames to both ends of each pole. Agitatedly, the big crustaceans continued their sideways patrol, stalk eyes waving wildly in the firelights they were carrying, stumbling and tripping in dumb panic. The mouse thief advanced upon them, swinging his crackling torch. "You rock-backed oafs, go on, get out of here before your nippers get burned. Go on, into the water with you." He chased them a short distance down the beach until the crabs' tiny brains realized the answer to their burning problem. They scuttled off sideways into the sea. Gaunt skipped back up the beach, chuckling, "Ain't got the sense they was born with those two." Every beast waited while the fearless Gaunt went beneath the boat hull with his lighted torch. "Come on in, buckos! The place is empty."
Guasim cooks like nothing better than to improvise with their cooking. That night they did the crew proud. Barley broth with wild onions and dried water shrimp, hot mint and dandelion tea, and the pièce de résistance, a big pan lined with thick slices of honey-soaked shrewbread, into which they placed all their dried apples and pears and hazelnuts, mixed with the last of their fresh berries, black currants, strawberries, and raspberries. The pan was covered with a flat slab of stone and placed on the fire. After a while, the aromas drifted temptingly around in the shelter formed by the upturned boat. While Fulgrim was not looking, Chugger emptied his barley broth into the otter's bowl and sat happily licking his seashell spoon. Come on, Mr. Fole, eaty up all barley broth, or you don't get no puddin'. See, Chug eat all his up, yum yum. The scarred otter tugged his friend's bushy tail fondly. Ain't it strange how a bowl can fill itself up again? You're a forty-faced little skinamalinker, Cap'n Chug. The pudding was perfectly cooked, a triumph. Every beast had their bowls heaped, and they tucked in willingly. Mmm, this is marvelous. Best I ever tasted. Piping hot and delicious. Brr, I, girtly noise and terrible tasty at bees. Any chance a second helpin's there, Cookie? If and you wants to end up in the sea with your crab mates, Gonf, just keep callin' me Cookie. Oops, sorry. Oh, well-furred and beautiful Guasim boss. Oh, all right, pass your bowl here. Outside the night grew cold, with a stiff wind driving sand spirals across the shore. Fortunately, the shelter was in the lee of the wind, and they sat around the cheery fire amid the good food and banter. During a lull in the conversation, Trimp cocked an ear to the opening. Listen, can you hear anything, Martin? Martin listened. Aye, like a sort of moaning. Fermo refilled Denny's bowl. Probably the wind. But Martin's paw was on his sword. He leaned forward alert. That's not the wind. Listen carefully. In the silence that followed, they all heard the audible moaning from outside, eerie, ghostly. It seemed to fade and rise with a lonely wind out on the moonless stretches of coastline. Fermo shuddered. Don't sound like nothing living to me. This remark started off a lot of fearful speculation. Mayhap tis the spirits of dead beasts? Aye, mate. Could have been the long-dead crew of this boat. They say strange things happen on old lonely shores. I've heard tell of that, too. That they comes back on dark nights to visit the spot where they perished. Ooh, us and should have stayed aboard he boat on a sea. Hark! I can hear him singing words. Sure enough, the words came clear and distinct. Beneath the boat, fur stood on end, paws trembled, and creatures drew closer to the fire. They could not avoid hearing the wailing dirge, which rose and blended with the sighing winds. Ooh, um, ooh, uh. 
from the deep cold seas afar, spirits of the dead arise, rattling bones and sightless eyes from the deep mysterious sea. Wandering lonely beach and shore, we must walk eternally, wandering, seeking evermore, when the pale moon sends its light, or in dark and starless night, roaming near and traveling far. Ooh, 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 ah. Trim's face was blanched with fear. Chugger was trembling like a leaf, and she hugged him close to her. The breath caught in her throat as a spectrally hollow knock sounded on the upturned boat hull. Whack, 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 followed by unearthly-sounding voices. Leave the coast, desert our shore, or stay here forevermore. Go by land or go by sea, heed these warning words, and... Flee! Martin looked at the terror-stricken faces around him. Drawing his sword, he turned to the only one beside himself who did not appear to be affected by the eerie chance. Well, what do you make of that little lot, Gonf? The mouse thief drew his dagger. Don't see how a ghost could be solid enough to knock its paws on a boat hull, mate. You stay here in case it's some kind of trap. Take care of these dithering daisies. I'll go and take a look out there. Gaunt slid out into the night. A moment later he reappeared, a great deal faster than he had left. Martin gripped his friend's paw as the dagger slid from it. This was not like Gaunt, who sat ashen-faced and trembling. The warrior gazed into his haunted eyes. What is it, mate? What did you see out there? Gomp swigged down a beaker of dandelion and mint tea. He regained his composure slightly, though it was some time before he managed to speak. I tell you, matey, I never want to see aught like that again. Tall they were, very tall, with horrible faces and long white bodies that seemed to flutter and float. One of the Gwasim shrews recoiled in horror, his paw shaking as he pointed out beneath their shelter entrance. Here, I see one! There it is! A vague, misty shape was gliding about outside. Martin sheathed his sword and seized a long paddle. I've had enough of this nonsense. Let's see what these ghosts have got to say for themselves. As the apparition drifted by again, Martin struck out with the paddle, giving it a good hard sweep. The ghost gave a yell of surprise and collapsed into a heap. Martin grabbed the struggling mass and dragged it inside the shelter. Ripping off the flowing white cloth, he exposed a hedgehog on stilts. The creature's face was daubed thickly with some kind of white clay, and long seabird feathers were stuck into the clay. Blackened beneath the eyes and painted bright red about the mouth with plant dyes, it gave the hedgehog a fearsome appearance. It glared at Martin defiantly. All right now, and are you the bold old sea rogue? Go on now, Cully, kill me and get it over with. That fine blade you carry looks fit to do the job, you dirty murdering omadorm. Martin grabbed the hedgehog firmly by its clay-encrusted ear. 
Listen, my friend, keep a civil tongue in your head or I'll box your ears for you. We're not sea rogues, and we don't go about slaying others willy-nilly. A huge grin cracked the white clayed face. Mother of all the seasons, now ain't that a mercy. By the spikes of me, fat uncle, does that fine puddin' taste as good as it smells? Could you not serve me up a large morsel of the loverly stuff, and could meself not sit next to that pretty darlin' hogmaid while I show her the powers of me terrible appetite, sir? Martin was smiling as he extended a paw. I'm Martin the warrior of Redwall, and these are my friends, who no doubt will introduce themselves. The hedgehog shook the proffered paw vigorously. And tis pleased I am to meet you, Martin, sir. I'm Murpho, son of Chief Doonspike, all-coast champion spine-tussler. Gaunt immediately took to Murpho. Sensing in him a kindred spirit, he exchanged a wink with a newcomer. Don't you think you'd better ask your dad and the others in out of the weather, Murpho? They'll catch their death of cold stumping about in long white nighties on a night like this. Go on, give him a shout. Murpho stuck his head outside and roared, Oi, da! These beasts are friends, and they've got puddin' on the hob. Bring the boils over, will ya? In the blink of an eye, the shelter and the beach surrounding it was packed with hedgehogs, all untying stilts from their footpaws and casting aside their long white ghost robes. Murpho's father, Doonspike, was possibly the biggest hedgehog Martin had ever set eyes on. Introductions were made all around, with Doonspike offering his apologies for frightening them. Ah, tis sorry I am for putting the fears into honest creatures like yourselves, but we've seen that sleek boat of yours afore, so we'd be forgiven for thinking that you were the dirty scut of a fox in his flotsam that usually sail in it. Ah, yes, indeed, Martin, me old son. Well, now, isn't this all grand? As one, all the hedgehogs nodded and chorused, Ah, tis grand, grand indeed, sir. Fermo scraped his ladle around the big pan, commenting, Sorry, there ain't enough puddin' to go round all your tribe. Chief Doonspike accepted the last bowl and passed it to his son, shaking his head ruefully. More's the pity, but those who get none'll never know what they missed and be no worse for the missin' of it. Hear me, son, get that down your gob and don't go tellin' your old da how grand it tastes. Bad cess to this rotten tooth of mine. It won't abide the sweet stuff and torments the very life of me if I go near anything sweetish, so it does. All the hedgehog spikes rattled as they shook their heads and chorused in unison. Ah, yes, the old tooth torments the big feller terrible. Trimp could not resist asking a question. But why do you parade around the shore at night dressed as ghosts? While Doonspike sat nursing his tooth, Murpho explained, Sure, to scare off the sea vermin. They're all superstitious wretches. Scaring them is far simpler than getting the half of our tribe slain in battle. It works just grand, missy. Ain't that right, boyos? Again, all the tribe nodded their heads and spoke together. Ah, yes, twerks just grand, grand, grand. Still nursing the side of his jaw, which looked painfully swollen, Doonspike glanced admiringly at Martin's sword. 
by the spike of the great hog himself, "'tis a grand and powerful blade you have there, Martin, sir. Martin unsheathed his sword, holding it forth for all to see. Aye, that it is. The hilt was my father's, and the blade was forged by a badger lord from a piece of a star that fell from the skies. This sword is a magic weapon. Doonspike shook his huge head in amazement. Magic, you don't tell me. How so? He did not see the wink that passed between Martin and Gonf. Martin turned the sword so that the red pommel stone at its hilt-top twinkled in the firelight. This stone can soothe pains and heal wounds. The big hedgehog chief stared reverently at the stone. And toothaches? Martin smiled. Aye, toothaches too. Digging a hole in the sand with his sword point, he pushed the sword in upside down. He held it in the deep, wet sand until he judged the stone was cold enough. Sit down here, sir. Gonf, will you get the other side of the chief and hold his head? Doonspike sat down gingerly. Gonf braced the hedge warrior's head still by leaning against the uninjured side. The hog looked uncertainly at Martin, who was withdrawing his sword from the sand. You wouldn't be going to hurt me now, would you, Martin? The warrior smiled reassuringly. Me? Hurt you? I'm not even going to touch you, chief. Tis the pommel stone does all the magic. Sit still and relax. Very gently, Martin began moving the cold stone in slow circles around the patient's swollen jaw, murmuring as he did so. Easy now, easy. How does that feel? Nice and cool? Doonspike closed his eyes, leaning heavily against Gaunt. Ah, tis grand, grand, like a butterfly's breath on a morn in spring. Don't stop, Martin, keep doing that. Round and round me, old rotten aching tooth. Martin whispered soothingly in Doonspike's ear. Round and round with a magic stone, that's the stuff. Is your tooth in the middle of this area I'm circling? Doonspike sighed contentedly. Yes, so tis, so tis. Gripping the cross-hilt with both paws, Martin whacked the pommel stone hard and sudden right at the middle of the swelling where the tooth was located. Thump! Yargoo! I'm destroyed! He's killed me! Arg! The entire tribe of dune hogs leaped forward. Martin swung his blade aloft, halting them with his fearsome war cry. Eulalia! Doonspike stopped roaring. He opened his eyes, felt the side of his jaw. Your grand name, Martin, sir. Trent put a pawful of sea salt in warm water and stirred until it dissolved. She gave it to Doonspike, saying, Take this and swish it around where the tooth came out, sir. It will clean the hole and help it to heal. The big hedgehog patted Martin's back so heartily that he almost knocked him flat. Sure, and I wish you'd done that when we first met. Then I would have been able to tackle that grand puddin' of yours. Martin of Redwall, you're a mighty creature, sir. Heroical you are. The dune-hog chorus echoed their chief sentiments. Ah, yes, yes, heroical indeed. 
Isn't he the grand mouse? Oh, that he is! Grand! Grand! Murpho appealed to his father. Da! Would you have Martin and his friends sitting the night out under some battered old boat wreck? Sure, and twould only be good manners to invite them back to the roundhouse. 14. Trimp walked ahead of the main party with Murpho and a party of admirers, all of whom, it seemed, wanted to hold her paw lest she slip. They were deep among the dunes when Murpho stopped and tapped the side of his nose. Well, Missy, what do you think of our roundhouse? Trimp looked around. All she could see was sand dunes. Where? I can't see any roundhouse. The hedgehogs danced with glee, highly amused. Can you not see it at all, pretty one? Ah, sure. Maybe she's got her eyes shut. And the roundhouse staring her right in the face. She's pretty all right. Pretty short-sighted. Ha, ha, ha. At that, Trent lost her patience. Very funny, I'm sure. Now, would one of you stilt-legged, clay-faced buffoons show me this roundhouse? Murpho stepped forward to the side of the biggest dune and slid aside a screen of brushwood and dead grass, revealing an opening. Bowing low to Trimp, he bade her enter. How do you like it, me beauty? This whole big dune is our roundhouse, and none can find it except the dune hogs. It was an ingenious structure, built from stones, timber, clay, and wattle, completely disguised as one massive sand dune. Inside, it was lit by lanterns and a fire glowing beneath a stone oven with secret air vents to the outside. Every beast sat upon woven rush mats, and a silence fell as Dune Spike entered and threw up his paws. Do we know who we are? Every hedgehog held up their paws and answered, Sons of the sand and daughters of the dunes. The chieftain looked around until he had selected a very young beast, who was still learning the tribe's rules. A question-and-answer session started between master and novice. Older dune hogs watched, nodding sagely. Do we fight our enemies? Dune hogs would rather use fright than fight. How tall is a dune hog? As tall as his stilts. Where do dune hogs live? In a roundhouse where no beast knows. Why don't they know? Cause we cover our tracks. And when is it your turn to cover tracks? Dawn till night, first quarter of the moon. Right. You did grand, young'un, just grand. I thank ye, Chief Doonspike. Food was served amid a babble of chatter. Doonspike plumped his huge bulk down between Martin and Trimp, knocking Murpho out of the way. Ah, that's better now. My turn to sit next to the pretty maid. He tweaked Trimp's head spikes before turning to Martin. These young'uns must learn the rules, you know. Sit ye and welcome to our old home. Eat hearty now. The crew of the honeysuckle soon got into the habit of eating like dune hogs. There was a board piled high with wafer-thin rye-flour pancakes, and between each four creatures two earthenware pots were placed, steam arising from both. One of the pots contained a thick stew consisting of overboiled potato, finely chopped cabbage, wild onions, and various types of shellfish. This was spooned onto a pancake and rolled up carefully. 
One end was twisted a couple of times to stop the contents spilling out. Gonf was an expert within seconds. He nudged a nearby dune hog. Good idea this, mate. Saves a lot of plate washing. Oh, that it does, sir. Tis a grand old idea. Gonf, the perfect mimic, answered him in dune hog idiom. Ah, sure it is. Grand, grand. Every beast within hearing chuckled appreciatively. When the first pot was finished, there was still about half the amount of pancakes left. These they used in like manner with the contents of the second pot, a sweet hot mass of pulp berries and honey with some strange tangy spice mixed in. Dune Spike chomped away blissfully. Ah, thank ye, Mother Nature, for that good old sweet stuff. Twas meself was thinking I might never taste it again until yourself magicked me rotten tooth away, Martin. For entertainment, the dune hogs laid on an exhibition of spine-tussling. A circle was cleared, and two contestants tied on pairs of half-size learning stilts. They stood balancing at the ring's inner edge. Then a few oldsters, acting as referees and judges, shouted, Hold you, circle! No paw-touching now! Get set! Tussle! The pair stumped adroitly out, charging one another. They were two fully grown males and had lots of supporters. Ah, Guan there, doggo, make him eat sand. Get into the great lump, Paco. Throw him spike or stilts and let's see the soles of his foot paws. Watch the devil now, doggo. Look out for those sweeps with his stilts. Go on, tussle, will ye, tussle. Both hedgehogs circled a while, then met in the middle with a resounding bump of heads. They locked head spikes and began trying to throw each other over. Not being allowed to touch one another with their paws made it very hard. Sweating and grunting, they pushed back and forth, every now and again trying a side hop to unbalance the unwary one. Now, Doggle, now! Give him the old side head twist. Use the one-two forward butt, Paco, and you'll tussle him. In the end, Doggle triumphed. He took the advice using a combination of the side-head twist and a left stilt-sweep. With a roar of surprise, Pakel spun once in the air, stilts flying high, to land flat on his back. Cheers rang out from Doggle's supporters as he leaned down and rapped on his opponent's stilts thrice, which is considered a very sporting gesture in spine-tussling circles. Now the dune hogs were calling for the chief to enter the ring, but he shook his head, smiling. Murpho yelled across at him, Guan Da, show him how a real champion tussles, or is your belly getting too grand? This aroused jeers and laughter. Still smiling, Dune Spike plodded down to the ring's edge. Are you fit to be thrown, Doggle? Doggle performed an agile dance on his stilts. Aye, chief, I am that. Though I'm thinking twill take some hog younger and faster than yourself to throw me, you fat old Omadorm. Dune Spike raised one eyebrow. There was a menace behind his smile as he tied on one stilt. Ah, sure, maybe I am getting on in seasons, but let's see if we can't make you kiss the sand with your back spikes. A gasp arose from the audience as Dune Spike stood erect. Will you look at that? He's going to tussle with only one stilt. Doggle will make crab bait of the old fool. One of the judges pointed at Dune Spike. 
Do you not know you're wearing only one stilt, Chief? I do. And you wish to tussle like that tonight? I do. The judge shook his head in resignation. Right. Hold your circle now. No paw touching. Get set. Tussle. The agility and skill of one so old and heavy shook Martin. Doonspike bounded across the ring on his one stilt, meeting Doggle, who was yet not halfway across. Down went the chief's huge head, spikes bristling, and he caught his opponent a mighty butt, locking spikes and twisting powerfully. Doggle went sailing through the air sideways to land amid the spectators. Roaring with laughter, Doonspike hopped over to knock his opponent's stilts thrice amid wild applause. Then he looked at Martin. Would you like to tie the old stilts on and tussle with me, Martin of Redwall? Shaking his head, Martin held up both paws, laughing. I'd sooner tangle teeth with a shark than tussle with you, sir. You're a warrior born. Gonf chimed in. Martin's a warrior, too, you know. And sure, he's a grand one with the old sword. Let him show ye. Martin shook his head wearily at the mouse thief. Gonf. If you want any exhibitions of sword dancing, you can do them yourself. I don't like showing off every time we meet new friends. Gonf shrugged glumly. Trent felt sorry for him and immediately tackled Martin. It's not a case of you showing off, Martin. It's wanting to show you off to our friends. He's so proud of you, as we all are. Couldn't you manage just one little example of your blade skill? Martin threw his paws about them both. When you put it like that, I've no option, Missy. Forgive my bad manners to you, Gonf. Right. Let's see what we can do with these stilts. At Martin's request, the dune hogs thrust two stilts upright in the sand and balanced another one across their tops. The three stilts looked like a door frame standing freely in the middle of the ring. The warrior bade every beast stand clear. A silence fell as they eagerly watched Martin take up position, holding the sword over one shoulder in a classic fighting stance. After weighing the stilts up, he hopped a half-pace back and went into action with a roar. Red wall! Like a shimmering blur of light, the fabulous blade hit the topmost horizontal stilt, sending it flying in the air. Almost within the same breath, the sword zipped left and right, chopping both the upright stilts clean through their middles. Before the top stilt had hit the ground, Martin's sword severed it in midair. Even before the thunderstruck audience could shout or applaud, Martin had sheathed his battle blade and was sitting calmly next to Doonspike. Amid the tumultuous applause, stamping footpaws and rattling spikes, the hedgehog chieftain found his voice. Well, stagger me spikes and pickle me paws, Martin of Redwall, you'd be a useful mouse to have around any place. I thought me own two eyes were telling fibs to me. Sure, and I still don't believe I've seen you do what you did, sir. It was enough to end the battle play. A great old hogwife took out a curious stringed instrument and began twanging it with her head spikes. Another began shaking a tambourine, and a third took up his little paw drum and beat a lively tattoo. Murpho seized Trimp's paw. Ha-har! Can you dance and sing, miss? Trimp skipped down to the ring ahead of him. Just try me. I recognize that tune. Tis Hog Stamp Paw Clap. Setting the sand flying, both young creatures went at the dance with a will, putting in all the fancy steps they knew. 
Hog stamp, paw clap all around the floor. Shake those spikes. That's what they're for. Day is ended. Work is done. Hog stamp, paw clap, everyone. Curtsy the pretty maid. Bow down, sir. You've never danced with one so fair. Take your partner one, two, three. Swing to the left. Love, follow me. Rap, rap, rap. Let's hear those paws. I'll stamp mine if you stamp yours. Round and round. Now jump up high. Look at that young hog made fly. Hog stamp, paw clap, move to the right. I could dance with you all night. Skip into the middle of the ring. Raise your voice. Let's hear you sing. Can't you see? Merry are we. Here's the land and there's the sea. Promenade. Let's hear you say. Honor your partner. Jig away. With a hog and a stamp and a clap, clap, clap. Raise the dust up. Slap, slap, slap. Beat that drum and pluck those strings. Ain't we all such lucky things? Easy with the spikes now, hedgehogs. As Trimp and Murpho halted, the music struck up again, and nearly every beast began dancing. Doonspike and Martin sat tapping time with tankards of sea foam, a fine beer that the Doonhogs brewed themselves. Martin smiled as he watched Chugger kicking up his heels with a tiny hog maid, and leaned toward Doonspike. Guess who's just changed from a squirrel to a hedgehog? Ha <laughs> ha! Yesterday he was a sea rogue captain. Doonspike took a deep swig and wiped a paw across his mouth. And good luck to the little sprig, says I. See, Martin, your pal the otter thinks he's a bit of an old hedgehog too. Martin was amazed at the transformation that had come over Fulgrim. The scarred otter was roaring with laughter as he whirled a hog maid around and around. Doonspike nudged Martin. Sure, and I wish that otter was one of me hogs. The boy o looks as if he'd stand no old buck from any beast. The warrior winked at his friend. That's the truth, mate. No beast messes with Fulgrim twice. Doonspike was still watching Fulgrim as he answered. Beasts without fear are far and few. I knew soon as I clapped eyes on you and Fulgrim that you were two of that rare old stock. Only other two I ever heard of was a mouse like yourself and a black squirrel. Twas said that they were a grand old pair of battlers who didn't know the meaning of the word fear. No, sir. Martin came alert. What were their names? Where did they come from, Chief? Do you know? Doonspike had eaten and drunk copiously, and he was tired. You know, I'm not certain. The mouse had a short kind of name. The squirrel now was her name, Rangfarl or something. I can't think properly. Some days, me old head must be terrible muddled from all that spine tussling. Wait now, I heard it said that the mouse came from north of here, up the coast a ways. Though tis meself would be lying if I told ye any more. Sometimes I wonder if there are more butterflies flying round in me head than there are out on the dune flowers. Martin patted the old chieftain's paw. Never mind, matey. Though I'd be obliged if you could tell me how far the North Shore is. Doonspike lay back on the rush mats and yawned cavernously. Oh, four days about. You'll easily know. Cause the weather gets much colder, and you'll see a great old rocky point sticking out into the sea. Martin, I can't keep me eyes open, so I'll bid you good night and peaceful dreams. 
When the festivities had ceased and the lanterns had been doused, Martin sat awake in the firelight's glow. End of Side 3 To continue, turn the cassette over. Side 4 The Legend of Luke by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 133 all around the dune hog shelter, creatures sprawled, snoring, murmuring, some even chuckling or singing broken snatches of song in their sleep. For some reason unknown to himself, a great weight lay on him, and tears sprang unbidden to his eyes. Then the warrior realized what the cause of his distress was. He had been laughing, singing, drinking, eating, and dancing, with hardly a thought for them. Them, being the father and mother, he could hardly remember, who had lived only four days away from the place where he now sat. A vision of a ship sailing off into a snow-swept day sprang into his mind, a memory of overwhelming sadness and pain. He gripped his sword tightly, knowing it was the only link between himself and the small young mouse who stood on the shore watching the ship vanish into swirling snow and heaving waves. Weariness overtook Martin of Redwall. He lay down and let his eyes close. The small mouse, the ship, and that long-ago day grew dimmer and dimmer, then vanished into the realms of merciful, dreamless sleep. 15. Over the following days and nights, Martin hardly rested or ate. He was unusually silent and spoke only when he had to. Draped in a blanket and sailcloth, he sat at the prow of the honeysuckle, regardless of the hostile weather, which grew colder by the day. Doonspike and his tribe had given them a marvelous send-off, plying the crew with stores of food and delicacies. Trimp and the others had been sorry to sail off. The hedgehogs were so hospitable and funny. Martin's somber mood affected the crew of the honeysuckle deeply and they were not the jolly bunch of companions who had traveled downstream together. Log-a-log Fermo cooked a special damson crumble, with Trimp assisting two of his guassum shrews to make tempting arrowroot and red-currant sauce for it. They sat beneath the stern shelter while Gonf dished it up to the crew, filling each bowl brimful and remarking, Dig in, mateys! This'll put the roses in your cheeks and a smile on your faces! Best skilly and duff I ever saw! Fermo raised his ladle warningly. Ahoy, Gonfo! I'll raise a good lump twixt your ears if and I hear you callin' my best dancin' crumble and Miss Trent's sauce skilly and duff. <laughs> skilly and duff indeed. What does he think we are, Missy? A pack of sea vermin? Trimp held out a bowl to Gonf. Fill it up, friend. I'd better take some to Martin. He only had a beaker of mint tea for breakfast. And tis late noon now, and he hasn't had a thing since. Gonf heaped a good portion into the bowl. Best let me take it, Prettyan. I know him better than any beast, except my columbine. Wish she was here now. Little Gonflet, too. They'd cheer him up. Denny's homely face creased in a smile. Er, I'm thinking he infant and your pretty wife would cheer you up girder than any beast, Sir Gonfin. Gonf sat down. Putting the bowl to one side, he wiped at his eyes with a piece of rag. That's the truth, Din. 
I miss Columbine and the little feller a lot. I ain't the cheerful, roving type I used to be. Chugger leaped onto the mouse thief's lap and hugged him. Shush now, Mr. Gonf. I be your little one, eh? The mouse thief could not help smiling through his tears. Bless your heart, Chug. Course you will. I hope you ain't a doonog no more. They're too prickly to hug. Begging your pardon, Miss Trimp. No reflection on you. Martin came striding astern. He threw off the blanket and sailcloth, nodding to Fermo. Tell your shrews to trim the sail and take up oars. I can see the rock point standing out in the distance. Fermo went up the mast like a squirrel. He peered ahead at the dark, jutting line far off, then came back down. Aye, that'll be the start of the Northlands, right enough. Fulgrim, will you take the tiller and keep her dead ahead? Gonf, help die off the lines. We'll make landfall tonight if and she holds a tight sail. Stir your stumps, Guasim. Show our friends what a shrew rower looks like. The honeysuckle sprang forward, only having to tack the slightest bit, running before a wind out of the southeast. Martin took the forward port oar, with Gonf plying the opposite one. The warrior set a vigorous pace, though Trimp cautioned him, Easy now, Martin, not so fast. Think of the others. Gonf blew off spray that was tickling his nose. That's the stuff, Trimp, you tell him. Otherwise we'll all be flat on the deck afore we're halfway there. Don't forget, it's not safe to roll like a mad beast on a full stomach as skilly and duff. Ouch! The Guasim rowers chortled gruffly as Fermo stood over Gaunt, armed with his stout wooden ladle. I told you what I'd do, you insulting rascal. Now say after me, dance and crumble with good hot sauce. Gaunt repeated it dutifully and Fermo made him say it again. The phrase made such a good rowing chant that the Guasim shrews took it up, bending and straightening their backs in time to the cadence. Dance and crumble and good hot sauce! Dance and crumble and good hot sauce! Chugger was acting captain again. He strode officiously up to Gonf and nodded approvingly. Mr. Gonf, you like a dancer crumb and good hot sauces? The mouse thief licked his lips appreciatively. I certainly do, me little mate. Patting his tiny stomach, Chugger growled fiercely. Well, you can't have it no more. I eat it all up, and I nut your little mate now. I cap'n Chug, see? Not stopping for anything, they rode doggedly on, trying to keep up the pace, which Martin had unconsciously increased again. Midnight had gone by an hour when they rounded the point. Every beast lay back, panting with exhaustion, as Fermo gave orders to ship oars. Every beast except Martin. As the honeysuckle's hull scraped to a halt in the shallows, he was upright, staring at the deserted shore, which was bathed in pale moonlight. Like lonely sentinels, the cliffs stood high in the background, topped by sparse vegetation. Darkened caves, partially covered by weather-warped driftwood and rubble, which had once disguised them from hostile eyes, lay forlorn and abandoned. A flood tide of memories poured in on Martin's senses. Every rock, even the wind-driven sand drifts, looked familiar to him. Turning to his tired companions, the warrior spoke in a hoarse whisper. I was born here. I know this place. Slipping overboard, he waded through the shallows. 
drawing his rapier, Logalog Fermo signaled to his guasim. Fulgrim picked up his axe, determined to go ashore with them. Gonf backed to the rail and stood in their path, holding up both paws. No, mates, let our friend go alone. Twould not be right to intrude on him this night. The crew of the honeysuckle laid aside their weapons and sat down to await Martin's return. Striding slowly up the beach, Martin turned to his right, the cave which had once been his home drawing him to it like a magnet. At first he thought his eyes were deceiving him. Halting, he stared hard at the feeble glow emanating from the cave. It was a light. Some beast had lit a fire there recently, which had died to glowing embers. Drawing his sword, the warrior of Redwall crouched, moving forward, silent as moonshadow. Entering the cave, he flattened himself against the rock wall, waiting until his eyes were accustomed to the dim light. Covered by a long traveling cloak, an old mouse sat dozing by what was left of the fire. Martin crept close, extended his blade, and tapped the mouse's paw lightly with its point. He did this once again. Then the creature stirred, turning its face to him. The old mouse spoke in an awestruck voice. Luke, is that you? Wordlessly, Martin placed some broken twigs on the fire. Laying aside his sword, he sat down opposite the ancient creature, staring at it through the rising flames. A slow smile of pure joy stole across the old one's lined face. Oh, Luke! Luke, it is you! But how? The warrior spoke softly, so as not to frighten the old fellow. I'm Martin of Redwall, son of Luke the warrior. Pray, what is your name, sir? Rising slowly, the old mouse shuffled around the fire. Sitting next to Martin, he reached out and touched the warrior's face. Martin watched in silence as tears rolled down the mouse's cheeks and his head began to shake. Ah, so many seasons, so long ago. I've returned here through snow, rain, and sun many, many times and sat waiting alone, always alone. Tears overcame further speech. Martin drew the old mouse to him placing a paw about his scrawny back and wiping away the tears with the cloak hem. He rocked him gently. There, there, no need to weep further, friend. I am Luke's son, and I have come. You are not alone. The old mouse's eyes searched Martin's face. Aye, you are, Martin. So like your father, so like him. Do you not remember me? I'm Verg. I was Luke's best friend. Martin could not remember him, but he nodded. Of course. I didn't recognize you in the dark. Verg, my father's strong right paw. I recall you now. How are you, Verg? Holding forth his withered paws, Verg chuckled. How am I? I'm old, Martin. Old, old, old. <laughs> I've got more seasons on me than a hedgehog has spikes. Martin hugged the scrawny form to him fondly. Nonsense. I think you look just the same as you always did. I'll wager your appetite's still as good. Are you hungry, Verg? He <laughs> he, 
Any beast tough enough to be living on the Northland's coast is always in need of good vittles. Martin sheathed the sword across his shoulder. Right. Come on back to the boat with me. I've got a crew of Guasim shrews there who'll feed you till you burst. Verg rose creakily, retrieving a beaded linen bag from the sand. This he stowed beneath his cloak. Well, young Martin, what are we standing round here waiting for? Lead me to the grub. Together they crossed the shore, Verg leaning heavily on Martin's paw for support, chattering away. Go awesome shrew cooks, eh? Bet they know how to serve up proper made vittles. Not like old Cardo. Now there was a mouse who'd burn a salad. Cook? Cardo couldn't boil water to save his life. You remember Cardo, don't you? Martin lied as he kept the oldster on a steady course. Oh, Cardo, how could any beast forget that buffoon? Gaunt was on watch, sitting in the prow. He saw the two mice approaching the honeysuckle and roused the crew from their slumbers. Ahoy, mates! Martin's coming back. Looks like he's brought company, too. Stand by, he might need help. Fermo and Fulgrim assisted in getting Verg aboard. The old mouse winked at the scarred otter. <laughs> Bet you could take care of yourself in a scrap. Fulgrim's pointed teeth bared in a savage grin. I've taken care of a few in me time, sir. Berg mused absently as they seated him comfortably under the stern awning. Aye, so did Luke and Rangavar. They took care of more than a few. Hee-hee-hee. <laughs> Fermo patted the old one's paw fondly. How's your sweet tooth, Grandad? I tell you, young whipsnout, a sweet tooth's about the only one I got left in me mouth. Hee-hee. <laughs> The shrew stoked up his stove with sea coal and driftwood. Then how does a baked river roll with hot maple syrup sound to you? I mix it with sweet flour and all over it. Got a beaker or two of dune hog seafoam ale to go with it. Sound good? Berg wiped a paw across his lips. I'll tell you when me mouth quits waterin', youngin. Morning came with overcast skies and a bitter wind. Martin sat beneath the stern shelter with his friends, sipping barley and carrot broth. Verg lay behind them, close to the oven, wrapped snugly in his cloak, sleeping off the feast he had consumed. Gonf sat Chugger on his lap, allowing him to steal his beaker of broth. You finish that all up, matey, and don't be dashing about kicking up a rumpus. Old Verg needs lots of sleep. Well, Martin, did you find out what you needed to know from the old feller? About your dad and so on? Martin shook his head as he watched Berg sleeping. Didn't want to rush him. Berg will tell me when he's ready, though I did hint that I needed information. Then he looked over the top of his beaker. What did him old feller say about that, sir? Martin shrugged. Not much. Though he did say I'd find out all I needed to know when we took him back home to some place called Tall Rocks. Chugger was beginning to wriggle out of Gonf's grasp. Trent took charge of him, stroking the tiny squirrel's head soothingly. She looked inquiringly at Martin. Tall Rocks? Where's that? The warrior stared out at the gray, wintry seas. Somewhere up north of here. Verg said he'd show us the way. 
Fermo picked up the linen bag from where it had fallen, out of Verg's cloak, and passed it to Martin. What do you suppose is in this? Martin sighed deeply and placed the bag carefully back in the folds of Verg's cloak without disturbing him. He'll tell us when he's ready, I suppose, though I'm not certain I want to know now. I have a feeling inside that is going to be a long and tragic tale. Verg woke before noon, feeling much refreshed, and to prove it, he ate a huge breakfast. Under his directions, they pushed off and continued north. Martin watched, silent and pensive once more, as his birthplace faded into the distance. 16. It was a late noon, two days out from Martin's former home, when tall rocks hove into view. Rain was falling heavily, and the wind had died completely. The sea surface, though pitted constantly by rainfall, was relatively calm, with a notable absence of the huge foam-crested rollers usual in the area. Verg stood in the bows, Martin at his side, and relayed directions. Fermo and Denny held the tiller between them, listening out for instructions. Keep her head out to sea a bit. Stick to that course. Fermo obeyed, but voiced his doubts. Wouldn't we be better tacking in closer to the land side? Martin swiftly gave him his answer. No, no, stay seaward. Verg says the underwater reefs are close to the surface inshore. Out here the sea runs very deep, so the reefs are far below us. Keep her head out. Right enough. Just as well the tide's running smooth today. Martin agreed. Aye. Verg says that if any waves start up, you must steer right out to sea, away from tall rocks, and forget the whole thing until ebb tides arrive. Otherwise the honeysuckle would be smashed against the rocks. Then he glanced fearfully to the horizon. Oh, seas, keepy girt waves clear of usins. There be nothing worser'n a drowned mole beast, no sir. Trimp and the remainder of the crew stood aghast at the size of tall rocks. Monumental pillars of stone, they reared out of the sea like monsters from the dawn of time, huge and forbidding. For leagues of the coastline the seas were dotted with them, colossal and weirdly shaped, some cylindrical, others triangular or square-sided, their bases festooned with seaweed, kelp, and dark moss above the columns of dark basalt stone. The honeysuckle's sail was taken in, and the most expert Goasum ore-beasts sat at the rowlocks, knowing their lives depended on the accuracy and sureness of their strokes. The order came when they were almost abreast of a cluster of columns, fronted by one half as big again in girth and height as the rest. "'Take her in steady!' Keep the biggin' on your port side. Trimp held tight to Fulgrim's paw. Good grief! Look at the size of those rocks, Fulgrim! Chugger, who had climbed onto the otter's shoulders, clung there like a leech, whimpering, I frightened, Mr. Fool! Chuck, no like this! Fulgrim tickled the little squirrel's footpaw. Aye, I'm frightened too, matey. So is the whole crew, and even Martin. So we're in good company, I reckons. All else was forgotten as the monstrous pinnacles loomed close. Fear echoed in Fermo's high-pitched yell, Bring her round! Round the big rock! Push her off and take her round, mates! Now! Rising in a smooth, high swell, 
The seas swept the skiff like a cork, straight for the big rock. Paddlers on one side banked her, rowing furiously while Martin and Gonf joined the others, fending the rock off by pushing against it with oars and long poles. With an audible sucking and gurgling, the swell receded. Down they shot into a deep trough, with the honeysuckle swerving bravely in a swift arc around the basalt monolith. No sooner were they on the lee side of the rock than the peril of their position increased. Now they were in a narrow channel betwixt the main column and the others grouped behind it. Obeying Berg's orders, the Guasim chieftain sang out, I'm staring for that pack of rocks. Make ready to tie up forward, aft, and amidships. But don't tire fast, mates. Leave slack so she can ride the swells. The moment they were in reach of the grouped pinnacles, Martin whirled a weighted line, as did Fulgrim in the midships and Gonf at the prow. Again the swell lifted them, and Fermo shouted, Heave those lines out, mates! The strong, slender ropes snaked out and up. Three iron grapnels clanked simultaneously into the stone crevices. The honeysuckle was secured safely, and bobbed up and down alongside the rocks, with the slack lines allowing her to ride easily on the swells. Log-a-log Fermo could not stop his paws shaking. He wobbled along the deck and leaned against Martin, pale, breathless, and shaken. By the fur and blood of the great Gooawesome, at least ten times there I thought we was a goner, matey. Martin grasped his friend's paws, steadying them. You did it superbly, Fermo. No beast could keep her on course like you did. T'was nothing short of a miracle. Stamping his footpaw against the deck, Fermo smiled proudly. Aye, and no other craft in all the rivers and seas could have done it like our honeysuckle. What a ship! I'll tell some stories about her to my tribe when we gets back. Verg took a deep breath. Cupping paws around his mouth, he called out in a quavery voice, Ahoy, the arf ship! Ahoy there! Can you hear me? There was no answer. Fermo felt recovered enough to roar out in a thunderous baritone. Ahoy, Arfship! Tis Berg and some company! Ahoy! Martin pulled the shrew to one side just in time to avoid a hefty rope ladder with timber rungs which came down out of the rocks and clattered to the deck. Gaunt stared in puzzlement at Berg. Who are we shouting to? And what's an Arfship, mate? On the ledge above them, a hare appeared. He looked as ancient as Verg, older, in fact. Shaking a tremulous paw at Verg, he called down, Where in the name of my Eddie's apron have you been, what? I've been sitting up here like a blinking sickly seagull, worrying about you, sir. Now you come sailing up here pretty as you please, in charge of this jolly old rat's regatta. What? Verg mounted the rope ladder with Trimp's assistance, followed swiftly by her friends. The old mouse argued with the hare as he climbed up to the ledge. Oh, give your flapping jaws a rest, Bo. These creatures are friends. They brought me back from the North Shore, which is more than I can say for you. I'd grow whiskers to me footpaws waiting on you to come and fetch me, you great flop-eared, bag-bellied, droopy-pawed rock rabbit. The old hare's ears stood up indignantly as he helped Berg onto the ledge. Rock rabbit, is it? You bladder-bottomed old dodderer, what, what? I've had a barnacle casserole bubbling here for two confounded days waiting for you. 
bad form, sir. I was going to make a plum pudding too, but I flippin' well ain't now. So you can go and jolly well whistle for your blinkin' dessert for all I care, and I hope that casserole keeps you awake all night, ungrateful bounder. Martin popped his head over the ledge. When you two creatures have stopped arguing, would you mind moving aside? We've got a ship's crew to get up this ladder. The hair fitted a rock crystal monocle into one eye and glared down at Martin. Oh, have you now? Well, my compliments to you, sir, and your crew. What? I suppose you've come to eat us out of house and home without a by-your-leave or jolly old tootle-pip. Berg interrupted the hare's tirade. Ahoy, Bo! Mind your manners. Take a close look at yon mouse and tell me who you think he is. Bo crouched down, holding his back and grimacing. He brought his face level with Martin's. The eyeglass popped out with surprise as he stared at the warrior mouse. Luke! Well, burn my auntie's taters, what? You're a bounder, a rotter and a curmudgeon, sir. How is it that you've stayed so jolly young while we've grown old? Not the done sort of thing, I'd say. Ballycad. Martin sprang up onto the ledge. Smiling, he grasped Bo's paw and pumped it up and down. I'm Martin of Redwall, son of Luke the Warrior. Whom have I the pleasure of addressing, sir? The hare shook his hoary silver head, returning the smile. Knew your father well, sir. Excellent chap. I'm Bo Hare Featheringham Cosforting Soul. No, I ain't. I'm Bo Soul Featheringham Cosforting Clare. No, I ain't. Wait a tick. I'm Boham Featheringham Clare confound it all. Cha! I'm so old I've forgotten me own name. What a disgrace, what? Berg sniggered. Hee <laughs> hee! Try Beauclair Featherings old Cosportingham. That's your silly long name. The hare scratched his scraggly whiskers. Ah! Of course it is. Thank you, old chap. Then, scratching his whiskers again, he turned on Berg. On the other paw, who asked you, sir? You battered old mouse relic. When I need some beast to tell me my name, I'll jolly well ask myself. Pish tush. The very idea. Telling a chap his own moniker. Berg approached him until they stood nose to nose. Battered old mouse relic? Well, of course I am. And who wouldn't be? Looking after you all these seasons? Should have left you on Twin Islands. That's what I should have done. Martin clapped a paw to his brow, looking beseechingly to Gaunt. The mouse thief pushed Bo and Berg apart. Quiet now, you two, and listen to me. Aboard our ship we got a way of settling arguments. We let any quarrelsome beast settle things by challenging our argument counselor. Fulgrim, come over here. Testing his axe edge by licking it, Fulgrim strode over. Bearing pointed teeth, he turned his scarred face from Berg to Bow. The otter's voice sounded like a blade hacking ice. Well now, any beast got an argument to settle with me? Choose your weapons, axes or teeth. They don't make nods to me. Berg immediately hid behind Bo, whose throat bobbed like an apple on a string as he gulped. Arguing? Who's arguing, old chap? Merely a bit of humorous batter twixt my erstwhile companion and me good self, what? I say, Berg, 
Hadn't we better get these seagoing types aboard the good vessel Arf ship? They look jolly hungry and tired to me. We could fricassee a shark or two for friend Fulgrim, or maybe he'd prefer just a gnaw on the mess deck table. Er, ah, ha, ha, follow me, chaps. No offense, Mr. Fulgrim, sir. Merely a jocular jest, what, what? Berg and Bo led them through a perfectly round tunnel in the rock. They emerged on the other side amid the massed pinnacles and stood gazing up in open-mouthed awe at the sight that greeted them. Bo managed to make an elegant leg and bowed slightly. Welcome to the vessel Arf Ship! Jammed between the column they stood upon and the one immediately next to it was half a ship. High overhead it stood, lodged between both pinnacles, more than two-thirds of the way up. From midships to forward end it was wedged firmly, a huge rusting iron spike at its forepeak driven into the rock by some tremendous force. The thing had once been red, but now, through seasons of harsh weather, sea spray, sun, and rain, it was faded to a rose-pink hue. Denny's voice cut the silence. Well, Bill Moy Tunnel, Arf a ship up in the air. Ascending another rope ladder, they climbed up to the old habitation. Trimp stared about in astonishment at the immensity of it all. It was like being in some great chamber. Timbered bulkheads with holes for ore ports let in the light, as did the opened hatch covers high above them. Fermo's voice echoed spectrally in the vast space as the crew of the honeysuckle walked through it wide-eyed. And this is supposed to be only arf a ship. I tell you, mates, could you imagine it afore it was broken? With the other arf attached, it must have been like a floating village. I wager there wasn't anything that size ever sailed the seas. Berg nodded his old head. Oh, but there was, and this is what's left of it. See through those open hatch covers? There's another deck above this and another one above that again. You're looking through three decks up to the main one, which, if you count it, makes four altogether. We keeps the hatches open to give light, battens them down in bad weather. Up these stairs is the forward cabins. Come on, I'll show you. Martin shook his head as he passed rows of benches with chains dangling from them, and long broken oars hanging through the ports. They looked well worn from constant use. Bo, was this a slave ship? Indeed it was, old lad. The foulest, most evil vessel that ever plied the ocean. Now tis our home, our beloved Arf ship. Actually, twould have been half ship if I'd had me way, but the others called it Arf ship, so Arf ship it is. What? Come and eat now. Questions later. That's the drill. Following him up the ornately carved staircase, they entered a roomy cabin with its skylights thrown open. It was a complete living area. Tables, chairs, bunks, and cupboards were all about, clean and neat. Two mice, old and gray, were working at a table next to a big glowing stove with its smoke pipe thrusting through the edge of the skylight. Berg introduced them. This is all of us left from those who sailed off long ago from the north shores. Myself, Dulem, and Denno. The mouse called Denno went straight to Martin and took the warrior's face gently in both his flower-dusted paws. 
No need to tell old Denno who you are. I know. Luke's son Martin. Couldn't be no other beast. You're the spitting image of the great Luke, though you got your mother Saina's eyes. Martin shook visibly, blinking hard. You knew my mother? Denno nodded. Course I did. And a prettier, more gentle creature there never was. I do em all, Martin, every beast. But we've got all night to talk of that. Sit and rest now. The food will be ready soon. Barnacle casserole was a delicious concoction of sea vegetables and shellfish. Guasum cooks hurried back to the honeysuckle and brought up more supplies. Bo relented, and aided by Fulgrim and Trimp, he began mixing a big plum pudding. Gonf helped the Guasum cooks to bake scones and bread. Martin and Chugger cut up an excellent cheese studded with beech mast and hazelnuts. Denny put together a salad with any spare vegetables he rooted out. Mint tea was put on to boil, and dandelion and burdock cordial poured from a keg into serving jugs. After the tables were pushed together and set, they sat down. Gonf proposed a toast. To the end of a journey, to my best friend Martin the Warrior, and to the wonderful vittles and good hospitality showed to us by the crew of the Arf ship. Every beast raised their beakers and drank cheerfully. As they ate, Fermo could not resist asking the question that was puzzling him greatly. Tell me, Verg, how did the forward half of a great ship land up here? It just don't seem possible. Verg munched shrewbread and cheese as he explained. You're right, mate. I wouldn't have believed it myself if and I hadn't been aboard at the time. But here's how it came about. During the biggest storm any beast had ever seen, the Gorleach, where that was once what this ship was called, struck that big rock pillar out in front. I tell you, waves twice as high as this vessel were running on a sea driven by wind and rain. Twas more like a hurricane than a gale. Well, she whacked that big rock side on with a force you couldn't imagine. Smashed the Gorleach clean in two, like an ought knife going through butter. On board, the forward part were oar slaves and sea rogues doing battle. We were flung to the decks like wet leaves in a wind. There was screaming, shouting, and weeping. Every beast was sure they'd met their deaths. The stern half fell backward into the sea and sank in the blink of an eye. Now the same great wave that sank it carried us and the other half swirling round to the back of the big rock. Down, down we went as the wave ebbed away in a torrent of sucking and whirling, and we thought we were surely done for. Then another giant wave rounded the rock and lifted us, easy as a paw lifts a grain of sand. Up we rose, up, up, high in the air. From where I lay on the deck, I saw the two pinnacles as the wave crest flung us forward. Suddenly, a shuddering shock ran through me from tail to ear tips. Then everything went still. I opened me eyes and stood up. We were wedged fast, right up here, the broken midships resting flat on a ledge of one column, the prow on another, with a big iron spike that stuck out front, driven like a nail deep into the rock. Gaunt forgot the beaker which was halfway to his lips, and sat shaking his head. 
And what happened next, Berg? The old mouse chuckled as he speared a scone with his knife. Me and Bo rallied our fighters fast and finished off those scummy sea rogues afore they had a chance to get us. We've lived here ever since. Nothing'll shift the old arf ship. She's weathered time and tides, storm and seasons, I, and never budged a splitter. After a while we made a rope cradle and rigged the line over to the cliffs on shore. Many creatures left and went off to find their old homes. A score of us stayed here. But that was long ago. Now there's only Doolum, Denno, me and Bo left out of them all. Most of our mates died. They're wrapped in sailcloth, weighted down with stones, sleeping on the seabed far below us. Fates be kind to their memories. Martin decided that the time had come. Tell me, Berg, what became of my father, Luke the warrior? Bo rose stiffly and went to a cupboard. He returned to the table with a large, dusty volume. "'Tis all within these pages, Martin, everything, as best as the four of us can recall. We spent many a winter and autumn night recording the entire tale. It was a joint work. You know, I thought it might be found by some beast long after we were gone. But fate and fortunes have smiled on us, laddie buck. There's food and drink on the table, and a long night ahead of us, what? Here, Denno, you young whippersnapper, you can understand your own writing best. Read the journal to our friends. There's a good chap. Denno polished a tiny pair of glasses. Perching them on his nose, he looked over at Martin. I was the scribe, you see. Right, let's start at the beginning. I hope you like the title. Tis called In the Wake of the Red Ship, this being an account of Luke the Warrior written by his friends. Outside, the eternal seas washed against tall rocks, and breezes sighed a wistful dirge about the basalt columns where seabirds wheeled and called. In the cabin, high among the pinnacles, Martin of Redwall listened as the saga of his father, Luke the Warrior, unfolded. Book Two Luke Seventeen There were other mice in the tribe, older and more experienced, younger mice also, bigger and stronger. But every beast regarded Luke as their natural leader. As mice go, he was nothing special to look upon, of average height and stocky build. However, on closer observation it became obvious that Luke was a warrior born. Behind his calm, dark eyes there lurked a flame. His stance bespoke fearlessness. Some indefinable quality in his whole attitude marked him as one in whom others could put their unquestioning trust. A mouse tribe could look to him for guidance, and he could always be counted on for fairness and wisdom in his decisions. Such a creature was Luke the warrior. Over many seasons the tribe had wandered under his leadership. Long ago they had left the warm areas of abundance, those places where verminous villains preyed upon any who sought the peaceful life. Constant warfare against outnumbering odds had forced Luke's tribe into the nomadic way, always seeking and searching for some place where they would not have to sleep paw on sword with one eye open. 
From the fertile middle lands they roamed north, where the weather was cold and the land bleak and sparse. On the day they reached the Northland coast, Luke thrust his sword into the earth. This would be his tribe's new home. It was a lonely place, quiet and undisturbed. The tribe approved Luke's decision. Hard-working beasts could wrest a living from the ground here, providing they were left in peace to do so. There were caves in the base of the cliffs which backed the shore, a high rocky cape thrusting out into the sea at the southern point. It felt safe, with cliffs at the back and the seas in front of them. There was good soil on the cliff tops, which could be planted and farmed in spring, summer, and autumn. For the first few days they kept a low profile, living off what supplies they had stored, making the caves habitable. During this time, Luke and his friends patrolled the area, watching out for enemies, robber bands, and Burman raiders. Luke knew that his tribe was only a small one, wearied by constant travel, and would not be able to resist any major attack from a large force. But happily, there was neither sight nor trace of foe-beast. Then, on the fourth day, Luke strode ahead of the rest as they made their way back to the caves. His step was light, and a shudder of joy ran through him. He felt that this forsaken Northland coast was already bringing him happiness. Only two days before, his wife Sena had given birth to their first little one, a son. They would call the new baby mouse by the name of Martin. Luke's grandsire had been named Martin, and when he was young, Luke had often listened to tales that were told of the formidable warrior mouse. It was his sword that Luke carried in the sheath on his back, given to him by his own father. Luke was the third of his family to carry the old battle blade, and one day, when the time was right, little Martin would be the next. The tribe was busy preparing a feast for Luke and Sena's son, the first little one to be born on the Northland coast. There was to be a great bonfire, too. As Luke came within sight of the caves, he could see the ever-growing mound of driftwood and dead timber being piled above the tide line. Two young mice were struggling to drag a big chunk of driftwood along the shore. Luke approached them, a smile hovering on his face at their efforts. Well, well, Timbalisto and Fripple, when do you plan on getting that log to the bonfire pile next season? Both mice were little better than three seasons old. They sat down wearily on the log, big round eyes imploring Luke. Stu blinkin' big for us, Luke. Will you lend a paw? The warrior mouse drew his ancient battle sword from its sheath on his back and swung it high overhead, bringing the sharp blade down to bite deep into the wood. Righto, you two rascals, grab a hold of the sword hilt with me. We'll see if it moves any easier with us three strong beasts pulling it. Come on! Heaving energetically, Luke tugged the lump of wood through the sand. He watched fondly as the two little mice pulled valiantly, each latched onto the cross-hilt. When they brought the log to the pile of timber, Luke allowed Fripple and Timbalisto to help him loose the sword blade, though he could have easily done it alone. He passed a paw across his brow, winking at them. Whew! Thank you, mates. Twas a job well done. The little mouse maid Fripple took hold of Luke's paw. Please, Luke, will you take me to your cave to see your new baby, Martin? Please, Luke? Luke could not help chuckling at the beseeching look on Fripple's face. 
He tweaked her paw gently. Of course I will, pretty one. What about you, Timble? Timbalisto scowled fiercely. I'll stay here and guard our wood till you get back. Martin's cradle was a hollowed-out log, lined with soft moss and a woven blanket. The only family Luke had left in the world sat by it, his wife Sena and her mother Windred. Crowing with delight, Fripple leaned over the cradle and took the baby's paw in hers. Oh, my, my, isn't he a lovely little feller? Sena held the mousemaid's smock, lest she fall into the cradle. Aye, he's a good baby, no trouble at all. I think he will grow bigger and stronger than his daddy. Martin's eyes watched solemnly as his father loomed over him. He raised a tiny paw, reaching for the hilt protruding over his father's shoulder. This delighted Luke. Ho, ho, look at this bucko, trying to draw my sword. Windred hovered around the cradle anxiously. Be careful, he might cut himself on that blade. Luke reassured the fussing old mousewife. Oh, no, he won't. Martin's a warrior born. I feel it. Let my son hold the sword. It'll be his one day. Sena watched her serious-faced babe trying to wrap his little paws around the black-bound haft with its redstone pommel. She shivered slightly. May the fates forbid that he'll ever have to use it in war. Luke released Martin's hold and stood up straight. Don't worry, Sena, that'll never happen while I'm around. Besides, I don't think we'll be bothered here, being this far north. We search the shores and cliffs both ways. There's nothing much to the south. And if you go farther north, there's only some great tall rocks sticking up out of the sea about three days from here. Not a paw print of vermin anywhere. Now, what about our son's feast? Windred turned to the cave entrance. Out on the shore, the mice of the tribe were setting out what food they had foraged by the unlit bonfire. Each had brought what they could afford to spare, but it was not much. Windred spoke. Ha! Feast, you say? Tis a wonder we keep fur around bone on this forsaken coast. You've brought us to a cold and hungry place, Luke. Sena checked Windred reprovingly. That's not fair, mother. Tis not Luke's fault. Where the food was plentiful, so were our enemies. At least we have safety up here, and when spring comes, we'll be able to farm and plant the clifftop lands. Luke says there's good soil up there. What about those berries old Tula saw yesterday? Luke glanced from one to the other. What berries? Where did Tula see them? Sena explained. He took a walk last evening north along the shore, and said he saw lots of berries growing in a rift near the cliff top. But there were great seabirds up there, too, nesting. I thought it might be dangerous, which is why I didn't mention it yesterday. Seabirds can be very fierce creatures. Luke patted his sword hilt. Aye, and so am I when our tribe needs food. Leave it to me. I'll take some good well-armed fighters with me, and Twula can show us the spot. We won't harm the seabirds if they don't attack us, and I don't think they will. For what need have they of berries? Seabirds live on what they can scavenge from the sea and the tide line. We'll gather the fruit and uproot a few young bushes to plant on the cliff tops back here. Now there's no cause for worry or fuss. I'll leave some warriors back here to guard our camp, 
and I'll be back as soon as I can with whatever we find up there. Carry on with the feast. The youngsters are expecting it. I'll try to return before it is finished. Sena placed Luke's warm cloak about his shoulders. You'll need this. It gets cold out there at night. Bring me back a little blackberry bramble, and I'll plant it so that Martin will be able to help me pick the berries in a few seasons. Windred adjusted the cloak around Luke's sword. Aye, and be careful out there. This is still strange country to us, Luke. With a score and a half of good mice that he could depend upon, Luke set out north along the shore. However, they could only travel as fast as old Twula, and the ancient mouse hobbled along at a slow, creaky gait. It was close to midnight when the foraging party reached the high crag where the berries grew. Twula sat down wearily upon the sand, pointing upward. That's the place, Luke, but I ain't going up there. Some of those seabirds are big as eagles. Luke took off his cloak and wrapped it around the old fella. You did well getting us this far, Twula. Stay here and rest. We'll go up. Berg, Denno, bring those ropes. By those who knew the coasts and high seas, one name was whispered with terror and loathing. Vilu Daskar. The pirate's stoat was known by other names, butcher, thief, torturer, murderer, but none more frightening than his own, Vilu Daskar. Captain of the biggest vessel ever to plow the main, a trireme with three banks of oars pulled by wretched slaves crimson red, from the pennants fluttering at its forepeaks down through the four mighty sails to its gigantic keel, always leaving behind it a thin red wake from the dyes which oozed out of its timbers. Jutting out from the prow stood an immense iron spike, rusted red by long seasons of salt water. Such was the red ship, named the Gorleach by its master, Vilu Daskar. Evil was his trade, the red ship his floating fortress. Aboard it he could disappear into the trackless wastes of seas and ocean, materializing again to prey on the unwary. Coastal settlements, inland hamlets, even the island havens of other sea raiders and corsairs. None were safe from the gorleach and its bloodthirsty crew, a mob of wild, cruel vermin. Mercenaries, assassins, cutthroats, the flotsam and jetsam of earth and waters, these sea rogues were ruled by two things alone, a lust for plunder and slaughter, and a blood-chilling fear of their lord, Vilu Daskar. He reveled in the dread his name instilled into all. In the tween decks of the Gorleach, relentless drums pounded incessantly, Chained to the oars, masses of gaunt slaves bent their backs and pulled, straightening with a joint groan as they heaved on the long wooden sweeps. To the accompaniment of slave drivers, cracking their whips, and the ever-present drumbeat, the red ship sailed into the waters off north coast. Vilu Daskar leaned against the stern gallery rail, his alert, dark eyes watching constantly, like a snake about to strike. Unlike other seagoing vermin, he was highly intelligent, well-spoken, and modestly garbed. He wore a long red cloak, beneath which was a plain black tunic belted by a broad red calico sash, through which was thrust a long, bone-handled scimitar. 
The only concession to finery was his headgear, a white silken scarf bound about his brow, atop of which he wore a rounded silver helmet with a spike at its center. Tall and sinewy, he cut a quietly elegant figure, unlike the crew under his command, all arrayed in a jumble of tattered finery and sporting heavy tattoos and masses of gaudy earrings, necklets, and bracelets. Evening light was fading fast over the cold seas when, from high on the mainmast, a sea-rat called Grig sang out from the crow's nest, "'Land away! Off larboard, Captain! I sees a light on shore, sire, to the north of that rocky point!' Billu flicked his eyes in the direction given, without moving his body. Akla, the ferret steers-beast, held the ship's wheel steady, awaiting his captain's command. Even if it meant running the gore-leech onto rocks, he knew better than to change course without Vilu's order. The stoat spoke without raising his voice. Sweep south and take her in behind that big rock point. Two other vermin stood waiting as Vilu peered hard at the faint glow far off on the shoreline. He issued orders to them without turning, knowing they would obey instantly. Reef and furl all sails, and increase the oar stroke to double, double speed. We need to get out of sight quickly. Abruptly, he strode off forward, where his bosun, the sea rat, Parag, had a better view of the shore. So, my keen-eyed bosun, what do you see? Parag scratched at his beribboned whiskers, plainly bewildered. Tis hard to tell, Captain. Oh, that's a fire right enough, and a good biggin. To be seen from this distance, sire. A thin smile hovered on Vilu's lips. But? The bemused bosun shook his head. But any beast to be mad to light a fire that big on Northland shore. What are they up to, Captain? Vilu lost sight of the glow as the gorleach turned south, the headland blocking his view. Well... No creature in their right mind would set up a signal beacon on that shore. So they are either out of their minds or ignorant of the danger. Maybe that's it, Parag. They might merely be simple beasts having some kind of celebration, eh? Parag's dull face broke out in a grin. Oh, like a kind of feast, you mean, sire? The stoat's paw strayed to his bone-handled scimitar. Quite. Not very courteous of them. The least they could have done was to invite us. Perig's grin widened. So we anchors the other side of yon point, comes over the rocks, and invites ourselves, eh, Captain? Billu stroked the white bone scimitar hilt. Exactly. We might not attend the feast, but the least I can do is present my calling card. Perig stared blankly at his captain. Calling card? What's a calling card, sire? With lightning speed, the scimitar blade's tip was touching the bosun's throat. This is my calling card. Perig's throat bobbed nervously under the sharp blade tip. Oh, er, I see, sire. Uh, ha, ha! The Ludaskar tired of the one-sided conversation. He put up his sword and strode off. Darkness had fallen. Luke's tribe laughed and sang around the bonfire, 
unaware of the big red ship anchoring on the other side of the South Point. 18. Luke threw the first rope up into the darkness. A moment later, he heard the wooden bar tied to its end clack upon some rocks. He tugged it, making sure the bar held in the rocks it had wedged itself among. Paw over paw, Luke went up, whispering to Verg, Follow on with the other rope, mate, but be quiet. We don't want to disturb any of those seabirds. Verg climbed up after him, and they balanced together, lodging their footpaws in the sides of the fissure. Luke took the second rope and began twirling it, paying the coils out as he swung it wider before throwing it strongly upward. This time there was no sound of wood striking stone, but the rope went taut. A gruff, friendly voice called down in quaint speech, I got it, sir. I'll make ye rope forest while ye clamber up yer. Berg grabbed Luke's paw in the darkness. Sounds like a mole to me. What do you think, Luke? Aye, tis a mole, sure enough. Though what he's doing up a cliff, I don't know. He sounds friendly enough, anyway. Come on. Both mice climbed until they reached a flat ledge where there were several other moles and some hedgehogs to meet them. The mole who had hailed them took tinder and flint and lit a lantern, rumbling on in his curious mole dialect. Brr, usins don't be getting mousy beasts a-clambering up to call on us, sir, but welcome to ye anyways. I be drun tunneler, beesins be my family, yon ogs be e tip-tip brood, and that'n be wealth. A friendly-looking hedgehog wife in a broad, rough apron twitched her spikes and curtsied. Pleased to meet you, I'm sure, but what be you good beasts a-doin' up here in the dark night? Luke introduced his party as they climbed up to the ledge. Then he explained the reason for their visit. We came to take some of those berries and maybe some young plants while the seabirds were sleeping, marm. I'm sorry, though. I didn't realize they were your property. Welf brushed the apology aside cheerfully. Oh, you take all the berries and shoots you need, my dearie. Rains washed good soil into this crevice for many a season. We got raspberry, blackberry, all manner of berries growing hereabouts. Old Drun's father tunneled through to here from the cliff tops long ago. We've got a cave back there. Now don't you be afeard of the seabirds. We leaves em be, and they don't bother us a mite. Matter of fact, they makes good watch beasts in daytime. Warns us if and sea rogues be a-comin', so we can go and hide in our cave. Luke stared questioningly at Wealth Tip-Tip. Sea rogues? Oh, lack-a-day, sir, ain't you knowin' about those bad beasts? Why, they comes to this north coast often as not. Luke began to feel the first stirrings of unease. But there's nothing to be had on Northland coast. Why do they choose to put in here? Drun Tunneler waved a huge digging paw. There be no beast you're to worry about, sir. So they'm coming to take on fresh water, patchy sails, repairy ships, and so forth. Brr, they'm all scum and billions. Wealth nodded agreement with her mole friend. So they are. We hides in our caves and stays well clear until those bad beasts are gone. Else we'd get slayed or taken for slaves by him. Oh, Luke, sir, what be the matter with ye? Do ye not feel well? 
Though the night was cold, Luke felt suddenly hot and sick. Farther south, down the shoreline, my tribe had lit a big bonfire on the shore. We didn't think there'd be any danger this far north. Drun's big digging claws took hold of Luke's shoulders. You must hurry, sir. Do we take your mousy beasts and giddy back with all haste? Dousy flames and put out yon fire. It be loiky beacon to see rogues. Oi, beggy, hurry. Welf called after the party of mice scrambling down the cliff. Good luck go with ye, Sir Luke. We'll follow ye on in the morn with baskets of berries and whatever plants ye may need. Aye, and Drun's moles will show ye how to hide your dwellings from the sight of sea rogues. Welf's words were lost upon Luke and his friends. They were already down and charging along the shoreline headlong with old Tula hobbling in their wake. Dawn came wild and angry. Cold, howling, easterly gales swept the shoreline sand, piling it in buttresses against rocks and whipping grains widespread across the ebbing tide. Drun Tunneler and Welf Tip-Tip led their little band along the beach, bearing between them the promised baskets of berries and young plants. Wearing cowled cloaks and mufflers over their noses and mouths, they pressed on gallantly toward Luke's encampment, heads bowed against the weather's onslaught. To cover her anxiety, Welf chattered feverishly to her mole friend. Now, if twere late spring and the weather milder, a body would expect sea rogues visiting our shores. Any beast afloat in stormy seas like we get this time of season is naught but a fool. I know twasn't wise for Luke and his mice to light great fires in full view on shore, but I reckon mayhap no harm will have befell him, eh, Drun? The mole was about to agree with her when a fierce gust of sand-gritted wind caused him to turn his face seaward. He groaned aloud and dropped his basket. Grrrr, no! Look yon! Tis he girt red ship! Through the fleeting spume of sand and seawater, Welf glimpsed the mighty bulk of the gorleach her crimson stern riding high on the main, red sails bellying tight as she sped westward out onto the deep. The good hogwife stood watching the fearful sight, tears mingling with the grit sticking to her face, and she moaned like a stricken beast. Wow, lack a day, the red ship! Fortunes and fates a pity on those poor mice! Drun grabbed her paw, signaling to his friends to follow. Come on, missus, ye beast be needin' our help. Berg was covered in swirling wood ashes from the scattered fire embers. He sat on the shore, lost in a dumb trance. Between them, Drun and Welf shouldered his paws, steering him to the meager knot of survivors who huddled forlornly on the mouth of Luke's cave. Old Tula was the only mouse who seemed able to explain what had taken place. Friends, you come at a terrible time for us. Many graves will need to be dug in these blood-stained sands. Welf spoke softly to the old one. Now that she had recovered from her first shock, she was all business. Aye, tis so, but first we must attend to the living. Drun, will you light a fire in this cave and set water to boil? 
Our family will prepare food for you. Dig out any old linen you possess. We'll need bandages. As the moles and hedgehogs took care of the shore mice, their dreadful tale came out piecemeal. There was hundreds of them. We didn't stand a chance. It was a massacre. Only those out looking for firewood escaped. We could do nothing to stop those evil killers. Windred was lucky. She ran out on the shore with the babe, stumbled and fell. Her cloak was over them both, and the wind covered it with sand and hid them. Tis a wonder little Martin wasn't smothered. Windred sat by the fire, washing sand from the babe's face with warm water in the hem of her dress. Ay, and he never made a single sound the whole time. Poor little mite, they slew his mother. Scum they are. I'll remember that un's name to my dying day, Vilu Daskar. She tried to fight him off with a stick, but he had a big curved blade. He was shouting his own name, Vilu Daskar, and enjoying what he was doing. That stoat was laughing as he cut my daughter down, laughing like a mad beast. Drun looked up from a wound he was attending to. Ye meister a red ship shows mercy to no beast, marm. Yer, but where bees are Luke gone to? The young mouse Timbalisto, who had survived by climbing the cliff face, nodded toward the sea. Luke's out there, but no beast can come near him, sir. Waist deep in the sea stood Luke, buffeted by the cold waves, with ice forming on his tear-stained features as he gazed westerly after the red ship which was now naught but a blurred dot far out by the horizon. Twula shook his head sadly. He will not even look upon his own son or his wife's mother. Alas, he has no ship to sail after the murderers. But he would have ended up slain if he did. Either way, I think Luke will die and be swept away when the tide turns. His life has been destroyed and he cannot exact a warrior's vengeance upon the sea rogues. Luke has no will to live. Welf hitched up her apron decisively. She turned from the sight of the forlorn creature standing in the sea to those who stood watching. I ain't having this. By the paws and prickles, I ain't. You there, Cardo, go and fetch a stout rope. Verg, give that stave you carry to Drun. That little mouse babe's not growing up without a father. Tula, Get every able-bodied beast out here. Move! Galvanized into action by Welf's no-nonsense manner, they dispersed quickly to their allotted tasks. Drun Tunneler tied the rope end around his middle and gripped Berg's stave tight. Rrrr! Oh, I never was one for paglin' in the sea, marm. The hogwife eyed him sternly. She was not about to be disobeyed in any circumstances. Go to it, Drun! before Luke freezes to death. The mole trundled dutifully into the sea. Rrr, tis a good job. I trust her as he misses. Luke was totally unaware of the mole wading up behind him, his eyes fixed on the horizon where the gorleach had disappeared from sight. Drun heaved an unhappy sigh. Rrr, I hates to do this, sir, Luke, but tis for thy own good and furry hempent too, bri. With one blow of the stout beech stave, he knocked Luke unconscious. 
Looping the rope about Luke so that they were bound together, Grun called back to the watchers on shore. You eave away fast. I'm most colded to death out yer. Willing paws pulled the rope swiftly into dry land. The days that followed were hard upon the survivors. They buried their dead and would have gone on mourning all season, but for the help of the moles and the hedgehogs. Wealth chided them ruthlessly, and Drun bullied them cheerfully, until they began to pick up the pieces and get on with the business of living. Luke recovered, but he spoke to none, sitting silently at the back of his cave, gazing into the fire. Every once in a while he would wander out into the night, and then sleepers would be awakened by his roaring down at the water's edge, shouting one name. Vilu Daskar! Vilu Daskar! Vilu Daskar! The morning following one such night, Luke's cave had become the meeting place for every beast. They were gathered around the fire, breakfasting on hot oat cakes and blackberry preserve. Wealth brewed a big pot of mint and comfrey tea, which they sipped as they ate. Luke had returned from the sea's edge, and he lay on a rocky ledge, wrapped in his cloak, sleeping. Cardo had a flat driftwood board, and his knife was heating in the flames as he announced to the gathering, I'm going to burn the names of our lost ones onto this wood with my knife point. Don't let me forget any beast. I'll fix it in the sand on top of the big grave. Agreed? Young Timbalisto sniffed and rubbed a paw at his eyes. Will you put Fripple's name on it, sir? Cardo took his blade from the fire. He smiled sadly. Of course I will, Timble. How could I forget my own daughter? I'll put a little flower after it. She'd like that. To break the atmosphere, Wealth turned their attention to the baby Martin. Deary me, will you look at that mite? He's out of his cradle again. Where's he a-crawlin' to now? Windred knew. He's after his father's sword again. Watch. The solemn, chubby mouse-babe crawled over until he could get his paw on Luke's sword-hilt. He sat quietly enough, trying to lift the weapon, which was twice his height. Drun squinted his eyes admiringly at the babe's efforts. Ye vermins beware when that grows. Windred looked across to Martin's sleeping father. Aye, and bad fortune to any sea rogues when Luke awakens properly. He will, you mark my words, I know him. 19. In the seasons that followed, Luke and his surviving tribe did well and learned many things. No longer were they hungry, farming the cliff-top land, foraging farther afield in good weather, and gathering mollusks, shrimp, and shellfish from rock pools and tide shallows. Drun and his moles taught them how to create screens of rock, driftwood, and overhanging vegetation for their caves, disguising them from the gaze of unwanted visitors and providing windbreaks against harsh weather. Windred looked after little Martin, who had become a sturdy toddler, living the simple life, still as solemn and well-behaved as ever. Luke, however, was a different creature from the easy-going, good-humored leader he had been before his wife's death. His tribe learned to give him a wide berth and ask no questions of him. 
He kept a cave apart from the others, in which he was making and storing weapons. He came and went at odd times, returning with materials he had gathered in his wandering. Martin was the only one he would confide in, though he constantly questioned Drun and Welf on the habits of sea rogues. How often did they visit the north coast? Did they ride at anchor or beach their vessels? What sort of discipline did they employ? What was the average size of a crew? What type of weapons and tactics did they favor? If a ship was sighted out on the main, all creatures ran for cover. But Luke would lie on the clifftops with Martin, watching it. The little fellow listened carefully to what his father had to say. I hope that vessel doesn't put in here, son. I'm not ready for them yet. Better that it stays out to sea and sails off. But when I'm ready, the day will arrive when I'll be looking for a ship to land here, and then we'll see what the sea scum are made of. Look, she's veering off southward. We won't be bothered by that one, thank fortune. Come on, you can help me to build up our weapon supply. Luke showed his son how to make arrows, while he himself attended to the bows. See these? They're ash branches, good heavy wood. I've chosen the ones that are medium, thick, and straight, and dried the ends out by standing them in warm sand around the fire. Now, we make a slit in the opposite end and fit a piece of feather in it, like so, and bind above and below the feather with twine. Next, I place the dried end of the wood in the fire, let it burn, but not too much. Then rub it to a point on this rock. Burn a little more, rub a little more. Here, Martin. Try the end of this with your paw. Be careful. Martin dabbed his paw gently on the needle-like point his father had rubbed onto the fire-darkened ash. He smiled. Ooh, it's shark. Luke smiled at his little son, who was still learning to pronounce words. Aye, dis shark all right, very shark. Sea vermin don't wear armor, so an arrow doesn't need a metal or flint tip. A good, hefty ash shaft with a fire point will stop him. Verg entered the cave and indicated Martin with a nod. His grandma Windred is looking for him. Dinner's ready in the big cave. Are you coming, Luke? Luke glanced up from the bowstring he was twining and greasing. I'll be along. There's still work to do here. Verg looked around at the rows of stakes waiting to be sharpened, flint axe heads, unstrung yew bows, and gnarled driftwood limbs waiting to be fashioned into clubs. A fair old bit of work, I'd say, Luke. Why don't me and Cardo and some of the others help you? Luke nodded off the end of his finished bowstring. My son's a good little helper, but I could do with some like you to lend a paw. Why didn't you offer sooner, Verg? His friend smiled dryly. Because none of us fancied getting our heads bitten off. Luke offered his paw. Sorry, mate. I accept your help gratefully. It is not your heads I'm looking to bite off. Just the sea rogues. Berg took Luke's paw and shook it warmly. Good. Let's go and get some dinner. Then every able-bodied beast in camp will pitch in with pleasure. From then on, Luke became a real warrior chieftain, directing his creatures in the making of weaponry, drilling and training his fighters, and marking off the shoreline around the caves in various strategies and plans for when the time was ripe. 
It came unexpectedly, one evening the following summer. Having finished their day's chores, the tribe sat about after dinner in the big cave mouth, their backs warmed by the fire within, enjoying the pleasant evening. Windred was singing an old song which had been passed down through her family. Old Ninian Mouse and his good wife needed a house to build. They had a family grown so large their tent was overfilled. To setting sun the old wife toiled from daybreak in the east, but Ninian was a lazy mouse who loved to sleep and feast. The wife heaved stone and carried wood for door and wall and beam, while Ninian idly in daylight snored on in peaceful dream. She raised the gables, built a roof, her back was bent and sore, as Ninian ate up all the food and loudly called for more. So when the house at last was built, his wife nailed up a sign, which stated, This ain't Ninian's, she said, that shows tis mine. Then when the countless seasons passed, and all within had died, the rain and storm of ages long had swept the sign outside. It washed the first three letters out, but left the rest intact. That sign now reads, St. Ninian's. A church? A joke? A fact. So, traveler, if you read the sign, then take my word, tis true. A dreamer can become a saint, so can a glutton, too. Wealth applauded with the rest, chuckling and shaking her head at Windred's song. Tell me, Windred, my dear, is it true? Is there such a place as St. Ninian's, or is it really a joke? Luke answered for her, Tis a fact, marm, I was born at St. Ninian's, as was Sana, my poor dear wife. We were driven out when I was a babe by an evil warlord, a wild cat named Lord Green-Eye Verdaga, who had a horde of vermin at his command, so they told me, but I was far too young to remember. This is our home now, and no beast will ever drive us from here while I am about. Drun Tunneler dashed toward them, waving. He was panting hard, having clambered down from the cliff-tops. Brr, giddy inside, good beast all, ye sea rogue ship be a comin' yer. Immediately the tribe began pulling out driftwood and vegetation to disguise the cave's entrance as they had been shown. Luke nodded to Verg and Doolum to accompany him down to the tide line. Shading their eyes against the westering sun, the three mice stood in the ebbing tide shallows watching the ship. Berg scratched his head and looked to Luke. Doesn't look quite right to me, mate. What do you make of it? Luke scrutinized the vessel keenly. It was still a good distance from land. Hmm, could be just an honest merchant trader. But in these waters, I doubt it, Berg. It doesn't seem to be making good headway. If it's trying for land, it won't make it here until near daybreak tomorrow at the rate tis going, eh, Doolum? Doolum watched the strange craft take a north tack, as if trying to catch the wind. He pointed. See? She's got a broken mast, I think. That's why the going's so hard for that ship. Luke checked Doolum's sighting. You're right, mate. Maybe this is just what we've been waiting for. 
back to the cave and rouse our fighters. Raynard Chopsnout, captain of the vessel Greenhawk, was in high bad humor. His ship was taking on water, and to make matters worse, had a broken mainmast and ten days on short rations. Moreover, the crew were becoming mutinous, and he was hard-pressed to maintain command. The Corsair Fox pawed irritably at the hard, polished blob of pitch which served him as a snout. It was stuck on where his nose had been until he came off worse in a sword fight with a skillful ferret. Chopsnout roared at the hapless weasel who was wrestling with the tiller. Hold her fast to the wind, boot brain. What's the matter with you? To the wind, I said, waggle paw, the wind. Some of the vermin crew were aloft, trying to rig a jury mast. One of them called down mockingly, Don't shout too hard, Choppy. Your nose'll fall off. Chopsnout grabbed a belaying pen and hurled it up at the rigging. It fell back, almost hitting him. Amid the hoots and jeers of the crew, he yelled, Who said that? Come on, own up, you lily-livered poltroon. Another insult rang out from below, where other crew members were bailing out the water the Green Hawk was shipping. Bootbrain had handled the tiller better if your fed is proper, you old vittle robber. Chopsnout could not see who made the remark. He danced and stamped in anger on the deck planking. Liar! Filthy, foul-tongued liar! I get the same amount of vittles that every beast aboard gets. There was an ominous clack. Chopsnout quit stamping and dropped on all fours, scuttling about the deck. This caused great hilarity among the crew, and bold ones began yelling, Whoops! Old Choppy's lost his hooter again, mates! Ha-ha-ha! Let's hope it don't bounce down here and kill some beast. Give him a chance, mateys. He's on the scent of it. Hee-hee! <laughs> Are now. Don't say that, bucko. He'll go and get all sniffy on us. Ho-ho-ho-ho! The irate fox soon found his pitch-blob nose and stuck it on hastily. He paced the deck, waggling his cutlass ominously. Go on, laugh, you slab-sided slobber and swabs, but don't come whining to me for aid or advice. I'm finished, you hear? Finished! He strode off huffily to his cabin. Bootbrain dithered at the tiller, not sure of which way to swing it. Har, come on, Captain! We was only funnin'. What course do you want me to set? Chopsnout poked his head round the cabin door and cast a withering glance at the weasel. Course? I couldn't give a frog's flipper what course you set. Sail where you fancy. Let the ship leak till she sinks. Leave the mainmast broken. Taint my business. I'll leave the command of the Green Hawk to you clever-tongued beasts and see how you like it. There was an uneasy silence from the crew. Darkness was falling fast, and no beast was about to take on the responsibility of running the vessel. Chopsnout smiled triumphantly. So, what have you got to say to that, me fine buckos? Bootbrain, who was never given to teasing or insulting his captain, could not help making an observation. Captain, your nose is on the wrong ways round. You've stuck it on backward. The final straw came when a strangled titter rang out from below. 
Raynard Chopsnout slammed his cabin door shut and sat sulking in his cabin. Sometime after midnight, there was a rap on the cabin door. Chopsnout snarled at the beast without. Go away and leave me alone. The rapping persisted, accompanied by a voice. But, Captain, listen. Tis your old mate Flogtail. I've spotted something on the shore. Come and look. Adopting a stern face, Chopsnout emerged from his cabin. The crew were gathered on deck, peering at a fire burning on the beach some distance away. The Corsair Fox could not help smirking as he addressed Flogtail, the sea rat first mate. Well, well, a fire, eh? Looks no different from any other I've seen. What do you plan on doing about it, mate? Flogtail stared hard at the firelight, scratching his fat stomach distractedly. Er, er, Scritchy and Whipback reckons we oughter tack a bit and sail beyond that point sticking up southards, Cap'n. Chopsnout smiled encouragingly at the two sea rats. Hmm, clever thinking, you two. What next? Both sea rats hastily explained their plan. We dropped anchor to other side of the point, Cap'n. Aye, then, er, we climbs over that point and drops in on them. That's right. Then we slaughters them all and robs any vittles we find. Chopsnout shook his head in despair at their stupidity. How do you know that those creatures on shore ain't already sighted us? And arm theirselves up, eh? And tell me this, what's to stop this ship sinking if and you takes the time to tack around behind yonder point? Well, come on, I'm waiting for an answer off in some bright spark. There followed a deal of paw shuffling and blank looks. Then Flogtail appealed sheepishly to Chopsnout. Er, Cap'n, how would you go about it, sir? Chopsnout snorted airily. Ho! Oh! You're in trouble now, so you need your old cap'n again, eh? Well, I ain't making a move till I gets a full apology off in this crew for the insults I've bore. Staring at the deck, as if the answer lay there, the vermin crew mumbled disjointedly. Sorry, cap'n, or about your no. About what we said to your... Aye, we didn't mean it, cap'n. Twas only a joke, cap'n. We won't say nothing no more. You're the best captain ever to sail the seas, sir. Chopsnout attempted a sniff, holding on to his nose, which was starting to wobble slightly. Well, all right, so be it. But next time you start any of that, I'm done with you for good. Now here's the way I sees it. That fire on shore is only a little un, and all I can see is two beasts sitting by it, mouses maybe. If and there was a full tribe of them, There'd be a great big fire. So I figures there's only the pair of them, probably some old hermit and his wife. They're either daft or blind because they ain't seen us, or they wouldn't have lighted a fire and give themselves away. Hark to me now, this is my plan. Leave off fixing the mast and bailing out water. All four paws on deck, cause the tide's starting to ebb. Grab any spare planks, timbers, or oars, and start paddling her for the shore, double quick. We'll run the green hawk up on the sand and beach her high and dry. Then we'll capture those two mice and torture them till we finds out where they've hit all their vittles. End of side four. Change side selector switch. This book is continued on the next cassette. Side five. The Legend of Luke. 
by Brian Jakes. Continuing on page 177. After they've cooked us a good feast, the rest's simple. We fixes the leeks and the main mast, chops the old mouse and his wife up for fish bait, then sails off south for a bit of sun and plunder. Bootbrain nodded his head in admiration of Chopsnout. Stripe me. How'd you remember it all, Cap'n? You're a clever un. No two ways about it. The Corsair Fox drew his ragged frock coat about him haughtily, staring down his imitation nose at the astounded vermin crew. Aye, that's why I'm a cap'n, so mind your manners, and get about your business, you dumb clucks. Berg raised his eyes from the fire on the beach that he and Luke were sitting by. She's headed straight for us. They've put out paddles. You were right, Luke. That ship'll land here around dawn. Luke reassured himself by touching the sword concealed beneath his cloak. Good. Is everything ready, Doolum? The mouse who had crawled up in the sand behind Luke made his brief report. Aye, ready. Oldens and the babes are well away, hidden beyond the cliffs, and our fighters are waiting in the caves. Luke watched the Greenhawk moving closer to land, speaking to Doolum without turning his head. Tell them to make every shaft count. "'Twill be kill or be killed. "'We'll only get one chance to capture that vessel.' Doolum wriggled off back to the caves. Luke sensed Verg's trembling, and he placed a steadying paw on his friend. "'Take it easy, Verg. "'This is the best chance we're ever going to get "'of starting to avenge our loved ones. "'Trust me.' His companion stole a glance at the hard-eyed warrior sitting beside him. There was not a shred of pity or unsureness showing on Luke's face, just cold wrath and determination. Berg suddenly stopped trembling. I'm all right, Luke. I trust you. All of your tribe do. The Green Hawk was aided by a light breeze caught by her square-rigged aftersail, speeding up the vessel's progress drawing her closer to the pair of forlorn figures huddled about the guttering fire on shore. Raynard Chopsnout drew his cutlass and climbed up to the prow. He crouched there, putting a final edge to his blade on an iron cleat. Already he could mentally hear the whimpers of the two shore beasts pleading for their lives. This was going to be as easy as falling off a log. 20. Somewhere on the clifftops a small bird raised its beak to herald the dawn, as day's first pale streaks washed the sky outward from the east. The crew of the Greenhawks sweated and cursed as they pushed their craft on shore with makeshift paddles. She rose on a swell and forged forward, scraping her hull into the sand and listing to port, keeling slightly as the ebbing water dropped her on the beach. Roaring and shouting, Chopsnout urged his vermin over the side. Grab him, mates! I want those two alive! Luke shrugged off his cloak. Raising his sword, he watched the savage-looking sea rogues pounding up the beach. Verg took up his position, spear at the ready, stealing himself against the wild war cries of the charging foe. Ha-har! Let's see the color of your innards, mice! Lop off in their foot paws so they can't run away! Give me a cloak made out of mouse's skin. Yar! Chopsnout could scarce believe his eyes. 
Leaping down from the prow to bring up the rear, he saw the first wave of ten or so crew beasts vanish into the ground. Halfway up the beach, Luke's fighters had dug a trench, lining it with sharpened stakes and covering it with rush mats strewn thinly over with sand. Vermin screamed in shocked agony as they plunged into it. Luke gave the signal, letting his sword point dip as he bellowed aloud to his companions, Now! Strike now! Both Luke and Verg dropped into a crouch. Arrows hissed angrily overhead, thudding into the vermin who were hovering on the edge of the spiked trench. Two more flights of shafts followed speedily. Then Luke leaped upright, wielding his sword as the archers dropped their bows and seized fire-hardened lances. Charge! They dashed forward, with Luke and Berg out in front, leaping the trench and hurling themselves upon the enemy. Chopsnout had lost his pitch-blob nose as soon as he hit the sand. He stood yelling hoarsely at his vermin crew, Retreat! Back to the ship! Retreat! However, they were suddenly outflanked. The rest of Luke's small force thundered out from a cave situated on the far edge of the point, armed with long cudgels and slings. Rocks whistled through the morning air, cutting down several of the routed vermin. Then they were hit from both sides by Luke's lances and the swinging clubs of grim-faced, ruthless mice. Raynard Chopsnout leaped ineffectively at the high-beached bulwarks of the Greenhawk. He slid awkwardly back to the moist sand, half-raising his scimitar as Luke's battle-sword found him. It was over in less time than it had taken for the vermin to beach their boat. Luke was now every inch the warrior chieftain of his tribe. Sheathing his blade, he nodded curtly at the stunned faces of the fighters surrounding him. Well done! We've gained ourselves a ship! Cardo let his lance drop, obviously shocked. Luke, they're dead. We've slain them all. Luke picked up the lance, pressing it into his friend's paw. Aye, that was the idea, mate. Or would you sooner that we were caught napping and murdered like our families were? There were loud cries of agreement with Luke. Friends crowded around to shake his paw or pat his back. Luke glanced up at the clifftops. Steady, mates. Plenty of time for that later. Some of you fill in that trench. Doolum, you and the others roll those vermin carcasses into the sea. The ebon tide'll carry em out. I don't want the young'uns to see any of this. Berg, come with me. We'll have to rig up some means of hauling the ship above the tide line so she don't get carried back out on the flood tide. Luke and Berg hurried to the cliffs, intercepting Drun, who was climbing down to see the result of the battle. Brr, you wind, sir, Luke. I always knowed he were a girt warrior. Oh, her. Luke took the friendly mole's outstretched paw and shook it heartily. Drun, my old mate, how are you at moving ships up beaches? The mole sized up the situation immediately. That be the least I can do for ye, sir. Before the incoming tide had arrived, Drun, with the aid of his moles, some mice, and the hedgehogs, had dug a shallow channel from the Green Hawk's prow to a spot above the tide line. This he lined with slabs of cliff shale, well wetted down with seawater. On the vessel's forepeak was a windlass, a simple mechanism for hauling up the ship's anchor with a horizontally revolving barrel. 
Welf, Tip-Tip, and her hogs helped to carry the anchor up on shore, where they wedged it firmly between two big rocks jutting up out of the sand. Now the ship was attached to the land by its anchor rope. Drun chose the stoutest creatures to turn the windlass, which they did by ramming home stout poles into the housing. Once the slack of the rope was taken up, they began turning the windlass in earnest. The young ones and oldsters had come down from the clifftops. Extra paws were needed, so they all joined in. Windred and old Tula ran back and forth, splashing more water on the shale slabs as the ship slid forward, up on the shore, creaking and groaning. Martin and young Timbalisto pushed with all their might against the windless spokes, along with the rest. It was a happy day. A sprightly breeze moved the clouds away, sunlight beat down on the workers. Joyfully they toiled, turning the windlass bit by bit, moving their ship up the shore on its own anchor rope. Some even improvised a shanty to keep up the rhythm of the task, and soon every beast was singing it. Oh, don't it make a sight so grand, a ship that travels on the land. Keep that windlass turning, bend your backs and push. We'll soon have her above the tide, then we'll clean and scrape each side. Keep that windlass turning, bend your backs and push. We've got to find a good tree fast, then we'll build a new mainmast. Keep that windlass turning, bend your backs and push. With pitch and rope, we'll make her right, all shippy shape and watertight. Keep that windlass turning, bend your backs and push. You vermin scum! Oh, mercy me, beware when Luke puts out to sea. Keep that windlass turning, bend your backs and push. Gradually the ship slid over its runway of wetted shale slabs, finally coming to rest above the tide line, with the bow end firmly wedged between the two standing rocks that had secured the anchor. Luke was smiling broadly as he patted the barnacle-encrusted hull. Well, there she is. A right old slop bucket if ever I saw one, mates, but by wetter I guarantee she'll be good and ready. He called a Martin, who was down by the tide line with Timbalisto, stowing things behind a rock. Oh there, son, what are you doing? Martin beckoned his father to join them and explained, We collected all the weapons for you, see? He unrolled an old length of sail canvas, revealing a jumbled assortment of swords, daggers, and various blades that had been once owned by the crew of the Green Hawk. Luke ruffled his young son's ears approvingly. Well done, Martin. You too, Timble. These are far better than our makeshift weapons. Timbalisto selected a short sword for himself. Martin picked up a longish, curved blade and began thrusting it into his belt. But Luke took the sword from his son and tossed it back with the other weapons. No, you're far too young to carry a blade yet, son. Timble, you may keep your blade. It's about time you had one. You'll be fully grown in another couple of seasons. Seeing the disappointment on Martin's face, Luke threw a kindly paw about his son's shoulders. Martin, you don't need the blade of any sea scum. My sword is yours by right. It was passed on to me by my father, and one day I will give it to you. The young mouse's piercing gray eyes searched his father's face. When? In his mind, Luke saw himself asking the same question of his own father. 
he gave Martin the same answer he had received long ago. When I think you are ready. Throughout the remainder of summer and all of autumn, the tribe of Luke worked long evenings after their day's chores of farming food and foraging the shores was done. Gradually, the once rickety sea rogue ship took shape. The hull was careened, ridding it of weed, barnacles, and other saltwater debris. Unsound and rotten planking was torn out and replaced with good stout oak, which they traveled far to find and haul back. Cauldrons of pitch and pine resin bubbled continuously. Lengths of rope were woven and hammered in between the ship's timbers. Then the pitch and resin were poured into the joints, sealing them and making the vessel watertight. Any spare food was cooked and preserved in casks for ship stores, along with new barrels for fresh water to be carried in. Luke oversaw everything, paying careful attention to the slightest detail. Do it proper, and will serve you well. Every beast in the tribe became familiar with their chieftain's constant motto. Winter's first icy breath was coating the northern coast with rime frost when the new mainmast was raised. Berg and Drun had chosen a good tall white willow, which would bend with the wind where other wood might crack and break. Newly patched and hemmed, the wide single mainsail was hoisted, fluttered a moment, then bellied proudly out in the cold north breeze. A cheer went up from the creatures who had worked so hard to repair the vessel. Luke stood back upon the shore with Martin and Windred surveying the new craft. It had three curving sails from the bowsprit to the mainmast, with a big triangular sail and a tall oblong one either side of the new willow. At the stern was a smaller mast with one other triangular sail. It obviously met all Luke's requirements. He smiled at Martin. She'll have to have a new name, son. Martin, like all youngsters, always had a question. Why do they always call ships she? Luke had to think about that one for a moment. Truth to tell, son, I'm not sure. But I think they call ships she because, well, she's like a mother to her crew. Another inquiry followed immediately from the serious-faced young mouse. I haven't got a mother. Will she be my mother? Luke's eyes were sad as he replied. No, son, I'm afraid not. Windred stared reprovingly at Luke. You mean you're not taking Martin along with you? He's your son, Luke. The chieftain nodded. Aye, he is, and that's why I'm not going to risk his young life out there on the seas. Beside that, Windred, you're his grandmother, so he'll have to look after you. The only family I have left in this world is you two. Now let's hear no more of it. Would you like to name the ship, son? Martin would not let any beast see tears in his eyes, so he rushed off along the shore, calling back to Luke, Call her Sana, after my mother. Windred watched her grandson dash down to the sea, where he stood throwing pebbles into the waves. I'm sorry, Luke. I should have kept my silly mouth shut. Luke rested a paw gently on her shoulder. Don't be sorry, Windred. I'd have had to tell him sooner or later. Martin's made of tough stuff. He'll grow to be a fine warrior, though the only way he'll learn is to be told the plain truth. There'd be no good telling him lies. 
That night, a feast to mark the completion of the vessel's Sena was held in Luke's cave. Autumn's harvest had been good, and the cooks had excelled themselves. Martin cheered up as he and Tim Ballisto joined a young hogmaid called Twindle and Drun's nephew, Bertle. The four sat together, giggling and joking beneath a lantern at the rear of the cave, ruddy firelight twinkling in their eyes. They had never seen such a sumptuous spread. Yer, look it, egert plum pudding. Oh, and see those little tarts. They've got cream on top that looks like a twirl. Bet my mum Welf made those. Mmm, have you tasted the soup yet? Tis full of rock shrimps and vegetables. I want a slice of that big cake, the one with honey and red currants all over the top. They sipped Drun's fizzy apple cider and munched hot wheat scones that contained chunks of candied pear. The elders drank special barley beer and cut off slices of celery and onion cheese to go with it. Old Twula raised his beaker and broke out into song. Oh, the weather's cold outside, outside, but we're all snug in here with thee and me, good company, and lots of barley beer. Oh, the snow comes down outside, outside, and winter winds do moan, but sit us by a roaring fire, and you'll not hear one groan. Oh, the night is dark outside, outside, but the soup is good and hot. Good food, fine friends, and happy hearts, I'd say we've got the lot. Amid the laughter and applause that followed, old Tula poured himself another beaker, crying out, That's the stuff! Tis a feast, and we be here to enjoy ourselves! Who's got a song? Drun began using a gourd as a drum, beating out a rhythm on it with two wooden spoons. Goo-er, Mrs. Welf, show em how we can sing. Good wife Welf was immediately up, apron swirling as she danced a jig, clapping her paws and singing. Two plums grew on a pear tree, a wise old owl did say. Oh, dearie me, I'm certain they shouldn't grow that way. For beech nuts come from beech trees, while Mother Nature rules. As long as acorns come from oaks, no wisdom comes from fools. Then came a little hedgehog, who said with a simple smile, Good day to you, wise creature. Now listen to me a while. Why does a tree stay silent, and yet it has a bark? And why do shadows fall at night, but never leave a mark? Though you may think me silly, I know tis only fair. Most any fool can tell you that two plums make a pear. The mice had never heard this quaint ditty before, and they chuckled at the logic of the little hedgehog. Doolam poured Welf a beaker of cider, offering her his seat, so that she could catch her breath. Good song, Marm. That was very clever. The hogwife winked at him. If and you think that's clever, then ponder on this. How many pears in a dozen pair? Six or twelve? She watched the bemused mouse trying to work it out. Er, six, I think. Aye, tis six. Goody Welf chuckled. Then I wouldn't send you to the orchard for my pears. Doolam scratched his head and did some more figuring. No, twelve. The answer's twelve. Twelve pair of pears, are you sure? Er, er, I, I'm sure, marm. Goody Welf drained her beaker, eyes twinkling. 
But that's twenty-four. Twelve pairs of pairs. Doolum scratched his head furiously. You've got me all mixed up, Marm. Drun patted the puzzled mouse's back heartily. Ye try working it out in apples, sir. Late into the night they carried on feasting, singing and setting riddles. The fire was burning low when Windred moved the cave barricade a little and peered outside. She shuddered and hurried back to the fire. Brr, snow's beginning to fall out there. Luke took his cloak and spread it over Martin and Birdle, who had drowsed off together in the corner. Windred waited until Luke returned to the fire, then asked, "'Couldn't it bide until the spring?' Luke stared into the red embers. "'No, I have stayed too long already. "'Snow or not, I'm bound to sail in the morning.' Windred sat silent a while, listening to the snow-laden wind sweeping the shore outside. Suddenly she leaned forward and gripped Luke's paw fiercely. "'Go, then, and seek out Vilu Daskar.' Slay him and destroy his blood-colored ship. Steal the life from him who robbed us of our Sena. I'll take care of Martin, and when he's grown enough, he'll care for me. But swear to me that one day you'll return here to the creatures who love you, Luke the warrior. Holding his sword blade over the fire, Luke watched the embers reflecting red against it. I swear that when I'm done... The sea scum will murder no more innocent creatures. On my oath, I will return here when my work is done. 21. It was a bitter winter noon when the ship Sena, crewed by Luke and a score of his fighting mice, slid down its shale runway on the ice the season had provided. With one fluke buried in the sand, the anchor held the ship against an ebbing tide. Even though her sails were furled, the Sena strained against the anchor rope as if eager to be gone. All the farewells had been made, and the crew had sent their friends and families back into the caves, not wishing them to stand out tearful and freezing to wave the ship off. Luke was last to leave. Martin sat stone-faced outside the cave. Luke could not reason with him. Son, son... You would not last two moons out there on the high seas. I cannot risk your life pitting you in battle against the sea scum I am sworn to do war with. Listen to me. I know what is best for you. But Martin would not listen. I want to sail on this ship and be a warrior like you. Luke spread his paws wide and sighed with frustration. What am I going to do with you, Martin? You have my warrior spirit and your mother's determination. Listen, son, take my sword. It was a fighting sword, and well used. Luke pressed it into his son's paws. The young mouse gazed wide-eyed at the battle-scarred blade and gripped the handle tight as if he would never let go. Luke smiled, recalling the time when his father had passed the sword on to him. Tapping a paw against the cross-hilt, he said, I can see it is in you to be a fighter, Martin. The first thing warriors must learn is discipline. Martin felt as though the sword were speaking for him. Tell me what to do, and I will obey. Relief surged through Luke as he commanded the would-be warrior. 
You will stay and help defend our cave against all comers, protect those weaker than yourself, and honor our code. Always use the sword to stand for good and right. Never do a thing you would be ashamed of, and never let your heart rule your mind. He tapped the blade once more as its pitted edge glinted in the winter morning. And never let another creature take this sword from you, not as long as you live. When the time comes, pass it on to another, maybe your own son. You will know instinctively if he is a warrior. If not, hide the sword where only a true warrior who is brave of heart would dare to go and find it. Swear this to me, Martin. I swear it on my life. The young mouse's gray eyes reflected the wintry sea as he spoke. Luke saw that the tide would soon be turning. It might be some seasons before I return, but I'll be back, son. Meanwhile, Timbalisto is a promising and sensible creature with more seasons under his belt than you, and I have left him in charge of our tribe. Obey him. A determined smile, reminiscent of his mother, hovered on Martin's lips. Of course I'll obey him, but one day I shall be in charge. A great feeling of pride enveloped Luke. I'm sure you will. Farewell, my son. Rigging ropes hummed around broad-bellying sails as the Sena skimmed the deeps like a great white swan, headed west out onto the main. Luke turned for a moment from the tiller and looked back astern. He saw the small figure standing on the pebbled strand alone, waving the sword in a warrior's salute. The vessel dipped, bow into a rolling trough, and when she rose on the next wave crest, the shoreline was lost in an afternoon of snow and icy winter spume. Luke turned back to his crew, certain he had chosen fighters whom he could trust to be at his side through thick and thin. Verg, Cardo, Dulum, Call, and the rest, they stood waiting his orders, clinging to the taffrails to stay upright on the heaving deck. Cardo was not looking too well. Luke shook his head. Get below decks, all of you. Batten down everything and stay there. It's going to get rough. I'll take tiller and first watch. We have to learn to be sailors now, sea beasts, so like all beginners we can expect to be sick. Me too. There's nothing to be ashamed of. We'll get used to stormy seas in a few days. Cardo had definitely taken on an unhealthy pallor. Permission to jump over the side and drown myself, Cap'n? Just looking at his friend made Luke feel queasy. I'll drown you myself if you start that cap'n business. My name's Luke, and that's what you'll call me. Permission denied. Now get below, all of you. The entire crew shouted back at him, Aye, aye, cap'n. Luke was glad they had not lost their sense of humor. It was three days before they were out of the stormy latitudes. The evening of the fourth day saw calm seas with no trace of snow. Luke realized they must have drifted southwest instead of holding the northwest course. A meeting was held in the captain's cabin, and Luke told the others what had happened. "'Twas my fault, really. I'm still only learning about being at sea. You may have noticed the weather's changed for the better. Well, that's because we've drifted south. But Berg would not hear of his friend taking the blame." Oh, frog feathers, mate. It's the fault of every beast here. We've all taken our turn at the tiller. Being seasick or sleepy didn't help things. Little wonder we drifted off course. Ain't that right, pals? 
The crew agreed, though Call had a question. Er, just what was our original course? Seems to me we've just been sailing willy-nilly, eh, Verg? Well, I suppose there's little else you can do when you're searching the seas for that red ship. Luke gestured at the empty shelves around the cabin. What were we supposed to do? There's not a chart or a map aboard the vessel. Most of these pirates sail by instinct. I've been thinking maybe tis best what we're doing, letting the winds and currents carry us. Cardo had regained his color, as had the rest of them. Why do you say that, Captain? Or, sorry, Luke. Well, look at it this way. Sea scum hate the cold, stormy seas as much as we do, so it stands to sense they'd sail to warmer waters. I have a feeling the farther south we sail, the more chance we have of meeting up with Vilu Daskar. Doolum spoke as he headed for the door. Great idea. I'm with you, Luke. But after three days sick, I'm feeling much better. Except that I'm famished. Let's break out some vittles and get a decent feed inside us. Doolum's suggestion was welcomed wholeheartedly. The crew were much happier now they were in calmer climes, with a plan of action worked out. A full moon beamed down on the Sena as she drifted south on calm seas. Luke let Denno, a fat jolly mouse, take the tiller. Let her sail easy, Denno. Just keep your eyes open and check the tiller from swinging wide in another direction. I can tell by the smoke coming from our galley there's some serious cooking going on. Better take a peek, eh? Denno shook his head, chuckling. You'll probably get chased away. There's more cooks in that galley than you could shake a stick at. And that Cardo's the worst of all. Thinks he's captain of the stew pot. Lantern light and steam came from the open galley window. Out on the darkened deck, Luke shook with suppressed laughter as he watched the addicts of his crew. They bustled and bumped into one another, each trying to advise or outdo the other with tips on cooking expertise. Not too much of that dried barley, Berg. Go easy. Oh, rubbish. My old mom always put plenty of barley in everything she cooked. Aye, I thought your mom's fruitcake tasted a bit funny. Well, it didn't stop you scoffing it, you great lard bucket. Lard bucket yourself, mate. Oi, Doolum, where are you going with the salt? Ship's stew needs lots of salt. How do you know? Tis the first time you've been on a ship. Put any more salt in that stew and we'll drink the water barrels dry afore morning. Aye, aye, there. Chop those carrots, smaller mate. Carrot! I like big cobs of carrot. So that means we've all got to have great lumps of carrot? Huh? Won't hurt you. Hey, tis my turn to stir. Give me that ladle. I'll give you it on your nose. See how you like that. A large cauldron of stew was carried into the big cabin, where Luke had set out beakers of ale and an oatcake by each place. Doing his utmost to keep a straight face, he tried sniffing appreciatively. Mmm, that smells good. What is it, Cardo? A heated debate broke out over the cauldron's contents. I call it Cardo's Carrot Sea Stew. Oh, do you now? Well, I calls it Verg's Vegetable Delight. I did all the work, so tis going to be called Call's Combination Concoction. No, it ain't. It's Doolin's Delicious Ship Stew. Luke banged the mess table with a serving ladle. Enough! I won't have mutiny aboard my ship over a pot of grub. 
I'll name the stew. Put it down here. They watched as Luke ladled a portion into his bowl. Blowing on a spoonful, he sampled it gingerly with his crew looking on anxiously. Bravely, Luke chewed at the stew, his face expressionless. He put down the spoon and took a deep draft of ale. They all smoked the word at once. Well? Luke picked something from between his teeth and looked at it quizzically before returning his verdict. I think it should be called crunchy barley, half-cooked carrot lump, far too salty, hot water stew. So if you'll excuse me, I'll just stick to oat cake and ale for tonight's meal, mates. Eat up and see how you lot like it. Luke wandered out on deck with his frugal meal. I'll take the teller for a while, mate. You go and get something to eat. Denno immediately stopped gazing at the peaceful, moon-flaked waves and relinquished his watch. Certainly smelled great when they carried it to the cabin, Luke. Thank you, mate. I'll enjoy some of that stew. Luke smiled wryly. Oh, aye, I'm sure you will. Soft, pastel-hued skies heralded the dawn. A mouse named Cordal dozed at the tiller, a canteen of water held loosely in his paw. Call came to relieve him, sipping from a beaker. Ah, fine one you are, sleeping on watch. Good job Luke never caught you, or he'd have whacked your tail off. Cordal blinked sleepily and took a quick swig of water. Leastways, while I'm sleeping, I'm not drinking. I tell you, Call, I never drank so much water in all me life. Aye, no more of that blinkin' stew for me, mate. You could have stood a spoon up in the salt that went into it. If we capture any sea rogues, I reckon we should feed it to them. That'd teach them a lesson. But Cordell was not listening. He was staring eagerly out to sea. What's up, Cordell? Look, land. I'm sure of it. That's land of some sort, dead ahead. Land ho! Instantly the ship came alive. The mouse crew tumbled from their bunks and staggered out on deck, rubbing sleep from their eyes as they followed the outstretched paw of Cordell. It's land, land. Dead ahead, Luke. Cordell spotted land. Luke climbed to the bowsprit and viewed the dark blot on the horizon. Aye, tis land sure enough, an island by the look of it. Take in the bow and mainsails, Call, and steer north. We'll sail in nice and easy round the other side of that island. No sense in charging at it full sail. Right, mates, I want you all armed and alert. Cordell, Denno, Doolum, stay with the ship and guard it close. The rest of you'll come ashore with me. Make no noise, tread careful and follow my lead. There's no telling what we might meet. The Sena dropped anchor in a sheltered inlet on the island's west side at early noontide. It was sunny, silent, and windless. Luke inspected the high rocks surrounding the cove. Seabirds nested in the crags beneath a jumble of trees and vegetation growing on the clifftops. Climbing over the ship's side, the shore party waded through clear, sun-warmed shallows to a narrow strip of sandy beach. Berg gripped his spear tight, whispering to Luke, I don't like it, mate. Tis far too quiet. Place gives me the creeps. I feel like some beast's watching us. Luke drew a scimitar he had chosen from the former crew's weaponry. 
he pointed it at a strange sight, a flight of steps carved into the cliffs. I wonder who took the trouble to do that. Looks as if they'd been there a long time. Let's take a look. In single file they climbed the smooth, well-carved steps, which, though narrow, were easily negotiable. They ascended in several zigzag shapes to the cliff top. From above, the Sena looked very small in the cove below. Cardo uprooted something from the ground, which he wiped on his tunic before beginning to eat it. Mmm, young onion. Wonder how that got here. A loud, frightening cry rang out from the trees. Hoo-hoo-hoo! The hair on Cardo's nape stood straight up, and he dropped the onion. What in the name of frogs was that? Luke and Berg began creeping forward, gesturing to the rest not to follow them. Stay here. We'll go and take a look. Crouching low, they made their way into the thickets. A small bird whistled somewhere, but other than that, the only sound the two mice heard was their own footpaws rustling through the ferns. After a while, Luke straightened up. Well, whatever it was, there's neither sight nor sound of it now, matey. Berg uncrouched, and something bumped lightly against the back of his head. He turned cautiously. Ho oh, ho! Pears! A whole tree full of them! It was a pear tree, laden with fine ripe fruit. Berg picked one, squeezed it gently, nodded approvingly, then took a huge bite. Mmm! Plump! Sweet and juicy, mate. Wonderful. Luke reached for a pear, grinning at his friend's juice-wetted face. Oh, greedy guts. Are you eating that pear or taking a bath in it? Pfft! Splack! A thick piece of wood with a metal point at either end whipped out of nowhere and thudded deep into the tree trunk between them both. It was followed by a loud, booming voice echoing out of the stillness of the trees. See, scum, touch not my food. Go from this place, or where a gula will tear you from limb to limb and devour you. Luke threw his pear to the ground. Do as I say, Berg. Drop your pear and let's get back to the crew. Don't argue. Berg was not about to disagree. He dropped the half-eaten pear as if it were a poisonous reptile and followed Luke back the way they had come. When he figured they were both out of sight, Luke dropped down behind a fallen tree. Berg was still wide-eyed and trembling. Do you hear that voice, matey? It must have come from a beast ten times bigger than a badger. You lay low here till I get back. Give me your spear. Before Berg had a chance to argue, Luke plucked the spear from his paws and was gone. Bellying down, Luke crawled back to the pear tree. Then he lay still, checking the area keenly, eyes darting back and forth as he searched the trees for any sign of movement. Satisfied he was not being watched, Luke picked up his fallen pear and stuck it on the point of Verg's spear. Acting speedily, he flung the spear, butt-end first, into a thick bush where the pear on the spear point remained clearly visible, sticking out of the leaves. Next, Luke gave the pear tree a good shake, calling out aloud, Ha! These must be the pears the captain told us about. Then he wriggled off into the shrubbery with his teeth clamped tight around the scimitar and lay still watching. 
Suddenly, another metal-tipped wooden club struck the pair from the spear tip, and a mad, booming voice howled angrily, "You did not heed my warning. Now, Waragula says you must die." Yaka haka hey hoo! A wild, ragged figure hurtled across the tiny clearing and flung itself into the bush, undoubtedly hoping to come to grips with whomever was holding the spear. Luke was after it in a flash. The beast was immediately at a disadvantage, trapped with its bottom sticking out of the bush. The sturdy mouse dealt the target a tidy whack with the flat of his blade and shouted sternly, "Come out of there, you savage!" The reply came back after an agonized gasp. "Ha ha! Stab me from the rear, eh, sea scum? You pirates are all the same. Just wait till I get out of here." Luke gave the bottom another whack with his blade flat. Mayhap this'll help you, Wellagooler, or whatever you call yourself. Here, have another taste of my blade. He laid on another stinging blow, and the beast almost somersaulted out of the bush in a cloud of leaves and broken twigs. Ow! 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 Ouch! Typical vermin pirate type. What? Can't slay a chap without jolly well torturing him to death first. Ooh! My posterior's a flippin' flame, ya great lout. It was a hare, garbed ridiculously in rags, seashells, and strands of vegetation. Its face stained purple with berry juice. Luke watched it cautiously as he put up his sword. I'm no sea scum. My name's Luke, and I'm a chieftain from far across the seas. The hare stood up, rubbing his tail area ruefully. Oh, I see. And that gives you the blinkin' right to land up here and whale the tar out of chaps' bottoms with your sword. Huh? Probably why you had to leave the place you came from. Every beast got fed up with you wallopin' all and sundry round the nether regions with swords and whatnot, so they banished you from the blinkin' land. Say then, scurvy cad, beatin' up any other poor creatures today? What? What? Speak up, sir. Luke was astonished at the nerve of the hare. Hold on a tick, flop ears! First you go terrifying my crew with your howling and wailing, then you try to kill me by flinging those funny-looking spears of yours, and then you got the brass neck to come plain when you get caught at it. Just who do you think you are? Puffing out his narrow chest, the hare clapped a paw to his stomach and bowed curtly. Who do I think I am, sir? I am smoke on the wind, a creature of many resources. To the vermin inhabiting this island, I am Waragula, the purple-faced terror. In a far more elegant life than this, I was known as Beauclair Feathering Soul Cosfordingham, fondly referred to as just Beau by my family, friends, and dear old nanny. What? Verg stole cautiously up, brandishing a stick. Ah, there you are, Luke. But who's this creature? Luke made the introductions. This is the one who was doing all the shouting and throwing weapons at us. Verg, meet Bo. The hare regarded Verg's outstretched paw suspiciously. Verg, eh? Sounds a right murderous vermin name if ever I heard one. Chap looks shifty too. You know, I'm not totally convinced that you two aren't sea rogues. Luke sighed impatiently. Well, we're not standing around all day just to convince you. 
Come on, Berg, let's round up the crew and get back aboard the ship. We're wasting time here. They had only gone a few paces when Bo leaped in front of them with a broad grin pasted on his purpled features. You're mice, silly old me, what? Mice aren't sea scum. They're good chaps like myself. Have you really got a ship, Admiral Luke? Are you sailing away from this confounded isle? Take me with you, sirs. I beg of you. I'll even provision your vessel with the food I grow here. You won't be sorry. Old salty bow, they call me on shipboard, can turn my paw to anything nautical. Hoist me mainsail. Loose those anchors. Take a turn round the rigging and boggle me bilges. What, what? I can spout that sort of rot all season. Luke could not help smiling at the lanky, excited creature. Keep that up, Bo, and we'll make you swim behind the ship to give us a bit of peace. You say you've got provisions? Provisions? Grub? Rations? Scoff? Vittles? Tucker? You name it, Luke my mouse, and I've got it. Luke was forced to place a paw across Bo's mouth. Enough, mate. You can sail with us, but on two conditions. Cut the cackle and show us to the provisions. 22. The crew of the Sena spent the rest of the afternoon gathering produce which Bo had grown. They carried pears, apples, wild grapes, mushrooms, carrots, and all manner of fresh food back to the ship. Luke was wondering whether he would regret his decision because the hare never once stopped chattering. Heave ho, me hearties, that's the ticket, what, what? I say there, what a jolly little ship, absolutely tip-top. Far nicer than the great red monstrosity that delivered me here, by the left, I should say so. They were filling pails from a lively trickle of fresh water running down the cliff face to the shore. Forming a chain, the crew passed it aboard where it was emptied into the casks to top up the Sena's water supply. Bo was chattering on as he shoved another pail beneath the running water. Oh, yes, this is the stuff to put fur on your tail, what? Good and fresh water, sweet and clean, drinking myself, you know, morning, noon, and night. Feel those muscles. See how my eyes sparkle? Have you ever seen teeth as white as mine? What? Luke pulled him to one side. Bo, did you say a great red ship brought you here? Indeed it did, sir. Filthy great thing. Name of the gore leech. Luke's paw tightened like a vice over Bo's. Tell me everything you know about the red ship. Bo rubbed his paw and looked quizzically at Luke. Of course, old chap. No need to crush a fellow's paw. It all started some seasons ago when yours truly got the jolly old urge to go seafaring. Shipped out on a small merchant craft, trading round the coast, you know. Good crew, couple of shrews, some hedgehogs, and a mouse or two. We were doing quite well, until one night our ship was lying at anchor, and we were all in our hammocks snoring. Well... The Gorleach sailed up and took us by surprise, rammed our little boat with its great iron spike, sunk us like a stone, what? Sea rogues everywhere, slew most of the crew, took the remainder captive. I'll never forget the captain of the red ship, a stoat, Vilu Daskar, cruel murdering villain. I spent two seasons chained to an oar in the red ship's middle decks, starved, whipped, kicked, and beaten. Still got the scars if you'd like to see them. I was the only beast out of my old crew left alive after a while. Then I fell sick, too weak and tend to be of further use at the oar. Billu Daskar had me thrown overboard. Probably thought I was about to die, 
so the fish and the tides could finish me. Ha! But I came off stern stock. My old nanny could have told him that I was a cost Fordingham, and we don't die too easily, you know. I was washed up here, and this has been my home ever since. Island's full of vermin, though. Sea rats and such, deserters, runaways, and some who've been marooned. Evil lot. The rogues would have skinned and scoffed me, but I've spent my seasons here living in secret, growing my own tucker and fighting them from the shadows and tree cover. That's when I became Waragula Purpleface. Regular one-hair army, what? Luke smiled in admiration at the brave here. You did well, Bo. Tell me, have you ever sighted Viludaskar's vessel again? Rather. Passed here three moons ago, put in for water and sailed off bound south. I hit on the cliff tops and watched the red ship come and go. You know, your ship's the first decent craft with honest crew I've ever seen put in here. Jolly lucky for me, I'd say. What, what? Screeching war cries cut the conversation short, and Bo hurled himself at Luke, knocking him to one side. A rough, sharp spear buried itself in the sand where Luke had stood a moment before. Down the steps in the cliff face, a huge mob of ragged vermin were dashing toward the Sena's crew. The warrior mouse acted swiftly. Grabbing the spear, he ran forward, shaking it to feel the balance. From halfway between the tide line and the stairs, he made a mighty throw. A sea rat, slightly ahead of the rest, took the spear through his middle and toppled over, screaming. Those behind could not stop their mad charge and stumbled over the slain rat. Luke's roar snapped the crew out of their shock. Back to the ship at the double! The vermin who had tripped on their fallen comrade did not have far to fall. They sprawled in the sand momentarily, then scrambled up and gave chase after the mice. Weapons drawn, Luke, Berg, and Bo stood in the shallows, hurrying the crew past them. Get aboard quick, mates! Loose all sails and up anchor! Cordell, Denno, and Doolum helped the first few over the side and set to, turning the windlass to haul up the anchor. Wild with their desire to capture a ship, vermin thundered recklessly into the water. Luke swung back and forth with his sword, slaying and wounding wherever he struck. Berg hit out with his spear, and Bo went at them, a club in each paw. Yah! Back! Back, you scum! Other vermin were coming in from both sides now to cut the trio off from their vessel. Aboard the Sena, Call and some others went to work. Hanging over the stern, they whizzed arrows and slingstones at the mob in the shallows. It was Cardo who saved the day, though. Grabbing an axe, he chopped the rear anchor free of its rope. Then, heaving until he had pulled a fair length from the windlass, the resourceful mouse cast the thick line into the sea. Grab a hold, mates! We'll haul ye aboard! Luke held off the closest foes while Bo seized the rope and knotted it into a wide loop, which he threw over Verg and Luke with one wide cast, then ducked inside to join them. Bound together within the noose of anchor rope, they struck out at the surrounding attackers, with Verg bellowing back to the ship, Heave away, mates! Fast as you like! Billowing sails caught the wind, whipping the Sena out to sea. Every available crew mouse bent his back at the windless spokes, making it fly around. Luke smashed a spearhead with a swipe of his sword blade, but before he could strike at its owner, his footpaws left the seabed and he was swept away backward with Verg and Bo pressed either side of him. Even spraying seawater sloshing at his mouth could not silence the hare. 
Fare thee well, vermin, glub, glub. Goodbye, chaps, glug. With the Sena's outward momentum and the windlass winding them in, they soon outdistanced the maddened vermin. Berg felt his back bump hard against the ship's side as Bo hooted, Steady on, chaps, glub. We ain't the blinkin' enemy, glug-glug. Do you mind letting us live a trifle longer? Sure. This seawater tastes jolly foul, what? Willing paws pulled them aboard, and Luke wriggled free of the rope. They stood astern, watching the island recede as the enraged mob fought among themselves in the shallows. Luke put aside his blade and took off his sopping tunic. How did we do, Cardo? Every beast safe? Aye, they're all alive, mate. One or two wounds. I took a sling stone right across the paw myself. Verg inspected the cut on his friend's paw. Nasty. Is that the paw you used to cook with? Cardo smiled cheerfully. No. Verg gave a disappointed sigh. What a pity. The crew laughed heartily at the indignant Cardo. Bo looked from one to another, unable to fathom the joke. What's so funny? Is the blighter an awful cook? This caused further laughter and more indignation from Cardo. Take no notice of them, Bo. They're all lousy cooks. You'll be sorry you signed aboard this ship, mate, especially when you taste the grub. It's dreadful. Even the fishes throw the scraps back aboard. Immediately, the hare cast off his raggy garb and began wrapping a length of canvas around his waist like an apron. Lucky you found me, then, chaps. Aboard my old ship, I was voided the choicest chef to be chosen from all chief chefs. Call nudged the hare. Bet you couldn't say that again. Bo dismissed him with an airy twiddle of both ears. Couldn't I, though, huh? I was the cheese chosen chief of all choosers. No, wait a tick. I was choked by a chosen chief chook. Nope, that ain't right. Luke interrupted him. If you can cook, then stow the blather and get to the galley. Cardo, you can be Bo's assistant. Denno, attend the wounded. You are always good at healing. Call, you take the tiller. Keep that western sun at your right shoulder. We're following the red ship south. The rest of you, trim the sails and see she moves along steady. Bo turned out to be an excellent cook. That night he served the crew of the Sena a meal to gladden their hearts. Being a hare, he cooked victuals in generous portions, so there was more than enough for all. Right ho! I know this will be wasted on you famine-faced chaps, but here's tonight's menu. What? Starters, cheese and onion turnovers with my own flaky pastry, followed by shrimp and mushroom bake in a parsley and turnip sauce. For afters, there's a pear and plum pudding. To drink, mint and dandelion tea, or some rather good cider I found in your ship's stores. Hold hard a moment there. Don't touch a bally crumb till I've said grace, you savages. Luke lowered his eyes, admonishing the crew. He's right. No need to get sloppy and bad-mannered, because we're not at home. Carry on, Bo. The hare intoned the grace at tremendous speed. Fate and fortune smile on us, and of this crew take care, but let no greedy robber try to guzzle up my share. Before any beast could raise an eye or pick up a spoon, the hare was tucking in as if there were no tomorrow. Berg passed the turnovers to Luke. Our cook can certainly shift the vittles, mate. Luke sniffed the hot turnovers appreciatively. Bo can do what he likes, as long as he keeps serving up meals as good as this'n. Aye, better put some aside for Cordell. He's on tiller watch. 
The Sena plowed steadily south on fair seas under a waning moon. Weary after the day's exertions, her crew lay down to rest, though food seemed to have the opposite effect on the garrulous cook. Bo quoted endless rhymes, danced and sang ceaselessly, now that he was not alone but in the company of friends. Luke sent him on deck to guard the tiller, and he did a double watch, serenading the sea and the night skies. Doolum wadded his cloak about both ears, complaining bitterly, A good cook he may be, but a tuneful singer he ain't. Sounds like some beast attacking a plank with a rusty saw out there. Oi, give your gob a rest, will you, Bo? But insults and pleas had no effect on the off-key warbler. Oh, flunky-dee and a rum-tum-tum, the good ship Flinky-dog set sail with a crew of fishes and fat old Cap'n Frog. Oh, doodle-day, make way, make way, the frog said to the fishes. All fins on deck, and use your tails to wash these dirty dishes. Oh, skittle-de-doo, a fig for you, the fish crew boldly cried. Just chuck them in the ocean. They'll be washed up by the tide. Tis mutiny. Oh, woe is me. The frog did croak so sad. If I'd a crew of boiler crabs, they'd not behave so bad. Twas after dark, a passing shark heard what was going on. So, for his team, impartially, he ate up every one. Oh, goodness me. Ho, oh, oh, ho, he, he. The shark smiled. Lack a day, I can't abide a feckless frog, nor fish who won't obey. Bo neatly dodged an apple core flung at him from the cabin. His ears stood up indignantly. Rotten bounders! Fancy chucking missiles at a chap who's doing his level best to sing you to sleep, ungrateful cads! He was answered by an irate bellow. Yet great lanky lollop-eared breeze barrel, shut up! Bo lay back on the deck, tending the tiller with a long footpaw. A wink's as good as a nod to me, old lad. If you don't appreciate good music, then I'll withdraw the privilege of my melodious meanderings. But I'll finish this little ditty first. Stay calm. There's only another forty-six verses to go. Twenty-three. In the following weeks, the Sena covered many sea leagues. They were well out of the cold latitudes, and the weather became almost tropical, with constant sunshine beating down out of clear blue skies. But Luke was getting edgy and frustrated. There had been no sign of the red ship, which could be anywhere in the trackless wastes of ocean they were searching. Between them, he and Denno began drawing up a chart from the northern shores to the isle where Bo had lived and onward. Luke was disappointed that there were no other landfalls to act as route markers. We're sailing blind, mate. At least if we sighted land, there might be some news of the red ship. But all we've seen for ages now is nothing but sea on every horizon. Denno put aside his quill pen, nodding agreement. Aye, we could do with taking on some fresh water, too, and the supplies are running low. That hare must think his one job in life is dishing up mountains of vittles to the crew. Look at the stomach I put on. Luke, however, was not about to criticize his cook. You leave old Bo out of this, Denno. That hare can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned, mate. I never tasted such wonderful food in all my seasons. But Denno's words proved prophetic. It was on the afternoon of the following day that Verg scraped bottom of one water cask with the dipper.
If we don't sight land soon, then I reckon we're in trouble, matey. Water's all but finished. Bo emerged from his galley swinging a ladle. No water? Well, we'll have to make do with cider and whatnot. Cardo, what's the jolly old position on drinks other than water? You're my assistant sea cook. There was a rattling and scuttling from the galley. Then Cardo popped a mournful face around the door. Down to the dregs, Bo. Down to the very dregs. The irrepressible Bo began climbing the rope ladder of the center mast. Well, no use standing round with a face like a squashed apple, comrade of mine. Just have to scan the blooming horizon for land. What, what? Cardo cast a withering glance up at Bo. Oh, just like that? The hare was now clinging to the mainmast top, one paw shading his eyes as he gazed eagerly all around. Well, of course, just like that, you silly fat mouse. Hello there, chaps. Is that a smudge way out to the southwest? Land ho! Or at least I'll bet it's something jolly close to land. Ah, well done, that hare. Mention in dispatches. Maybe jot down a line of praise or two in the ship's log at the very least. Luke shoved Denno playfully. You see, matey, told you I wouldn't have a word said against old Bo. Cordell, set a course southwest. If that's land, we might make it before tomorrow morning. Tacking against the prevailing breezes, the Sena lay off the island three hours before dawn. A huge cone of what Luke took to be an extinct volcano reared dark and forbidding against the night sky. Though it was difficult to see much in the darkness, Bo noted that there were forests of trees growing on the slopes and a shoreline of kinds. Luke spoke his thoughts to the hare as he sized up the situation. We'd best stay offshore until tis light. There might be reefs twixt here and the beach. Don't see any signs of life ashore, but we'd best not chance anything until daylight. You go and get a bit of shut-eye with the crew, Bo. I'll call you when tis light. Wouldn't think of an old lad. You and I shall stand watch together till the raven-winged shades of night are flown and earth is reborn in fiery sunlight today. Luke leaned on the taffrail, eyes searching the shoreline. Well said, Bo. Very poetic, mate. The talkative hair perked up. Thank you kindly, Luke. I'm rather glad you appreciate poetry. Here's a modest effort I composed myself to while away the hours back on my island. A mole and a duck went strolling one day. Luke's strong paws clamped around Bo's jaws, holding his mouth tight shut. Either be quiet or go to sleep. If you don't, I'll put you to sleep with a belaying pen. As dawn broke, Luke roused the crew and they sailed cautiously in toward the shore. Now the island could be viewed clearly. The beach was dark, bluey-black volcanic sand. A thin plume of white smoke drifted lazily from the top of the rock cone which dominated the place, denoting that the volcano was not altogether extinct. Purple and scarlet flowers bloomed thick in the foothills, and many of the trees had huge, spear-shaped leaves. It was an exotic scene, though the total silence made it rather sinister. As Berg watched the Cena's prow nose into the sandy shallows, he conveyed his misgivings to Luke. I'm getting that same feeling I had last time we came to an island. I don't like it, matey. Too quiet for a place that looks so fertile. There's got to be some sort of creatures living here. 
Luke pointed to the shore. You're right, Ferg. See there, slightly above the tide line? What do you make of that? Bo elbowed his way to the prow. A great pile of fruit! The creatures must be jolly friendly leaving a gift like that for us. Luke frowned. Too friendly, perhaps. Let's not be too hasty. There's something about this little offering that doesn't ring true. But Bo was already leaping the side. Come on, you chaps! I'll be food taster. My stomach's as steady as a jolly old rock. What, what? Before Luke could stop them, most of the crew had followed the hare, bounding overboard into the shallows and splashing ashore toward the heap of luscious fruit piled on the beach. Verg chuckled as the hare picked a grape, tossed it, and caught it deftly in his mouth. He waited a few seconds, and then waved a large bunch of wild grapes at the ship. Still standing, me hearties! Delicious! Come on, everyone, tuck in! Luke and Berg watched as they all pounced hungrily on the mysterious gift. Ahoy, Bo! called Berg. Bring some back for us! Right you are, Berg! I say, chuck the empty casks overboard and we'll see if we can find a stream to fill them from. Being the only two left on board, Berg and Luke rolled all the casks out and tipped them over the side. Berg tied the tiller in position so the ship would not drift. I was wrong, Luke. This island seems quite friendly now. Perhaps Bo was right, and whoever left the fruit out doesn't mean us any harm. Mayhap they'll show themselves before the day's out. A stream of fresh water actually flowed across the shore, not far from the heap of fruit. Doolin and Cardo filled the casks and got them back to the ship. Luke rigged a rope through the mainsail's top block, and between them he and Verg hoisted the casks of water aboard. Doolum and Cardo waded back to join their friends ashore. Luke called after them, Make the most of it. Tell the crew I want them back on deck by sunset. We sail at first tide tomorrow. Luke was busy stowing the casks in the galley when Berg shouted urgently from out on deck, On shore, mate! Come and see! He left what he was doing and hurried out. Some of the crew were lying down amid the fruit. Some were sitting aimlessly nearby, while one or two of the remainder were staggering oddly about. All appeared to have slack grins on their faces. Luke yelled, Ahoy, call! Doolum! Bo! What's the matter, mates? Doolum collapsed on the sand. Call fell on top of him. Only Bo remained standing. The hare gave a faint giggle, tried to wave, then his legs gave out, and he sat down awkwardly, staring at the ship, smiling foolishly. Luke smote the taffrail. That fruit! I should have known it! Come on, Berg! But Berg was pointing to where the foothills met the shore. Wait! Those bushes are moving! Halfway over the side, Luke checked himself. He could scarcely believe his eyes. The entire hillside had come to life. Literally hundreds of bushes were moving across the shore in a massive screen of foliage. On instinct, he leaped back aboard and dragged Verg down flat. A veritable hail of missiles struck the boat, arrows, javelins, spears, and stones. Drums began pounding aloud, and an eerie wailing rose from the bushes, followed by another salvo of missiles. Luke grabbed a long boat hook. Get your spear, Verg! Pull her off into deeper water. Scurrying forward, they pushed the vessel into the ebb tide, grunting with exertion as they pressed hard against their poles. 
An arrow thwacked into Verg's shoulder, and Luke ignored a deep javelin graze across his cheek. Push, Verg! Let's give it all we've got, mate! The Sena's keel scraped free of the sand. Luke dashed recklessly astern and slashed the rope which held the tiller rigid. Wheeling sideways, the Sena caught the tide. Luke flattened himself as another rain of death peppered the ship. Then she was bow out, sailing free. Arrows sticking up from the deck timbers as if from a pincushion snapped against Luke's footpaws as he dashed back to Verg's side. Wincing, the brave mouse tugged the shaft from his shoulder. Lucky that arrow's flight was near spent, and my tunic's a good thicken. I'm not bad hurt, Luke. What about you? Luke pawed blood from the cut on his cheek. Only a scratch, mate. I'll live. Whoever they are, tis plain they can't shoot straight. Great seasons, look! Berg stared in amazement at the diminishing shoreline. Silent and deserted the beach lay, as if no beast had ever been there. All that remained was a pile of squashed fruit. Verg turned in bewilderment to his friend. Where have they gone? Denno, Cordell, Bo, the whole crew are gone. What do we do now? Grim-faced, Luke gazed at the shoreline, his warrior blood pounding furiously as he strove to control himself. Let's make sail. It'll look as if we're running away. We'll wait till dark, Berg. Then we'll go back and get them. Drums pounded everywhere. At first, Cardo thought they were inside his skull, causing the massive headache that woke him. However, he saw that they were all too real when he opened his eyes. It was a scene that turned his blood to ice water, though strangely, everything was wrong side up. Like the rest of his crewmates, he had been bound tight and slung lengthwise on a stout pole so that his head hung down. The poles had been hoisted up on ropes, close to the ceiling of a big cave, with a fire burning at its center. Rock ledges had been carved around the cave walls in tiers, and these were crowded with hundreds of small, fierce, rat-like rodents, unlike any Cardo had ever seen. They were covered with intricate patterns of red, orange, and white dyes, with clattering seashells affixed to ears, paws, and tails. At the rear of the cave were two massive drums, atop of which forty or fifty of the rodents performed a stamping dance. The sound boomed and banged relentlessly, increased fourfold as it echoed around the cave's interior. Crouching by the fire was a figure far larger than the rest, obviously a female weasel, draped from ears to tail with long necklaces and bracelets made from painted crab claws. Her face was daubed thick with white clay, black charcoal lines accentuating the features. Bo was hanging alongside Cardo. He opened his eyes, looked around, then squinched his ears flat peevishly and called downward to the rodents. Put a flippin' bong in it, you chaps, what? Those drums are making my old noggin throb dreadfully. I say there, you! Yes, you, Marm! Tell these blighters to desist! Humph! Rank bad manners to go thumping drums like that when a body's feeling out of sorts. Now pack it jolly well in. As if by magic, complete silence fell. The remainder of the crew had awakened, and Bo winked at them knowingly. Voice of command and discipline. That's the thing to give the blinking troops. What, what? The weasel sprang upright. 
Grabbing a long wand ornamented with dried sea urchins, she shook it, pointing first at the captives, then to somewhere at the back of the cave between the two drums, and finally making a long, sweeping gesture at the crammed masses of rodents. Rabatuma! Slaris! Ya! Agorima! This seemed to drive the rodents into a frenzy. They laughed savagely, howling back at their leader. Ya! Barahaga! Slaris! Ko! Slaris! Call strained his head over toward Bo. Huh? Hope you ain't said the wrong thing, mate. The hare was quite indignant. Wrong thing, laddie? Me? I should say not. Tact and diplomacy are the pallmark of us cosporting hands. Hang on a tick. I'll have a word with that vermin lady. See what the position is as regards looseness from our bonds, what? Now then, my good villainess, do you think you could spare a few of those runty types to unbind me and my stalwart comrades? Sort of save us hanging around, pardon the pun. Ignoring the hare's request, the weasel crouched and began making mysterious weaving patterns upon the cave floor with her wand. The small, rat-like creatures pointed at the captives and chanted aloud, Co-slaris, Rabatuma, Slaris, yo! Denno shook a droplet of perspiration from his nose tip. Phew, I'm roasted! Doolum closed his eyes, as if trying to block out his thoughts. Quiet, mate. That could be a bad choice of words. They might be flesh-eaters. Now the rodents who had been dancing on the drumheads deserted their posts, swiftly scrambling onto the ledges alongside the rest. Casting something into the fire, the weasel caused the flames to burn green. Then she went to the drums and began tapping her wand alternately against the side of each one, calling out in a sibilant voice, Slaris! 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 Ever the optimist, Bo suggested brightly, You know, I'm not familiar with their lingo, but I'll wager Slaris is some sort of greeting, like, How do you do? or Good evening, chaps. Perhaps I'd better return the compliment. Show some manners, what? I say, Marm, Slaris to you, too. Slaris. How's that? From a hidden opening behind the two drums, Slaris emerged. Bo's mouth went suddenly dry with fear. Even he was not ready for this. The snake's head was bright green and huge. It slid slowly out in a seemingly never-ending ripple of sleek coils. As if searching, its flickering tongue quested in and out restlessly, eyes glittering in the firelight, twin diamonds of primitive evil. Lazily, the green and black chevron coils formed into several loops, one atop the other, with the flat reptilian head resting at their peak. Standing at the other side of the fire, the weasel poked the tip of her long wand in the flames until it was glowing. Not one creature in the cave made a sound or moved a muscle. The snake was hunting, seeking a victim. The crew hung motionless, stiff with terror. Bo was not aware of the glowing wand's end approaching behind his head. Suddenly, the weasel touched it against the tip of his long right ear. 
Yowch! A whoop! He shook his head. Slaris. Not a pause length away, the snake swayed its head, mouth open, fangs bared dangerously, hissing its challenge. The hare found himself staring into the reptile's eyes. Frozen with nameless dread, he hung there helpless. Twenty-four. The night was humid, still warm from the day's sun. The Sena came back to the island on the flood tide, showing no sail. Luke and Verg dropped anchor offshore. Verg was muttering to himself as they went over the side. Can't tell if in any beasts watching us. I hope none spotted us coming in. Suppose they did, though. Maybe one of us should have stayed behind his guard on board. Luke chuckled dryly. I thought of that myself, mate. But it'll take the two of us to rescue our crew. Besides, if we get caught too, then what use is a ship to us? Stow your chunnerin, Berg. You're getting to sound more like an old mousewife every day. They stole up the deserted beach, using any rocks they found as cover. Closer to the foothills, Verg held up a paw. Shh! Listen, can you hear anything? Luke stood quite still and listened closely. Thought it was the waves at first, but it sounds like some sort of chant. Drums, too. Aye, that's the sound of drums. Berg pointed to the foothills, slightly to the right of them. Coming from there, matey. I'm sure it is. Sword and spear at the ready, they pressed on into the foliage stretching uphill before them. The sounds of drums and chanting grew louder, closer. Luke whispered, Stay there, mate. I'll go and take a peek. The cave entrance was a short, winding tunnel. Luke sized up the lay of the land, then beckoned to Verg. They crouched behind a bush at one side of the entrance while Luke explained his plan. See that round boulder just uphill there? Do you reckon we could shift it between us, Verg? Aye, at least we'll give it a try, mate. Good, but first we need to dig a bit of a hole here. Where? Right here in the entrance to the tunnel? That's right. Ground's pretty soft. We'll use our weapons. Between them, they scraped out a shallow depression in the tunnel's mouth. Luke searched about until he found a sizable chunk of rock which he placed to one side of the hole, tamping it down firmly. Right, now let's move that boulder. It was a large round stone, but it moved slowly when Luke set his back against it and Berg used his spear butt as a lever. Luke fought for control as they rolled it down toward the entrance. Oh, go easy now, mate. Easy does it. Just a touch more. There, that should do it. The boulder was checked from rolling into the hole at the cave entrance by the rock Luke had placed there, which now served as a wedge to hold the boulder back. Luke drew his sword, then paused. Those drums have stopped. Come on, something must be going on in there. Be careful not to make any noise, matey. The friends crept through the tunnel and, keeping to the shadowed walls, entered the main cave, hardly able to believe their eyes at what they saw. Sinister green firelight flickered over the masked faces of the rodents packed on the ledges, all staring fascinated at one thing, the great snake. The reptile's thick neck was quivering as, rearing back and hissing coldly, it prepared to strike at bow. Luke sprang into immediate action. Grabbing Verg's spear, 
He hop-skipped forward a pace and hurled the hefty weapon with all the force he could muster. Speechless with horror, Bo saw the reptile's mouth open wide, revealing sharp, deadly fangs as it struck forward at his unprotected face. Then, like a lightning bolt, the spear went smashing into the gaping mouth, driving half its length out through the back of the neck column. Thrashing wildly in its death throes, the snake fell back to the floor, its powerful body flailing like an immense bullwhip, battering rodents from the lower ledges and scattering the fire into a cascade of flying sparks and embers. The weasel scarcely had time to turn before Luke was upon her, ramming the vermin leader flat against the rock wall, his sword blade at her throat. One move and you're dead meat, scum! The warrior roared into her painted face. Though the weasel could not understand Luke's language, the message was clear. The only part of her which moved was her throat as she gulped against the sword blade. "'Tis Luke, mates! We're saved!' A ragged cheer rang out from the crew. Below them, the dead snake was still causing great damage. Rodents were flung high, smashed against the cave walls, crushed and beaten senseless by the writhing coils of the monster. It seemed like an eternity before the reptile's body went limp and still. However, a great number of the rodents had escaped serious injury, huddling together on the highest cave ledges. Several of them now grabbed weapons and advanced on Luke and Verg, screeching savagely, Marahaga! Lagor! Rabatuma! Lagor! Berg swiftly freed his spear from the snake's carcass and joined Luke, pressing his spear point at the weasel's heart. Luke kept the sword at her throat as he growled, Tell him to back off and cut my crew loose. He nodded to the bound figures hanging on their poles from the cave ceiling. My crew! Cut him down before I cut you down! Now! The weasel raised a paw slowly and pointed at the crew. Rabatuma, Lagor, Ko. One rodent, obviously some kind of minor chieftain, bowed curtly to the weasel. Ya, Marahaga. Turning sullenly to the rest, he indicated the prisoners. Lagor, Rabatuma. Bo had recovered from his shock and rediscovered speech. I should jolly well say so, you foul little fiends. You heard him. Let us, Rabatubas, go this very instant. The rodents obeyed. Swinging out on ropes, they perched on the poles and sawed through the crew's bonds with their daggers. With shouts of relief and pain, Bo and the Sena's crew mice fell to the dusty cave floor where they lay groaning. Cardo whimpered as he tried to rise. Paws have gone numb with being tied tight for so long. Luke's reply was brusque. We can't linger here, mates. Crawl out on your bellies. Move yourselves. That's an order. Luke and Berg were still menacing the weasel as the crew hauled themselves out in a sorry, complaining bunch. Ow, ow, I got pins and needles in all me paws. My poor head's aching fit to split, mate. Look, that rodent slashed my tail when he cut the ropes. Huh, you should complain. My back fur's all scorched from hanging over that blazing fire. Luke kicked the last one's tail lightly. Maybe next time you'll wait my orders afore dashing ashore to stuff drugged fruit down your faces. When the crew were gone, Luke spun the weasel around and held the blade across her throat from behind. 
Keep an eye on those savages, Berg. Stick them if they get too close. Right, Weasel. We're backing out of here nice and easy. Don't move, or you're a dead'un. As they retreated, the rodents followed them, crying, Magor! Marahaga! Luke was beginning to understand what they said. Don't fret, buckos. We'll let go of your Marahaga as soon as we're out of this stinking place. Now back off. They negotiated the short, winding tunnel. Waiting outside, the crew were massaging life back into numbed paws. Luke guided the weasel around the shallow pit they had dug, and the rodents had just reached its edge when he nodded to Verg, Knock that wedge aside! Sharpish! Verg hit the piece of rock a sharp tap with his spear butt, moving it aside. The boulder rolled forward half a turn and landed in a shallow hole with a bump. It blocked the tunnel entrance off completely and muffled the squeaks of rage sounding from behind it. Verg leaned on his spear, grinning. A good tight fit, I'd say, mate. Luke ordered his crew to get back aboard the Sena, while he and Verg took the weasel and forced her to sit next to the pile of squashed fruit. With his sword point, Luke drew a picture of the gore leech in the sand. Then he transferred the point back to the weasel's throat. Mara Haga, see red ship sail by here? Red ship, big one? The weasel watched Luke's face as he repeated the question several times over. Carefully, she drew three circles in the sand, with squiggly lines radiating from them, and an arrow pointing south. While Berg squinted at the drawing, the weasel tapped Luke's sketch of the ship thrice. Luke understood. Three suns, that's three days, he explained to his bemused friend. She says the red ship sailed by here three days back, down south. Berg dusted his paws off in a businesslike manner. That means we ain't far behind her, mate. Better get underway. What do we do about this one, Luke? The weasel looked unhappily at the warrior. Touching the sword blade with a paw, she tried to shake her head. A mischievous smile crept over Luke's face, and he thrust a big squashed plum at the weasel's mouth. Eat! She shut her lips tight in revulsion. Luke swung his blade aloft, as if to slay her with one blow. Marahaga, eat! Eat! The weasel gobbled the fruit with great alacrity. Berg giggled like a mouse babe and selected a bruised pear. Come on, Mary Haggett. Try some more of your own medicine. The weasel was forced to down two more plums and a peach. She sat unhappily, juice dribbling down her chin. Berg turned to Luke, full of mock sympathy. Deary me, she don't look too happy, mate. Do you think she's still hungry? Luke passed the weasel a half-eaten apple that one of his crew had sampled earlier on. Oh, I wouldn't worry about old Mara Haga, mate. She'll cheer up soon. Come on, let's get going. When they looked back, the weasel had picked up a piece of fruit and was about to hurl it at them. She swayed, dropped the fruit, and sat down with a bump, a silly grin plastered on her painted face. Verg waved to her. Goodbye, old Mary Haggett. Tis nice to see we're leaving you happy. I can't abide sad farewells. Luke waved too. Aye, and take care of that headache you'll have tomorrow. As the Sena left the island in her wake, the crew sat sipping hot tea of a herbal remedy brewed by Denno. 
Cardo, voted spokesmouse by his crewmates, addressed the warrior. End of Side 5 To continue, turn the cassette over. Side 6 The Legend of Luke By Brian Jakes Continuing on page 224 Luke, we're sorry we raced ashore and ate that fruit. Twas silly of us. But we'd like to offer a hearty vote of thanks to you for saving our lives. You're a true warrior. Luke held up his paws to silence the cheers. Aye, I saved you because I was able to, mates. Pity I wasn't there when the red ship hit the Northland shore. Every night and day I think of my son Martin back there growing up without a mother to care for him, nor a father with me off here chasing the red ship. But we'll catch her, I swear we will, and I'll make the name Villudescar just a dirty memory in the minds of honest beasts. The crew went off to their sleeping places as the ship sailed south in the soft warm night, each with their own memories of family lost or left behind. Luke stood in the prow, keeping watch, lost in thoughts of Martin's small figure on the strand, waving his father's old battle sword. He stared forlornly at the gentle bow wave dispersing into the calm, dark sea. Some day I'll come back and find you waiting for me, son. 25. On an island many leagues to the south, Black smoke billowed above the crackling flames of what had once been a peaceful community of squirrels. Vermin, armed to the fangs, roamed in bands through the forest lands, slaying any beast who dared to oppose them. Screams rent the air, whips cracked as pitiless rogues rounded up those left alive. Bound neck and paw into a straggling line, the bewildered captives were dragged out of the sheltering trees into the dunes above the tideline. Akla, the ferret mate, sniggered evilly, watching the prisoners' horror as they glimpsed their home-to-be, the red ship Gorleach, riding at anchor in the sea offshore. Move yourself, me beauties. You'll soon find you're a snug little berth aboard the pretty red boat. Vilu Daskar sat on the beach, chin on the bone handle of his scimitar, pensively watching while Perig, his bosun, forced the terrified squirrels to kneel and bow their heads before the master of the red ship. Villu stayed silent until the pitiful heap of provisions and plunder was piled in front of him. Lazily the stoat's eyes flicked over the crew beasts standing around the pile. Is this the best you could do? One, a burly weasel called Ripjaw, shrugged. That's all we be finding, Cap'n. Villu stood slowly, his eyes fixed on a necklace of yellow beads which Ripjaw sported about his neck. So, where did you get that trinket, my illiterate friend? Ripjaw glanced down at the necklace with his good eye. Oh, dis. I take him off a dead beast, Cap'n. Billu's scimitar made a noise like an angry wasp as he slew the weasel with one powerful stroke of the sharp blade. With a look of bored disdain, he flicked the necklace from Ripjaw's severed neck onto the pile. Must I keep reminding you addle-brained fools that all loot belongs to me? You do not steal from Villo Daskar. He turned to the prisoners, as if noticing them for the first time. Hmm, you're a pretty wretched lot. No mind, though. 
You'll soon learn to pull an oar, either that or die. Well, lost your tongues? No beast got anything to say? An ancient squirrel, silver-gray with uncounted seasons, raised his bound paws and pointed at Villu. The one that follows upon the wave will steer you one day to your grave. The stoat could not explain the shudder that ran through him, but it was gone in an instant. He dismissed it, observing to Akla, who stood awaiting orders, I make it a rule never to take notice of threats by those I've conquered. If any of them were true, I'd have been dead long ago. Take that dithering old relic and the rest of his tribe aboard the Gorleach and chain them on deck. The captives were being moved off when wild commotion broke out at the woodland fringe. More than a score of crew beasts fought wildly to control a single squirrel. Villu leaped nimbly onto a grass-topped dune, viewing the scene with evident enjoyment. Noosed ropes held the maddened squirrel by her paws, neck, tail, and waist. The vermin dug their footpaws into the sand, hauling on the lines to keep them taut and prevent her attacking them. She was a huge, sinewy creature with unusually black, shining fur that glistened in the sunlight. Though wounded and scarred in several places, she heaved and bucked against the ropes, sending vermin sprawling, bearing strong white teeth at them. Stopping safely out of reach on his perch, Villu smiled. Whoa! What have we here? A real fighter? The sea rat Grig, his paws cut and burning from rope friction, reported in a strained voice, This one's killed four crew single-pawed, Cap'n! "'Tis like trying to hold a pack of sharks at bay!' Villu leaped down from the dune. "'Hold her tight now!' Advancing on the bound squirrel, he soon had his scimitar tip under her chin, forcing her head back. "'Be still now. I am Villu Daskar, and I could kill you with a flick of my blade. Be still!' Snorting for breath against the noose around her neck, the squirrel fixed her blazing eyes on the stoat. Hatred and loathing ringing fearlessly in her harsh voice. I know who you are, scumface. Let's see you put down that blade and loose me. I'm Rangavar Foe Seeker, and I could rip you to bits without need of a weapon to do the job. Villu pressed his blade point harder, causing a drop of blood to stand out against the jet black fur. Rangavar Foe Seeker, eh? Hearken then. You're in no position to throw out challenges, and I've no intention of fighting you. I don't do battle with my slaves. Rangubar tried to push her chin further onto the blade. Coward! Then slay me and be quick about it! Billu withdrew his scimitar, shaking his head. Never thought I'd live to see the day, a berserk female squirrel. No, no, my friend, I'm not going to slay you. What a waste that would be. With mad strength like that, you could do the work of a score of ore slaves alone. A few seasons of bullflay's whip and short rations will humble you. Down on the bottom deck, front row. The sea spray day and night should cool you down a bit. Take her away. You won't break me, dirt brain. Ranguvar yelled as she was being dragged off. Don't close your eyes to sleep while Ranguvar Foe Seeker is aboard your cursed ship.
Viludaskar picked up a pawful of dry sand and watched the breeze carry it away, remarking to Grig, Huh. Insults and threats. They're like sand in the wind to me, Grig. Here one moment, gone and forgotten the next. Minus the use of oars, using only her sails, the red ship coursed south. Bullflay, the chief slave-driver and his assistants, unchained all the galley slaves and herded them up on the trireme's high main-deck. The Gorleech's new squirrel captives were shocked by the sight of the oar-wielders. Starved to emaciation, hollow-eyed and ragged, barely alive in some cases, the wretched slaves blinked against the bright afternoon. Bullflay cracked his long, shark-skinned whip low, pulling several of the slaves flat as it curled around their footpaws. "'On your knees, you worthless fish-bait! Don't you see the captain's present?' Ranguvar had been chained and covered with a weighted cargo net through which she watched the scene. A huge bulk of timber had been attached to a rope reeved through a block halfway up the mainmast. Vilu stuck his scimitar into the mainmast at shoulder height. I've brought you thirty-six new ore beasts, Bullflay. How many do you need? The big fat weasel saluted with his fearsome whip. I'll take every one you got, Captain Vilu. The pirate stoat signaled for some refreshment and a seat. Hurriedly, four crew members brought his chair, a flagon of his favorite damson wine, and a grilled fish. Seated comfortably, he picked delicately at the fish and sipped wine from a crystal goblet watched by the hungry slaves. Wiping his lips on a silken kerchief, he nodded briefly to his chief slave-driver. Bullflay grabbed the rope which had been reeved through the block and hauled on it until the bulk of timber was hoisted level with a scimitar sticking from the mast. Haul the wood this high, or else! He let the bulk drop to the deck. The weary oar-slaves stood in line for their turn to haul up the bulk. Then he picked up his whip and cracked it over the new arrivals. Come on, you lot, get below. We'll get you chained up to an oar, nice and tidy-like. Ha, ha, ha! Getting the black squirrel Ranguvar below was an awesome task. Keeping her bundled in the cargo net, a score of vermin dragged her through the decks until she was at the front seat of the vessel's bottom level. Eight of the sea rogues suffered wounds and injuries, but they finally got the berserker chained alone to a long, thick oar handle. Ranguvar sat relatively quiet. She waited until the other oar slaves were brought down and shackled into place at the sweeps. She questioned one, a tired old otter, who looked as if he had seen many seasons slaving. What was all that about up on deck, the timber and the rope? Why did you have to haul it up, all of you? The otter blinked back a tear from his craggy face. Didn't you know, mate? Vilu Daskar and Bullflay got to have their bit of fun. Thirty-six new oar slaves means they got to get rid of thirty-six oldens. So they finds the sickest and weakest by making us hoist the log. What happens to those who can't haul the log? Rangubar could not stop herself asking. The otter's husky voice shook as he explained. That's when the real sport starts, mate. They sails the red ship out till land's too far away for a fit beast to swim back to it, and they runs out a plank. 
Vilu gives the poor creatures their freedom, tells them they're free to swim back to shore, and forces them to walk the plank. Ranguvar's fur stood up on the nape of her neck. Do any ever make it, friend? What do you think? You saw the state of some of those slaves. If and the big fishes don't get them, the sea does. Ranguvar turned and murmured softly. Well, at least you survived it. What's your name? Bowing his head until it touched the oar, the otter replied, Norgal's my name. My father's name was Drenner. He used to sit where you're sitting now. That's his oars you're chained to. My old dad was one of those who couldn't haul the log. Slash! Crack! Shut up, you scurvy bilge swabs! Slave Master Bullflay swaggered up to his rail, directly in front of Ranguvar. He wielded the whip at Norgal, but the black squirrel sat up straight and took the blow. A big skinny rat positioned himself alongside Bullflay. Picking up a drumstick, he stood ready at the big drum which was used to keep the oar slaves pulling in time with each other. Bullflay winked at him, nodding toward Ranguvar. See that flea bit? Captain Villu said this squirrel's a real toughen. We'll have to pair some special attention, won't we? Fleabit's narrow frame shook with unconcealed glee. Special attention, right, Chief? We'll learn her. Ranguvar's piercing stare raked the rat scornfully. What could I learn from you, cocklebrain? Crack! Bullflay's whip struck her. Ranguvar transferred her dead stare to him without even blinking. Is that the best you can do, Barrel Belly? Choking with rage, the burly weasel flogged away at his new oar slave, using all his strength. When he finished, his stomach was heaving in and out, and both his paws were shaking violently with the exertion. You! You dare talk to Slave Master Bullflay like that? I'll flay you to doll rags. Ranguvar, who had ducked her head to protect her face, raised her eyes. There was death dancing in them as she growled at Bullflay. You big useless lump of mud. One day I'll kill you with my bare paws, even if and I have to bite through these chains to get at you. Remember that, weasel. Bullflay could not bring himself to answer or raise his whip again. Ranguvar's eyes had frightened him. He strode off down the walkway, laying left and right with his whip at the other oar slaves. Silence there, quiet, and be ready to row when my drum starts to beat, if you want to keep fur on your backs. Two hours after daybreak next morning, a sea rat called down from his watch in the crow's nest. Away to the north! A sail, Cap'n! A sail! Viludaskar leaned out over the stern of the gorleach, shading his eyes, peering hard at the faraway smudge. Sail? Are you sure? What kind of craft is she? Too far off to tell, Captain, sir, but tis a sail for sure. Akla kept the tiller steady, awaiting Vilu's order. Striding the afterdeck, the pirate stoat stroked the yellowed bone handle of his scimitar pensively. Hmm, a sail, eh? How far off are the Twin Islands, Akla? 
We could make them by tomorrow midday, with all sail and full speed on the oars, Cap'n. His eyes still fixed on the far-off object, Billy replied, Too fast. We'd lose her. No ship can keep up with mine under full sail and oars. Take her to half-sail, and tell Bullflay to set the rowers a steady beat. We'll let her keep us in sight, and that way we'll land at Twin Islands tomorrow night. Set your tiller south, and a point west. The red ship sailed off on her new course, with the whips cracking on all three decks below. Oars rose and fell, pulling the gorleach through the waves. The fresh captives groaned miserably as they bent their backs under the lash. 26. Verg snuggled deeper in his hammock. Morning sunlight streamed through the cabin window, and he tried to ignore it, closing both eyes tight, but he could not close his ears to the raucous duet which the cook and his assistant were yelling from the galley. Other crew mice were already awake, hurling objects at the galley door, haranguing the singers within. You'll turn the grub sour with that noise! I belt up, you two! Stop that awful racket! I thought some beast was trying to squash a dozen frogs! But Bo and his assistant Cardo were in full cry, and not about to give up for mere threats and insults. Ho, oh, what you give to a saucy crew? Stew, stew, stew! What's better than a bowl of stew? Why, a bowl of stew or two? We fries the varnish off the mast, then add some old rope ends, and the captain's boots all boiled up slow. Good flavor to it, lends. So scoff it up, tis good for you. Stew, stew, stew. Made with a drop of lantern oil and a barnacle or two, some fine sail threads and fishes' heads, then roast the cook's old socks, and add to that some of the fat they use to grease the locks. Ho, stew, stew, loverly stew, no skilly and duff or brown burgoo, just swallow the lumps that you can't chew, and fill a plate for your worst mate, and sit and watch him tempting fate, with face so green and nose all blue, stew, stew, stew. Luke was guiding the tiller, smiling as he listened to the crew voicing their doubts about breakfast. Do you really think they mean it, Cordell? I don't know, mate. Maybe they're just joking. But they wouldn't use lantern oil and lock grease, would they, Verg? Verg winked at Luke as he answered Denno, who was prone to bouts of seasickness at the slightest thing. Who knows, mate? Old Bo's a gratin' for playing pranks, and I remember that salty stew Cardo made when we first set sail. What do you think, Luke? The warrior was hard put to keep a straight face. No, Verg, I don't think Bo and Cardo would do that to our vittles, though I couldn't find my sea boots this morning. The cook and his assistant staggered out of the galley, bearing between them a steaming cauldron. Denno's usually ruddy face took on an unhealthy pallor. Verg, I ain't eating none of that stuff. Grinning wickedly, Bo dipped a beaker into the cauldron. What? After all the blinking trouble we went to preparing this delicious stew? Now see here, Denno Milado, I'm going to see you eat this, even if I have to feed it to you myself. It'll put the jolly old roses back in your cheeks. Now open your mouth wide, old chap. Yah! I'm too young to die. 
The crew of the Sena shook with laughter as Bo chased Denno round the deck with a beaker of stew. Oh, come on, you great big silly! Stand still and open wide! Get away from me, you lop-eared poisoner! Help! Zombie, stop him! Do something, you rotten lot! Bo pursued Denno from stem to stern, stew slopping from the beaker as he coaxed and cajoled. Never grow up strong and handsome like me if you don't eat all your blinking brekkie up. What, what? Denno scrambled at the mainmast for the crow's nest with Bo scaling the rope ladder close behind him. When he reached the topmost point, Denno suddenly yelled, Sail! I see a sail! Bo grabbed his footpaw, chortling. No excuses now, laddie buck. I'll pour it down your ear if you don't hold still. Luke's sharp command caused the hare to release the crew mouse. Bo, let him be. Are you sure it's a sail, Denno? Aye, Luke. I saw it a moment ago, but it's gone now. Bo let the beaker drop and clambered swiftly up alongside Denno, his keen eyes following the mouse's paw. Over there it was, south, maybe a touch west. The hare concentrated his gaze upon the horizon for a while. Then he climbed down to the deck and made his report to Luke. There was something out there, but bad weather's rising from the southwest. Seas gone quite choppy and the clouds are lowering. Mayhap twas a ship. Couldn't really tell. Luke came to a decision speedily. Verg, steer her over that way. South, going west. Gall, Doolum, Cordell, pile on all sails. Bo, get the food to my cabin, and the rest of you make sure everything is battened down tight. Looks like we're in for a storm. When the orders had been carried out, the crew gathered in Luke's cabin to share the meal. Contrary to Denno's belief, the stew was delicious. Bo was quite huffy that any beast should think it otherwise. Puff! Never cooked rubbish or wasted good food in all my life, what? Vegetable stew, sir, with lots of carrot, dandelion root, leeks, dried mushrooms, onions, taters, and my own special barley and oat dumplings. Puts fur on the chest, a glint in the eye, and a splendid spring to the paw. Stuff to give the crew, eh, Luke? The warrior cleaned his bowl with a chunk of bread. It certainly is, mate. Do you think we should allow Denno a second helping? Denno licked his spoon sheepishly. Not my fault. The way they were singing that song, well, I thought. Bo kindly ladled him another portion. Thought, laddie? You know what a short-sighted bowl thought? Listen, and I'll tell you. A short-sighted bowl climbed out of his hole his glasses he'd lost, I fear. Some blossom petals in the breeze fell on his head. Oh, dear. I thought twas summer, but winter's come. Tis snow, that bowl did shout. I think I'd better go and warn the creatures hereabout. He bellowed round the woodland wide. I think tis going to freeze. He shooed some sparrows from a nest. Back to your hive, you bees. And squinting dimly at the ground, he lectured tufts of grass. All hedgehogs now should be indoors till winter tide does pass. Go join your family round the fire. Don't sit there all alone. Tis no fit weather for a mole, he scolded at a stone. And as for you, he told a bush, you badgers aren't too smart. I thought you'd be the first to know when winter's due to start. So gather round and listen all, my moral's clear and true. 
I think tis best to stop and think when thoughts occur to you. As Bo finished his poem, the ship gave a lurch. Luke saved the stew cauldron as it slid by and laid it safe on the deck, wedging it twixt the table and his chair. Don't panic, crew, it's the bad weather. Sit tight and wait it out in comfort. There's little else we can do. I'm going out on deck. Verg, you come with me. We'll take tiller watch two at a time until the storm passes. When you go out there, use ropes and tie yourselves to that tiller. I don't want any crew washed overboard. The little ship began to sway crazily as mounting waves buffeted her up and down, side to side. Luke gritted his teeth as he and Verg strove to hold the tiller on course. Spray lashed both mice until, despite their heavy cloaks, they were saturated. A high-pitched whine, like that of a stricken beast, rose above the storm's den. It was the wind, playing on the tightened rigging ropes as if they were the strings of some instrument. Pawing salt water from his eyes, Verg glanced anxiously up at them. If we don't slack off some sail, this gale might rip us to pieces, Luke. Can't we take her to half canvas? The warrior stared straight ahead into the onslaught. Tain't possible, Verg. I couldn't risk the crew's life by sending them up into the rigging to shorten sail. Also, I'm near certain twas the red ship that Denno and Bo sighted. I don't figure on losing her. We're bound to follow. Bo and Cardo struggled back to the galley across the seesawing deck, bearing the empty stew cauldron between them. Coinciding with the boom of thunder overhead, the galley door slammed open wide. A flash of white lightning illuminated the scene as they were both swept inside by a wave crashing over the ship. Smoke wreathed them as the galley stove was extinguished into a hissing mess by the water. The sea cook staggered inside, yelling to his assistant, Lock all ye can in the cupboards! Keep the blinking vittles dry! I'm going to fetch a rope and secure those water casks before they start rolling about! No sooner was Bo out on deck again than a crackling bolt of chain lightning struck the Sena's foremast. Like a dry twig, the stout timbers split, sending the long lower jibs swinging like a scythe. Berg saw the danger and shouted, Bo, look out, mate! As Bo turned, the jib caught him a mighty clout in the midriff, hurling him ears over tail into the sea. Luke was already on the move. Releasing the tiller, he quickly tied the stern line about his waist and plunged in after Bo, with Verg bawling above the melee. All paws on deck! Hair overboard! All paws on deck! Down, down went the warrior, into a world of boiling confusion, with the roar of storm and sea ringing in his ears. Luke felt his progress checked as the line pulled tight and immediately began striking upward, his eyes searching the racing, bubbling surface for signs of the hair. Air started escaping his nostrils and mouth as he fought his way bravely to the wave tops. Gasping for breath, he surfaced in a deep green valley, then the maddened seas crashed down upon him. Next moment he was swung up high on the crest of a huge roller. Luke took the opportunity to scan swiftly about for Bo. Below him he could see the stern of the ship, but no other sign of life upon the watery wilderness. Then he was dropped into another deep trough, only to be swept aloft again. About his middle 
The line tightened painfully as he was pulled along in the ship's wake, spitting seawater, paws flailing, searching constantly for Bo, despite his own predicament. Berg called out to the crew, "'Haul Luke inmates! Afore the line snaps and he drowns! Bo's gone, can't do nothing about that! Haul in there!' Willing paws heaved on the line. Luke felt himself pulled through the buffeting waves and relaxed, half-stunned and too helpless to resist. Berg was waiting with a dry cloak and a beaker of elderberry wine, and Cardo helped to carry Luke to his cabin. The warrior coughed and spluttered as the wine revived him. He sat up, shaking his head. It was too wild to see anything out there. No sign of bow. Cardo was weeping uncontrollably. None at all. That old hare was my best matey and the finest cook afloat. The sea's a cruel beast. Cruel. Luke passed the remainder of the wine to him. Drink this now, Cardo. Tis a terrible thing, poor Beau. But we must concentrate on keeping this ship afloat, or we'll all finish up on the seabed if in this storm keeps up. He was interrupted by joyous shouts from out on deck as the ship gave a mighty shudder and stopped rolling. The wind's turned! We're saved, mates! Wrapping the cloak about him, Luke hurried from the cabin. Evening was streaking the skies westward, and to the east the thunder boomed dully with a sporadic bolt of lightning far off. Verg scratched his head in amazement. The wind was still blowing, but strong and warm, flattening the sea with its power. The Sena was shuddering lightly, her damaged rigging thrumming as she responded to Doolum's touch on the tiller and sped southwest. Relief among the crew was evident. Call laughed. Ha, ha, ha! Quickest thing you ever did see, Luke. One moment we're near sinking in a storm, then swift as a flash the wind turns east and suddenly veers west. We're saved! Dusk was creeping in. Luke's cloak fluttered straight out behind him as he stood with the crew, looking back over the stern at the distant area where Bo had been lost. Cardo had composed a short verse. Our friend was taken by the sea. He rests now, who knows where. A good and generous beast he was, a brave and cheerful hare. We've got no flowers or blossoms to cast out on the deep. No stone will ever mark the spot where he sank down to sleep. Bow feathering Saul cost Fortingham, sweet as long summer days, your memory lies in our hearts. You'll be our mate always. The crew stood in silence, heads bowed, tears falling onto the deck. Every beast had loved the hare dearly. Luke took a deep breath and wiped his eyes. Cordal, take first watch aloft. Keep your eyes peeled for the red ship. Call, your turn at the tiller. Right now, while me and Cardo put the galley straight and piece together a meal, the rest of you get rope and pitch. Bind that mast as best you can, then take in all sails. She's running fast enough in this sea. In future storms, I don't want to see any beast out on deck without having a lifeline attached to him. It was a terrible thing that happened to Bo, but I know he'd wanted to serve as a lesson to us all. 
The sun's fiery orb sank below the westering horizon, and the Sena sped smoothly into the night. A splash announced that the shattered jib had been jettisoned overboard. Luke stood at the galley fire, which he had rekindled, longing to hear just one merry chuckle from Bo, but knowing it was not possible. They would have to sail onward without their friend, the hare. 27. Vilu Daskar was used to freak weather in tropical waters. When the storm struck, he ordered his oar slaves put to work. With no sails to aid them, they were forced to row double time as the drums pounded out and whips cracked. Daskar himself took the wheel, tacking the gorleach skillfully on a direct westerly course. As the tempest began slackening, he swung the vessel due east, came around the far side of the Twin Islands, and anchored a safe distance offshore behind the easternmost of the two massive hills. Savoring the night air, Vilu sat out on deck, sating his appetite on a plate of baked fish and a flagon of nettle beer. Akla the ferret hovered nearby, watching the stoat pick his teeth with a fishbone. Vilu dabbed at his mouth with a silken kerchief and stood up. Akla gazed anxiously at the remains of the meal, hoping Vilu had finished. Had anything to eat yet, Akla? Edging eagerly near the barrel-head table, the ferret bowed cringingly. No chance to eat during that storm, Cap'n. Vilu held out a paw, as if inviting Akla to finish the meal. Then clouded the ferret's face sharply, knocking into the deck. Go and get your own food, famine face. From below decks, there was a bellowing roar which mounted to a screech, quickly followed by the thudding of paws up the companionway. Bullflay, the weasel slave master, assisted by some of his cronies, stumbled out onto the deck. He was pressing a wadded rag to staunch the blood from one side of his head. Vilu could see he was in great pain. Hmm, nasty injury. How did you come by that, Bullflay? The weasel's toadies took up the tale with relish. Twas the black squirrel's hire. Aye, the berserk female tore Master Bullflay's ear off, sire, with her teeth. She'd have had his other ear if and we hadn't rescued him, sire. Mattering a shark, thatin' is. No use flogging her, sire. Two whips, Master Bullflay's broke on her. Two. The Lou sat back, a smile hovering across his eyes. So, and what would you have me do with this berserk warrior, Bullflay, my friend? The weasel's flabby jowls quivered with rage. I want you to let me kill her, sire. Tie rocks to her neck and paws and slide her into the water, nice and slow. Let the other oar slaves watch her drown, bit by bit. Baloo nodded understandingly. You'd like that, eh, Bullflay? A drop of blood spattered the deck as the slave master nodded. Aye, sir. I'd like it fine after what she did to me. Vilu dallied with the bone handle of his scimitar. I've no doubt you would, but I'm captain aboard this ship, not you. I decide who lives or dies, and that squirrel is not ready for death yet. Cut her food and water for a few days. That should do the trick. Bullflay was about to protest when he saw a dangerous glint in Vilu's eyes. He saluted sullenly. As you say, sire. Vilu smiled sweetly, perilously. 
Precisely, my lard-bellied friend, as I say. He beckoned to Akla, who was still crouching on the deck, holding his face where he had been struck. Stop slobbering about down there. Get up. Take four crew and go ashore. Climb that hill and mount a lookout for the ship that was following us. Report to me when you sight it. I'll lay an acorn to an apple that they'll do like any other vessel does when they come to Twin Islands. Perig, you know what they'll do? The sea rat bosun shook his head. No, sire. Billu closed one eye and squinted toward the channel separating both islands. They'll sail straight up the middle of there, always do. We'll be waiting for them when they emerge from the channel mouth and meet them head on with our spike, eh, Perig? A quiver of evil joy shook the bosun. Stick up like a nut on a pin, sire. Billu filled a beaker with nettle beer, passing it to Perig. Like a nut on a pin. What a quaint turn of phrase. Far below, on the bottom deck of the trireme, Norgal the otter sat on the second row, staring in admiration at the back of Ranguvar, sitting alone on the front bench. Lash marks scored and quartered the black squirrel's back, where Bullflay had done his best to flog her into submission. He had failed. Every slave chained to an oar throughout the length and breadth of the gore-leech knew it. It brought fresh life and a spark of defiance into the hearts of even the oldest and most timid. Norgal heard the heavy paw-step of Bullflay descending and murmured softly to Rangavar, "'Tis Bullflay, matey. Get yourself ready for the worst. Like as not, he'll slay you for biting off his ear." The black squirrel's eyes glowed with fierce battle light. Ha! Not before I've bitten his other one off. Silence down here. One more peep and I'll flay your backs to the bone, you bill scrapings. A hush fell as Bullflay's whip cracked aloud. Still holding the rag to his ear, he strode up and stood by the drum. Raising the whip high, he glared at Rangavar. And you'll be the first to get flayed, squirrel. The eyes of Ranguvar bored into her hated enemy. And you'll be the first to die, lard bucket. Bullflay quailed under the berserk stare of Ranguvar. He let the whip fall and strode off, muttering, We'll see how bold you are after a couple of days without vittles or water. That'll cure you. However, when food was served up to the ore slaves, even though it was only a crust, one bowl of thin gruel and a cup of water, every beast saved a small portion. When the ore decks were quiet, the food was passed from paw to paw until it reached the captive berserker. Mid-morning of the following day saw Dulem, whose watch it was at the topmast, bellowing, Land ho! Luke joined him at the lookout point. The high, humped hills of Twin Islands stood out fresh and green in the warm sunlight. He patted Doolam's back. Well done, mate. You'll get an extra portion at lunch for being the first to spot land. Doolam sighed mournfully. Luke was a warrior, not a cook. And will I have to eat it, too? Luke tweaked his friend's ear playfully. There's gratitude for you. After me slaving over a hot galley stove since dawn, making skilly and duff for you? Doolam sighed wistfully. My old mum used to make the best skilly and duff on the Northland coast. 
Luke chuckled as he climbed out of the rigging. Well, I ain't your old mum. Mayhap we should have brought her along, Doolum. My, mayhap we will next time. She's as good with a ladle as you are with a sword. Dear old mum, your little Martin used to come round to our cave for her apple pies. Sweet apples, golden crust, steaming hot, dusted with spices and warm arrowroot sauce poured over them. I can taste them right now. Luke helped Doolum down to the deck. Well, let's hope she's still feeding my son. Make him grow up big and strong. Now, will you stop nattering on about those pies? Tis turning me off my own cooking. Huh. That wouldn't be hard to do. Verg remarked in passing. Luke heard him. What was that you said, Verg? I said the sky's far up and blue, mate. Luke glanced upward, remarking quietly to Verg. There's far worse cooks aboard than me. Verg cupped a paw to his ear. What? The warrior winked slyly at his friend. I said, the sky's as blue as the sea. Afternoon shadows were starting to lengthen as the Sena lay offshore of the Twin Islands. Luke called up to the topmost watch. Any sign of the red ship? Cardo shielded his eyes. None at all, Luke. Berg leaned against the tiller. So what now, mate? Luke studied the Twin Islands carefully before replying. No good chasing out into unknown waters with the Sena in a bad state. No telling what might become of us. I think we should sail her into that channel which separates the two islands. Tis calm and sheltered in there. We could make the Sena shipshape again, fix the mast properly, make a new jib, and sew up those torn sails. Sort of put everything to rights before we set sail again, eh, Verg? Aye, sounds sensible. But what about the red ship, Luke? Well, we ain't in a fit condition to chase her right now. We'll have to make up two days when we're sailing again. Strange, though, Verg. I've got a funny feeling that red ship isn't too far off somewhere. Hmm. Mayhap tis just a fancy and it'll pass. Right, had her in there, mates. We'll make fast to the East Channel Bank about halfway along. Later that evening, Akla tapped nervously at Vilu Daskar's splendidly carved cabin door. Vilu put aside the charts he and Perig were studying. Come! The pirate stoat's voice called imperiously. Akla entered respectfully and made his report. Sire, tis like you said. Toward evening, a ship sailed into the channel and put in halfway up on the east side. Vilu could not resist a triumphant smirk at Parag. Just as I predicted. He turned back to Akla. What manner of vessel is it? Like an old corsair bark, Captain. But ain't no corsairs aboard of her. They're all mice. Tough-looking beasts. She took some storm damage, sire. I think they've put in there for repairs. Perig drew his cutlass and licked the blade. It's dark outside, Cap'n. We could come storming up the channel like an auk onto a wren, just when they're least expecting us. Billu shook his head despairingly at the sea rat bosun. No, no, my impulsive friend. Why wreck a ship that's in need of repair? Leave the mice a while. Let them work and sweat fixing up their craft. Get it all good and seaworthy again. 
Then we'll swoop on them and sink it. Let them see all their efforts destroyed. Much more subtle, don't you think? Herrig thought for a moment, then his features creased into an evil gap-toothed cackle. <laughs> You're a badin', all right, Captain. Billu adopted a modest expression. Oh, I do my best to be the worst. Akla, what was the name of this ship? I don't know letters, sire, but Fleabit does, and he said twas called the Sena, I think. Aye, that's the name, Sena. To both sea rogues' surprise, their captain poured wine for himself and them. Akla and Perig sipped appreciatively at their goblets. Baloo Daskar's wine was the best. Baloo himself merely wet his lips as he mused, Hmm, Sena. What do you think, my friends? T'would have been Sena to give Twin Islands a miss? Akla and the bosun stared at him in dumb silence. Dilu put aside his wine and sighed. That's called a play on words, you bumpkins. Saner, Sena. T'was a pun, don't you see? The pair stood in slack-jawed silence, trying to understand what their captain had said. He turned his back, dismissing the slow-witted crew beasts. Dim-witted idiots, get out of my sight before I lose patience with your thick-skulled ignorance. Be gone! Akla and Perig set their goblets down gingerly, not daring to finish the wine, and hurried from the cabin. Villu's former good humor had deserted him. He detested being surrounded by stupid, witless vermin. Slouching in his chair, he began to focus his mind upon the Sena and her crew. Why would a vessel of such small size be pursuing a ship as huge as the Gorleach? What possible harm could a score or so of mice inflict upon Vilu Daskar, terror of the seas? They must be totally insane, or recklessly brave. Well, one way or another he would soon find out. Ha! And so would they, the fools. Vilu left his cabin and strolled out on deck almost colliding with a sea-rat called Drobna. His claws dug viciously into the rat's cheek, drawing the frightened rodent close. Vilu smiled disarmingly at him. Tell me, what chance does a minnow stand if it chases a shark? Drobna's cheek was pulled awkwardly on one side, and spittle trickled from his lips as he blabbered out a reply. None, sire! Minnow again a shark's got no hope. Villu released him, patting Drobna's cheek tenderly. Well said, my friend, well said. Even a moron like you can solve a simple problem now and then. He strode on up the gently swaying deck, leaving Drobna rubbing a stinging cheek completely baffled. 28. Luke was already up having taken last watch of the night. The Sena lay moored on the east bank of the canal-like channel running between Twin Islands. Luke leaned on the starboard rail, watching the daybreak still and humid with leaden overcast skies. Cardo came out of the main cabin bearing an old shield that he used as a tray. On it was a beaker of hot mint and dandelion tea, accompanied by a warm scone spread with stiff comb honey. 
He winked at Luke. Morning, mate. Here, get that down you. I was up a while before dawn, so I tried me paw at baking scones. Luke seated himself on a coil of rope, sipping gratefully at the hot tea and nibbling gingerly at the scone. He surveyed the island's two massive hills, which looked silent and oppressive with a heavy gray sky cloaking their summits in mist. Hmm. Wouldn't surprise me if we had a spot of rain today, Cardo. Well, this scone tastes good, matey. Where'd you learn to bake stuff like this? Cardo stared down the channel to the open sea beyond. "'Twas a recipe Beau taught me. I miss that old hare. He was a good friend to me. Luke put a paw around Cardo's shoulder. Aye, so do I. Strange, but we never know the true value of friends and family till they ain't with us any more. Come on, matey, buck up. I can hear our crew waking. Open about won't help us. Best to keep ourselves busy, eh? The crew of the Sena had nothing but praise for Cardo's good cooking, and it cheered him greatly. After breakfast, Luke reviewed their position and gave orders. Cardo, see if you can cook up a lunch to show us that breakfast wasn't just a flash in the pan. Cordell, pick a couple of good patchers to help you repair the sails. Call, Dano, and Doolum. I want you to strip down the mainmast and bind it round tight with strong, greased line. That willow never broke. It only cracked. It'll be good as new, once it's bound and tightened proper. Berg, get your weapons and come with me. We're going up that big hill yonder. Let's see if we can find a decent piece of wood to fashion a new jib from. Right? Off to work now, crew, and keep your wits about you and both eyes open. It is strange territory. The hill turned out to be a complete disappointment. There were no proper trees with trunks and stout limbs growing there. Luke snorted in disgust as he swiped with his sword at one of the tall, feathery bushes which grew in profusion on the slopes. Ferg picked up the branch his friend had lopped off and inspected it. Ah, too thin and brittle. Wouldn't even make decent firewood. Won't find a decent jib spar growing hereabouts. Luke peered uphill into the warm, humid mist. Looks pretty much the same all over, Verg. Why don't we go back down and try searching the channel edges for a good piece of driftwood? Might have been some timber washed up there. Verg, what's the matter, mate? Verg was rubbing his paws together furiously and flapping them as if he were trying to fly. Yuck! Some kind of filthy insects! Must have come off those bushes! Look! They're all over me paws. Luke pushed his companion forward, urging him downhill. Well, don't stand there flapping your paws, mate. Let's get to the channel. Good salt water will wash them off. Farther uphill than the two mice had ventured, Viludaskar's spy patrol lay among the bushes. They watched Luke and Verg hurry off down to the water. Ringpatch, the ferret in charge of the group, said, if they'd reached the hilltop, they'd have seen the gorleach anchored below on the other side. Good job they never. Yeah, they would have never got past us, a small sea rat called Willig scoffed airily. There was only two of them. We'd have chopped them up for sure, Ringpatch eyed him contemptuously. Huh, what do you know about it, Spindle Shanks? Those two mice looked like warriors to me. I wonder why they turned back and ran off. Said it was some kind of insects. 
least that's what I thought I heard one of them say, replied one of the patrol vermin. Huh, insects, Willigs sneered. They can't have been much as warriors if they ran from insects. Suddenly, one of the patrol leaped upright, hitting himself left and right with both paws and dancing wildly. Yeah, insects! I'm covered in them! Eee! Tiny, moist, brown slugs from the surrounding bushes were all over the patrol, rioting and crawling, sticking to any patch of fur they came in contact with. The vermin thrashed about in the bushes, beating at themselves. Yerk! Get them off of me! I can't stand insects! Ugh! Filthy, slimy little worms! Youch! They sting, too! Ow! 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 Sp One got in me mouth! Ooh! Ringpatch dashed off uphill. Patrol! Retreat! Let's get out of here before they eat us alive! Stumbling and crashing through the bushes, they retreated over the summit, driven by the sticky slugs to seek a saltwater bath. Berg had just finished scouring his paws in the channel shallows when he cocked an ear upward. Listen, did you hear something? Like a kind of high-pitched squealing noise? Came from up near the hilltop there. Luke stood still, cupping both paws about his ears. Aye, I heard it, mate. Though I couldn't imagine anything but insects wanting to live on this forsaken place. Probably some seabirds feeding off those horrible grubs. Verg dried his paws in the coarse grass. Well, let's hope they eat them all. I detest squigglies. It was noon by the time they got back to the ship. Denno was atop the mast, binding the last bit tight with greased line, and he saw them approaching. Ahoy, crew! Looks like Luke and Verg found us a jib spar. Willing paws helped the pair carry a long, stout limb of some unidentifiable wood aboard the vessel. Call inspected it, nodding his approval. Tough, oily-looking wood. Let's strip the bark off and measure it again the broken jib for size. It proved an ideal replacement for the old spar. By midday they had it fixed. Rigging and fresh-patched sails were hauled, and Luke paced the deck, checking all was shipshape. Good as new the old tub looks, mates. I'm famished. What happened to that lunch Cardo was supposed to be cooking? Cardo popped his head around the galley door. Go and seat yourselves in the cabin. Is about ready. The Sena's cook had triumphed again. Cardo had used most of the dried fruit to make a hefty steamed pudding covered with a sauce made of pureed plums and arrowroot, and there were beakers of old amber cider to drink with it. Luke voted the meal so delicious that he proposed Cardo be made ship's cook for life. Ladle clutched to his chest, Cardo bowed proudly as the crew applauded. Ho-ho! Good old Cardo! More power to your paw, mate! Any second helpings there, cookie me darling? Aye, and keep them scones coming for breakfast every day. What's for supper tonight, matey? Anything tasty? Knowing he had a newfound power to wield, Cardo laid the law down to them, shaking his ladle officiously. So I'm ship's cook now, eh? Then cook it is. But I ain't washing dishes and scouring pots and pans, so there. To appease his touchy cook, Luke sided with Cardo. Agreed. From now on, every beast washes their own dishes. We'll take turns with the pots and pans. 
I'll do first duty. A splatter of heavy drops pattering on the bulkheads announced the arrival of rain. Ferg opened the cabin door and slid his plate and beaker out onto the deck. I vote that the rain washes our dishes tonight, buckos. Soon raindrops could be heard pinging merrily off the crew's dishes, scattered across the deck. Through the open door, Luke watched a distant lightning flash, and he heard the far-off rumble of thunder. Looks like we're in for heavy weather, mates. Best batten down and lay up in this channel till it's over. Rain continued into the late evening, but the crew were snug and dry in the cabin, glad of the respite from sailing. Cardo sat apart from the rest, his face gloomy. Verg tweaked the cook's ear. Come on, what's up now, you great misery guts? Cardo shrugged. Don't know, Verg. Just got a bad feeling, and I can't explain it. Something seems wrong. Denno nudged Berg, pulling a wry face at the unhappy cook. Oh, dearie me, just like the old farm mouse, nothing's right. Call winked at him. Which farm mouse was that, matey? Denno began tapping a beat on the tabletop. There was an old farm mouse, lived in an old farmhouse, who always thought of a reason to rant and complain again and again, whatever the weather or season. If rain came down, he'd scowl and frown, shake a paw at the sky, and say, Rains like these are good for the peas, but they ain't much use for me hay. Then if wind came along, he'd change his song, crying out, Oh, woe, lack a day, tis all I need, a wind, indeed, to blow all me apples away. He'd gnash his teeth about shaded wheat at the sign of a cloud in the skies and the very sight of cloudless sunlight would bring tears to both his eyes. He'd simmer and boil as he pawed the soil, and got himself worried and fussed. Look at that sunlight, tis far too bright, twill turn all me soil to dust. Oh, botheration, trouble and toil, life don't get peaceful or calmer. If I'd gone to sea, a sailor I'd be, instead of an old mouse farmer. The crew were all laughing heartily when Cardo said, What's so funny? We were all farmers once. The laughter died on their lips. Luke patted Cardo. Ah, you're right there, mate. Farmers we were, fighting the weather and seasons to put food on the table. We didn't have much, but we were happy with our wives and families until Vilu Daskar and his red ship showed up. Now we're sea mice, rovers, fightin' evil and ill fortune. Though I tell you this, one day, when tis all over, we'll return home and pick up the threads of our old lives again. Outside, the elements increased their fury. Thunder reverberated overhead. Rain lashed the heaving seas, and flaming webs of chain lightning threatened to rip the darkened skies with their ferocity. The crew of the Sena, without guard or watch on the gale-swept decks, allowed sleep to close their weary eyes. Most of the night the storm prevailed. Three hours before dawn, a strong, warm wind blew up from the south. Driving the tempest before it like a rumbling cattle herd, it hurtled on northward. Peace and calm was restored to the seas in its wake. Humidity returned, bringing with it a dense, foggy bank, 
which hung over the twin islands in their channel like a pall. The Gorleach put out to sea. Then Viludaskar ordered her turned about, a league out, to face the channel. An hour before dawn, he gave the command. Bullplay, tell your drummer to beat out full speed. Don't spare the whips. I want this ship to run up that channel as if hellhounds were chasing it. Stand ready, my scurvy sea rogues. There's slaves to be taken. 29. Verg woke with a raging thirst. He got up quietly so as not to disturb his sleeping crewmates and picked his way through the darkened cabin to the door. It was foggy on deck, silent and damp. Verg padded to the galley, dipped a ladle into the water barrel and drank deeply. A second measure of water he tipped over his head to awaken himself properly. He was about to start lighting the galley fire from last night's glowing embers so that Cardo would have a good fire to cook breakfast when he heard the sounds. It was like a steady drumbeat and a deep swishing noise which grew louder by the moment. The noises seemed to be coming from somewhere farther up the channel. Verg made his way to the forepeak. Leaning out, he strained his eyes against the blanket of milky white mist. The sounds increased in volume, and the Sena began to bob gently up and down on some kind of swell. That was when the world turned red. Towering over him like an immense leviathan, the Gorleach came thundering down upon the ship Sena. Berg was flung high into the air and landed hard on a rock in the shallows, swallowed by the merciful blackness of unconsciousness. A horrendous rending of ship's timbers rent the air as the Gorleach plowed into the Sena, ripping the entire starboard side out from stem to stern. Masts fell before the wicked iron spike on the red ship's prow, snapping off like dried twigs. Viludaskar roared with evil joy at the sound of screaming crew-beasts in shock. Half-stunned, Luke splashed about in the water. He grabbed a floating object for support. It was Cardo. The dead cook's eyes stared unseeingly into his until Cardo sank slowly beneath the channel. Luke came to life then. Bellowing like a creature possessed, he seized a rope trailing from the red ship's side and began hauling himself, paw over paw, up the Gorleach's massive hull. Soaked, bruised, and weaponless, the warrior climbed with the speed of fury, grappling his way over carved galleries, swarming over the heavy, sea-wet mats of rope fenders. Daskar was just turning to shout further orders to his vermin crew when Luke came storming over the gallery rail. He was upon the pirate's stoat like a wolf, grabbing him around the neck. Both beasts crashed to the deck, Luke's eyes filled with bloodlight as he throttled his mortal enemy. Daskar could do nothing against the warrior's furious strength. He saw crew beasts dashing to his aid and managed a panicked gurgle. Akla swung a belaying pen once, twice, thrice to the back of Luke's unprotected skull. Another two crashing blows laid the warrior mouse low, and Billu slipped from his faltering grasp. Vermin crewbeast rushed the stoat captain to his cabin, where he lay on a table, making a croaking sound as they forced warmed wine between his lips. He reeled off the table, nursing his neck with a silken cloth. Durr, we sink him? Bullflay stared at Akla. 
What did he say? The parrot turned to Vilu. Don't try to talk, sire. Your throat's damaged. Aye, we sunk her all right. Crew's just dragging aboard any mice that are still living. Still clutching the silken cloth about his neck, Daskar staggered out on deck. Bullflay waddled ahead of him, drawing a cutlass and straddling the limp form of Luke. It is the one who strangled your lord. Let's see if and I can take off his head with one swipe. Vilu kicked the slave master, sending him sprawling. Gah! I want him alive! Ah! The pirate stoat tottered unsteadily back to his cabin. When the door slammed, Fleabit whispered to Grig, Talks awful funny, don't he? So would you, if and you'd been near throttled or death. Grig whispered back, Better not let him hear you say that he talks funny, or you won't have a tongue to talk with at all, matey. Doolum was chained to deck rings like the others of the Sanus crew who had survived the ramming. He dabbed gently at the back of Luke's head with his wet tunic, but it was some considerable time before the warrior began to stir and show signs of coming around. On his other side, Denno pressed Luke gently back to the deck. Lie still, mate. You should be dead by rights, the pounding your head took back there. I saw it as I was hauled aboard. Luke lay still, eyes closed, head throbbing unmercifully. What about our crew? He felt Denno's tears drip onto his paw as he said, There's only us three left, Luke. You, me, and Doolum. Luke felt numb. He could hear his own voice echoing in his ears. I saw Cardo, but Call and Cortal and the others. Ferg, where's Ferg? A sea-boot thumped cruelly into his side. Bosun Perig stood over them, grinning. Fishbait, the lot of them. Bit of a mistake, us sitting your ship so hard. Should have just sneaked up and burned it. Then we would have caught you one by one as you dived in the water. He kicked Luke once more, obviously enjoying himself. Huh. Three miserable prisoners. Twas hardly worth it. Three mice. Ah! May as well call it two, cause Captain Villu's got special plans for you, bucko. I never knew a beast laid paws on Villu Daskar and lived to see the sun go down. I'd hate to be you, mouse. Death'll come as mercy to you when the captain's finished with you. But Luke was hardly listening. He was consumed with grief and guilt over his slain crew. Mentally, he told himself that this was the second time he had lost dear ones by leaving them unguarded. It did not matter what happened to him now, though there was one thing he longed for ere death claimed him, one chance, just one opportunity to slay Vilu Daskar. Twin Islands lay bright and still in the afternoon sunlight. The fog had gone, so had Vilu Daskar and the Gorleach. Slowly, Verg became aware of a tickling sensation on his face. A tiny hermit crab, burdened by a periwinkle shell, was dragging itself across his cheek. He brushed it aside and sat up, wincing. From jaw to ear, his cheek was purple and swollen. Finding a paw full of cool, wet kelp, he bathed it gingerly as memory flooded back. The Sena, her crew, Luke, the red ship looming out of the fog— 
Verg leaped up. Sloshing through the shallows, he climbed up on his ship's wrecked hull, looking desperately this way and that. Far off, out to sea, sailing north by east, he saw the gorleach plowing the main. Scrambling down into the wreckage, Verg ignored the splitting ache in his face and head and shouted aloud, Luke! Cordell! Denno! Ahoy, mates! Any beast aboard? Call! Doolum! Where are you? Ripping away broken spars and dragging damp canvas out of his way, Verg forced an entrance to the shattered main cabin. Call was there, pierced through by a splintered bulkhead spar, his body swaying gently in waist-deep seawater. Yelling in horror, Verg fled the cabin, flinging himself from the wrecked vessel onto the shore. Cardo was the second one he found, lodged underwater beneath the prow. Verg sat on the warm sand, his head in both paws, sobbing uncontrollably. He was alone, all the friends he had sailed with from the Northland shore gone, slain or taken captive aboard the hated red ship. Sometime toward evening he fell asleep, stretched out above the tide line, numb with grief and aching all over. How long he lay there, Berg had no way of knowing, other than that it was dark when he opened his eyes. But that was not what had wakened him. Some beast was close by. Verg did not move. He lay fully alert now, with his eyes half open, scanning the area around him. He heard noises, a damp, scraping sound coming from behind the Sena's smashed stern. Verg rose until he was on all fours, carefully, silently making his way to the water's edge. Gritting his teeth with satisfaction, he found a broken spearhead with half the shaft still attached. Wading quietly into the water, he made his way along the Sena's hull to the stern. He saw a dark shape on the beach, scraping away at the sand with a chunk of flat wood. Gripping the broken spear tightly, Verg sneaked up from behind and flung himself upon the creature, yelling as he locked a paw about its neck. Yah! You filthy murdering scum! I'll kill ye stone dead! However, killing the creature was not so easy. It lashed out with long hind legs, batted Verg hard with the chunk of wood, doubled up and sent him sailing over its head. Like a flash, his adversary was upon him, forcing his face down into the sand. A familiar voice rang in Verg's ears. I say, steady on there, old lad, what, what? Verg managed to push his head up and shout, Bo, it's me, Verg! The hair rolled off him pulling him upright and dusting sand away from his face. Well, bless my paws, so it is. Why didn't you say so instead of pouncing on a chap like that? Didn't hurt you, did I? Berg could not help himself. He hugged Bo and kissed both his cheeks soundly, weeping unashamedly. Oh, Bo, Bo, I thought you were drowned long ago. The hare managed to extricate himself from the tearful crew mouse and held him off with both paws. Well, if I wasn't drowned then, I soon would be, with you jolly well crying and weeping all over me, what? Verg stood staring stupidly at Bo. Then you weren't drowned when you fell overboard? Bo could not resist striking a noble pose. Drowned? Me, laddie? Pish tush and fiddly what's it? Us feathering soul cosporting hams don't sink that easily. Just cause some confounded storm chucked me in the briny, and not for the first time, let me remark. 
Well, says I to myself, let blinkin' ma nature use other fools as fish food, not me, sir. So I struck out for the old terra firma and stapped me vitals if I didn't land up at Twin Islands. Had to live on the far isle, of course. Pesky little insects on this one would eat a body alive if you let them. What? Immensely cheered by the fact that he was no longer alone, Berg smiled and clasped his friend's paw firmly. But you're alive. That's the main thing. The irrepressible hair winked fondly at Berg. Pretty much alive, apart from having me paw squashed by some hulking great mouse. Right-o, companion of mine. Come on. We'll cross the channel onto my island and have a bite to eat while we swap yarns. How's that suit you, old mouse chap? Berg released Bo's paw and turned away. There's something I've got to do first. My shipmates. Bo sniffed. One of his long ears flopped down to wipe an eye before he answered. Say no more, friend. I buried them myself while you were sleeping. Just finished the job when you sneaked up and tried playing piggyback with me, what? Don't fret, old fellow. I've put the Sena's crew to rest in the shadow of their own ship. Together they waded into the channel. However, Verg still had a question to ask. Was the whole crew slain, Bo? Sadly, most of them were, Verg. Though I never found Luke, or what's his name, and the other chap, or Doolum and Denno, that's him. Which means they were certainly taken for slaves aboard that foul vessel Gorleach. So, all in all, there's four of the old gang left. Five, counting yours truly. Hang tight to my paw now. Gets rather deep here. We'll have to jolly well swim for it. What, what? Chin up and strike out. When they reached the far island, it was quite a climb to Bo's den. He had made it over the far side of the hill, facing out to the open sea. Because of this, Bo had not known about either the Gorleach or the Sena until it was too late. But, as Ferg realized, there was little he could have done anyway against the red ship's crew. The den was a small cave halfway down the big hill. Bo had made it comfortable and foraged around the island to provide food. Kindling a fire, he put dandelion tea on to brew and produced a meal with his own gatherings and a few things they had managed to salvage from the Sena's galley. Warming himself by the fire, Berg allowed Bo to inspect his wounds. Hmm, that's a rather attractive shade of purple on your face there, old thing. Have to make a compound, take out the pain and swelling. Cheer up, Berg, you'll be as good as new in a day or two, my old nautical matey. Berg heaved a sigh and gazed out to sea. What do we do then, Bo? The hare sliced himself a wedge of fruit cake from the Sena's stores, adding it to his plate of island salad. What do we do then? Why, we sit here and chunner while we grow old together, like two proper desert isle hermits, my friend. Huh. And if you think that, you're a nincompoop. Do? I'll tell you what we're going to do, laddie buck. Make a boat from the wreckage of our ship, Sena, and sail after the red ship. Rescue our friends, and if we get half a bally chance, we're going to put paid to that evil blaggard who calls himself a captain. Disgrace to the blinking rank, right? Berg locked paws with his friend. Right, Bo. And the sooner we get started, the better, mate. 30. 
The crew of Viludaskar had a special name for the Gorleech's bottom deck, the Death Pit. After two days chained to an oar down there, Luke knew the place was aptly named. In hot weather, it was airless and foul. When seas were rough, it was awash with stinking bilge water. Wretched slaves, chained in pairs at each oar, port and starboard, lived and died there under the lash of bullflay, the fat, sadistic slave-master, and Fleabit, the drummer, his cruel assistant. Both these creatures delighted in tormenting the helpless oar-slaves, withholding drinking water, taunting the sick, and generally enjoying the misery they heaped without mercy on their helpless victims. Luke found himself up at the forward end, pulling an oar alone, singled out for special treatment under Bullflay's watchful eye. Before chaining his paws to the oar, Perig shackled the new slave's footpaws to a long running chain, stapled at intervals to the deck. The sea rat bosun pointed out the reason for this. Just in case the oar snaps and you think you're loose to escape, well, you ain't. This ere chain joins you all to the ship. If it sinks, you go to the bottom with her. If Luke turned his head slightly right, he could see Dulam and Denno, manacled to an oar on the other side of the aisle, about three rows back. Bullflay's whip cracked, its tip catching Luke's ear. Get your eyes front, mouse, or I'll flick him out with this whip. You're down here to row, not look at the scenery. He strode off down the center aisle, laying about him. Bend your backs, lazy scum. Put some energy into it. Come on! Fortunately, a strong breeze sprang up later in the day. Fleabit stopped drumming and gave the order to ship oars. A cup of brackish water and a hard rye crust was issued to each slave. Bullflay and Fleabit went up on deck to eat in the fresh air. Luke tugged at his paw chains, calling across to his neighbor. Do they often leave us alone like this? Norgal, the otter, seated behind on the right, answered, Huh, where are we going to run to, matey? Or are we fit enough to bite through these chains? Another voice growled, I'll find a way to break them someday. Luke could not help himself staring across at the creature who had spoken. Directly opposite, chained singly to an oar, just as Luke was, sat a ferocious black squirrel. Everything about her, from the scars to the savage glowing eyes, bespoke the fact that here was a warrior. He felt an immediate kinship with the dangerous beast. She spoke again. Look around. All these poor creatures are defeated because they are slaves in chains. But Viludaskar could not chain the heart, mind, or blood of Ranguvar Foe-seeker. Aye, I'll bite through these chains one day, then I'll slay Viludaskar, Bullflay, Fleabit, and as many of them as I can until they bring me down and slay me. Luke stretched his paw until the chains cut into him. I am Luke the warrior, and I swear on the memory of my dead wife, Sena, that we will break these shackles together, Ranguvar foe-seeker. I will stand beside you when the time comes, and we will take many with us before we fall. Ranguvar stretched her paw across to Luke. Where the chains cut the flesh, blood mingled from both creatures' wounds. We will do it together, Luke. 
I have waited long for another warrior to come to the red ship. You are here now. Gazing into the fearless dark eyes of Ranguvar, Luke had no doubt that they could accomplish anything together. Murmurings came from all around the bottom deck. Denno spoke for every beast as he called out, We'll be with you to the death! Luke smiled grimly. Good, but we need a plan. By next morning, Veludaskar had regained his voice, though he still kept the dark bruises on his neck covered with a white silken scarf. Accompanied by Parag and Akla, he descended to the lower deck and paid Luke a visit. The stoat captain held the scarf end to his nose as the vile reek of the death pit assailed his nostrils. Luke kept his eyes down as Daskar addressed him. So, Mouse, why does a creature in a small ship follow my gore-leech? Surely you must have known you had no chance against the red ship. Why did you do it? Luke made no reply. The blade of Vilu's bone-handled scimitar slid along Luke's neck and lifted his chin until he was looking into the stoat's eyes. Still he did not speak. Daskar raised his eyebrows and nodded. Speak, or I'll slit your gizzard. Why were you following me? Though the sharp blade was pressing on his neck, Luke closed his eyes and held the silence. I warn you, mouse. Talk, or you're a dead beast. To add weight to the threat, Vilu swung the blade high over Luke's head, bracing himself for the strike. No, wait! Don't kill our captain, I'll tell you, sire. All eyes turned on Denno, who was waving his paws agitatedly. Please, spare the captain, please, sire. I'll tell you all. Vilu strode over to Denno, chuckling. Loyalty to one's captain, a wonderful thing. I wish that my crew of sea scrapings showed that faith in me. But then they wouldn't be sea rogues, would they? So, loyal mouse, save your captain's life. Tell me why your silly little tub was pursuing the mighty Gorleach. Denno's face was a picture of simple honesty as he explained. Do you recall the Northland shore, sire? We followed you from there to avenge our families. Vilu's paw tapped the bone scimitar handle pensively. Northland shore, hmm... Ah, yes, I remember now. Bunch of mice, fools, burning a fire like a signal beacon on the beach. Aye, they were all either too young, too old, or too weak to make ore slaves of. We slew them for fun and ate their food. Oh, dear, were they your families? Well, never mind. They provided a bit of amusement for my crew. By the way... Where were you and all the able-bodied ones while this was going on, eh? Probably hiding somewhere to save your own skins, I shouldn't wonder. Seated next to Denno, Doolum's fetters clanked as he struggled to rise, tears streaming down his cheeks. That's a lie! If we'd have been there, we would have fought you murderers down to the last beast! Vilu smiled condescendingly. But instead, you chose to go off and gather daisies. Doolum's whole body was shaking with rage. No, we never, he blurted out. 
We were up the coast by the tall rocks, keeping lookout while Luke and the others buried our tre. Shut your mouth, idiot! Luke shouted. Vilu turned to Perig and Akla, smiling triumphantly. Unchain these two and their captain. Bring them to my cabin. As they unshackled Luke, he glanced across to Ranguvar and winked. The plan was beginning to work. The three mice were hustled roughly into Villodaskar's cabin, where they were lined up in front of an ornate table. Lounging behind it, in a magnificent carved chair, Villu watched as his servants laid out wine, baked fish, preserved fruits and bread, fresh from the ovens. He picked at the feast, while Luke and his friends stood dull-eyed and hungry, trying to ignore the wonderful food. Akla, Parag, and Bullflay stood by awaiting orders. Villu dabbed the silken scarf across his lips, weighing the three slaves up carefully. He addressed Denno. You, tell me what it is you were hiding up the coast in the tall rocks, but take care. One false word, one little lie, and I will hang both your friend and your captain from the mainmast, where their bodies will stay until they rot and seabirds pick at their bones. But speak truly, and I will give you all your freedom, once I have what you hid in the tall rocks. That is your choice. Now speak. Denno glanced apologetically in Luke's direction, then said, It was the treasure of our tribe, sire. We had traveled many seasons, guarding it from foe-beasts. Having chosen the Northland shore as our new home, we searched out a safe place to hide it, among the tall rocks farther north. Luke was glaring angrily at Denno. Villu smiled at the warrior mouse in mock surprise. Now, now, don't pull faces at your friend. He's just saved your life and bought your freedom. Let's hear you speak your piece now. Tell us about this treasure, or I'll hang both of these mice in your place, and you can watch them dangle. An expression of defeat replaced Luke's glare, and he sighed. Only if you promise to spare our lives and set us free once you have the treasure. Villu spread his paws disarmingly. Akla, Parag, Bullflay, tell this mouse about my word. The three vermin nodded vigorously. Oh, I, the captain, never lies. You can rely on that, mouse. I'll take me oath on it. Villu took a sip of wine and dabbed his lips. See? Luke told him what he wanted to hear. Tis a great treasure. Plates, chalices, daggers and swords, all wrought of gold and silver, studded with many jewels. The pirate stowed nodded approvingly. Just as I thought. Now tell me the exact location. Where did you hide it? Luke stared levelly at Vilu Daskar. Only three creatures went among the tall rocks to hide that treasure, myself, Verg, and Cardo. I am the only one you left alive out of the three, so only I know the true location. But I am not a fool, Villodaskar. I do not trust the word of a murderer, so I will not tell you, no matter what you do to me or my friends. However, I have a proposition for you. Set sail for the Northland shore, and when we reach there, I will pilot your red ship up the coast and steer you to the spot. 
That way you will have to keep us alive, at least until you have the treasure. End of Side 6 To continue, change side selector switch and turn the cassette over. Side 7 The Legend of Luke by Brian Jakes Continuing on page 270 Agreed. Bullfleg grabbed Luke and raised a belaying pin, but Billu held up a paw and stopped him. Release him, Bullfleg. I like this mouse. It will be a change to do business with a creature who has a brain. Good enough. I agree to your proposition, mouse. Luke could not resist a parting dig at his enemy. You have no choice but to agree. Dead mice cannot find the treasure for you. Villu popped a piece of preserved fruit into his mouth. How wise of you! Of course, I must keep you alive. Meanwhile, days and nights spent in a death pit will make you realize how wonderful freedom will be when you eventually gain it. Bullflay, you can be as hard on them as you please, as long as you keep them alive. Go now. That night, as Bullflay lay snoring on a heap of old fenders and Fleabit dozed with his head resting on the drum, Luke winked at his two friends. Well done, mateys. You played your parts well. Ranguvar Foe-seeker whispered across to Luke. I think I can feel this staple starting to move. The black squirrel had wrapped a piece of rag around her paw chains and had been silently heaving and levering for many hours. Only after much strain and effort was the heavy iron staple, which held the running chain that connected all the footpaw shackles to it, beginning to move in the damp, solid deck timbers. For the first time since he had been aboard the Gorleach, Luke smiled. Keep at it, Ranguvar. Once you've got the staple out, pass it over to me, mate. The Gorleach dipped her high bows into the trackless waste of the main, bound north into the night. The red sails bellied to the wind. On she went, like a giant, blood-colored bird of ill omen, sated on a cargo of misery. Berg was sweating in the sun, prying timbers loose from the wreckage of the Sena. Bo was sawing away at some sail canvas with a rusty dagger. Beside them, on the sand, a mishmashed pile of timber and cordage was bound together in the rough shape of a raft. I say, old thing, the hare called up to his companion. We'll need something a bit straighter than that rib plank to make a blinking mast, what? Berg wiped his brow in exasperation. Well, it's the straightest piece I can find. I'm a farmer, not a boat builder. If and you can find a better bit of wood, matey, then you're welcome to try. As he hacked away at the canvas, Bo nicked his ear when the dagger point tore free and shot upward. Well, keep your fur on there, Mousy. I thought the flippin' agreement was that I built the perishing raft and you supplied the bally materials. Hold your temper in the ranks, what what? I nearly chopped my ear off there while you were yammering on at me like an old frog wife. Berg left off prying loose timbers. Sucking at a splinter in his paw, he climbed down to join Bo. Ouch! There's so many splitters in me I'd float if and I fell into the sea, mate. How's our raft coming along? The hare stood, paws akimbo, surveying his work. Oh, splendid! 
abso jolly lootly spiffin. All she needs is a jib boom, spanker, top royal gallants, and mizzen shrouds. Berg peered at him questioningly. Do you know what you're talking about? Bo leaned against the raft. It collapsed. No, you? Yee-haw-haw-haw. You ain't figuring on going to sea on that thing, are you, mates? Yuck, 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 yuck. War a mess. Bo and Verg were astonished to see a large, fat sea lion basking in the channel watching them. Patting a bulging stomach with both flippers, he snorted a cloud of droplets from his bristling whiskers and chortled heartily. Yuck, 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 yuck. Looks more like a mad seagull's nest than a raft. Only place you go on that termite's breakfast is straight to the bottom. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Verg stood open-mouthed, but Bo recovered his composure smartly, twitching his ears disdainfully at the creature. Mad seagull's nest? Termite's breakfast? Have a care there, chubby chops, what, what? My old auntie used to say, don't criticize what you can't do yourself. Pity you never met her. Floating flat on his back, the sea lion blew a jet of water onto his stomach and watched it evaporate in the sun. Aye, more's the pity, flop ears. I had an old auntie once, got herself at by a shark. Cheered my old uncle up no end. She was a grouchy beast at best of times. Bo drew himself up to his full lanky height. Call me flop ears once more and I'll wait out there and chastise you severely, my good feller. Names? Beauclair, Feathering, Solcost, Fortingham. Bo for short. Now, what appellation do you answer to? Speak up, what? Paddling into the shallows, the sea lion beached himself like a glistening gray rock on the sand. He grinned as he extended a flipper the size of a small table. Ain't got a appellation. They calls me Bullwag. Pleased to meet you, Bo, and your little mousy mate there. Verg shook the proffered flipper. My name's Verg. Bullwag heaved his bulk farther up and golumped around the raft, inspecting it. Seen a lot better, and one or two worse. Not much of a craft to go chasing after the red ship, though, is she? Berg looked up curiously at the gigantic sea lion. How did you know we were going after the red ship? Bullwag sorted through the mess of timbers with flipper and muzzle, sending planks flying. Watched it come and go for many a season, Berg. Saw what happened to your mates. That old Cap'n Billu Daskar, he's worse than any shark, evil beast. Bo began picking up the planking. I say there, Bullwag, do you mind not chucking our raft around like that? Took us long enough to put it together, what? Of course, we'll be sailing blind, having a bally clue where old Villu what-his-chops is sailed off to. Bullwag nodded his great head wisely. I know which way the red ship's bound. Always goes the same course when it leaves here. North and west, two points to Wood Isle. Takes on water and provisions there. Berg peered up-channel to the open sea. Wood Isle? Have you been there, Bullwag? Will you show us the way to this place? Bullwag frowned, 
Then his whiskers split into a huge grin. Suppose I'll have to, matey. Couldn't let a pair of little sardines like you two go twiddling round alone out there. Bo's old auntie might never clap eyes on him again. And we can't have that now, can we? But first, let's get your raft built proper and seaworthy. You lay out a good crisscross of timbers on a big piece of canvas. I'll go and fetch some bladder rack. Grows big in these warm waters. Get to work. I'll be back afore you knows it, mates. Neither Bo nor Berg had the least idea what bladder rack was. They stretched the biggest canvas sail on the sand and began laying a grid shape of ship's timbers on it. Bullwag returned, though at first it was hard to tell whether it was he, because a huge clump of seaweed surrounded the sea lion's body as he swam, towing it with him. With a powerful heave, he flung it ashore. Bladder rack, buckos. Nothing like it for keeping afloat. It was slimy, slippery seaweed, but studded with big, inflated air bubbles. Bullwag winked at them. Cover those timbers with it. Lay on more timber atop of the bladder rack. I'll go and get some more. The process was repeated three more times, after which they cloaked the lot with the sailcloth ends. Under Bullwag's directions, Berg and Bo laced the canvas casing tight with rope until the sea lion was satisfied with the job. It looked an ungainly bundle. Berg bounced up and down on it. Ha-ha! Tis springy enough. Will we need a sail, Bullwag? No, I'll be either pushing or pulling all the way. Well, it don't look like much, me arties, but tis tight and strong and twill get you to Wood Isle without sinking. Afternoon was well advanced when they loaded the last provisions aboard and launched the odd-looking raft into the channel. Bullwag grabbed a trailing line in his mouth and went off like a fish. At first, Bo and Berg clung to one another on the skimming, bobbing raft as it bounced and cavorted across the wave-tops. However, after a while they became used to the momentum and sat sharing some bread and cheese. Heading north and west, they sped onward, creating a small bow-wave of spray, though it was hard to tell exactly where the raft's bows were located as it swiveled from side to side. Bullwag kept the sunset in the corner of his left eye as he pulled them effortlessly along. Bo waxed lyrical at approaching evening. Does something to a chap, the old sunset? Rather jolly, what? Sky goes the color of meadow cream when you stir it into a plate of Dempson puddin'. Seas is dark as black currant cordial, and the sun looks like a rosy apple covered with honey. I say, Berg, old lad, rather poetic, what, what? Berg hid a smile. Did you compose that with your stomach? Bo grinned. Yes, it did sound rather gutsy, didn't it? Oh, I say, nothing to ruin a perfect evening like a great pack of sharks. Just look at that lot. Berg saw the ominous fins cutting through the water until they surrounded the raft. Suddenly, the whole craft swayed threateningly as Bullwag flopped aboard. Bo threw himself on top of the sea lion, grabbing at his slippery hide with all paws and roaring heroically. 
I've got you, old fellow. They'll have to deal with me before I'll let 'em get to you. Ahoy and belay, you slab-sided swabs! Scuttle me, bilges, and other nautical terms. Show me a shark, and I'll show you a coward. Take one bite out of our raft, just one munch. I dare you. I'll leap into the briny and give you a sound drubbing. Ha! You're dealing with a cost fording him now. What? What? Bullwag shrugged his huge bulk, sending Bo toppling into the sea. The hare yelled out in panic. Didn't mean it. Only joking, you chaps. There, there. Nice sharky. Good sharky. Yow! Whoops! One of the big fishes flicked his tail, catching Bo and sending him sailing back onto the raft. Bullwag chuckled. Yuck! 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 Don't you know a bottle knows when you sees one? Bo clung to Bullwag's flipper, shivering. Keep mum, old chap. Don't go calling 'em names like bottle nose. You'll get 'em mad and they'll scoff the raft. Nice sharks, good sharks. I say, aren't sharks handsome chaps? Bullwag's stomach shook as he laughed. Yuck! 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 Those aren't sharks, you great booby. They're pals of mine, bottlenose dolphins. They offered to push a while and let me have a rest. Berg smiled at his irrepressible friend. Bo regained his composure quickly in any situation. Pish tush, sir! I knew that all along. What do you take me for? What? Sharks, indeed. What gave you that idea? He leaned over the raft's edge and patted the strange beak-shaped snout of the nearest dolphin, which stuck its permanently smiling face out of the sea as Bo nodded to it. Ahoy there, you jolly bottle-nosed rogue! What do you mean by impersonating a flipping shark? Wipe that smile off your face and answer me, laddie. The big fish gave an ear-splitting squeak and shot a jet of water into Bo's astonished face. He sat back, wiping water from his eyes, remarking to Verg, "Pity that chap never had an auntie to teach him a few manners. What? Spitting seawater into a feller's physic? Huh? Very nice, I don't think." Bullwag flapped Bo's ears gently with his huge flipper. "Don't you go talking about my pals like that, matey. Queekum and his school have been friends of mine since I was a pup." While Bullwag held an unintelligible conversation, which consisted of exchanging varying degrees of squeaks with Queekum, Bo whispered to Verg, "Chaw, school indeed! Only school that chap ever attended was the school of spittin'. I'd give him detention or a few whacks of the cane if I was his schoolmaster. What? Blighter can't even speak without squeakin' like a confounded seagull. I'll bet all the baby bottlenoses are a right shower of yahoos." Still, you can't expect any better if you're brought up with a name like Bottlenose, I suppose. What? What? Over a score of dolphins were around the raft, propelling it along at an alarming rate. Every so often, an extra frisky one would jump out of the sea and leap clear over the raft. Verg sat awake, excited and astounded by it all. Bo tried to sleep, stuffing a piece of bladder rack in both ears, muttering to himself. That chance a shut eye of chaps got around here. Great lump of a bullwag, snoring away like a thousand frogs on concert night, and those pesky bottle noses squeaking like a pile of rusty gates. Not the sort of thing a cost Fordinghams used to at all. Indeed not. Good job Andy's not here. 
However, despite the intrusions, Beauclair feathering Saul Cosfordingham was soon adding to the din, snoring uproariously and chunnering on in his dreams through the night watches as the strange craft hurtled toward its destination over the sprawling main. Hmm, hmm, what? Pass the salad there, Eddie, and tell the captain to stop the boat rocking, will you? Hmm, hmm. No thanks, old chap. Couldn't touch another bowl of that bladder-rack pudding, foul stuff. Give it to old Bottlenose for school lunch, will you? Sharks like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. What? 31. Bullflake cracked his whip over the heads of the wretched rowers chained to the decks of the death pit. Backwater and ship oars, you idle bunch of land spawn. Sit still there. Not a word or a move, or I'll have the hide off your backs till your bones shows through. Luke heard the anchors splash as he drew his oar inboard. Placing a cheek flat on the oar shaft, he tried looking through the rowing port, but it was a very limited view. Shallow, clear water, a white sand beach, and just a glimpse of heavily wooded rocks. Norgal the otter, who had his head bent in similar fashion, murmured to Luke, I always hate making landfall. It makes me sick to my stomach, thinking of green, growing things, firm ground under me paws, and living free like I once was. The otter flinched numbly as the lash descended across his back. Fleabit the rat stood wielding his own personal whip, sneering at the chained Norgal. Then don't think, or scum. Mr. Bullflay told you not to move or speak. Now I'm telling you not to think, see? He turned as chains rattled nearby. Rangovar was sitting up straight, her mad eyes boring into the rat. Try that on me, rat face. I'm thinking, I thinking I'd like to get just one paw around your louse-ridden throat. Go on, swing that lash. See if you can stop me thinking. Fleabit wilted under the black squirrel's gaze and fled the bottom deck, following Bullflay without a word. Dilu Daskar came out of his cabin, the silken scarf still bound around his neck, which was permanently marked from Luke's attack upon him. He cleared his throat painfully and beckoned to the two ferrets, Akla and Ringpatch. They hurried to his side for orders. Break out the neck chains. We need water cask carriers and food gatherers. Choose a party, but only from the top deck. Take enough crew with you, so that you have two to each one slave. We'll lay over here two nights for provisioning. If any slave escapes, you'll answer to me with your lives. Billu stood waiting while two sea rats set up a chair and table on the stern deck. When a canopy had been rigged over the chair and food put on the table, he sat down. Willig, Grig, Bullflay, bring the mouse Luke to me. Luke was freed from his oar shackles and fitted with a neck chain attached to paw manacles. Bullflay raised his whip. Up on deck, mouse. Move yourself. Luke smiled contemptuously at the slave master. Bring that whip down on me, and I'll strangle you with it. Bullflay's paw faltered, and he let the whip fall to his side. Sometimes he was not sure who he feared the most, the black squirrel or the warrior mouse. Luke strode past him, head held high, giving a broad wink to Doolam and Denno as he passed them on his way to the stairs.
Vilu Daskar popped a wild grape into his mouth, chewing it slowly as he looked Luke up and down. Willig, bring a chair for our guest. The warrior dismissed the offer with two words. I'll stand. Indicating the roast seabird, fruit, and wine, Vilu said, Seat yourself, Luke. Here, you must be hungry. Have some food and drink. It's good. I'm only served the best. Though Luke's mouth was watering at the sight of the victuals on the table, he shook his head. I don't eat food from the table of a murderer. Villou shrugged. Have it your own way. I brought you up here because I want to hear more about this treasure you have hidden. Where did you come by it? The reply Villou received was flat and harsh. I've told you all. I'll take you to it. There's nothing more to say. Villou's bone-handled scimitar was out, its tip under Luke's chin. There are many ways to die, quickly, with a single stroke, or slowly, painfully, bit by bit. Now talk. Luke's chained paws rose, and he pushed the blade aside. If I die, swift or slow, you will never find the hiding place. Remember, murderer, I am the only beast alive who knows where it is. Kill me or my friends, and you will never possess a single piece of my tribe's treasure. Villou stuck the blade point down into the deck timbers, and the scimitar stood quivering. He nodded and smiled. You're a strange and reckless creature, Luke, different from the rest. A brave beast like you would go far in my crew, maybe even standing at my side, second in command. Luke smiled back at him. Aye, Daskar. Then you could make me a real warrior. Teach me how to plunder defenseless ones, murder innocent creatures, and run away to hide aboard this red ship. You and your sea rogues would never stand up to real warriors in combat. Cowards, assassins, and the scum of oceans. That's all the captain of the Gorleach and his crew are. A burly weasel named Clubface was working nearby and heard Luke's words. Thinking to gain the admiration of Daskar, he drew his dagger and leaped upon the manacled slave, roaring, No beast talks to our captain like that and lives. I'll gut ye. The weasel was big and strong, but he did not possess Luke's speed. The warrior mouse's paw chains wrapped him hard between his eyes, and Luke grabbed the paw, holding the dagger, twisting it inward. Clubface felt himself tripped and fell backward. Luke slammed his weight down on top of the weasel, falling with him and driving the dagger deep into his attacker's heart. Like a flash, Luke was upright, the dripping blade in his paw facing the pirate stoat. Daskar laughed aloud, thumping the tabletop with his scimitar handle, applauding. Neatly done, Luke! You are a real warrior! Come on now, you've got the dagger. Try to kill me! Sea rogues had come running to surround Luke. He relaxed and stood with the blade hanging loosely from one paw. The Ludaskar stood and bowed slightly. Motioning his crew to stand off, he pointed the scimitar at Luke. My compliments. You are not only brave, but wise also. Luke nodded toward the vermin all around him. The numbers are a bit one-sided, Daskar. I'll slay you one day, but I'll pick the time and place. Smiling and shaking his head, the pirate stoat replied, Well said. 
I like an enemy who uses his brains. Take him below and chain him back to the oars. Zip, thunk. Before any beast could move, Luke had thrown the dagger, embedding it deep in the mast alongside Daskar's head. Sometimes a knife can reach further than a sword. Remember that, stoat. Luke went down under the press of crew beasts. Vilu Daskar stood over him, shaking with rage. He raised the sword, holding it trembling over the fearless slave. Then, thinking better of his actions, he snarled, Get him below! Out of my sight! Sea rogues hoisted Luke upright and dragged him off, back to the death pit of the lower deck. Bullwag's flipper, damp and heavy, touched Verg's face, wakening him. The sea lion was back in the water. It was midnight of the second day since leaving Twin Islands. The dolphins were gone. Berg, wake up, little friend. Give Bo a shake. Look yonder. Wood Isle and the Red Ship. Moonbeams danced on the phosphorescent sea. No more than an hour's sailing time away, the Gorleach could be seen riding at anchor, close to the shore of the island, which looked for all the world like a chunk of forest sticking out of the main. Bo rubbed his eyes drowsily. I say, does look jolly pretty in the moonlight, what? Bullwag drifted off from the raft. Aye, pretty dangerous too, mate. Well, shipmates, this is where we parts company. I wouldn't be of much use to ye on land or aboard a vessel, but I got ye here. Berg waved at the friendly giant. So you did, Bullwag. And our thanks to ye for that. You've done more'n enough for us. Good fortune to you and those bottlenoses. Give em our thanks, if and you see em again. Bo added his farewells to those of his friend. Tootaloo and farewell, you old rascal. What? I'd watch out for sharks if I were you. Remember how they scoffed your old lady. Bit careless, that. Keep your eyes peeled, sir. Oh, and give my regards to those bottlenose chaps. Not bad types, really. Except for all that pesky spitting and squeaking. Goodbye now. Bullwag sank beneath the surface and was gone. Now they were alone, with only their wits to rely on. Lying flat on the raft, they paddled with their paws, discussing the situation, while they were still out of earshot of the Gorleach. Well, Bo, we've got this far. What's the next move? Patently obvious, my dear feller. Got to free our friends from Durant's vile, what? Huh, I know that. But we won't get very far jumping aboard the Gorleach and challenging her crew now, will we? Of course not. We'd need at least three of us to do that. We need a scheme, a plan, an idea, or a combination of all three. Come on now, Berg, get the old mousy thinking cap on. I'm more a leader than a planner, don't you know? As they drew closer to the monstrous red ship, Berg waded up carefully, an idea forming in his mind. Bo, do you see those rope and canvas fenders hanging over the sides to protect the gorleach from rocks? Indeed I do. Whacking great things they are, too. Some of them bigger than our little raft. Why'd you ask? Because I've been thinking, we could be a fender, too. The deuce, you say? And what good'll that do, pray? Well... I noticed that the stern fenders hang a bit low. Suppose we was to cut one loose and let it float off. 
Then we ties our own up in its place and hides there. Suddenly, Bo was thinking along the same lines as Verg. Rather, spiffin' wheeze, what? From there, we could contact the ore slave chaps at night when no beasts about. Aye, get word to them we're here. See if we can't pinch a few weapons to help Luke and the others. By the left, I'm glad I thought of that little plan. Don't slack, Berg. Paddle harder, please. Hmph. It's one thing straining my brain to think up these plans, but it's a bit much to expect me to do all the paddling, old chap. Oh, button up, Bo. You make more noise than a squeaking bottle nose. I beg your pardon, sir. Confounded nerve of the mouse. What? Stop nattering and keep paddling. Pish tush. I could say the same for you, whisker face. No, you couldn't, floppy lugs. Yes, I could, bottlenose. Bottlenose yourself, gabby guts. Glaring at one another and arguing heatedly, they ran smack into the gorleech's stern. Thud. High up near the after deck, a window swung open. Poking his head out, a sea rat blinking from the cabin lanterns called, "Ahoy! Who's out there? Come on, show yourself." The two friends grasped the bottom of a fender, pulling the raft close in beneath the stern. Huddled together, they held their breath, listening as some beast joined the sea rat. Aye, aye, what's going on here, mate? Thought I heard a noise out there. Sounded like two beasts arguing, and some had struck the ship. A third voice joined the conversation angrily. Something will strike you if and you don't shut that winder. Can't a beast gear a better rest without being blown out of the bunk by drafts from the seas at night? The window slammed amid sounds of muffled argument. Both friends gave a quiet sigh of relief. Berg whispered, "Better wait until later when they're all asleep. Then we'll see what can be done." What's the funny face for, Bo? Funny face, nothing, old lad. I'm blinking well famished. What? You mean the vittles are all gone? Exactly, and the water too. We'll starve to death. Don't talk rubbish. You could live off in your fat for ages. Yuck! Ooh! Blah! Don't make so much noise. What are you up to now, Bo? Yuck! This bally bladder rack tastes absolutely foul. I ain't surprised, matey. Bet even the sharks turn their noses up at that stuff. Bo, where are you going? Come back. But Bo was shinning up the stern gallery with the alacrity that only a hungry hare could muster. Won't be a tick, old thing. Hold the fort till I get back. A moment later, the gluttonous creature had vanished into the darkness. Berg perched on the raft, nibbling anxiously at his paw, wondering where his friend had gone to. A ferret and a sea rat were working in the galley. The ferret laid out loaves of hot bread to cool at the open serving hatch. While the rat was occupied chopping up fruit, which he mixed in a bowl with honey. Good fresh fruit they got from the island today, Cully. Cap'n doesn't go much for it, but it'll look nice on his table for breakfast. Sampling a slice of apple, the ferret licked honey from his paws and winked at the rat. We'll have it for lunch after we clears the cap'n's table. Wiping his paws on a rag, the rat took down a dead pigeon from a hook. Lend a paw or pluck this, will your mate? They both bent to the task until the bird was plucked. Shuffling to the cupboard for a roasting spit, the rat stopped, 
looked at the empty space on the table just inside the window ledge and turned angrily on his mate. Think you're funny, don't you? Come on, put it back. Put what back? What's up, matey? Ha! Don't you matey me, you fat robber. Where's me fruit salad got to? Now give it back here. I never touched no fruit salad. Oi! Where's me bread gone? It was laid out there to cool a moment ago. Listen, slop chops. Never mind using your bread as an excuse. I saw your pinching slices of apple out of that fruit salad. I'll chop your thieving paws off with me cleaver. Oh, thief, is it? Well, you can explain to the crew where the bread's gone when there's none for breakfast. So there. Don't you accuse me of stealing your lousy bread. Take that. Swinging the dead pigeon. The rat caught the ferret a smack. Oof! That was a foul blow. Here, you have some of this. The ferret dealt the rat a stinging blow to his rear with a wooden rolling pin, and they fell to fighting in earnest. Bo watched from his hiding place on the deck, munching on a hot loaf. The sound of approaching paws caused him to slide into the shadows of the galley bulkhead. As he did, a loaf of bread fell to the deck. Fleabit stopped in passing, noticed the loaf, and grabbed it. Gnawing away happily, he went to see what all the noise was about in the galley. Poking his head around the door, he said, "Nice bread this is, mates. Hope you got plenty more for breakfast tomorrow. Looks good bread, I does." Instantly, he was dragged into the galley and set upon by the two cooks, who pounded him mercilessly. "So you're the one, you scringin' little thief!" Ow! Ow! Youch! Murder! Help! They're killing me! The ferret swung his rolling pin with relish. Kill you, you dirty grub swiper! I'll murder ye! Take that! Brandishing a copper ladle, the rat leaped on the hapless flea bit, pounding him severely. Hi! And after he's killed and murdered you, I'm going to slay you, you filthy vittle plunderer! A sound overhead caused Verg to look up. Bo's muted whisper came out of the darkness. Stand by the raft there. Here, catch these. Two long, hot loaves dropped down on Verg. Then Bo was alongside him, placing a bowl between them both. Nothing like fresh fruit salad and honey to keep a chap's chin up. What? Don't hog all the bread. There's a good chap. Chuck a loaf over here. Oh, I found a flask and filled it from the water cask. Better than nothing, I suppose. What? What? Berg was glad of the food, though he lectured Bo severely. Your stomach could have got us both caught and killed. That was a foolish risk you took, Bo. Don't ever do it again. The garrulous hare twiddled both his ears carelessly. Oh, fiddly dee, mousy mate! What do you expect a bot to do? Sit here and jolly well starve? Fat chance. Berg could not help smiling at that devil-may-care Bo. Oh, all right, but be careful. Great seasons! Look at the size of these loaves. There's enough here to feed most of the crew. Did you have to take so much bread? Bo tore off a hunk and dipped it in the honey. Waste not, what not, old bean? That Luke and company'll be glad of fresh bread. Don't imagine they get it too often. What, what? When we've had a nap, we'll go and seek 'em out. It was still some hours to dawn. Luke sat shackled to his bench, head bent as he slumbered over his oar. Bullfley lay snoring on his makeshift bed. 
All was quiet amid the smoldering lanterns of the lower deck, save for the odd whimper of some wretched oar-slave, dreaming of home and happier times. Ranguvar was dozing, too. She flicked at something tickling her ear. It was a dried stem of bladder-rack. It tickled again, and this time she caught it in her paw, opening her eyes, as some beast whispered, "'What ho, old thing! You don't happen to have a chap down there named Luke, do you? Warrior type like yourself?' Rangavar immediately became alert. She looked to the oar-port and saw a bewhiskered hare smiling in at her, holding a paw to his lips as a caution to silence. Rangavar nodded. Pointing across to Luke, she murmured quietly, "'Over there!' First or port on the other side. Who are you? Formal introductions later, friend. Here, chew on this. Completely mystified but grateful, Rangavar accepted the big chunk of fresh bread packed with fruit salad. Don't eat so fast, Marm. Twenty chews to each mouthful now. Bye-bye. With a wave, the hare vanished. Rangavar shook Luke awake by waggling the end of his oar. You've got a visitor, Luke. Look to your oar port. Bo peeped in at Luke, his face a mask of mock accusation. Why aren't you dead, sir? Luke shook his head in disbelief. Why aren't you? Far too hungry to let things like dying interfere with my plans, old feller. Berg's alive, too, you know. Listen, I can't stop to chat. Here's some food. Share it about. Be back tomorrow night. Keep your chin up. I'll see what I can do about bringing something to deal with those chains. Meanwhile, sit tight and smile. The rescue party's arrived at last, what? When Bo was gone, Luke and Rangavar took the hare's advice. They sat tight and smiled, sleep forgotten, now that the first bright rays of hope had started to glimmer. 32. The voyage to the northern coast was well underway. Fortunately, the weather remained fair with favorable winds. Perig, the rat bosun, however, was not a happy sea rogue. Vilu Daskar had sent a command, through Akla, that he was to report to the captain's cabin. Perig was all of a tremble as he rapped hesitantly on the door. Vilu Daskar was sly and unpredictable. Who could tell what he wanted to see his bosun about? Whip in paw, the slave master Bullflay opened the door to admit Perig. It did not bode well by the look on Bullflay's ugly face. Get in here. Gappin wants to see you. Villu was seated at a table, his wicked bone-handled scimitar before him. Perig came to attention in front of the pirate's stoat, shaking visibly. Villu Daskar sat in silence, his face betraying nothing as he stared levelly at the dithering bosun, who managed to gulp out a word. Sire? Bilu touched the silken scarf at his neck, extending the silence until it became almost unbearable before he spoke. There is a thief aboard my ship. A th thief, sire? Yes, Perig, a thief. I have a dagger to match this sword, bone-handled with a curved silver blade. Last night it was on this table, where it usually is. This morning it is gone. Gone, sire? Bilu got up and walked around the table. Halting behind Perig, he dug his claws hard into the bosun's shoulder. Perig whimpered in pain and terror as the stoat hissed viciously in his ear. 
Stop repeating everything I say, or I'll slice the foolish tongue from your slobbering mouth. Have you been walking around this ship with your eyes shut? Other things are being stolen. Food, water, equipment, ship's gear. Now I want to know the names of those who are robbing me. Do you understand, Parag? Speak! The bosun knew his life was at stake. Words babbled from him like water pouring from a barrel. Sire, Captain, I've noticed it myself. All kinds of things are disappearing, especially victuals and drink, sire. But on me oath, Captain, I'm keeping a sharp weather eye out for the villains. I swear I am, sire, day and night. Billu released him and went to sit back in his chair. But you haven't a clue who the thieves are, right? Parag nodded miserably, unable to stop his head from bobbing up and down. Villu glanced across at Bullflang. I don't suppose you've any ideas about the culprits? Shuffling awkwardly, the gargantuan weasel shrugged. Can't think of none, Cap'n, lest is like the crew says, the sea bogle. Some of them even says that. Bullflay got no further. Veludaskar moved like lightning. Clearing the table at a bound, grabbing his scimitar as he did, the stoat laid Bullflay low with a resounding blow to his face from the flat of the glittering blade. Enough! Do you suppose I am as big a fool as the idiots who serve me? Don't dare speak to me of bogles or phantoms. What need would ghosts have of food, you addle-witted moron? The thieves are living, breathing beasts, with the same need for food and drink any beast has. Out! Get out of my sight, both of you! Search the gorleach from stem to stern! Lined up on deck, the crew of the red ship were made to stand fast all morning as a search was made of their living quarters. Vilu Daskar sat beneath an awning, watching as each one was called out to accompany Akla, Parag, and Bullflay below decks. Foul scale, you're next. Step forward. Lively now. The weasel foul scale went with the searchers into the crew's accommodation. They searched his hammock and the area around it, and he was then made to gather up his belongings and taken up on deck. Bullflay ordered him to unroll his bundle and display the contents. Then the slave master called out, Righto, crew, take a look at this gear. Is it all the property of foul scale? A brass-earringed sea rat stepped forward, pointing. No, it ain't. That belt's mine. I'd know it anywheres. Shark skin with a green stone and a round brass buckle. I found it lying by me bunk, Falscale protested. Villudaskar strode over to Falscale's belongings. With his sword point, he flicked the belt to its owner, then addressed Falscale. You stole the belt. Get over there with the others. Ashen-faced, the weasel walked over to join an ever-growing band of sea rogues who had been caught with the property of fellow shipmates among their gear. It was high noon by the time the search ended. Those who were innocent stood in line, looking greatly relieved. More than a score of vermin, who had been caught in possession of stolen property, huddled miserably around the mainmast, awaiting the consequences. Villudaskar delivered his judgment for all to hear. I know you are not the thieves I seek. Some beasts are plundering wholesale from this ship. Make no mistake, I will find them and punish them slowly to the death. There will be an end to thieving aboard my gorleach. But you, who have been caught, you are still guilty of stealing from your shipmates and must be punished. 
Thank your lucky stars I am in a lenient mood, and keep your paws to yourselves in future. Akla, Parag, Bullflay, hoist them up by their tails and give them twenty lashes apiece. Sluice them with salt water. Let them hang there until sunset and cut them down. The rest of you will witness the floggings as a reminder never to steal while aboard the red ship. Berg and Bo perched on their raft, well hidden by the overhang of the high-carved stern. They could not avoid hearing the screams and wails of the miscreants as they were subjected to the whipping. Neither had any pity for sea rogues. Making more noise than a school of confounded bottlenoses, what? That'll teach them honesty's the best policy. Aye, there's only one thing worse than a thief, Bo. Indeed. And what is that, pray? Two thieves. Ha, ha! Rather good that, Berg. We'll have to be more careful of a night from now on, mate. They'll be watching for us, you know. Of course, they jolly well will. So you do the stealing, and I'll keep them diverted in me sea bogle costume, eh? Berg chuckled. Sea bogle. What a load of old nonsense. Bo fixed two horns he had made from dried bladder rack to his ears. He waggled them and scowled fiercely. Talk not like that of ye sea bogle, old lad, or I'll put a spell from the dark, murky deeps upon thee. Berg closed his eyes, enjoying the warm noon sun. Pity you can't put a spell on your stomach. Stop it needing so much food, you great fat fraud. Steady on there, my good mouse. Us sea bogles need nourishment if we're to perform properly. No self-respecting sea rogue would be scared of a half-starved skinny bogle. Or any more of that skilly and duff left? There's some in the bowl. Help yourself. I imagine you'll spirit it away without too much trouble. What are you writing there? The ship's log of our raft, the floating fender? Put me down as mouse mate, and you can be Cap'n Bogle. Bo was scraping away with a charcoal stick on a strip of canvas, his tongue sticking out of the side of his mouth. Actually... It's a poem I'm composing about moguls. Some of those ignorant vermin may be unaware of the tale, so I'm doing a bit of publicity for myself, don't you know? Berg winced as they heard the splash of water, followed by more agonized wailing from the upper decks. Ooh, must sting something awful, being flogged and getting salt water chucked on the cuts. The hare was unmoved as he continued riding. Probably the only decent wash they've had since their dear old mothers used to scrub them in the tub when they were babes. There's a thought. Can you imagine a filthy, beastly little pirate babe being scrubbed in a tub? I'll wager his language would frazzle his auntie's slippers, what? In the crew's accommodation that night, the vermin who had been released sat nursing their hurts, while others swaggered about, displaying the treasured gear they had thought lost. The rest huddled around the mess table, playing an old sea rat game with shells and fruit pips. The entire crew jumped with fright as the cabin door slammed open. Perig staggered in as if his paws were made of jelly, grasping a long strip of sailcloth. The sea rat, Willig, helped him to a seat at the table. What's the matter, bosun? You look as if you've seen a ghost. Some beast passed him a tankard of barnacle grog. He drank the fiery liquor in one long swallow, and it was dribbling down his chin as he stared wildly about. "'Twas the sea-bogle, mates. 
I saw the sea bogle with me own two eyes. On me Affy David, I did. A chilled silence fell over the crew. Perig was quite a stolid rat, not given to silly imaginings. The tankard was refilled, and Perig took a deep swig before continuing. I just came out to patrol the deck, searching for a sign of any thieves. Before I could blink a glim, it had me by the throat. Long, long arms it had, like steel. I couldn't move. I tell you, shipmates, I'd never be the same again after seeing the bogle. It had great big horns, three eyes, and a face that was all lit up, glowing. Covered it was with horrible flowing weeds from the bed of the seas, all wet and dripping. Ugh, it was too terrifying to describe. Willard took a gulp from the tankard Perrig had put down. Why didn't you run and tell the captain? Perrig shot him a haunted glance, whispering demandedly. Cap'n won't hear of it. He don't believe in bogles. I couldn't tell him, mate. He would have slayed me. Falscale temporarily forgot his stinging back. Did the bogle speak to you, Parag? What did it say? The bosun held up the canvas strip. It never said nothing. Just growled and gave an awful squeak, like a bottlenose dolphin. Then it pressed this sailcloth under me paw. Let go of me neck and stood there. Falscale shook his head in amazement. So what did you do? Do? What you think I did? I ran off fast as I could. Is it still out there? Do you think? I don't know. Go and look for yourself. What? Listen, mate. I ain't moving out of this cabin till it's daylight and the sun shining. So there. The crew nodded their heads vigorously in agreement. Willig picked the sailcloth from Perig's shaken paws. See, there's writing on it. What does it say, Perig? I don't know. I can't read letters or words. Grig, the sea rat, beckoned to Willig. Give it here. I can read. Let's see what it says. Grig read it out in halting tones. He could read, but only just. His voice echoed out in the awed silence. From the dark and icy deeps, where the dreaded bogle sleeps, he'll rise one night and climb aboard your ship, bringing fear and death-like doom to your very cabin room. Beware the bogle's clammy, vice-like grip. Aye, woe betide that crew, sailing on the main so blue. And to those who don't believe me, double grief. When the bogle takes a meal, you will hear a dreadful squeal. He strikes when nighttime falls, just like a thief. Aye, who of you can tell? Give him gifts and feed him well. Then the bogle may slide back into the sea. But if gifts and food be few, hearken now, for it is true, the bogle may eat you or even me. Crack some ribs, or crush a skull. Stuff down hearts till he is full. Rip paws and tails off any poor sea beast. Lock your cabin doors this night. Shake with terror, quake with fright. For the bogle may invite you to his feast. 
Grig was quaking so badly when he finished the poem that he dropped the canvas. Willig was the first to move. He dashed to the cabin door and locked it, calling down the long, smoky cabin to his mates, Bar those skylights! Batten them down tight! Trim the lamps and clean them! We need it good and bright in here! Fleabit and the ferret Ringpatch were on duty in the death pit. The slaves were sleeping, draped across their oars. Ringpatch, who generally worked on top deck of the trireme, took a quick glance around. Oi, Fleabit, this lot won't be no trouble for the rest of the night. Come on, mate, let's go up to top deck. It stinks down here. Walloper and Ching from middle deck will be up there. My mate Flangier, too. Top deck ain't like this pest hole. We got a little oven up there. Bet they're making skilly and duff and supping grog. Fleabit coiled his whip over one narrow shoulder. Skilly and duff! Why didn't you say, matey? Lead on, I'm right behind you. Nothing like a bowl of the old skilly and duff. The moment they were gone, Luke and Ranguvar sat up. All through the bottom deck, or slaves became alert. Luke's orders were relayed from one to another. Those closest to the steps, keep watch. Give the warning if you hear any beast coming. Dulem, Denno, look to your oar ports. Berg will be along with food soon. Rangovar, how's that big staple coming along? Nearly out? The black squirrel looked up from her labors. Tis a big un, set deep and well rusted, but I've got it on the move, Luke. Good, but be careful you don't splinter the wood too much. Bullflay usually stands near there, and we don't want him to spot anything suspicious. Norgal, the otter, tossed something across to Ranguvar. All taken care of, matey. I'm mixing tallow with dirt from the deck. That'll disguise it good. Luke nodded his approval. Great stuff, matey. See if you can get more of that tallow. We'll need it for the ore chains. As Luke talked, he was busy with his own ore shackles, filing a deep groove into a link close to his paw. Gricka, have you got those weapons stowed safe? An old female hedgehog several rows back answered, Hi, Luke. All safe and sound. They jammed in slits I cut on the undersides of these benches. Here, you have this un. Tis a fancy little toy that Bo found. Duck your nut, mate. Coming over. Luke bent his head as something whizzed by and stuck in the upraised oar shaft. It was a fine, curved silver dagger with a bone handle. He plucked it from the oar. Well, this is a fine, sharp gizzard slitter. Rangubar sniffed the air, shaking her head in disbelief. I can smell hot scones dipped in honey. Denno confirmed the squirrel's statement. So you can, friend. Verg's here. Ahoy, Verg, where'd you get these? Ooh, they're still hot from the oven. Pass that bag along, mates. Share them out. Shaking with laughter, Verg passed another flower bag loaded with hot scones through the airport. Go easy, mates. Don't crush them. Pass the empty bags back and I'll fill them again. Luke, how's it going down here? Fine, Verg, just fine. Where did all these scones come from? They're delicious. I didn't know vermin could bake as good as this. Did you and Bo steal all these? How in the name of seasons did you get away with him? Berg managed to poke his head partly through the ore port. He was grinning from ear to ear. We never stole them, Luke. We baked the scones ourselves. Old Bo the Bogle has the crew frightened out of their wits. 
and they battened themselves up tight in the crew's accommodation, terrified. So, seeing there wasn't any beast on deck watch, we found the galley empty, stoked up the ovens, and went to work. Bo sends his compliments. The entire deck of oar slaves, conscious of the need for silence, shook with suppressed mirth until tears popped from their eyes and ribs began to wake. There was a scrabbling from the bulkhead, and Bo appeared at the opposite oar port, still in bogle garb, but with his face covered in flour and honey. What ho, chaps! Bo the bogle baker here! I say, I hope you oar slave types aren't laughing at my cooking, what? A young vole, closest to the oar port, took Bo's paw and shook it heartily. No, sir, even my old mum couldn't cook a scone like you do. They're the best any beast ever tasted. If we're laughing, it's because you've taught us how to. Some of us have been down here for long seasons, treated harsh, too, with no reason to smile. We're happy because you've given us back a reason to live, with your bravery and kindness, both you and Mr. Berg. May fortune bless you both. The young bull was so overcome that his tears of merriment turned to real tears, which flowed onto the hare's paw. Bo the bogle tried to make light of things, though his long ear dipped to white moisture from his own eye. There, there, young feller, my bucko, was the least we could do, what? Though if you want more scones, I suggest you release my jolly old paw. You've washed it quite clean, thank you, but all that ore pulling has given you a rather powerful grip, and you seem to be crushing me paw to pulp. Ranguvar foe-seeker began to tremble with rage. Her voice shook as it echoed around the deck known as the Death Pit. All the prisoners aboard this red ship have strong paws through pulling long oars across heavy seas. But those same paws won't always be pulling oars. One day soon, they'll be shaking off their chains and taking up arms against Vilu Daskar and his sea rogues. Then we will take vengeance for ourselves, our families, and friends, and all the lost seasons of our lives. I give you my word. Bo took one look at the black squirrel's eyes and said, I don't doubt it, Marm. Not one word. 33. The Gorleach plowed the seas. Hours became days, and days turned to weeks. The waters grew more tempestuous, and the weather changed as the red ship sailed into wintry latitudes. Swathed in a soft cloak of light green wool, head protected by a purple silk turban, Viludaskar rested a paw on the scimitar thrust into his waist sash. Bracing himself against the forward rail, he gazed north over the gray, spume-topped waves, narrowing his eyes against a keening wind. Akla, the ferret, stood to one side, awaiting orders from his captain. It had not been a good trip. Despite the whippings and beatings given to the crew, thievery on a grand scale had prevailed. Both Vilu and Akla hoped it was not the sea rogues who were responsible, but the red ship's vermin were growing sullen, muttering among themselves about the floggings and the shortage of food. The pirate stoat knew that discipline and order had to be retained aboard ship if he were to stay master, so he had enforced his will. Still, superstitious murmurings continued, dark tales of a sea bogle haunting the gorleach. Even though he threatened, ranted, and reasoned, Villu knew he was helpless against the ignorant beliefs held by seagoing vermin. 
However, with the scent of treasure in his nostrils, he was not about to give up. One idea he pounded into the thick skulls of his crew was that they would follow orders or die. Knowing they were on a ship at sea with nowhere to run, that, in the fear of their murderous captain, kept the crew in line. Billu spoke to Akla without looking at him. I'm going to my cabin. Have the mouse warrior Luke brought there. Then return here and let me know the moment you sight land. Oh, and tell Perig to keep the crew busy. I want the mess deck, galley, and accommodations scrubbed and cleaned from bulkheads to deckheads. Willig dipped a chunk of pumice stone into a wooden pail of cold seawater and began scrubbing half-heartedly at the mess tabletop, complaining, Huh! Clean the mess deck again! I've wore me paws to the bones scrubbing at this stupid table. Must have scoured it more'n ten times o'er the past few days. Foulscale was on all fours, toiling away at the mess deck flooring, slopping icy seawater everywhere. Aye, and it ain't as if there's any vittles to put on that table, mate. Those scummy slaves look better fed than us. Ringpatch, the ferret who had been rubbing the brasswork shiny with a mixture of ashes and fine sand, put down his rag and wiped a filthy paw across his brow thoughtfully. You're right there, bucko. Do you think tis the slaves who've been swiping our grub? Perig, the bosun, swung a length of rope, knotted at one end and stiff with pitch and resin. Oh, why, it has to be the slaves, he sneered scornfully. I can just see em, cooking up pans of skilly and duff in the galley, carrying their oars over their shoulders, of course, with their foot-paws chained to large chunks of deck. You great blittering nit! How could slaves manage that? Have you got mud for brains? Now get on with shining those brasses. I wants to see me face in em, or I'll feed you a taste of this rope's end. Luke's paws were bound behind him, and he had a rope halter around his neck. Billu Daskar sat on the edge of his cabin table, questioning the prisoner. So, my friend, do you know where we are? The warrior met his captor's eyes fearlessly. I'm not your friend, but I do know where we are, in the Northland Seas. Oh, indeed, I know that too. But where precisely in the Northland Seas are we? Luke shrugged. Your guess is as good as mine. One wave looks the same as another out there. Daskar shook his head, a thin, humorless smile on his lips. Still the warrior, eh? Listen well, Mouse. I did not bring you here to play games with me. How soon will I know exactly where we are? Tell me, or I will stop all Ore Slave's water rations. That would be easy. There's little enough left for me and my crew. So tell me. As if ignoring the stoat, Luke shuffled past him and looked out of the cabin window at the icy, heaving seas. Take a course east until you sight land, then steer north again. No doubt you will remember a rocky headland. That's where you massacred my tribe. Once you see that headland, send for me. I will steer your ship from then on, because only I know the route. The bone-handled scimitar flashed skillfully, grazing Luke's ear. There was no mistaking the menace in Villu's voice. 
Sure enough, you will steer the gorleech, chained to the wheel, with its blade at your throat. Luke's smile was wintry as the weather outside. I'll look forward to it, but don't make it too easy for me, will you? Billu's teeth ground audibly as he snarled to the guards. Get this defiant fool out of my sight! As he was hustled from the cabin, Luke managed to put a chuckle in his voice. Defiant, yes, but a fool, never. When they had chained Luke back to his oar, Ranguvar murmured out of the side of her mouth, When do we make our move? Everything's ready. I got word that the top deck cut their last chain while you were gone. Luke pondered the question before replying, Sometime tomorrow, maybe evening, I've a feeling we may sight the headland by my old home. I'll be up on deck with Daskar, probably. If my tribe see the red ship, they'll be ready for trouble, so we can count on help from them. Rangabar had to wait while Bullplay walked past down the aisle, toward the oar slaves at the stern end. So, if you're on deck, how will we know, Luke? Hmm, good question, mate. I know. We'll have Bo or Verg make their way up near the prow. If they hear me shout, dead ahead, that'll be the signal to take over the ship. But if I shout, veer north, you must do nothing. I'll be chained to the ship's wheel by then. Sit tight and wait until I get word to you. Rangubar paused as Fleabit strode sternward. Got it. If Verg or Bo tells us dead ahead, the attack is on. But if the message is veer north, we wait. The two messengers in question were undergoing severe hardships. Bo and Verg were freezing and soaking from the cold weather and pounding seas. Huddled together beneath layers of stolen blanket and sail canvas, they clung grimly to the raft, which was lashed to the Gorleech's lower stern. The hare poked his head out of the wet jumble, catching the backlash of a big wave. He retreated back down, wiping his face on the damp blankets. By the bally cringe, old lad. Can't last much longer in these inclement latitudes, what? Berg closed his eyes and tried to sleep, but Bo persisted. My jolly old daddy'd say it's cold enough to whip the whiskers off a bowl and wet enough to drown a lobster. Cold and wet wouldn't be so blinking bad if I wasn't flipping well starving to death. What would you sooner do, Berg? Freeze to death, drown to death, or starve to death? The mouse opened one eye and murmured, You didn't say what what. What what? Why the deuce should I say what what? Berg smiled sleepily. Cause you always say what what. Bo's ears stood rigid with indignation. I beg your very pardon, sir. I do not what what. I was merely speculating on our demise. I said, Would you rather freeze to death or drown to death? Berg interrupted him rudely. I heard what you said first time. Humph! <laughs> Freezing, drowning, or starving wouldn't be so bad if I wasn't already being nattered to death. Don't you ever stop nattering, mate? Bo's indignation switched to injured innocence. Well, chop off my tongue, pull out my teeth, and sew up my lips. I'll put a cork right in it and quit assaulting your dainty shell-like lug holes, old bean. Far be it for me to try and make companionly conversation with a friend facing adversity. Not another word. My lips are sealed. 
Berg immediately felt sorry for his garrulous companion. Take no notice of me, Bo. I'm just feeling sorry for myself. You carry on, what, what? The hare chuckled and ruffled his friend's ears. Well, of course you are, old mousy mate. That's why fate threw us together like this, so I could jolly you up whenever you feel down in the dumps. My dear old auntie taught me a song about such situations. I say, shall I sing it for you? Cheer you up no end, what? Berg turned his head aside and pulled a wry face. Oh, well, seeing as I can't escape the sound of your voice, I suppose I'll have to listen. At least it'll scare any sharks away if they're hanging about. Sing on, Bo. Needing no second bidding, Bo launched into his auntie's song, ears clasped in traditional hair manner. When you're feeling down and glum, don't just sit round looking dumb. Sing tickety-boo, a fig for you, what ho, fola. Cause there's time for all that gloom when you're dead and in the tomb. Sing tickety-boo, a fig for you, what ho, fola. When tis raining all the day and the skies are dirty gray and you've ate the last plum pudding off the shelf, jig and caper in the wet, you'll be better off, I bet. Then pullin' faces, feelin' sorry for yourself. Oh, tiggity-boo, a fig for you, what ho for These few words will cheer you up and take you far, not like that old frumpy duck or a frog who's out of luck, or the little maggot who has lost his ma. Ah, 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 ah. If you laugh, there'll be no rain, and the sun'll shine again. Then your dear old aunt will bake you apple pie. So when hedgehogs learn to fly, fish will quack and wonder why. Tickety-boo, a fig for you. Never say die, I, I. I, 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 I. Berg threw himself on Bo, stifling his efforts. What are you trying to do? Attract the attention of the entire ship's crew? That put Bo into a sulk. He wrenched himself away from Verg, working himself into a huff and muttering, Huh! Bouncing on a chap just as he's reaching top note! Jolly dangerous thing to do, what? An unexploded phrase might have backfired down my neck and fractured me warbler. Little you'd care, though. And I still had another three verses to sing. There was the line in the second verse about a toad losing his trousers up a tree, very moving and profound part of the ditty. But I ain't going to sing it now. What's the use of one chap singing to cheer another chap up if the other chap keeps jumping on the first chap's head? Bad form, I'd say. Ungrateful wretch. All that evening and throughout the night, the slaves were forced to row, though only at quarter speed in the wild northern seas, whose tides, rocks, and currents had sent many a vessel to its doom. Fleabit pounded his drum slowly with a monotonous, regular cadence, and Bullflay dozed fitfully, only striding the aisle when he felt the need to stretch his paws. Luke pulled the heavy oar alone, spray whipping through the oar port at odd intervals to wet his face. Sleep was the furthest thing from his mind, now that he was near to his old home. Thoughts of his son Martin raced through the warrior's imagination. He would be tall now, quick and strong, with the blood of a leader and a fighter flowing in his veins. Martin would know what to do the moment the Gorleach was sighted. He would get the old and feeble, along with those too young to do battle, together. Having hidden them safely, 
Luke's son would do as he had been taught by his father, gather together the strong ones, arm them, and come to his father's aid, wielding the very sword Luke had passed on to him. As the slaves broke loose and fought to gain control of the red ship, Luke would run her into the coastal shallows, causing the vessel to heel over. He would hail his son from the ship's wheel. Once Martin heard the voice of his father, he would come hurtling through the shallows at the head of his fighters to board the gorleach. Then Vilu Daskar and his murderers would pay dearly for their monstrous crimes. Rangubar foe-seeker's whisper reached Luke, and he looked across at the fierce creature. Are we close to the place where you left your son? Not too far now, Luke murmured as he pulled at the oar. I feel it in my bones, friend. Grig, the sea-rat, gripped the edge of the crow's nest. Leaning forward, he peered into the leaden, rain-swept dawn at a rocky point in the blurred distance. With all the agility of a sea-rat, he clambered down from the rigging to the deck. Vilu Daskar was slumbering on a window seat, a charcoal brazier glowing nearby to warm the cabin. Perig, the bosun, gave a perfunctory rap at the door and entered. Headland's been sighted, Captain. Dead ahead. Daskar leaped from the seat. Grabbing his wool cloak and scimitar, he dashed from the cabin with Perig at his heels, bellowing to rouse the crew. Land ho! All paws on deck! Daskar raced forward, wind whipping the cloak straight out behind him, calling to Perig as he went, Get Luke up on deck here, quick! Wind thrummed the rigging ropes like harp strings. Daskar perched high in the bows, his eyes shielded by a paw as he noted the headland's position. Jumping down, he gathered his cloak around him and hurried to the stern. Luke was standing by the wheel, bound and surrounded by six vermin. The pirate stoat smiled triumphantly at his oar slave. So, twas as you said, the point lies dead ahead. A wise decision, Mouse, for if you had played me false, then your head would be on the deck for sure. Bind him to the wheel. Make sure the ropes are tight. Rough paws dragged Luke to the big steering wheel. He was tied to it securely by both paws, and a rope halter was placed about his neck. Vilu held the other end. Right. Sing out, Luke. Give us the course. Knowing it was too early to give the signal, the warrior murmured, keeping his voice low. Steady as she goes. Swinging on ropes just below the stern gallery, Bo and Berg strained their ears. What, what? Did you hear what he said, Berg? No, mate, but I'm sure he didn't shout dead ahead. Groaning, the hare slid down his rope. Oh, fiddlesticks! That means the attack ain't on yet. I'll go and let Ranguvar and the others know. Vilu tugged viciously at Luke's halter. Looks as if you're sailing her close in to land. Why? Moving the wheel a touch north, Luke kept his eyes ahead. Got to get my bearings. I'm not quite sure that's the right headland. Don't worry, Daskar, your ship's safe. I'm not going to try anything with all those poor slaves chained below. Give the order to ship oars and take her to half-sail. We'll go forward nice and easy, if you're afraid. Vilu gave the halter another savage jerk. I'm not afraid, mouse. Just cautious. I've sailed northern seas before. They can be treacherous. Luke smiled fearlessly. As treacherous as you? The Ludaskar returned the smile. Not quite. 
At midday the rain cleared, though the skies still remained dull and wintry. Luke was close enough to see the shore plainly now. His heart sank, as if a great boulder was forcing it down, causing a heavy ache in his chest. Before him the shoreline lay deserted, only sea grass and some tattered rags fluttering in the wind. Charred wood and broken implements, hoes and rakes, were half buried in the shifting sand. The caves, where once he had settled his tribe, had had the protective shields of driftwood and vegetation ripped from their fronts. They stood empty like the eyeless sockets of a corpse staring out to sea. Martin, his son, Windred, and the rest of the tribe were gone from the place. Sick with grief, he slumped across the wheel. Billu Daskar was grinning slyly as he brought his face close to Luke's. What a shame, my friend. Has your plan gone wrong? What sort of fool did you think you were playing me for? I would have been stupid to let you sail my ship inshore where the creatures of your tribe could have helped you. Luke stared dully as his enemy laughed in his face. Fool! I am captain of the greatest ship that ever sailed the seas. How do you think I did it? I learned to read the minds of others, to outthink those who thought they were smarter than me. I knew all along that you yearned for vengeance after the slaying of your tribe. All you have lived for is a chance to kill me. Luke nodded. Then you must know there is no treasure? He felt hot rage sweep through him as Vilu patted his cheek, almost fondly. The stoat's voice was wheedling. The old double bluff, eh, Luke? Don't try to pull the wool over my eyes. I know that every tribe, no matter how poor and lowly, has some kind of treasure, right? Luke bit his lip, lowering his head as if defeated. What beast could hide anything from you? But I hold you to your promise. If I show you the way to my tribe's treasure, you must set me and my two friends free. Billu leaned upon Luke's shoulder, happily surveying the empty shore. But of course, I am a creature of my word. All three of you will have your freedom. Now set a true course. Awkwardly, the warrior mouse maneuvered the wheel around. It's farther north up the coast. The cross current shouldn't give us much trouble if you pile all sail on and put the oars to a steady half-pace. Ranguvar waited until Bullflay lumbered by before turning to the oarport. Verg popped his head into view, spray dashing at his face. Luke's not given the word yet, friend, but I'd stay ready tonight if I were you. That's when we should be farther up coast, amid the high rocks and deep water. 34. Ringpatch, the ferret, came in from watch and slumped down on a pile of old rope and sailcloth, glad to be back in the big, smoky cruise cabin, mopping water from his fur. Bad night out there, mates. Weather's rough as a toad's back and cold as a captain's art. Any vittles left? Foul scale pointed to the empty pan on the table. Take a look in there, mate. If and there's anything left, then save arf for me. Why in the name of fish guts aren't we down south somewheres in the warm sun, picking ripe fruit off of trees and plundering birds' nests? What's to be at up here? Apart from your death of cold and starvation, that's what I'd like to know. Akla snuggled up to the smoking stove, shaking his head. Did the ice get down your ears, foul scale? We're in the northern waters for treasure. 
Or haven't you heard? Treasure? Ringpatch crawled over to sit by the stove. Akla tossed some old rope into the stove and watched it burn bright as flames licked round the tarry strands. Aye, treasure. You know that warrior mouse, Luke? Well, he's steering the ship up to where he stowed his tribe's booty. Billu had a word with him, promised to set Luke and his two mates free if and they let the captain get his paws on the treasure they hid. Falscale showed his blackened teeth in a knowing grin. Set him free, eh? Remember the last lot Billu Daskar set free? Those four edgehogs. Do you recall that, Willig? The sea rat chuckled with wicked glee. Oh, I remember it all right. They were holding back a supply of grain they'd harvested. Old Billu promises to set him free once he's got his claws on the stuff. So they showed him where they didn't it. Ha, ha, ha. One rat had not been a crew member at the time, so he had to ask. And did Daskar set him free? Akla looked about for more rope to feed the stove. Of course the cap'n did. He had him sewed up in the grain sacks with some good heavy rocks and dropped overboard. Vilu's last words to the hedgehogs were, You leave my ship alive, free to go where you will. The sea rogues pounded each other's backs and laughed aloud. Never told a lie in his life, is our cap'n. Ho, ho, ho. Wonder what he'll think up for this mouse Luke and his mates. Hee, hee. Bet he'll take him up to some cliff top and set him free as birds. Hee, hee, hee. Or introduce him to some new friends, the sharks. Ha, 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 ha. Whatever it is, the cap'n's sure to give us all a good laugh, mates. Then we can sail southward to the sun and prime vittles for a while. Without Luke and his two mateys, though. Perig, the bosun, gestured to Foulscale with his knotted rope. Oh, you! Stir your stumps there. Tis your turn to relieve Ringpatch on watch. Never mind sitting round here laughing and joking. Get out on deck with you. Go on! Foulscale shot the bosun a hateful glance. Wrapping a piece of sailcloth around him, he lumbered reluctantly out. Akla called after him. Don't let the sea bogle get yer. Falscale spat out of the cabin door. It blew back in his face. Cha! Sea bogle. That and deserted ship as soon as there wasn't enough grub left to feed a fly. Sea bogle only brought bad luck to this ship. Just well tis gone. He ducked as Perig flung an old sea boot at him, calling... All piece sea bogles you'll have to worry about if and you stands with that door open much longer, freezing us all into our graves. Get out on watch, you little lump, and shut that door after you. Bo and Verg had climbed aboard the red ship, being unable to endure further cold and hardship hanging on to the raft at the stern. Gripping any protrusions available, they made their way along the outside of the gorleach, avoiding being seen from the afterpeak where Luke was tied to the wheel, guarded by ten crew and Vilu Daskar, who had a canvas awning to protect them and a brazier to warm their paws upon. The two friends made it to the foredeck and hid behind a sail-draped hatch cover. From their hideout, they could see the shoreline, white sand backed by sheer cliffs which reared into the night. Bo snuggled down. Well, it ain't much, Vergie, but as my old auntie used to say, Something's better than nothing when you've got nothing. What?
Berg threw an affectionate paw about his comrade. Shall I tell you what my old auntie used to say, Bo? Well, she always said to me, If you're hiding under a hatch cover with a sailcloth over it, and there's a hare with you, then don't let the hare talk about how hungry he is, and don't let him sing. There, that's what my old auntie used to say. Bo was still in a fine old huff with Berg. Food? Who said I was going to talk about food, eh? What? Far too hungry to talk about food. And I ain't going to sing to you no more, after you jumped on my head and damaged me warbler. Savage mouse wretch, that's what you are. Oh, great seasons of stones. Take a look up ahead, Berg. The mouse poked his head from the sailcloth, his gaze following the bowsprit to judge the ship's course. Tis the tall rocks, Bo. We're headed straight for the tall rocks. Rearing like prehistoric giants to the stormy night skies, hundreds of the monolithic stone pinnacles stood out from the coast for leagues. Waves crashed into white foam at their bases, sending white spume flying high into the air. A peculiar effect, like screaming, tortured animals, assaulted their ears as the gale-force winds tore between the awesome columns, whose tops seemed to touch the tempest-driven clouds. For the first time in his life, Beauclair Feathering Saul Cosfortingham was robbed of the power of speech. He sat there with his mouth hanging open. Berg was the first to recover and do something. Luke's going to smash this ship into the tall rocks. Quick, Bo, climb down to Rangavar. I think Luke will give the signal very soon now. I'll go astern and listen out for it. The moment I hear Luke's voice, I'll make my way along the ship's side and yell at the top of my voice. Go now. Bilu Daskar was also feeling something for the first time in his life. Fear. He had seen the tall rocks once many seasons back when he was younger. However, he had not sailed remotely near them and had vowed never to do so. But now he was in the midst of a storm, his vaunted gorleech headed straight for the tall rocks, relying only on the skill of a mouse or slave bound to the steering wheel. Daskar stood dry-mouthed, sweating despite the cold, paws a-tremble and stomach churning. Tugging hard on the rope halter about Luke's neck, he yelled shrilly, Watch what you're doing! Go careful with my ship! Pull her away from those rocks! Away, I say! Luke kept his head bent, resisting the rope's tug. How does it feel, murderer, to have death staring you in the face? He gritted out from between clenched teeth. Think of all the innocent creatures you've sent to their deaths. Go on. Tell me how it feels. Dillu reached past Luke and managed to get a paw on the wheel. The warrior mouse sank his teeth into the paw, and with a yelp the pirate stoat withdrew. Dillu's guards drew their weapons. Luke shouted at them without turning his head. One move from you, murderer, or any of your scum, and I spin this wheel and send her side on to the rocks. Dillu's big mistake had been in binding Luke to the wheel. He was fully in control of steering the ship. The stoat signaled his crew to stay clear. Luke decided then to make his move. Throwing back his head, he roared at the top of his lungs, loud and long, Dead ahead! Dead ahead! Dead ahead! Slipping half in, half out of the lashing, churning sea, Verg scrabbled and clawed his way along the port side until he was amidships. Ahead of him he could see Bo, 
balancing perilously on Ranguvar's oar shaft as it stuck out from the bow side waiting for the signal. Verg clambered up onto the rail, shouting, Dead ahead! Free the slaves! Take the ship! End of Side 7 To continue, turn the cassette over. Side 8 The Legend of Luke By Brian Jakes Continuing on page 313 In his excitement, he had forgotten all else. Next instant, Parag and Akla came rushing from the crew's quarters. What's happening? Who's taking the ship? Some beast trying to free the slaves. Call to arms. All paws on deck. Slaves began pouring from the companionways of the three oar decks, some armed with what they could find, lengths of chain, pieces of timber, and pitifully few daggers. Unsure how to proceed, they milled about on the deck, some weeping openly, not knowing what to do with their newfound freedom. These slaves, all from the upper and middle decks, soon found themselves set upon by masses of heavily armed sea rogues, veterans in the business of bloodshed. Verg and Bo rushed to their aid. Laying two sea rats low with savage kicks from his long hind legs, the hare grabbed the vermin's cutlasses and tossed one to Verg, bellowing, Rally to us, you chaps! Don't sit round blubberin'! Fight! Several of the younger and bolder spirits obeyed, but there were others, too weak and frightened, who were thoroughly intimidated by the fierce horde of the Gorleech's crew. These wretched creatures ran and hid, and a lot of them tried to push their way back down to the oar decks, to the benches and chains where they had lived for long seasons. Then Ranguvar Foe-seeker arrived upon the scene. Battering slaves aside like ninepins, Bullflay came screaming out of the companionway, terror stamped upon his ugly features. Behind him, like the shadow of death, was Ranguvar. Laying into the slave-master with his own whip, the black squirrel was a sight to strike fear into the heart of any beast, now that she was on the loose. The long whip cracked around Bullflay's ears as Ranguvar Foe-seeker went after him, the stormy night echoing to her battle cries. Ya yala ho! I am the foe-seeker, born in moondark to the crash of thunder. Sing your death songs! Ya yala ho! In his panic, Bullflay fled straight up the rigging, with Ranguvar hard on his heels, her eyes red with blood breath, laughing madly as she closed on her hated foe. Viludaskar felt himself gripped by the icy claws of panic. Never in his wildest imaginings had he dreamed this could happen aboard his red ship. Akla! Parag! Bring the crew astern! Gather to me! As the sea rogues crowded around, Luke called to his enemy above the din of storm and battle, What are you going to do now, coward? Your slaves are free and fighting. The Gorleech is being driven to the rocks. It was a bad day for you when you murdered my wife. As if to emphasize the dilemma, Bullflay's body, choked by his own whiplash, came flying down from aloft and crashed through the afterdeck stairs, taking with it two vermin who were making their way aft. Ranguvar Foe-seeker climbed halfway down the rigging, then with a blood-curdling yell, hurled herself on a group of sea rogues who were hacking at helpless slaves on the main deck. The pirate stoat turned on Luke 
his voice a venomous hiss as he slashed at the bound warrior with his sword. You were the cause of all this, but I will end it here. Luke could not protect himself from the wild, vicious onslaught, even though the swinging blade chopped the ropes free from one of his paws. Dulum and Denno were battling their way to the afterdeck when they saw Luke being attacked. Bo and Verg saw it too and fought their way to the shattered stairs. Verg crying out, Luke, no, hang on, mate, we're coming. But Luke was not finished. Fighting his way up through waves of pain, he put all his strength into a single blow. His paw chopped down on that of Viludaskar, sending the bone-handled scimitar skimming off into the sea. Then Luke had Daskar in a death grip, crushing him tight against the ship's wheel. Sea rogues hurled themselves upon the warrior, trying to free their captain, who was screeching with fright. Pounding willy-nilly at the warrior, they were about to break the awful grip he had on Philudaskar, when suddenly Rangavar Foe-Seeker was in their midst, armed with two swords. The black squirrel was like a berserk tornado, dealing out death and fearsome wounds, laughing madly into the stricken faces of her foes. Ya ya la ho! Tis a fine night to die! Ya ya la ho! Take a deep breath, buckos, it'll be your last! I'll hold em off, Luke! You hold Daskar tight! Ya ya la ho! Looming up to the red ship was a towering rock, ten times the girth of any craft, with waves riding high up its sides and smashing in foamy cascades. Luke had Daskar's paws twined through the wheel spokes like a captive upon a rack, and the pirate stoat, his back pressed hard against the wheel, began begging and pleading hoarsely for his life as the Gorleach rode side on toward the monstrous column of wave-lashed stone. Spare me, Luke! You can have the treasure and freedom for all the slaves. Take the red ship, too. But let me go. I speak truly. My word is my bond. Spare my life. Luke the warrior pressed his face close to that of his mortal enemy, crushing him tighter and whispering, Cowards die a thousand times. A warrior dies only once. The spirits of all you have slain are watching you, Viludaskar, and they will rest in peace now that your time has come. You must die as you have lived, a coward to the last. When the red ship struck the rock, it reverberated from stem to stern. There was a noise like an overhead peal of thunder. Then it was shorn in two halves upon the mighty pinnacle of stone. The Gorleach hung there for one awful moment. Then the whole stern, from afterdeck to midships, fell. With a huge creaking of sundered timbers, it hit the water and sank instantly. Far, far below the seas, never to be seen again. Book Three A Warrior's Legacy 35 Sunlight lanced through into the cabin of the Arf ship. Dust motes swirled lazily about the still-lit lanterns. Denno took the rock-crystal glasses from his nose end and placed them on the closed book in front of him. Yawning and rubbing his eyes gently, he leaned back and stared up at the noon sky. So now you know everything, Martin of Redwall. That's the whole story, as best as we could remember. 
All eyes were on the stone-faced warrior, awaiting his reaction. After what seemed an interminable silence, he spoke. Am I to understand, then, that my father wrecked the Gorleach on the big column, knowing that he would die? Bo wiped a paw across his eyes and sniffed. Aye, that's what he did, old lad. Wounded almost to death, with Rangubar foe-seeker holding off almost an entire vermin crew, so Luke and her could have their revenge on Vilu Daskar, the red ship, and all that had caused them to lose their loved ones. By the fur, blood, tooth, and sword, two braver warriors never lived. Verg grasped the warrior mouse's paw tightly. They did it for you, for all of us, Martin. Every beast who'd ever suffered by the wickedness of Daskar and his red ship. Luke was past caring about what happened to himself. Rangavar, too. Between them, their final sacrifice was to rid the land and seas of a great evil. Martin's eyes were like chips of ice. I would have done exactly the same in my father's place. Dulam felt the hairs rise on his nape as he watched Martin. I believe you would have, too. That sounded just like your dad talking then. We all would. But for the fact we were at the forward end when the ship broke in, too. Martin stared keenly from one to the other. Is there anything else I should know? Berg, you knew him better than most. Tell me. The old mouse shook his head wistfully. He gave you all he could. Vengeance for your mother and our tribe. Freedom from a terror that the coastlands and seas lived in fear of. But I remember that day we sailed off from the Northlands. He gave you his sword. That blade had never left his paw, or that of his father and his father before him. It was the most precious thing Luke ever owned. But there was something else, Martin, not from your father alone. When you discovered me in the old cave back there, I had found something buried in the sand. Here. Berg passed the beaded linen bag to Martin. It was the sort of container a mother would use to keep her baby's things in, together with the small possessions she held dear. Martin's paw traced the beautiful pattern of tiny threaded beads worked onto the linen. He eased himself slowly away from the table and left the cabin. Gonf called after him. You all right, matey? Need any help or company? There was no answer from the warrior. Gonf settled back against a bulkhead. Best leave him alone a while. Get some shot-eye, mates. I have a feeling that when he comes back through Yondor, we'll be leaving this place. You and your pals better pack, Berg. We ain't leaving you stranded up in these rocks on a broken ship. You'll have to keep pinching yourselves to make sure you're not dreaming when you see Redwall Abbey, mates. Martin climbed down the front of a huge main column and sat on a ledge with a sea almost lapping his footpaws, gazing down into the fathomless deeps. Somewhere far below lay the stern of the Gorleach, with his father, Luke the Warrior, pinning Vilu Daskar against the steering wheel, holding his enemy in an eternal embrace. Around them would be strewn the pirate stoats, vermin guard, 
and Luke's berserk friend, Ranguvar Foeseeker. Pride surged through Martin. His father and the black squirrel had kept their vows. They were the bravest of the brave, true warriors. Martin sat there a long time, staring at the spot where sunlight ended in sea-green haze. From that beaded bag he took a stone, a rounded, medium-sized pebble, banded with various colors. The sort his father might have picked up from the beach long ago and brought back to the cave for his wife or little son. Martin held it a while, until the stone took on warmth from his paws. Then he dropped it gently into the sea, watching it sink rapidly from sight into the depths. This is for you, my father, from Sena, the wife you lost, and Martin, the son you strove to return to. But I have made good your promise. I returned to find you. Ranguvar foe-seeker, I know not if you had any family, but you have two friends forever, Luke the warrior and Martin of Redball. I will carry your memories in my heart. Martin left the tall rock then, with the seas still booming in his ears as they broke against it. In all his life he never went back to that place. On the next ebb tide, the skiff Honeysuckle sailed away from tall rocks, bound south for Redwall. Skipper of Otters craned his head back, staring up into the pale blue summer morn. Bella, the badger mother of Redwall, waited patiently, already knowing what her burly friend's question would be. Of course, I can tell the squirrels to set up more scaffolding at the south end, Marm, but why, pray? Bella spread her paws wide as if the answer were obvious. Because summer is nearly done and autumn will soon be here. Sitting back on his powerful tail, the big otter shrugged. Huh. Afraid you've lost me, Marm. What difference will that make? Autumn always followed summer. Tis the way of the seasons. What's that got to do with scaffolding? Bella sat beside him, fiddling with the strings of her apron. Mayhap tis just a foolish fancy of mine, Skip but I'd like to see the south gable built right up as far as it will reach. According to Abbas Germain and Martin's plans, that's where the weather vane will be, at the highest point. Columbine approached them and sat down, unfolding a clean white linen cloth to reveal a scone still warm from the window ledge where it had lain to cool. Taste that and tell me what you think. Breaking it in two, she gave them a piece each. Bella inspected the pastry, sniffing it appreciatively. Smells wonderful. I can see chopped nuts and bits of crystallized honey in there. But tell me, why is the scone pink? Because it's a red ball abbey scone, the pretty mousewife explained. I used wild cherry juice in the mix to give it the color of our walls. I plan on making them in the shape of the sandstone blocks we've used to build our abbey with. Do you like them, Skip? The otter had bolted his piece in one great mouthful, and now he picked crumbs from his whiskers and nibbled them. Very tasty, Columbine Marm, exceeding nice. But you're going to need a big oven to bake them big as sandstone blocks. Columbine gave Skipper a playful shove. Oh, you great puddin-headed river dog! They'll only be little scones baked in the shape of the big stones. 
the otter chieftain scratched his head. Aye, Marm, seems I can't get a thing right today. Do you know why autumn follows summer, and that's why the squirrels must build more scaffolding, so that we can build the south gable end up to its peak with a weather vane atop? Cause I'm blowed if and I do, old puddin' Ed that I am. Columbine hugged Bella's huge paw. Oh, what a lovely, wonderful idea. Our south gable built high with a weather vane sticking up on it. When my gonf comes marching down the path with Martin and Denny and Trimp, why, they'll be able to see it from a great distance. How nice! A slow smile spread across Skipper's face as the reason for Bella's request dawned upon him. Ha-ha! So that's it! Swoggle me, Rudder! Why didn't I think of that? He fell backward as Bella and Columbine tugged his footpaws, chuckling aloud as they chorused together, "'Cause you're a great, puddin-headed old river dog!' Bella made the announcement right after breakfast. It was wholeheartedly supported by all the creatures of Redwall. Lady Amber added to the excitement. "'An excellent idea. I'll get my squirrels to work straight away on the scaffolding. Though twill take most of the day erecting it up on the south end, so here's what I suggest. Friends, you've worked hard and long all summer.' Why not have a day's rest? Perhaps a picnic by the pond can be arranged for early evening. We'll have finished the scaffolding by then, so we'll be able to join you. First thing tomorrow, every beast can pitch in, and we'll really go to work and top off that south gable. How's that? Rousing cheers greeted the Squirrel Queen's scheme. Ferdy and Cogs, the hedgehog's cellar keepers, trundled barrels, kegs, and casks out of the main abbey door onto the lawn. Baby Gauntlet was waiting with his gang of divins, all armed with wedge stones and prodding sticks. Cogs narrowed his eyes. What are you up to, Gauntlet, you little wretch? Gauntlet waved his barrel-prodding stick dismissively. You and Ferd go now, Cog. Us take these barrels down to a pond. Not worry, us good barrel rollers. Coggs exchanged glances with his twin brother. What do you reckon, Bertie? Shall we let him? Bertie smiled at the Dibbins, who were dancing about and waving their sticks eagerly. Aye, they got to learn sometime, I suppose. But roll that big barrel of strawberry fizz slow now, Gonflet, and go easy with those firkins of elderberry wine. And the rest of you, stay behind the barrels all the way. Don't go running in front. We don't want your mamas after our blood cause you've been run down by some keg or cask. Bella walked by, followed by a group of red wallers carrying canvas and poles. We'll make a good lean to, the badger mother was saying. It'll provide shade for the food and the elders can rest there. Mayberry, will you and Catkin get a trolley, line it with blankets, and fetch Abbas Germain down to the pond? Go easy with her, please. Remember, she's very old and frail. Mayberry and Catkin, the two otter maids, bobbed curtsies to Bella and trotted off, feeling very important. Columbine supervised the kitchens, bringing order and calm to the bustle of cooks and helpers. Clear those window ledges of scones now. We need room for the turnip and parsley flans to cool. Ms. Woodspike, would you like to top those blackberry tarts off with meadow cream? I don't know any beast who does it as neat as you do. Mr. Pitclaw, 
Could you help me to get the oat loaves out of the ovens, please? Oh, and tell your moles we need more charcoal to heat that back oven for cheese and mushroom plans. No, don't worry about your deeper and ever pie. I'll watch it while you are gone. Now let me see: strawberry shortcake, rhubarb crumble, leek and onion turnovers, deep apple pie. Is that everything? Oh, dearie me, I've forgotten the salad. A fat, bewhiskered bank bull broke in on Columbine's musings. Never fret, missus. I been chopping salad and mixing it since hard after breakfast. Tis just about made. Kirby, did we remember to pick some fennel? A jolly-looking mole dug both claws into his apron pocket, rocking back and forth as he announced, "Er, you may have forgetted Ethaniel, sir, but I ain't. I girtly likes my salad well fennelled, er, I." Beamingly, he pointed to a sizable pile of fennel. Lady Amber stood high up on the south gable, heading the line of squirrels passing up thick yew scaffolding poles to others, with knives held in their teeth and lengths of stout cord draped over their shoulders. They chatted away nonchalantly, clinging by tails and paws from their perilous positions. Below them, the lawns of Redwall Abbey looked like a series of green kerchiefs. Chuck me that biggin with the forked top, Barco. Aye, that's the one. Ashtwig, grab this end while I tie it off to the main platform. Pass more cords up, will ye? Swift and sure, they toiled away with a clear blue sky above and a breathtaking void beneath them. Looks nice and cool down by that pond. They're putting a lean-to up. See? Aye, and look it. There's Miss Columbine and the others carrying trays of vittles from the abbey. What's that noise? My tummy, mate. Mmm, I can almost smell cheese and mushroom flans from up here. Hope they don't start before we get down. If you don't cut the gab and tie off that pole, we'll be up here come this time tomorrow. Shape yourself, matey. Mayberry and Catkin delivered Abbas Germain to Bella, who was waiting beneath the canvas awning. Both the young otter maids bobbed another curtsy together. Here she is, safe and sound, Miss Bell, snug as a bug in a rug, with all those cushions and blankets, Miss Bell. We was very, very careful with her, marm. Twinkle-eyed, the ancient abbess peered out of the trolley. Hmm, hmm. If they'd pushed me any slower, we would have stopped. Two snails passed us on the way. Would you believe? Both otter maids' lower lips began to tremble. Abbas Germain chuckled, nodding fondly at them. Mm-mm. Now don't fret, little maids. I was jesting. An old fogey like me couldn't ask for more gentle or better care than you two showed to me. Cheer up now. Bella ruffled the ears of both affectionately. That's why I sent them. Mayberry and Catkin are my two best and most trusted helpers. Run along now, you two. Smiling and curtsying, they prepared to skip off. Thank you, Miss Bell. Nice to be of service to you, and you too, Mother Abbess. Just call if and you needs us. Germaine was a bit warm. She shrugged off the blankets as she watched the two otter maids looking for others to assist. Such good little things, Bella. A credit to Redwall, eh? I'll say they are. They're both Skipper's granddaughters, you know. I was only saying to him the other day, "Yah, look out!" 
every beast out of the way. Amid squeaks of dismay and a great bumping and rumbling, Bella seized both Abbas and Trolley. Heaving them up in her strong paws, she dashed from the lean-to, not a moment too soon. Gonflet and his gibbons had let Cogs and Ferdy's cellar stock get away from them. Down the slope a thundering stampede of kegs, barrels, firkins, and casks leaped, bounced, and spun. In their wake came Gonflet and his gang of little abbey creatures, hallooing and whooping wildly. Bella ducked, covering the abbess with her body as a keg of penny-cloud cordial bounced and whizzed by overhead, missing the badger's ears by a whisker. In a trice the lean-to was leveled, flattened to the ground. In a resounding boom of splashes, the picnic drinks in their oaken containers hit the pond's surface, drenching every beast within range in a cascade of pond water. Dripping from ears to tail, Bella turned to the saturated gang of Dibbons. Gonflet grinned from ear to ear, pointing with his stick at the array of floating barrels bobbing about in the pond. All go too fast to stop, Miss Bell. But pond keep the drinks nice and cool, I think. Bella could not be angry in the face of the little fellow's irresistible charm, though she hid a smile and tried to sound stern. I knew a young mouse one time who was just like you, a scamp, a rascal, and a complete pickle. Gonflet pawed water from his eye, wrinkling his nose as he stared up at the big badger mother. What was him name, Miss Bell? The huge striped muzzle lowered until it was level with Gonflet's face. If I recall rightly, his name was Gonf. This sent the tiny mouse off into tucks of laughter. Waving his stick, he raced off with his dibbon gang, shouting, Hee-hee-hee! Just wait till I tell my daddy! You a scamp! Rascal! Pickler! At what Miss Bell called you! Hee-hee-hee! <laughs> Creakily, Abbas Germain emerged from the swath of blankets and cushions in her trolley. She began sorting out poles from the pile of collapsed canvas. Hmm-hmm... It's some long season since I built a lean-to. Lend a paw here, Bella. Come on. The badger mother sighed as she dragged the canvas aside. Gonfalon was right, though. The pond will keep those barrels nice and cool on a day like this, Mother Abbess. That evening the picnic was a huge success. Lady Amber and her squirrels skipped nimbly down the scaffolding, navigating the sheer walls as if they were on level ground, singing as they descended. The dull old ground is not for me, I can't stand it somehow. Leave me in a good stout tree upon a knotty bough. Tis hey-ho, and up we go, above the ground we dwell, where every leaf and twig we know, and every branch right well. A squirrel, a squirrel so nimble, can climb most anywhere. A tail in a tree is a symbol that I'm at home up there. So ash, oak, rowan, or pine, stately elm or beech, they're all fine, they're all mine, they're all within my reach. While the red wallers made merry, otters fished the barrels of drink from the pond. Gonflet and his dibbon gang had every beast roaring with laughter as they performed a dramatic reenactment of the barrel incident. Skipper held his sides to stop the making, 
tears of helpless merriment streaming from his eyes as a small mole, acting a barrel of dandelion and burdock cordial, tumbled downhill into the pond. Columbine hauled him out and attempted to give the tiny creature a strict lecture, but was unable to do so because she collapsed laughing. Lanterns were lit at the pond's edge when evening shadows deepened, the still water reflecting their glow. Mayberry and Catkin performed a graceful dance to the accompaniment of Ferdy and Cogs on drum and fiddle, playing a time-honored favorite called Bide in the Rushes. Columbine left off serving drinks and sat eating pensively. Abbess Germain watched her closely. An acorn for your thoughts, my dear. Columbine recovered herself as Gauntlet hurled himself into her lap. What? Oh, er, sorry, Mother Abbess. I was in a bit of a daze. I was just thinking how much I miss Gaunt. Martin and Denny, too, of course. I wish Autumn would hurry and they'd return to Redwall. Gauntlet yawned and looked up at his mother. I want my daddy. When it be Autumn, Mama? The dancing had stopped and all eyes turned on Columbine. Gauntlet's lids began drooping as she stroked his head and softly recited an old poem. Round the seasons slowly turning, faithful as the stars and moon, summer fades, the earth is yearning, softly whispering, autumn soon. Drape the woods in mist one morning, now small birds have learned to fly. Mother Nature's gentle warning, see green leaves turn brown and die. In old orchards on the bough, fruit hangs russet, red, and gold. Purple scarlet berries now, all the rambling hedgerows hold. Hazel, beech, and chestnut, too, each displays its burden fair. They will shed them all for you, ere winter lays their branches bare. Fields of ripened grain and corn, swaying to a murmuring breeze, shaking off the dew of dawn when the eye sees signs like these. Summer's long hot days are ended, Harvest moons o'er stream and mere, tell the tale as twas intended, autumn's peaceful dream is here. Columbine shifted slightly, trying not to disturb her sleeping babe. Ooh, this fellow's getting heavy these days. Bella relieved her friend of the burden, scooping Gauntlet neatly up in one huge paw. She nodded knowingly. Little wonder... See, the pockets of his smock are full of wedge-stones to use on the barrels. Pity the scamp never bothered to use them. Abbess Germain could not help remarking, Think of the fun we'd have missed if he did. That one'll grow up a bigger rascal than his father. But you're right, Columbine. Redwall isn't the same without Martin, Denny, and your gaunt. Let's hope they'll make it back safely. Skipper paused a cheese and mushroom flan halfway to his mouth. Only beasts I'd be worried about, begging your pardon, Marm, are those foolish enough to try and stop em returning to our abbey. Huh, I'd sure enough feel sorry for those. Columbine topped the otter's beaker up with October ale. I suppose you're right, Skip, but my gaunt attracts trouble no matter where he is. I think he enjoys it. Abbess Germain patted the mousewife's paw. That's why he has two good friends, Martin, who has never been defeated by any beast, and Denny, 
full of caution and sensible mole logic. Don't fret yourself over those three, my dear. They could overcome anything. Bella winked at Skipper to lighten the evening's end and take Columbine's mind off worries about Gonf and his friends. Getting late, Skip. Come on, you haven't sung tonight. Send us all off to our beds with one of your funny ditties. The burly otter was only too willing to oblige. Good night, sleep tight. Don't forget to close the door. Good night, sleep tight. Use the bed and not the floor. Good night, sleep tight. Now don't let me hear you snore. Good night, sleep tight, and don't sleepwalk any more. Blow out the candle, turn down the bed, stop your yawning, sleepy head. Good night, sleep tight. Up the wooden stairs you creep. Good night, sleep tight. Put on your nighty. Go to sleep. Good night. Sleep tight. Stop that talking in your dreams. Good night. Sleep tight. Don't rip your sheets to smithereens. If a nightmare starts to show, and you wake me up, oh ho! Out the window you will go. Good night. Leaving the pond side, they trooped slowly back to the abbey. Bella in the lead, carrying the sleeping gauntlet. Columbine linking paws with the otter maids, Ferdy and Cogs pulling the trolley in which the abbess slumbered, followed by all the other beasts. Skipper brought up the rear of the procession, singing as quietly as his big gruff voice would allow. Every beast joined in, keeping their voices low, the catchy melody acting as a gentle march, echoing softly over moonlit abbey lawns. As they entered the main abbey door. A vagrant breeze ruffled Bella's fur. She shuddered lightly and whispered to Columbine, "Bit of a chill in the air just then." Gonflet, who was supposed to be fast asleep, opened one eye and grinned cheekily. "Soon be's autumn now, Miss Bell." Thirty-six. The honeysuckle skimmed southward like a playful swallow. Logalog Fermo proudly showing off her prowess as a skiff to the four creatures from the Arf ship. Martin sat in the prow, enjoying the sun, sea spray, and breeze, with his faithful friend Gonf alongside him. Together they listened to Trimp attempting to chide Chugger for his lack of respect to the elders. I'll not tell you again, Chug. Please stop calling our friends old grandpas. Tis not very good manners. Cha! You don't know nothing. They good old grandpas for Chug. We making Laura skilly dust for 'em. Fulgrim and Denny had been appointed assistant cooks, helping Chugger to cook skilly and duff. They were on his side. Master Chug ain't doing no harm, Missy. Ain't that so, Sir Fol? Aye, let the little tyke be, Miss. He ain't never had a grandpa. Har, now he's got four of 'em. Tramp appealed to Berg and his friends. Please forgive Chugger. I hope he hasn't offended you. There, there, don't fret, young gal. What? He can call us blatherface bloaters as long as he keeps feeding us. Jolly little rip, ain't he, Berg? Aye, and seeing as we've got no families of our own, tis nice to be chosen as grandsires by him. Ahoy there, Captain Chug! Is our skilly and duff ready yet? The small squirrel gave his concoction a final stir and licked the ladle. Nodding brusquely, he issued orders.
Skilly Duff Cookard now. Mr. Fole, Mr. Din, give old Grandpa some first. Miss Trimp, you serve the rest of my crew. Martin and Gonf had difficulty keeping straight faces as they accepted their bowls from Trimp. The hedgehog maid was quietly seething. Bush-tailed little villain, who does he think he is? Issuing orders to me as if I were some sort of lackey. Martin blew upon his spoon as he tasted the food. Hmm, he does make great skilly and duff, though. What do you think, Gonf? Never tasted better, matey. Do you reckon Chug could adopt us as old grandpas? No, we're a bit young for that. Why don't we apply to be uncles, like Fulgrim and Denny? Trimp stamped off to serve the gooasome shrews, muttering, I don't know. Every beast aboard this boat has got that cheeky-faced villain spoiled rotten. Chugger's latest order interrupted her rebellious musing. Find more bowls for the shoes, Miss Trimp. Trimp turned on Chugger, paws akimbo, shouting shrilly, Yes, sir. No, sir. Three bags full, sir. Perhaps you'd like me to scrub the decks and polish the oars. Chugger's reply left her speechless. No, no, do that later. Just stop shouting for now. My old grandpas are going to take naps. Hush your noise now. It was some days later, and the weather was getting noticeably warmer. Fermo steered the honeysuckle closer inshore, hallooing the creatures standing paw-deep in the shallows. Dune Spike, old mate, how are you? Splashing about joyfully, the fat old dune hog chieftain hailed the boat. Sure, and I'm all the better for your asking, Fermo. Come ashore now and rest your old fur. Willing paws helped haul the honeysuckle above the tide line. Murpho and a gang of young male hedgehogs fell over each other, assisting Trimp ashore. Faith and fortunes, Missy, but you're looking grand, grand, prettier than ever, though I says so myself. Trimp grabbed an oar and vaulted over them onto the sand. Aye, and still well able to take care of myself, thank you. Martin seized Dune Spike's paw and pumped it heartily. Greetings, Chief. You're looking very well. True, true. I'm getting younger by the day. Plump as a pear and brisk as a bumblebee. Well, now, come on up to the dwelling and loosen off your belt. We've been watching out each day for a glimpse of your grand little boat. Sure, and the cooks are roasting the paws off themselves to make ye a grand old supper. I think we'll even be able to fill Gaunt's belly tonight. How you doodling there, mouse thief? Gaunt fell into the dune hog's speech mode. Sure, and if and I look half as grand as yourself, then I'm twice the mouse I used to be, sir. Linking paws and chattering away happily, crew and dune hogs made their way into the sand hills and entered the cunningly disguised dwelling house. Bo and his friends were quite impressed by it all, and the hare expressed his admiration to all the young hedgehogs while shielding Trimp from them. I say, what a super wheeze! A jolly great place like this inside a sand dune, what? Well done, you chaps! Top marks! One of the young males was winking slyly at Trimp. Sure, and I'd forgotten how pretty ye are. A hog had traveled ten rough country leagues and not see the likes of ye. I'll wager you could charm the stars out of the skies with just a flutter of those eyelashes. Bo pretended to think the dune hog was talking to him. He tweaked the creature's ear sharply. 
Mind your manners, sir. We haven't even been introduced, what? Though you seem jolly perceptive for a hedgehog. Mind you, I do strike quite a handsome impression on most creatures. The Honeysuckle's crew found that the dune hog hospitality was not lacking. For supper, they dined on a fine leek and potato soup, followed by mushroom, radish, and seafood stew, with an enormous fruit trifle for dessert. After that, they sat about drinking cordials and seafoam ale while they were entertained by a spine-tussling exhibition, some lively dune hog reels and jigs, and various poems, recitations, and ballads. Trimp sat with a group of hog maids, and they all flirted outrageously with the young males, who danced and spine-tussled to vie for their attention. Martin sat with Dune Spike and Fermo, watching them with amusement. Fermo gestured toward them with his tankard. Don't you wish you were their age again, chief? Dune Spike shook his great head until the spikes rattled. Away with you, indeed I do not. They're completely mad, all of them. I'd sooner have vittles and drink any day. Martin gave Dune Spike a friendly shove. You old fogey, look at them. They're young and happy with not a care on earth. Good luck to them, I say. Eh, Fermo? The Guasim chieftain nodded his agreement. They don't have our problems, mate. We've got to figure how to get a boat of the honeysuckle's size up a waterfall and past a pine wood full of painted savages. Aye, and even when we get by that lot, we'll still be battling upstream against the current. It is going to be difficult, to say the least. Dunespike poured himself some cordial. Then why do you not find another route? Huh, easy said, chief. But is there another route? Hmm, let me think. Ah, uh, now, what about North Fork? Fermo stared over the rim of his tankard at Dunespike. North Fork? Does it run up this far? Sure it does and all. Two days of a good pause log from here. Fermo called across to Fulgrim. Ahoy, mate! Do you know the North Fork stream? The scarred otter left off contending for the remains of the trifle with Bo. Aye, I know North Fork stream right enough. No, I never traveled right up it. I was reared at the southern end of that stream. It's where my holt is at. Fermo thumped the rush mat they were seated on. Of course! It joins up to the stream we sailed here on, about three days down from my tribe's summer camp. Just one thing, though. How are we going to get the honeysuckle overland to the North Fork stream? Dunespike shrugged his powerful shoulders. And how else but to carry it? Sure, me and the Dunehogs will lend a paw to do the job. A fine lot we'd be if and we couldn't help out. That's what friends are for. Martin clasped paws with a good old hog chief. And you surely are a great friend to us, sir. Dunespike's huge frame shook with merriment. Sure, and I wouldn't risk being anything else to a warrior who can wield a sword like you, Martin of Redwall. By first light next morning, they were all down on the beach. Dunespike had slept on the idea and awakened with a brilliant solution. Martin and the crew stood on one side, watching as the hedgehog chieftain put his scheme into action. Two sets of wheels on axles were trundled out from somewhere in the dunes. Dunespike called out orders. Here now, Murpho, you and the lads attend to them wheels. Martin, get that grand old crew of yours on the starboard side, and I'll take the port side with my crowd. Paddles and stout poles were thrust between the skiff's flat bottom 
to emerge the other side. Every beast took firm hold of them. Doonspike roared out, Are you fit now? Lift! The honeysuckle rose clear of the sand as they lifted. Murpho and the young ones rolled the wheels in, forward, and aft. Ah, that's grand. Let her down now. Easy. Two dune hogs with big staples and mallets fixed the axles in position beneath the boat. Denny whispered to Trimp, Her, her, ye boat what don't sail on he seas. I likes it. Yon dune spiker be a girtly intelligent og, bry. There was some minor trouble getting the wheeled vessel through the dunes and off the soft sand. However, once they hauled her up through a low gap in the cliff top, the going was good. It was fairly flat scrubland, grass and hard-packed earth, and there was no call to use the pulling ropes. With her sail up, the honeysuckle caught the wind and rolled along unaided. Bo and the other three elders were aboard her with Doonspike, Trimp, and Chugger. The rest trotted alongside, sometimes even having to tug on the tow ropes to slow the honeysuckle's progress. Gonf laughed. Just think, if and there was no woodlands twixt here and Redwall, we could have sailed home by land. Later in the afternoon, the land began a mild uphill slope, and the breeze died completely. They split into two parties, one forward pulling on the tow ropes, the rest at the stern pushing. But the skiff still ran fairly smooth on its wheels, so it would have been no great effort were it not for Chugger. The little squirrel had attached a gull feather to a pole and he dashed back and forth, tickling the pullers and pushers mercilessly and haranguing them. Come on! Come on! Run! Make her go plenty faster, or Captain Chug tickle you tails off! Tramp decided she had put up with enough. Looping a line about the tormentor, she relieved him of the pole and tied him to the mast. Chugger set up an immediate clamor. Aye, Captain! Let me go! Out me, old grandpa's! Mr. Din, Mr. Fool, help Chug. But no help was forthcoming. Quite the opposite, in fact. Bo took hold of the feathered pole and began tickling his adopted grand squirrel. See how you like it, sir, what? Silence now, or I'll jolly well tickle the tip of your nose and make you sneeze all season. Now, what you say to that, Captain Chug? Chop a you tail off, Bo, and Chug not make you any no more skilly duff. Bo slumped down beside Berg, nodding sadly. No skilly and duff, eh, what? Ah, well, such is the fate of a blinking mutineer, old chap. That night they set up camp in the lee of a wide stone outcrop at the base of a hill. Log-a-log Fermo sat looking at the honeysuckle speculatively. You know, Gonf, I think I'll leave those wheels on her. Won't do no harm to a flat-bottomed craft like the honeysuckle. Ah! Wait till my missus sees our new boat. She'll be proud as a toad with a top hat. Fulgrim had been to the top of the hill to see what the going would be like next day. On his return, the otter called Martin and Doonspike to one side. I think I just spotted trouble the other side of this hill. The warrior mouse became instantly alert. What sort of trouble, Fulgrim? Bunch of ragtag vermin, foxes, stoats and the like. Martin was away uphill swiftly, sword in paw. Let's go and take a look. Bellying down, the three friends crawled over the hilltop. 
Below them, on the gorse-strewn plain, several small fires were burning. There was little need to investigate further, for by the light of a half-moon they could estimate the numbers of foe-beasts below. Doonspike had seen the same band before. They were sniffing round in our dunes last winter, but we covered our tracks well and got the young'uns safe inside the old dwelling. Sure, myself and some others put on our sheets and stilts and scared the blackguards off. What do you think we should do about him, Martin? Without hesitation, the warrior answered, We could defeat them in a fight, but there's no sense in that. I want every beast to reach their home safe. Listen now, I think I've got a solution to the problem. Skipper perched high up on the south gable, his footpaws firmly lodged in a roof-beam gap. From where he stood, the otter chieftain could see out over the countless acres of moss-flower wood to the east. He turned slowly, looking across the vast plain to the west. Rat me, rudder, what a sight! Now I know why birds are singing happily. Everything looks so different from up here. He shut his eyes momentarily as he caught sight of Lady Amber walking along the topmost scaffold pole as if it were a broad roadway. Marm, I beg you. Would you mind not doing that till I'm back on the ground? Something inside me just did a somersault. The Squirrel Queen leaped lightly down beside him. Sorry, Skip. I forgot there was a land-dweller up here. Is the weather vane ready yet? Nearly. Old Ferdian Cogs are doing as fine a job of smithian as I ever saw, Marm. Though Miss Columbine says there won't be a scrap of charcoal left in the kitchens to cook with. They're using the open hearth fire to heat the iron and beating it out on the stone floor. I came up here cause I couldn't abide the noise. Ding, bang, ding, bang. Me poor old head's still ringing inside. Lady Amber's manner was more practical than sympathetic. Don't tell me, Skip, you can't abide noise. Ha! Tis usually you who creates most of the noise round here with your big foghorn voice. As for heights... If you haven't got a head for them, I don't advise hanging round up here. You'll only make yourself ill. Why not pop down to the orchard and help the carpenters? That's far more peaceful. Skipper tugged on the pulley rope of the hoist. Good idea, Barm. The orchard it is. The hoist was merely a system of counterweights. Skipper stepped aboard a small platform and it descended slowly. On the way down, he was passed by the other platform, on which stood a squirrel with two blocks of sandstone going up. They waved to each other as the platforms passed. Where are you bound, Skip? Down to the orchard, matey, to lend a paw with the beams. Tell Girdle to load mortar on that platform when you get down. I'll leave one of these blocks on as a counterweight. A mole and four mice were waiting at the bottom, and they locked off the platform against a log protruding from the wall. The mole touched his snout in greeting. Them needin' more blocks oop there, Skip? The otter stepped from the platform. Not at present, Girdle. Tis mortar they want. Girdle and the mice began shoveling a mixture of sand, crushed limestone, and water onto the platform. It would enable the builders to cement the heavy sandstone blocks firmly into place. At the far corner of Redwall's orchard, the carpenters had set up shop. A pit had been dug so that they could cut planking with long, double-pawed saws, and there was a bench with vice, chisels, and mallets, as well as a fire with augers and pokers resting in it. These would be used to bore holes so the wood could be jointed with pegs. 
Seasoned trunks of elm, oak, beech, pine, and sycamore were stacked against the wall in piles. Skipper loved the fragrant smells of fresh wood and heaps of bark shavings. A fat, whiskery old bank bowl with a charcoal stick behind one ear and a long canvas apron glanced up from a pine log he was working on and nodded at the otter chieftain. Afternoon, Skip. You fancy helping me strip the bark off in this timber? It'll make good skirting boards for the upper dormitories. I like pine. Got a fragrance all of its own. Skipper found a spoke shave and began working on the other side of the log. Long pine slivers ran curling from his sharp blade, and Skipper sniffed fondly. You're right, Miglo. Tis a clean, fresh smell. I can feel it clearing me head up nicely. A dormouse popped her head up from the saw pit. Hello, Skip. How's it going on the south gable? I spotted you up there earlier. Huh, you wouldn't get me anywhere that high, not for all the nuts in moss flower, matey. Skipper blew off a shaving that had stuck to his nose. Aye, leave that to the squirrels and a gang of crazy mice and hedgehogs who likes that sort of thing. Well, I tell you, Marm, I was surprised how far they'd gotten along. Lady Amber says another couple of days should bring it to a peak. Then they can set up the weather vane. Miglo chuckled gruffly through his bushy whiskers. Amber's squirrels ain't setting up no weather vane. "'Tis Ferdy and Cogs who'll be doing that job. "'Ho, ho, ho! "'Wait till you see those two bulky old cellar hogs "'wobbling about up there. They "'Ain't looking forward to it, I can tell you.' Skipper smiled at the thought of Redwall's twin cellar hogs "'high on the south gable. "'No, nor would I fancy it.' Carrying a big earthenware jug and beakers on a tray between them, Mayberry and Catkin, the otter maids, awkwardly bobbed curtsies to all the workers. Miss Ballas said to bring you a cool drink, mint leaf, and rosehip cordial from the cellars. She said it had washed the sawdust down, sir. Miglo swigged off a full beaker in one go. Just the stuff. Colder and ice and very refreshing. Thank you. Skipper sipped his drink slowly, relishing it. The otter maids topped up his beaker. We didn't know you were a carpenter, Grandpa. He winked at them. Just shows you, me pretties. You don't know half the things your old Grandpa can do. Oh, yes, we do. We know lots of things you can do. Do you now? Like what? We know you can hide underwater in the pond when it is your turn to wash pots and dishes. Yes, and we know you can wake every beast when you talk in your sleep with your big, loud voice. And we know you can sup more hot root soup than any beast, and drink more October ale, and scoff more damson puddin'. The otter chieftain squinted fiercely at his two young granddaughters as he advanced on them. Ha-ha, me pretties, and did you know that I can clip the noses of little otter maids with me smoke shave? They fled squealing and giggling from the orchard. That evening it went cool suddenly. Standing on the outer wall ramparts of the abbey, Bella and Columbine watched the enchanting sight of summer's last evening. Streaked to the west with slim, dark cloud tails, the sunset was awesome. In the final moments, the skies turned deep scarlet on the horizon, ranging up through crimson and rose to a delicate pink. Above this, it faded to a broad band of buttery amber, 
with soft, dark blue pierced by the faint twinkle of early stars. Columbine let her breath out in a long, wistful sigh. I hope my gonf can see all of this beauty. Bella placed a paw gently on her friend's shoulder. I'm sure he can. I know he'll be thinking of you and the little one here at Redwall awaiting his return. A random thought caused the mousewife to cover her mouth, stifling a chuckle. Unless there's food to be had, of course. Gaunt would sooner gaze at a fruit pudding than a sunset. Bella joined in her laughter. Then I suggest we post a daily lookout on this wall from now on. No doubt we can accommodate his sense of beauty with a big apple pie. 37. A lively breeze stopped autumn's first day, starting with a gentle mist. The honeysuckle was positioned just below the brow of the hill, armed with slings and oars, and the crew and their dune-hog allies stood waiting. Fermo tested the wind direction with a damp paw. Couldn't ask for a fairer breeze, Martin, the warrior signaled to Fulgrim. Off you go, mate, and don't forget to raise a shout at the right moment. The smallest of the Guasim shrews was bent double, wearing a cape which Trimp had made for Chugger. He grasped Fulgrim's paw and toddled off over the hilltop, with the scarred otter adopting his old hunched hunting pose. Together they looked like a grandsire and his grandchild. A stringy-looking weasel was arguing with a ferret, disputing over a wooden skewer festooned with insect and moth carcasses which had been spiked there to roast over the fire. A motley collection of rats and assorted vermin watched them, knowing a fight was inevitable. As the weasel reached for the skewer, the ferret kicked him. Get your dirty paws off of me, vittles, long nose. The weasel was knocked forward, scorching his paw in the flames. He turned, snarling at his tormentor. Half of them are mine. Lift your paw to me again and I'll chop it off, greedy guts. Like a flash, a broad, evil-looking blade appeared in the ferret's paw. He aimed another kick at the weasel. You couldn't chop your way out of a daisy patch. Back off from those vittles. They're mine. The weasel shrugged as if admitting defeat. Picking up the sharpened skewer, whose end was on fire, he turned to the ferret. Ah, oh, what's a pile of squashed bugs to me? You have him. Bounding forward, he thrust the skewer hard into the ferret's gut. A shriek of agony rang out, and the ferret fell backward, dying, stabbed through his stomach. Callous laughter and coarse remarks greeted the cruel act. Ha, ha, ha! Something upset his stomach! Hee, hee, hee! Old Brango looks just like a bug on that skewer! Look at him wriggle! A fox, who had lost interest in the gruesome spectacle, happened to turn and look uphill. He caught sight of the two pitiful figures hobbling side by side. Oh, lucky day! Look what's coming this way, mates! Paws grasped blades as most of the vermin began inching toward the two unfortunate creatures, calling mockingly, Come and join us for dinner, friends! Aye, don't be scared! You'll have naught to be worried about soon. Ain't that right, mates? The two creatures halted, as if noticing the evil crew for the first time. Slowly they backed off uphill, crying piteously, 
Please don't hurt us. We're only poor travelers. Speeding up their advance, the vermin began to spread in an arc, trying to cut their quarry off. The poor travelers ran then, scampering uphill and yelling aloud, Help! Oh, help us, some beast! Help! Pulling a rusty axe from his belt, the fox ran after them. I saw him first. The skinny weasel dashed past him, snarling, First there, first served, Brushdale. As Fulgrim and the Guwasim shrew reached the ridge crest, they were yanked aboard the honeysuckle. Down the hill she thundered, the breeze billowing her sail full out. War cries rang around the hillside. Eulalia! Red Wall! Goramahogara! The vermin were taken completely by surprise. Denny whacked out with an orb, laying the skinny weasel out cold. Hard, round sling stones cracked against skulls, ribs, paws, and tails, filling the air like angry hornets in swarm. Heedless of the stupidity of their retreat, the vermin fled off downhill with the honeysuckle skimming behind them. Berg caught the fox by his tail and dragged him along, while Bo hung over the side belaboring him with an oar. You thoroughly whack! Despicable! Whack! Whack! Cad! A rat who was tripped by one of the forward oars leaped smartly up, only to be felled by Fermo, who from his position at the stern walloped him over the head. Onward plunged the vermin in their route, hotly pursued by a skiff on wheels, leaving in its wake a trail of wounded and senseless creatures. Finally, the remnants of the ragtag vermin band broke, running off in separate directions, but not before Doonspike lassoed one. The terrified ferret was dragged aboard. He lay quivering on the deck of the still-traveling craft, staring up into the fearsome, scarred face of Fulgrim. Resting his axe blade between the ferret's eyes, the otter growled in a menacing voice, I see I've got your attention, scumbrain, so listen hard. We'll be sailing these regions for the next couple of seasons, hunting down vermin and cleaning up the land. You're a lot of the first, ain't you the lucky ones? We're letting you live, so you and your cronies can spread the word round that we've arrived. You see that warrior with a nice sharp sword? He's our leader. Name a Martin of Redwall, a very fair beast. He believes in giving vermin a sporting chance. Then slaying him. Martin prodded the ferret with his blade tip. Up on your paws, bully. Come on. Trembling uncontrollably, the ferret rose. The honeysuckle had slowed down minimally, breasting another rise. Then she picked up speed, skimming downhill. Martin swung his sword up high. Jump or die! Yeah! With a pitiful wail, the ferret flung himself overboard. They watched him bounce and spin as he rolled downhill until a rock halted his progress with a juicy thud. The breeze made a hissing sound as it ran through Doonspike's stickles, and he clapped his paws happily. And isn't this the grand old way to be traveling? Sure I've not had this much fun since I caught a jellyfish on me spikes. Captain Chug, sir, do we throw out the anchor at lunchtime, or does eating on the move sound like a grand old idea to you? Chugger gave Doonspike his captain's scowl. What a jellyfish is! 
The hedgehog chieftain caught him and tickled Chugger until he broke down laughing. You're a jellyfish, you little Oma Dorm, a fat wee jellyfish. Chugger rolled about, unable to escape. <laughs> Help me, Mr. Foal. <laughs> I know a jellyfish. I only a little chug. <laughs> help, help. The honeysuckle did not stop for lunch. It kept on while the breezes favored progress. During the afternoon, the wind deserted the sails, and the skiff rolled to an easy halt at the fringe of a copse. Guasim Cooks discovered a small spring among the trees, where the water was cool and sweet. Apples, pears, and wild berries were plentiful. Lounging in the tree shade, the crew ate and drank their fill. Doonspike looked about admiringly. Murpho, me son, does this place not look grand to you? Aye, grand, da, grand tis, and a whole lot better than living midst old sand dunes. Aye, twould be, da, twould be so. Sure, we've got fruit to pick from the bough and berries to gather as we please. What would you say to living here? Oh, grand to be sure, da. We'd want for nothing. Doonspike cuffed his son's ear fondly. Well spoken. Take ten of the lads and start digging a good old cave beneath these trees. I'll send the rest back to the dunes for the babies and the elders. Would that be all right with you, Martin of Redwall? Martin was looking up at the sky and replied absently, Yes, of course it will, Chief, providing you show us where North Fork Stream lies. Sure, of course I will. What are you staring up at the sky for? Don't worry, it won't fall. It's been up there a long time. Martin spoke to Doonspike, though he was looking at Gaunt. Birds are starting to fly south. The autumn has come. The mouse thief watched until the birds were out of sight. We must remember our word, mate. Time for us to fly home. Following breakfast in the great hall of Redwall Abbey, all the creatures sat awaiting the allotment of daily chores. Bella, whose duty it was to apportion the work, was deep in conversation with Abbess Germain. Eager eyes watched the badger mother as Redwallers speculated on which way the roster would go for them. Hope I'm helping Ferdy and Coggs in the cellars again. Cellars are closed today. They've got to raise the weather vane on South Gable. I'm not going up there. Er, you wouldn't be allowed out there, sir. Only e squirrels be on South Gable to help with e vane. Hope I don't get picked as cook's helper again. Huh, they had me scrubbing pots all day last time. All talk ceased instantly when Bella rapped the table. Lady Amber and her squirrels will be assisting Ferdy and Coggs to raise the weather vane on the top of South Gable. There, see, just like I told thee. Bella paused, looking in the direction of the interruption. There was a muffled giggle, followed by respectful silence. She waited a moment before continuing. All other building work today will be suspended. Miglo, Mayberry, and Catkin... You are today's duty cooks. The whiskery old bank bowl winked at both otter maids, who wriggled and tittered excitedly before realizing the importance of their position and sitting up primly. Bella nodded to the three red wallers. Forget any cooking or baking for today. There's enough bread, 
scones, and pastry been readied overnight. Concentrate on a cold buffet, salads, fruit cups, and such. Skipper will take watch on the battlements for signs of our returning travelers. Without exception, every other beast within our walls is to go to the storerooms for sacks and baskets. Columbine, will you and Girdle see that ladders and sticks are available, please? Some of the elders began smiling and nudging one another, but the younger element looked puzzled. Abbess Germain allowed Bella to help her up onto the table. Then she waved her paws in the air and called out in a reedy quaver, Then tis all to the orchard for fruit harvest. Gleeful cheers greeted this announcement, followed by chaos. Red Wallers dashed to the storerooms, where Columbine was issuing sacks and baskets as fast as she could. Form a line there. Don't push. There's plenty for all. Gonfalet, take that sack off your head. Girdle, will you see that all divins are given berry trugs? Thank you. Passing out the small baskets to the little ones, the mole chuckled at their antics. Same be baskets, not sandals. Take em off any footpaws. Columbine was settling Abbess Germain down in a wheelbarrow full of soft moss beneath the shade of a spreading horse-chestnut tree. Both of them broke down laughing at the sight of Bella leading the band of pickers in a harvest dance, singing as she went. Clutching Columbine's paw, the ancient abbess chuckled, Oh, dearie me, and preserve my paws. It's like seeing a great boulder roll down a mountainside watching our Bella dance. Hee, hee, hee. Columbine skipped aside as Bella hurtled by. Ha, 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 maybe so, but there's those not even half Bella's age who can't keep up with her. Winding its way through trees and around bushes, the merry dance went on, with every beast singing their hearts out. Now go, good son and daughter, haste to our orchard fair, and gather in the harvest which lies awaiting there. Ripe apples, ripe apples are falling to the ground, as pears so sweet and juicy are lying all around. Keep singing, pretty daughter, until the work is done, so you don't eat the berries and leave your mother none. Blackberries, ripe cherries, don't bruise or break them, miss, for sweetness can be lost like a faithless lover's kiss. The gooseberry and green gauge are bittersweet, my son, and Damson has a heartstone you'll find before you're done. Enchanting, enticing, like wild grape on the vine. The maidens want to help you to let their paws entwine. So pick a berry, sing so merry, harvest time is here. Go skipping round our orchard, my son and daughter dear. Bella stood tall. Reaching a high branch, she pulled it down to her face and sniffed deep. Ah! Not so sweet as the smell of a good russet apple on the bough. Mmm, I could sniff em all day. Beneath her, a hogwife stood tapping her footpaw, sack held wide open and waiting. Beg pardon, Miss Bell, but could you leave off sniffin' and start shakin' afore it goes dark? Oops, silly old me, sorry. The badger gave the bough a mighty shake, releasing ripe russets in a shower. When she looked down, the hogwife was still tapping her footpaws, two apples impaled on her head spikes, another two on her back. Titch, titch, 
Miss Bell, marm, it would be a help if and you shook em into the sack. Columbine and Germain were picking red currants, the abbess keeping a curious eye on Gonflet. My dear, what is that little son of yours up to? He's supposed to be gathering raspberries, isn't he? Columbine could not help smiling as she watched the little mouse. He would fill both his smock pants with fruit, take a furtive glance left and right, then scurry off to empty his load into a truck hidden beneath the berry hedge. Hmm, just like his father, a real mouse thief. He's not happy unless he thinks he's stealing something, Mother Abbess. I'll have to turn him upside down and shake him before he goes to bed tonight. Otherwise, there'll be raspberries squashed around the dormitory for the rest of the season. Little pickle. He's a good worker, though. The harvesting was going well. Moles trundling off to the storerooms with laden trolleys as the fruit was picked and basketed or bagged up. At midday, the cooks borrowed three trolleys to bring lunch for the pickers. Mayberry and Catkin repulsed any advances on the food with frosty glances and severe words. Not a single bite until you've washed at the pond. Gracious me, look at those sticky paws. Away with you. Miglo gave them a whiskery grin. That's the stuff, missies. You tell em. Go on, you're the cooks. Tis up to you. Emboldened, the otter maid spared no beast from censure. Miss Bella, have you been picking apples with your nose? You can just go and wash your face this instant. Hmm. Shame on you, Mother Abbess. Tis up to you to set an example. Look at yourself. Red currant juice from tail to ears. Girdle, help her to get washed, please. Columbine's giggles were cut short as they turned their attentions upon her. Tis no laughing matter, Miss Columbine. Shame on you. Aye, woe upon you if and Mr. Gaunt was to see you now. We'll inspect those paws after you've washed them. It was a simple and satisfying lunch which had been prepared for the harvesters. Sliced apples, cheese, and fresh, crusty bread with new cider or cold mint tea to sip and strawberries with meadow cream for dessert. Columbine sat beneath the chestnut tree with her friends, still shaking her head and smiling over the bossy cooks. Honestly, I felt just like a naughty dibbon the way those two young snips ordered me off to the pond. The abbess sandwiched a wedge of cheese with bread. Me too, bless their hearts. They meant well, though. Bella snorted. Meant well, the little tyrants. They sent me back to the pond twice to wash my snout properly. Miglo had been eavesdropping, and he called across to them. Aye, but they're a credit to old skipper that they are. Suddenly, every beast started with fright as a loud cry rent the air. Red wall! Bella was on her paws in a flash, pointing upward. Look, they've raised the weather vane on South Gable. Every beast in the orchard raised their paws and returned the shout to the tiny figures high up on the abbey building. Red wall! Cheering broke out as the squirrel queen, Lady Amber, stood out, balancing on the cross pieces of the iron vane, swaying as a light breeze turned its metal arrow topspike. Ferdy and Cogs clung to the north and south struts, waving jubilantly to their friends below. As Columbine gazed up at the completed south wall, she hugged the abbess. Oh, they've 
done it, Mother Abbess. Isn't it beautiful? Germaine looked for as long as she could, then shut her eyes tight to stem the tears. At last, my Redwall Abbey. I never thought I'd live to see the dream become reality. Bella picked the abbess up as though she weighed nothing, sitting the ancient mouse upon her shoulder to allow her a better view. While Germaine was up there, Bella took advantage of her robe hem to wipe her own eyes. Three cheers for Redwall Abbey. May it stand as long as seasons change and the sun rises, my friends. Never were three cheers raised so joyously. Hurrah! 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 38. On a rare, boisterous autumn morn, two otters stood waist-deep in the waters where North Fork Stream merged with the main flow seaward. It was here in the swirl of currents that the finest water shrimp were to be found. Unstaking a long, tubular reed net, they hauled it carefully to the bank. The elder of the pair, a sleek, tough otter wife, instructed her half-grown son in the rudiments of his tribe's fishing tradition. Always haul the net in slow and easy, Jitty. I seen silly beasts lose all their catch many a time from rushing things. There now, look at our net, son, bulging with the little beauties. Tie the end off good and tight, that's it. Grinning from ear to ear, Jitty patted the well-packed net. Ha-ha! Waitle Chief Tungro claps eyes on this lot. I bet by next season he'll let me come here alone. The young otter had no time for further conversation. His mother knocked him flat into the cover of hanging willow fronds. Stifling his mouth with a swift paw, she lay beside him, peering upstream at the strange craft in the distance. Strike me, rudder. Will you look at that thing? I never seen nothing like it in these waters. Wait, I'd know that beast standing in the bows if and he was the last otter on earth. Come on, Jed, let's get the bad news back to Tungro. They hurried off southward along the bank, toting the loaded net between them with Jitty, like most youngsters, besieging his mother with questions. It was an otter on that boat. I saw him too. But why is it bad news for Tungro? Does he know the otter? Ha! Know him? I'll say he does. That's Fulgrim, his mad brother. I thought we'd seen the last of that un. Mad? Why is he mad? What did he do? Well, he used to go hunting vermin, and when he caught up with them, he'd... er... he'd... Never you mind what he did. Now keep up and don't drop that net or twill burst. The day was rather overcast though the sun showed at intervals between masses of gray-white cloud which the playful wind chased to the southeast. The honeysuckle rode at half-sail, Fermo steering her into the bank, which was crowded with otters. Trent stood alongside Fulgrim, watching him closely. My goodness, Fole, they've all turned out to welcome you home. See, there's your brother Tungro. Chugger launched himself from the mast onto his friend Fulgrim's shoulders. Cha! Otters not welcome you, Mr. Fole. No beast laugh or shout hello to you. Big long faces on em. Fulgrim settled the little squirrel on his strong shoulders. They got good cause not to be cheery, mate. My tribe fears me. I was naught but a load of trouble to em. Chugger growled. Grr! You not trouble, Mr. Fole. You 
matey. I chopper they tails off for you. Fulgrim slid over the side, still carrying Chugger. You sit up there and behave yourself now. Leave this to me. Otters parted ranks, fearing to be near the returning warrior. But Tungro waded swiftly forward. Clasping Fulgrim's paws tightly, he smiled into the heavily scarred face with great fondness. My brother, welcome back to the Holt. Come on, matey, bring your little friend. Bring all your friends. Rest and eat. The Holt was an enlarged bank cave, old and very comfortable, filled with beautifully carved furniture, the specialty of Tungro's tribe, who were master craftsbeasts and proud of their carpentry skills. Most of the tribe were still wary of Fulgrim, so he kept to the company of the Honeysuckle's crew. They sat on elaborately carved benches by the fire, dining on fresh hot root and water shrimp soup, oat farls, and a riverbank salad. Martin and Gaunt sat at a highly polished table with Tungro, who poured steaming blackberry and sage cordial for them while the cooks served their food. You and your friends have worked wonders with my brother. He is not the same savage beast, thanks to you, Martin. The warrior sipped his cordial gratefully. Don't give me the credit, friend. It was young Trimp and little Chugger who wrought the change in Fulgrim. Turning to Gaunt, the otter inquired, Why do you keep staring at me, mouse thief? The irrepressible Gaunt shrugged. The more I look at you, the stronger you remind me of some beast. Martin, would you say Tungro resembles Skipper? Aye, mate. Now you come to mention it, he does, very much. Tungro sat up at the mention of the name. Skipper? Is he an otter about old enough to be my father? Gaunt slapped the table. I knew it. You're related to him. A faraway look entered Tungro's eyes as he unfolded the tale. My grandmother gave birth to three sons on the same day, Bargood, my father, and his two brothers, River White and Warthorn. River White was much like my brother Fulgrim, a great fighter and slayer of vermin. Every beast thought him sick in the head because of his love for battle. He left our Hulk to go roving, and they say his tail was severed by foe beasts. An otter without a rudder, as you know, is like a fish without water. River White became a woodland dweller, a master of disguises, and he called himself Mask because of this. Travelers told my father that he had been slain, though where, when, and how it all happened, we never got to know. The other brother, Warthorn, was the biggest and strongest of all three. He left the Holt when he was scarce half-grown, because he couldn't ever buckle down to my grandfather's strict rule. Warthorn was such a natural leader that no beast used his given name. They nicknamed him Skipper, which is a title we give to Otter Chieftains. Anyhow, he went off to found his own tribe and hasn't been heard of since. When Bargood, my father, was alive, he'd look at me and say that I was the image of his lost brother Skipper. Then he'd turn to Fulgrim and say that he was the double of River White, his other brother. Martin leaned across the table and held Tungro's paw. Would you like to meet your uncle, Warthorn? Tungro nodded wistfully. I'd love to. I've heard so many tales about him. But he'd left this holt long before I was born. Do you think I ever could meet Warthorn? Certainly, my friend. Journey to Redwall with us, and you will.
A few days later, Logalog Fermo's large, fierce wife, Honeysuckle, was coping with her brood on the stream bank of their summer camp. Energetically, she scrubbed at the wriggling body of her eldest. Be still, you little worm. I'll teach you to roll about in that midden of a water margin, filthy shrew. Flicking out with a wet rag, she caught another young one, a stinging slap across the tail. Get your paws away from those scones, or I'll chop your tail off and bake ye in a pie. Go on, be off with you. Four tiny shrewmaids came dashing along the bank, squeaking, Mama, Mama, Daddy's coming in a big boat with a sail. Honeysuckle grabbed the nearest one. Just look at the bank mud on that smock, and it was clean on this very morn. Go and get a fresh one often your grandma, not one of those off the rock ledge. They ain't dry yet. So, the great roving logologs decided to come home again, has he? Fermo's deep, rich voice hailed her from upriver. Honeysuckle, me precious, I'm back, oh, do of me life. She scowled at Fermo, standing heroically in the prow of the skiff as it sailed inshore. Twirling the corner of a face cloth, she wiggled it down the ear of the little shrew she was attempting to clean up. Back at the end of summer, my darling, I'll return on the first autumn mist, O oh, jewel of the woodlands. What time do you call this to be getting back, you great useless lump of gawassum fur, eh? Gomp sprinted ashore with two shrews in his wake carrying a carved otter footstool and several strings of dune-hog quills and beads in various gaudy colors. He pointed to the nameplate on the skiff's bow, planting a genteel kiss on the shrew-wife's sud-covered paw. Oh, beauteous beast, your spouse brings ye gifts from afar, and all born on a fine vessel that carries your own fair name. He has done naught but pine for you night and day. Honeysuckle melted immediately in the face of Gaunt's gallantry. Fluttering her eyelids, she gave him a playful shove, which sent him sprawling in the shallows. Oh, Mr. Gaunt, you old flatterer, fancy calling that lovely ship after me. Whatever gave you the idea? The Prince of Mouse Thieves stood up, shaking water from his rear end, still spouting eloquently. "'Twas all your good Fermo's idea, my lady. "'We wanted to call the boat Gullywhacker, but he wouldn't hear of it. "'No, no,' says he. "'We must call it Honeysuckle, after my beloved.' Fermo gasped as Honeysuckle grabbed him from the prow "'and squeezed the air from his lungs in a mighty embrace. "'Ow, ow, I wronged you, me dear one. Forgive me. "'All these wonderful things you brought back for your wife.' Ow, ow, I could cut out me tongue for what I said about you. Fermo managed to gasp out in a stifled mutter. Cut your tongue out? No such luck, more's the pity. She dropped him in the shallows. What was that you said? Fermo scrambled up, thinking quickly. I said, cut your tongue out? No, no, my duck, you're far too pretty. Berg and his friends were greatly taken with the shrew-babes, but none more so than Bo. The gluttonous hare allowed the tiny creatures to feed him vast amounts of food at the noontide meal. "'Can you eat more plum pudding, sir?' "'Just try me, laddie. Shove it this way, what?' "'My mama make this salad, sir. Do you like it?' 
Rather, what a clever lady your mamma is. Fill my bowl up again. Here's a good little tyke. You like apple and pear turnover, sir? Like it? Steer it in my direction, you young tailwagger, and I'll show you whether I like it. End of side eight. Change side selector switch. This book is continued on the next cassette. Side nine, the Legend of Luke, by Brian Jakes. Continuing on page three fifty nine. Honeysuckle perched gingerly on the footstool, which she thought was a small chair, casting a jaundiced eye in Bo's direction. I'd hate to be standing next to that long-eared rabbit in a famine season. Where does he put it all? No thanks to you, Gaunt. You fetched him here, and that tribe of starving otters too. We'll soon be eating out of house and home. Gaunt tweaked the shrew wife's cheek slyly. Well, me beauty, you don't want vittles going stale in the larder, not while you're away on the nice trip that Fermo's planned for you. Trip? Fermo never told me about no trip. Aha! That's 'cause he wants to surprise you, pretty one. How do you fancy a nice boat trip to Redwall Abbey? Ow, ow! Bless his good heart. Is there nothing Fermo wouldn't do for me? What a wonderful, thoughtful beast he is. Fermo waggled a paw in his numbed ear. Oh, give your whaling a rest and pass the beer. What was that you said, Fermo? Log a log. I said. My love's unfailing. Nothing but the best for you, my dear. Squeaks of fright from the little ones caused Martin to leap up, sword in paw. A dark shadow circled overhead, suddenly dropping like a stone into their midst. The great goshawk, Crar Woodwatcher, folded his wings and bowed courteously. Oh, joyous day! Thou hast returned to my fiefdom, Prince of Mouse Thieves. And thou too, Martin, warrior of Redwall. Gaunt nodded formally with appropriate regal disdain. Lack a day, sirrah! Have thou a care, landing in such manner mongst the babes of Fermo, our faithful vassal? Crar lowered his beak to the ground in the face of such royal displeasure from the prince of mouse thieves. Alas, twas not my intention to affright the babes thus, prince. My hasty landing was prompted by a desire to be in company with thee and thy noble beasts once more. Martin allowed his footpaw to touch the lethal beak. Crar did not see him exchange a wink with Gaunt. I pray you, Prince Gaunt, be not wrathful with our friend Wood Watcher, for we know him to be a good and honest bird. Tarry with us, Crar. There are vittles a plenty here. The huge, fierce goshawk awaited Gaunt's decision. Sensing he had pushed his luck far enough with the dangerous bird, Gaunt smiled magnanimously, patting the ground at his side. I spoke in haste. Come, sit thee beside me, my faithful friend. It comes to my mind that one who battled with a swan in our defense must surely be worthy of our hospitality. Honeysuckle nudged Fermo, almost knocking him over. Do you hear that? Why don't you learn to speak like Gaunt and Martin? Proper gentle beasts they are. Bo sat watching in open-mouthed admiration as food vanished down Crar's beak at an alarming rate. 
Great seasons of starvation. Do you suppose that chap will be able to fly when he's finished scoffing? What, what? Trent could not help teasing the hare with a wry comment. I wonder if the Redwall Abbey kitchens will have enough food to keep up with the both of you. Denny shook his head at the hedgehog maid's observation. Bry, miss, I hadn't thought of that. Them two'll keep ye cooks girtly busy. I'm certain of that. Traveling upstream was not difficult as they traced back their original path. Tungro's tribe were strong swimmers, and they weaved in and out of the growing flotilla of shrew log boats surrounding the honeysuckle, lending strong paws wherever they were needed. On a lazy golden afternoon, Gaunt lay stretched out beneath the stern awning, tossing hazelnut pieces in the air and catching them in his mouth. Martin was napping nearby, whiskers gently twitching against a curious midge bent on investigating his face. A fragment of nut, which Gaunt had missed, bounced off Martin's nose, and he opened one eye slowly. You mind not disturbing me? It's not often I get the chance of an odd snooze. Gaunt aimed another piece of nut at his companion. Snooze? How can you talk about snoozing, mate? We're nearly home. I'll be seeing my columbine soon. Ha <laughs> ha! And that gauntlet of mine. Wonder if he's grown at all. Martin stared up at the changing leaf patterns, blinking as the sun traced through, blurring the edges. Oh, I imagine Gauntlet will be tall enough to cause us more trouble, young scamp. Hope the work on our abbey has progressed without too much bother. I bet Bella's missed us, though the kitchen crew will probably be glad you're gone. Pies can lie cooling on window sills in safety. Ha! Ah, not with my Gauntlet running loose they won't. In one smooth motion, Tungro slid aboard the skiff. He whispered urgently to Martin. We're due to run into trouble, I think. The warrior lay still, though his paw was seeking his blade. What makes you think that, friend? Well, I can hear a waterfall somewheres up ahead, but that ain't really it. Some beasts are following us. I saw movement in the trees, ripples in our wake, and I think they're up ahead of us, too. Immediately Martin arose, sword in paw. Sounds like they've got us surrounded, eh, Gonf? You two stop here. I'll go and take a peek. Gonf crawled out on deck and took stock of the situation. Tungro's otters were in the water, guarding the shrew log boats, which Fermo had grouped around the honeysuckle. Only the stream sounds and the distant waterfall broke the ominous silence. Suddenly the soft autumn noontide had grown dangerous. Krar perched upon the honeysuckle's prow, watching keenly. Fulgrim had his axe out and was standing in the stern of the back log boat. Fermo and his Guasim crouched, rapiers drawn. Gonf held up his paws, signaling every beast to wait. His eye caught a movement in a tree-shaded shallow. Then the mouse thief relaxed, waving his paws for the crew to stand down. He shouted then, his voice cutting the stillness. Ha ha! I'll bite your tail off and stuff it down your ear! A gruff voice responded from the shallows. Surrender, Mousy! You're surrounded, mate! Gonf gave a broad wink to the Guasim shrews. Surrounded? You great lard barrel, stay there! I'm coming to surround you, you forty-faced frog flusher! Hurling himself from the deck, Gonf hit the water with a loud splash and threw himself onto the creature, which sped out from the bank. 
Streamwater boiled in chaos as the pair met, roaring and bellowing. Garraway Bullo, you bang-tailed river dog! I knowed it was you all along. Take that! Whoopery who, Gonfo! Don't try to fool me! You were scared out of your mousy wits. Admit it! Scared? I've been scareder of dead logs floating in the water. Only thing I'm scared of is that you won't have supper ready, you whiskery, water-wet puddin' walloper! Yelling with delight, Fulgrim and Tungro dived into the water. Eddie Garraway, tis us, your nephews! Oh, no! Lock the larders! It's Bargood's brats! Look at the size of them! My poor sister must have starved to death trying to feed them. Gonfo, get them off me! Otters of Garraway's tribe began popping up everywhere, shouting to the otters from Tungro's crew, who yelled back at them. Trimp looked to Martin, who was chuckling and shaking his head at their antics. It looks like the two tribes are related. We're surrounded by aunts, uncles, nieces, and nephews. Yah! A large pawful of soggy bank mud caught Martin full on the nose. Both groups of otters were so happy to see each other that they had started a mud fight. The remainder of the Honeysuckle's crew and Furmo's shrews did not hesitate. Laughing madly, they leaped into the water, joining in the fun. Right along the bank they fought, slinging heaps of sludgy brown mud at one another, slipping, sliding, and splashing as they pelted away furiously. Mud was everywhere. Swiftly aimed globs of the sticky goo splattered, sticking to fur, spikes, muzzles, paws, and tails. A practically unrecognizable hedgehog maid stumbled into what appeared to be a small, moving mud mound. <laughs> is that you, Miss Tramp? <laughs> of course it is. Who are you? Only a little chug. Take that. Yutch! You filthy imp, don't chuck mud at me. Throw it at those otters. They started it. <laughs> I throw muds at every beast. Here's some more for you. Whiz, splat, splotch, whop. Only Crar remained aloof perched on the skiff's prow, shaking his head in disgust at the undignified spectacle. Zounds, tis surely a day of fool's delight. These river dogs are a mad species, methinks. Yotch! A mud-covered bow stooped to gather more. Oh, well hit, Feathering Saul. Maybe that'll spoil a great pompous featherbag's appetite, what? Evening had fallen by the time both sides had wearied of mud-throwing and washed themselves off in the stream. Queen Garraway below took a last chance to grab her nephews and duck them soundly. Gaunt waited over. Ahoy! What's going on here? Trying to drown off your kin? That's right, Gonfo. Disrespectful rascals. I'll teach him to address me as Your Majesty, not Auntie Garraway. Well, friend, we'd best rest up a while and I'll have my crew rig blocks and tackles to pull your pretty boat over the waterfall. Tis the least I can do for such fighters. Fulgrim broke the surface, blowing water. Aye, cause if you don't, your name will be mud forever. 39. Milk-white mist covered the land up to the height of a tall elm tree. Early dawn silence lay over Redwall Abbey disturbed only by muted birdsong from afar. It was an hour after dawn. Skipper and Bella leaned on the north battlements, 
with Gonflet between them. Keeping a paw behind the little mouse, Bella cautioned him, Stay away from the battlement edge. Your mum will have a word or two to say if I let you fall. Gonflet stamped his paws in frustration, peering into the blanket of mist. When'll my daddy bees coming back, Skip? Skipper sat the tiny fellow on his shoulder, out of harm. Oh, don't you fret, mate. He'll come back soon now. Maybe later on, when the mist lifts. Gonflet tugged the otter's ear. Fwah! You say that all the time, every day, Skip. Columbine's voice sounded from the lawn below. Hello, Bella, Skip, where are you? Up here, Marm, west corner of North Wall. Columbine came up the wall steps carrying a tray, which she placed on the wall. Gracious, you three are up here early today. Surely there's not much point yet, with all this autumn mist about. Gonflet, shouldn't you still be in your bed? No, no, it's my turn to watch for Daddy. Miss Bell and Skip helping me. My daddy comes soon, you see. Columbine stroked her son's head fondly. Yes, I'm sure he will. Oh, look, the mist is turning gold. Come and have some breakfast now. The sun will burn all this mist away before long. Columbine stayed on the ramparts with them. Still surrounded by the cocoon of golden autumnal mist, they ate bowls of hot oatmeal with fresh berries and honey. With otters hauling and shrews pushing, the skiff honeysuckles slid over the ditch and out of West Mossflower's trees onto the path. It was the same spot where Trimp had met Ferdy and Coggs a season before. Gonf called through the mist to Martin, Hoist the sail, matey! Fermo shook his head at the mouse thief. What do you want the sail spread for, matey? We're in a fog! There ain't a feather of breeze nowhere's to stir your sail. Taking a brightly colored guassum headband, Gonf bounded about his brow. He climbed to the prow and struck a pose. You and the breeze can do what you like, Logalog, but if I'm coming home, then I'm going to arrive in style, eh, Martin? His friend joined him on the prow, drawing his sword and pointing forward in an equally heroic pose. Right, mate, let's go home. Fermo nodded admiringly at the pair. That's the way, crewmates. Come on, every beast, we'll grease the wheels, comb our whiskers, haul the ropes, and sing our friends home every bit of the way. You all know journey's end. Trimp, you take the top harmony. I'll do the baritone and gar away the bass. One, two, three. Away the honeysuckle rolled down the path, with her crew pulling the head ropes, two tribes of otters and a tribe of guassum crowding around to push. Martin, Donf, Denny, and Trimp, the original four who had set out from the abbey, all standing in the prow. Crar perched on the masthead, keeping a firm grip on Chugger, who still considered himself captain. Now the sun was beginning to thin the mist. They could see through it. As they rounded a bend by a grove of oaks, the singing suddenly died, and the honeysuckle rolled to a halt. Every beast looked up and saw Redwall floating above the golden mist like a vision from some wondrous dream, South Gable reared to the soft blue skies, with the weather vanes standing proud atop the dusty, rose-colored sandstone buttresses. It was a magical, breathtaking sight. For one awestruck moment they all stood, gazing dumbly, 
Then a mighty cheer broke out. Denny chuckled proudly. Through tears he was unable to check. Yonder be my home. Gauntlets sprang from Skipper's shoulders onto the northwest corner battlement, which was higher than the rest. Skipper held out his paws for the little mouse to jump back down again. Come off of there, matey. You can't see anything yet in this mist. Columbine sensed something. She looked up at her son. Gauntlet, what is it? I hear him, Mama. Listen. Daddy comes home. Listen. Faintly at first, but growing in volume, the sound of many beasts singing reached the wall tops. Bella scrambled up onto the battlement and laughed aloud with joy. There's a ship coming down the path. A ship. Would you believe it, friends? I see them. I see them. High into the sunny morning, the song rang out. Marching home, marching home, jolly friend, jolly friend, traveling on until our journey's end. So away with all your fears, smile with me, forget those tears. Though the road was long and dusty, we survived and arrived. Tramp, 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 lay your head down where you camp. It ain't your home or fireside. Tramp, 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 moorlands dry or forests damp. Sharing together, side by side, marching home, marching home, jolly friend, jolly friend, o'er each highland, around each river's bend, keep your chin up in the rain. Soon we'll be back home again. Though my paws are worn and weary, never fear. Oh, my dear, left, right, left, right, onward, mate, by day or night, lean on my shoulder now, old friend. Left, right, left, right. Gray the day or sunlight bright until we reach our journey's end. Marching home, marching home. Bella's shouts boomed like thunder over the lawns. Rouse yourselves, Red Wallers! They're back. Turn out the cooks. Open the gates. They've come back home. As Ferdy and Cogs flung the outer gates wide, Columbine allowed Gauntlet to dash off and meet the ship. He was swept aboard and lifted onto his father's shoulders. Ferdy and Cogs, still in their nightshirts, held the outer wall gates wide open. With all the creatures of Redwall pushing it, the skiff Honeysuckle sailed regally inside, halting in the center of the main lawn. Gaunt leaped down with Gauntlet still on his shoulders, swept Columbine up, and hugged her tight. Your prince of mouse thieves is returned, milady. Chaotic greetings broke out everywhere. Oh, Dinny, our faithful formal, how we missed you, my friend! Welcome home, welcome home. Er, thank ye, Miss Bell. I missed ye too, I so girtly that I be lost in for words, marm. Uncle Warthorn, it is you, ain't it? Well, rip me rudder, so tis. Don't tell me your bargain, sons. Look at the size of you both. What were you fed on? Boulders and logs? Forget Warthorn. Call me Skip. Here, come and meet Mayberry and Catkin. I thinks they're your cousins. But I'll let you know when I works it out. Bertie, Cogs, hello there. Tis me. Why, so tis, Miss Tramp. You look taller, I think. Aye, and pretty as ever. Good to have you back, me dear. I named Chug. Only a little squiggle, but lots of tubble. 
Me called Gauntlet. I lots of trouble too, Chug. Ahoy there, Skip. Whoopery who to you? Let go of those two bullies and shake your otterkin's paw, you old rascal. Ha ha! Gar away, bullo, me old heart's delight. Come here, me second cousin, twice removed and long-tailed on your grandma's side. Amid the shouting and laughing, as old friends were reunited and new ones made, a small stooped figure, leaning on a blackthorn stick, shuffled across the lawn. Every beast made way for Abbas Germain. Mayberry and Catkin hurried forward, assisting her to the honeysuckle's prow, where Martin stood waiting to meet her. Drawing his sword, he knelt, laying it at the old mouse's footpaws. She smiled. Martin of Redwall, you have returned to us, my friend. Aye, Mother Abbess, it was a good journey, a long and eventful summer. I am happy to be back at Redwall. The abbess Germain waved her stick at the strange craft standing in the middle of the lawn with a great goshawk perched on its prow. An eventful summer indeed, Martin. What is all this? That is Logalog Fermo's skiff Honeysuckle, named after his good wife, Marm. Yonder noble bird is Krar Woodwatcher, a valiant fighter and a great friend to us. These shrews are Guasim, and we have with us two tribes of otters, the tribes of Queen Garraway Bullo and the brothers Fulgrim and Tungro. Abbas Germain silenced Martin by raising her paw. Enough! You will confuse my old mind if you carry on further, Martin. Welcome, welcome to you all. Peace be with you. May you find happiness and joy within Redwall Abbey. If there is anything you need for me or my Redwallers, please do not hesitate to ask for it. In the brief silence which followed this announcement, the old hare confronted the abbess with a courteous, though slightly creaky, bow. Beauclair Feathering Salkos Fortingham at your service, marm. I was er, wondering what, er, if perchance, you maybe had er, a slight, mm, begging your pardon, of course, er, er. Germaine nodded. She understood him completely. I take it you are hungry, Mr. Cusfordingham? Bo nodded eagerly, still stammering. Quite! Er, uh, thank you, marm. I am mayhap a little, er, shall we say, er, peckish? Smiling broadly, the old abbess took his paw. I never knew a hare who was not hungry, sir. We have been preparing since the back end of summer for such an event, and we have plenty enough for every beast, including you, sir. Is everything ready, Bella? The badger mother nodded, pointing toward the orchard. By the time the mist has risen completely, cooks, servers, cellar hogs, helpers, to your stations for the feast. A mighty cheer arose into the autumn morn as the red wall helpers hurried off to the kitchens for their trolleys. Paw in paw, all the guests strolled off behind them, chatting animatedly at the prospect of red wall hospitality. A feast, eh, what? Hope there's enough for all this lot, what? Er, sir, you ain't never been to a red wall feast. There be enough good vittles to keep twice this year number a-goin' for a full season. Hurry. Ahoy, Ferdy, 
Wait till you see old Crar take to the vittles. That bird can make you look like a dib in a table. We'll see about that, Gonf. What about yon hare? Oh, don't even ask, matey. His name should have been Famine, not Feathering Saul. Don't sit next to him. I sit by you, Gonflin. We eat everything up, eh? Oh, yes. But later, Chug, come with me. We pinch up pies off the windowsills. Stay still coolin'. Hee-hee. <laughs> Looks like you got double trouble there, Miss Columbine. You could be right, Skip. Treble trouble if you count Gonf. But better the trouble that we know, and at least they're home safe and sound. Grrr. Oh, marm. Ain't it a wonderful word. Epilogue Extract from the Journal of Germain, Mother Abbess of Redwall Abbey It is winter now, a time for sitting round the fire in cavern hole and storytelling on long, dark evenings. By the time next winter arrives, our abbey will be completely built. Never have we had so many welcome and useful guests. This beautiful desk I am sitting at was made by the tribe of Tungro, as is all our furniture. What wonderfully skilled craftsbeasts those otters are. His brother Fulgrim is to stay here and live with us. He and Skipper have become inseparable. Many of our guests will stay permanently. It gives me great joy. They are good, hard-working creatures. Tramp and Chugger are now part of Gaunt's family. How could they not be happy with two such as our Prince of Mouse Thieves and his lovely wife Columbine? Every beast here says that I still have many seasons in front of me. I hope so. Redwall is such a joyous place to be. I look forward each morning to breakfast with my close companions, Berg and Beau. I wish I could have gone sea-roving with them in my younger seasons. What adventures they have had! Martin seems to have regained his old zest for life. He is not the troubled warrior any more. It was a wondrous tale he had to tell, both of himself and his brave father Luke. It was also very sad at times. But does not sadness mingle with joy to make us grow fully into the creatures we are? Strangest of all, though, he showed me something from a beaded linen bag which belonged to his poor mother. It was a woven tapestry of his grandsire, who was also called Martin. The picture is of a mouse in armor, bearing a great sword. I was amazed. It looked like Martin himself, to the very life, though he said to me that it reminded him greatly of Luke, his father. Columbine has had a lovely idea. She thinks that the picture might form a centerpiece for a big tapestry, which would someday hang in Great Hall. When I look at the picture... I know it is our Martin. I think that he and his ancestors have always been warriors, champions, whose spirits exist to inspire good, honest creatures. Martin has also done a remarkable thing. He has decided to give up his sword and live a life of peace. He has done so much to help found our abbey that no creature could deny him the right to do this. The goshawk, Krar Woodwatcher, has hidden the sword where Martin directed him to put it. The only hint he gave of the great sword's location was to me and no other. These are his words. Above where autumn's mists do rise, where I beheld with mine own eyes, my dream, my vision, hovering there, one morn upon old moss flower's air. Then he said a strange thing to me which I will tell to you.
I stand here in this world alone. No kin of mine to take the sword, no son or daughter of my own, a bitter and a sad reward. But Redwall in its hour of need will bring forth one to follow me. To that one valiant indeed, I leave a warrior's legacy. Then he would talk no more of such matters. Now, if I want to find him, I have only to follow the sound of our abbey babes, the Dibbons, laughing and playing. Martin will be there, joining in with them. Gonf, too. They are both enjoying a newfound happiness, though I doubt that our prince of mouse thieves ever really grew up. Perhaps Martin is making up for the lost seasons of his youth. Who knows? It does every Redwaller's heart good to see him thus. Well, my friends, I am tired now. That is the privilege of an old abbess, burdened with so many long seasons. I will go down to Cavern Hole and sit in my big chair by the fire with a blanket on my lap. There I can listen to the songs and the stories, watch the young ones dance and play, drink some hot cordial and drift off into a warm sleep while winter reigns outside in the night. I won't say goodbye to you, because one evening you may drop by to share this good life with us. You know you are always welcome at Redwall Abbey. All you need to bring with you is a ready smile and an open heart. Germain, Abbess of Redwall End of The Legend of Luke By Brian Jakes Illustrated by Fangorn Read by Brian Kahn In the studios of the American Printing House for the Blind, Louisville, Kentucky, for the Library of Congress, June 2000 Published by Philomel Books a division of Penguin Putnam Books for Young Readers, 345 Hudson Street, New York, New York, 10014. Further reproduction or distribution in other than a specialized format is prohibited. If you found any cassette in this book to be defective, please place a rubber band or piece of string around that cassette for identification. Place it in the container on top of the front stack of cassettes.